Chapter 16 In the Hogshead Hermione made no mention of Harry giving defense against the dark arts lessons for two whole weeks after her original suggestion. Harry's detentions with Umbridge were finally over. He doubted whether the words now etched on the back of his hand would ever fade entirely. Ron had had four more Quidditch practices and not been shouted at during the last two, and all three of them had managed to vanish their mice in transfiguration. Hermione had actually progressed to vanishing kittens before the subject was broached again on a wild, blustery evening at the end of September when the three of them were sitting in the library, looking up potion ingredients for Snape. I was wondering, Hermione said suddenly, whether you'd thought any more about defense against the dark arts, Harry. Course I have, said Harry grumpily. Can't forget it, can we, with that hag teaching us. I meant the idea Ron and I had. Ron cast her an alarmed, threatening kind of look. She frowned at him. Oh, all right, the idea I had then, about you teaching us. Harry did not answer at once. He pretended to be perusing a page of Asiatic anti-venoms, because he did not want to say what was in his mind. The fact was that he had given the matter a great deal of thought over the past fortnight. Sometimes it seemed an insane idea, just as it had on the night Hermione had proposed it. But at others, he had found himself thinking about the spells that had served him best in his various encounters with dark creatures and death eaters, found himself, in fact, subconsciously planning lessons. Well, he said slowly when he could not pretend to find Asiatic anti-venoms interesting much longer, yeah, I... I've thought about it a bit. And? said Hermione eagerly. I don't know, said Harry, playing for time. He looked up at Ron. I thought it was a good idea from the start, said Ron, who seemed keener to join in this conversation now that he was sure that Harry was not going to start shouting again. Harry shifted uncomfortably in his chair. You did listen to what I said about a load of it being luck, didn't you? Yes, Harry said Hermione gently, but all the same, there's no point pretending that you're not good at defense against the dark arts, because you are. You were the only person last year who could throw off the imperious curse completely. You can produce a Patronus. You can do all sorts of stuff that full-grown wizards can't. Victor always said... Ron looked around at her so fast, he appeared to crick his neck. Rubbing it, he said, Yeah? What did Vicky say? Ho, ho, said Hermione in a bored voice. He said Harry knew how to do stuff, even he didn't, and he was in the final year at Durmstrang. Ron was looking at Hermione suspiciously. You're not still in contact with him, are you? So what if I am? said Hermione coolly, though her face was a little pink. I can have a pen pal if I... He didn't only want to be your pen pal, said Ron accusingly. Hermione shook her head exasperatedly, and, ignoring Ron, who was continuing to watch her, said to Harry, Well, what do you think? Will you teach us? Just you and Ron, yeah? Well, said Hermione, now looking a mite anxious again, Well, now don't fly off the handle again, Harry, please. But I really think you ought to teach anyone who wants to learn. I mean, we're talking about defending ourselves against v Voldemort. Oh, don't be pathetic, Ron. It doesn't seem fair if we don't offer the chance to other people. Harry considered this for a moment, then said, Yeah, but I doubt anyone except you two would want to be taught by me. I'm a nutter, remember? Well, I think you might be surprised how many people would be interested in hearing what you've got to say, 
said Hermione seriously. Look, she leaned toward him. Ron, who was still watching her with a frown on his face, leaned forward to listen, too. You know the first weekend in October's a Hogsmeade weekend? How would it be if we tell anyone who's interested to meet us in the village and we can talk it over? Why do we have to do it outside school? said Ron. Because, said Hermione, returning to the diagram of the Chinese chomping cabbage she was copying, I don't think Umbridge would be very happy if she found out what we were up to. Harry had been looking forward to the weekend trip into Hogsmeade, but there was one thing worrying him. Sirius had maintained a stony silence since he had appeared in the fire at the beginning of September. Harry knew they had made him angry by saying that they did not want him to come but he still worried from time to time that Sirius might throw caution to the winds and turn up anyway. What were they going to do if the great black dog came bounding up the street toward them in Hogsmeade, perhaps under the nose of Draco Malfoy? Well, you can't blame him for wanting to get out and about, said Ron when Harry discussed his fears with him and Hermione. I mean, he's been on the run for over two years, hasn't he? And I know that can't have been a laugh, but at least he was free, wasn't he? And now he's just shut up all the time with that lunatic elf. Hermione scowled at Ron, but otherwise ignored the slight on Creature. The trouble is, she said to Harry, until the Voldemort, oh, for heaven's sake, Ron, comes out into the open, Sirius is going to have to stay hidden, isn't he? I mean, the stupid ministry isn't going to realize Sirius is innocent until they accept that Dumbledore's been telling the truth about him all along. And once the fools start catching real Death Eaters again, it'll be obvious Sirius isn't one. I mean, he hasn't got the mark, for one thing. I don't reckon he'd be stupid enough to turn up, said Ron bracingly. Dumbledore would go mad if he did, and Sirius listens to Dumbledore even if he doesn't like what he hears. When Harry continued to look worried, Hermione said, Listen, Ron and I have been sounding out people who we thought might want to learn some proper defense against the Dark Arts and there are a couple who seem interested. We've told them to meet us in Hogsmeade. Right, said Harry vaguely, his mind still on Sirius. Don't worry, Harry, Hermione said quietly. You've got enough on your plate without Sirius, too. She was quite right, of course. He was barely keeping up with his homework, though he was doing much better now that he was no longer spending every evening in detention with Umbridge. Ron was even further behind with his work than Harry, because while they both had Quidditch practices twice a week, Ron also had prefect duties. However, Hermione, who was taking more subjects than either of them, had not only finished all her homework, but was also finding time to knit more elf clothes. Harry had to admit that she was getting better. It was now almost always possible to distinguish between the hats and the socks. The morning of the Hogsmeade visit dawned brightly but windy. After breakfast, they queued up in front of Filch, who matched their names to the long list of students who had permission from their parents or guardian to visit the village. With a slight pang, Harry remembered that if it hadn't been for Sirius, he would not have been going at all. When Harry reached Filch, the caretaker gave a great sniff, as though trying to detect a whiff of something from Harry. Then he gave a curt nod that set his jowls a-quiver again, and Harry walked on, out onto the stone steps, and the cold, sunlit day. Uh, why was Filch sniffing you? asked Ron, as he, Harry, and Hermione set off at a brisk pace down the wide drive to the gates. 
I suppose he was checking for the smell of dung bombs, said Harry with a small laugh. I forgot to tell you. And he recounted the story of sending his letter to Sirius and Filch bursting in seconds later, demanding to see the letter. To his slight surprise, Hermione found this story highly interesting, much more indeed than he did himself. He said he was tipped off you were ordering dung bombs? But who had tipped him off? I don't know, said Harry, shrugging. Maybe Malfoy. He'd think it was a laugh. They walked between the tall stone pillars topped with winged boars and turned left onto the road into the village, the wind whipping their hair into their eyes. Malfoy? said Hermione very skeptically. Well, yes, maybe. And she remained deep in thought all the way into the outskirts of Hogsmeade. Where are we going, anyway? Harry asked. The three broomsticks? Oh, no, said Hermione, coming out of her reverie. No, it's always packed and really noisy. I've told the others to meet us in the Hog's Head, that other pub. You know the one. It's not on the main road. I think it's a bit, you know, dodgy. But students don't normally go in there, so I don't think we'll be overheard. They walked down the main street past Zonko's joke shop, where they were unsurprised to see Fred, George, and Lee Jordan, past the post office, from which owls issued at regular intervals, and turned up a side street at the top of which stood a small inn. A battered wooden sign hung from a rusty bracket over the door, with a picture upon it of a wild boar's severed head leaking blood onto the white cloth around it. The sign creaked in the wind as they approached. All three of them hesitated outside the door. Well, come on, said Hermione slightly nervously. Harry led the way inside. It was not at all like the three broomsticks, whose large bar gave an impression of gleaming warmth and cleanliness. The Hogshead Bar comprised one small, dingy and very dirty room that smelled strongly of something that might have been goats. The bay windows were so encrusted with grime that very little daylight could permeate the room, which was lit instead with the stubs of candles sitting on rough wooden tables. The floor seemed, at first glance, to be earthy, though, as Harry stepped onto it, he realized that there was stone beneath what seemed to be the accumulated filth of centuries. Harry remembered Hagrid mentioning this pub in his first year. You get a lot of funny folk in the hogshead he had said, explaining how he had won a dragon's egg from a hooded stranger there. At the time, Harry had wondered why Hagrid had not found it odd that the stranger kept his face hidden throughout their encounter. Now he saw that keeping your face hidden was something of a fashion in the hog's head. There was a man at the bar whose whole head was wrapped in dirty grey bandages, though he was still managing to gulp endless glasses of some smoking, fiery substance through a slit over his mouth. Two figures shrouded in hoods sat at a table in one of the windows. Harry might have thought them dementors if they had not been talking in strong Yorkshire accents. In a shadowy corner beside the fireplace sat a witch with a thick black veil that fell to her toes. They could just see the tip of her nose because it caused the veil to protrude slightly. I don't know about this, Hermione, Harry muttered as they crossed to the bar. He was looking particularly at the heavily veiled witch, has it occurred to you Umbridge might be under that? Hermione cast an appraising eye at the veiled figure. Umbridge is shorter than that woman, she said quietly. And anyway, even if Umbridge does come in here, there's nothing she can do to stop us, Harry, because I've doubled and triple-checked the school rules. We're not out of bounds. 
I specifically asked Professor Flitwick whether students were allowed to come in the Hogshead, and he said yes, but he advised me strongly to bring our own classes. And I've looked up everything I can think of about study groups and homework groups, and they're definitely allowed. I just don't think it's a good idea if we parade what we're doing. No, said Harry dryly, especially as it's not exactly a homework group you're planning, is it? The barman sidled toward them out of a back room. He was a grumpy-looking old man with a great deal of long grey hair and beard. He was tall and thin and looked vaguely familiar to Harry. What? he grunted. Three butterbeers, please, said Hermione. The man reached beneath the counter and pulled up three very dusty, very dirty bottles, which he slammed on the bar. Six shickles, he said. I'll get them said Harry quickly, passing over the silver. The barman's eyes travelled over Harry, resting for a fraction of a second on his scar. Then he turned away and deposited Harry's money in an ancient wooden till, whose drawer slid open automatically to receive it. Harry, Ron, and Hermione retreated to the farthest table from the bar and sat down, looking around while the man in the dirty grey bandages wrapped the counter with his knuckles and received another smoking drink from the barman. Do you know what? Ron murmured, looking over at the bar with enthusiasm. We could order anything we liked in here. I bet that bloke would sell us anything. He wouldn't care. I've always wanted to try fire whiskey. You are a prefect, snarled Hermione. Oh, said Ron, the smile fading from his face. Yeah. So who did you say is supposed to be meeting us? Harry asked, wrenching open the rusty top of his butterbeer and taking a swig. Just a couple of people? Hermione repeated, checking her watch and then looking anxiously toward the door. I told them to be here about now, and I'm sure they all know where it is. Oh, look, this might be them now. The door of the pub had opened. A thick band of dusty sunlight split the room in two for a moment and then vanished, blocked by the incoming rush of a crowd of people. First came Neville with Dean and Lavender, who were closely followed by Parvati and Padma Patil with, Harry's stomach did a backflip, Cho and one of her usually giggling girlfriends, then, on her own and looking so dreamy that she might have walked in by accident, Luna Lovegood, then Katie Bell, Alicia Spinnett, and Angelina Johnson, Colin and Dennis Creevy, Ernie McMillan, Justin Finch Fletchley, Hannah Abbott, and a Hufflepuff girl with a long plait down her back, whose name Harry did not know. Three Ravenclaw boys, he was pretty sure, were called Anthony Goldstein, Michael Corner, and Terry Boot. Ginny, closely followed by a tall, skinny blonde boy with an upturned nose, whom Harry recognized vaguely as being a member of the Hufflepuff Quidditch team, and, bringing up the rear, Fred and George Weasley, with their friend Lee Jordan all three of whom were carrying large paper bags crammed with Zonko's merchandise. "'A couple of people?' said Harry hoarsely to Hermione. "'A couple of people?' "'Yes, well, the ideas seem quite popular,' said Hermione happily. "'Ron, do you want to pull up some more chairs?' The barman had frozen in the act of wiping out a glass with a rag so filthy it looked as though it had never been washed. Possibly he had never seen his pub so full.' "'Hi!' said Fred, reaching the bar first and counting his companions quickly. "'Could we have twenty-five butterbeers, please?' The barman glared at him for a moment, 
Then, throwing down his rag irritably, as though he had been interrupted in something very important, he started passing up dusty butterbeers from under the bar. Cheers, said Fred, handing them out. Cough up, everyone. I haven't got enough gold for all these. Harry watched numbly as the large, chattering group took their beers from Fred and rummaged in their robes to find coins. He could not imagine what all these people had turned up for until the horrible thought occurred to him that they might be expecting some kind of speech, at which he rounded on Hermione. "'What have you been selling people?' he said in a low voice. "'What are they expecting?' "'I told you, they just want to hear what you've got to say,' said Hermione soothingly. But Harry continued to look at her so furiously that she added quickly, "'You don't have to do anything yet. I'll speak to them first. "'Hi, Harry,' said Neville, beaming and taking a seat opposite Harry. Harry tried to smile back, but did not speak. His mouth was exceptionally dry. Cho had just smiled at him and sat down on Ron's right. Her friend, who had curly, reddish-blonde hair, did not smile, but gave Harry a thoroughly mistrustful look that told Harry plainly that, given her way, she would not be here at all. In twos and threes, the new arrivals settled around Harry, Ron, and Hermione, some looking rather excited, others curious, Luna Lovegood gazing dreamily into space. When everybody had pulled up a chair, the chatter died out. Every eye was upon Harry. Uh said Hermione, her voice slightly higher than usual out of nerves. Well, uh, hi. The group focused its attention on her instead, though eyes continued to dart back regularly at Harry. Well, um, well, you know why you're here. Um, well, Harry here had the idea. I mean, Harry had thrown her a sharp look. I had the idea that it might be good if people who wanted to study Defense Against the Dark Arts and I mean really study it. You know, not the rubbish that Umbridge is doing with us. Hermione's voice became suddenly much stronger and more confident. Because nobody could call that defense against the dark arts. Here, here, said Anthony Goldstein. And Hermione looked heartened. Well, I thought it would be good if we, well, took matters into our own hands. She paused, looked sideways at Harry and went on. And by that, I mean learning how to defend ourselves properly, not just theory, but the real spells. You want to pass your defense against the dark arts OWL too, though, I bet, said Michael Corner, who was watching her closely. Of course I do, said Hermione at once, but I want more than that. I want to be properly trained in defense because, because, she took a great breath and finished, because Lord Voldemort's back. The reaction was immediate and predictable. Cho's friend shrieked and slopped a butterbeer down herself. Terry Boot gave a kind of involuntary twitch. Padma Patil shuddered, and Neville gave an odd yelp that he managed to turn into a cough. All of them, however, looked fixedly, even eagerly, at Harry. Well, that's the plan, anyway, said Hermione. If you want to join us, we need to decide how we're going to... Where's the proof you know who's back? said the blonde Hufflepuff player in a rather aggressive voice. Well, Dumbledore believes it, Hermione began. You mean Dumbledore believes him, said the blonde boy, nodding at Harry. Who are you, said Ron rather rudely. Zachariah Smith, said the boy, and I think we've got the right to know exactly what makes him say you know who's back. Look, 
said Hermione, intervening swiftly. That's really not what this meeting was supposed to be about. It's okay, Hermione, said Harry. It had just dawned upon him why there were so many people there. He felt that Hermione should have seen this coming. Some of these people, maybe even most of them, had turned up in the hope of hearing Harry's story firsthand. What makes me say you know who's back? he repeated, looking Zacharias straight in the face. I saw him. But Dumbledore told the whole school what happened last year, and if you didn't believe him, you don't believe me, and I'm not wasting an afternoon trying to convince anyone. The whole group seemed to have held its breath while Harry spoke. Harry had the impression that even the barman was listening in. He was wiping the same glass with the filthy rag. It was becoming steadily dirtier. Zacharias said dismissively, All Dumbledore told us last year was that Cedric Diggory got killed by you-know-who, and that you brought Diggory's body back to Hogwarts. He didn't give us details. He didn't tell us exactly how Diggory got murdered. I think we'd all like to know. If you've come to hear exactly what it looks like when Voldemort murders someone, I can't help you, Harry said. His temper, always so close to the surface these days, was rising again. He did not take his eyes from Zacharias Smith's aggressive face, determined not to look at Cho. I don't want to talk about Cedric Diggory, all right? So if that's what you're here for, you might as well clear out. He cast an angry look in Hermione's direction. This was, he felt, all her fault. She had decided to display him like some sort of freak, and of course they had all turned up to see just how wild his story was. But none of them left their seats. Not even Zacharias Smith, though he continued to gaze intently at Harry. So, said Hermione, her voice very high-pitched again. So, like I was saying, if you want to learn some defense, then we need to work out how we're going to do it, how often we're going to meet, and where we're going to— Is it true, interrupted the girl with a long plait down her back, looking at Harry, that you can produce a Patronus? There was a murmur of interest around the group at this. Yeah said Harry, slightly defensively. A corporeal Patronus? The phrase stirred something in Harry's memory. Uh, you don't know Madame Bones, do you? he asked. The girl smiled. She's my auntie, she said. I'm Susan Bones. She told me about your hearing. So, is it really true? You make a stag Patronus? Yes, said Harry. Blimey, Harry! said Lee, looking deeply impressed. I never knew that. Mum told Ron not to spread it around, said Fred, grinning at Harry. She said you got enough attention as it was. She's not wrong, mumbled Harry, and a couple of people laughed. The veiled witch sitting alone shifted very slightly in her seat. And did you kill a basilisk with that sword in Dumbledore's office? demanded Terry Boot. That's what one of the portraits on the wall told me when I was in there last year. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, said Harry. Justin Finch Fletchley whistled. The Creevy brothers exchanged awestruck looks, and Lavender Brown said, Wow, softly. Harry was feeling slightly hot around the collar now. He was determinedly looking anywhere but at Cho. And in our first year, said Neville to the group at large, he saved that sorcerer's stone. Sorcerers, hissed Hermione. Yes, that, from you-know-who, finished Neville. Hannah Abbott's eyes were as round as galleons. And that's not to mention, said Cho. Harry's eyes snapped onto her. She was looking at him, smiling. 
His stomach did another somersault. All the tasks he had to get through in the Triwizard Tournament last year, getting past dragons and merpeople and acromantulus and things. There was a murmur of impressed agreement around the table. Harry's insides were squirming. He was trying to arrange his face so that he did not look too pleased with himself. The fact that Cho had just praised him made it much, much harder for him to say the thing he had sworn to himself he would tell them. Look, he said, and everyone fell silent at once. I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be modest or anything, but I had a lot of help with all that stuff. Not with a dragon, you didn't, said Michael Corner at once. That was a seriously cool bit of flying. Yeah, well, said Harry, feeling it would be churlish to disagree. And nobody helped you get rid of those Dementors this summer, said Susan Bones. No, said Harry. No, okay, I know I did bits of it without help, but the point I'm trying to make is... Are you trying to weasel out of showing us any of this stuff? said Zacharias Smith. Here's an idea, said Ron loudly before Harry could speak. Why don't you shut your mouth? Perhaps the word weasel had affected Ron particularly strongly. In any case, he was now looking at Zacharias as though he would like nothing better than to thump him. Zacharias flushed. Well, we've all turned up to learn from him, and now he's telling us he can't really do any of it, he said. That's not what he said, snarled Fred Weasley. Would you like us to clean out your ears for you? inquired George, pulling a long and lethal-looking metal instrument from inside one of the Zonko's bags. Or any part of your body, really. We're not fussy where we stick this, said Fred. Yes, well, said Hermione hastily. Moving on, the point is, are we agreed we want to take lessons from Harry? There was a murmur of general agreement. Zacharias folded his arms and said nothing, though perhaps this was because he was too busy keeping an eye on the instrument in George's hand. Right, said Hermione, looking relieved that something had at last been settled. Well then, the next question is how often we do it. I really don't think there's any point in meeting less than once a week. Hang on, said Angelina. We need to make sure this doesn't clash with our Quidditch practice. No, said Cho, nor with ours. No hours, added Zacharias Smith. I'm sure we can find a night that suits everyone, said Hermione, slightly impatiently. But you know, this is rather important. We're talking about learning to defend ourselves against v Voldemort's Death Eaters. Well said, barked Ernie Macmillan, whom Harry had been expecting to speak long before this. Personally, I think this is really important. Possibly more important than anything else we'll do this year, even with our OWLs coming up. He looked around impressively, as though waiting for people to cry, surely not. When nobody spoke, he went on, I personally am at a loss to see why the Ministry has foisted such a useless teacher upon us at this critical period. Obviously they're in denial about the return of you-know-who, but to give us a teacher who is trying to actively prevent us from using defensive spells. We think the reason Umbridge doesn't want us trained in defense against the dark arts, said Hermione, is that she's got some, some mad idea that Dumbledore could use the students in the school as a kind of private army. She thinks he'd mobilize us against the ministry. Nearly everybody looked stunned at this news. Everybody except Luna Lovegood, who piped up, 
Well, that makes sense. After all, Cornelius Fudger's got his own private army. What? said Harry, completely thrown by this unexpected piece of information. Yes, he's got an army of heliopaths, said Luna solemnly. No, he hasn't, snapped Hermione. Yes, he has, said Luna. What are heliopaths? asked Neville, looking blank. They're spirits of fire, said Luna, her protuberant eyes widening so that she looked madder than ever. Great, tall, flaming creatures that gallop across the ground, burning everything in front of... They don't exist, Neville, said Hermione tartly. Oh, yes, they do, said Luna angrily. I'm sorry, but where's the proof of that? snapped Hermione. There are plenty of eyewitness accounts. Just because you're so narrow-minded, you need to have everything shoved under your nose before you... Hem! Hem! said Ginny, in such a good imitation of Professor Umbridge that several people looked around in alarm and then laughed. Weren't we trying to decide how often we're going to meet and get defense lessons? Yes, said Hermione at once. Yes, we were. You're right. Well, once a week sounds cool, said Lee Jordan. As long as... began Angelina. Yes, yes, we know about the Quidditch, said Hermione in a tense voice. Well, the other thing to decide is where are we going to meet? This was rather more difficult. The whole group fell silent. Library? suggested Katie Bell after a few moments. I can't see Madame Pince being too chuffed with us doing jinxes in the library, said Harry. Maybe an unused classroom, said Dean. Yeah, said Ron. McGonagall might let us have hers. She did when Harry was practicing for the Triwizard. But Harry was pretty certain that McGonagall would not be so accommodating this time. For all that Hermione had said about study and homework groups being allowed, he had the distinct feeling this one might be considered a lot more rebellious. Right. Well, we'll try to find somewhere said Hermione. We'll send a message around to everybody when we've got a time and a place for the first meeting. She rummaged in her bag and produced parchment and a quill, then hesitated, rather as though she was stealing herself to say something. I... I think everybody should write their name down, just so we know who was here. But I also think... She took a deep breath... <gasps> that we all ought to agree not to shout about what we're doing. So if you sign, you're agreeing not to tell Umbridge, or anybody else, what we're up to. Fred reached out for the parchment and cheerfully put down his signature, but Harry noticed at once that several people looked less than happy at the prospect of putting their names on the list. Uh, said Zacharias slowly, not taking the parchment that George was trying to pass him. Well, I'm sure Ernie will tell me when the meeting is. But Ernie was looking rather hesitant about signing, too. Hermione raised her eyebrows at him. I, well, we are prefects, Ernie burst out. And if this list was found, well, I mean to say, you said yourself, if Umbridge finds out. You just said this group was the most important thing you'd do this year, Harry reminded him. I, yes, said Ernie, yes, I do believe that. It's just, Ernie... Do you really think I'd leave that list lying around? said Hermione testily. No, no, of course not, said Ernie, looking slightly less anxious. Ah, uh, yes, of course I'll sign. 
Nobody raised objections after Ernie, though Harry saw Cho's friend give her a rather reproachful look before adding her name. When the last person Zacharias had signed, Hermione took the parchment back and slipped it carefully into her bag. There was an odd feeling in the group now. It was as though they had just signed some sort of contract. "'Well, time's ticking on,' said Fred briskly, getting to his feet. "'George Lee and I have got items of a sensitive nature to purchase. We'll be seeing you all later.' In Susan Threes, the rest of the group took their leave, too. Cho made rather a business of fastening the catch on her bag before leaving, her long, dark curtain of hair swinging forward to hide her face. But her friends stood beside her, arms folded, clicking her tongue, so that Cho had little choice but to leave with her. As her friend ushered her through the door, Cho looked back and waved at Harry. "'Well, I think that went quite well.' said Hermione happily, as she, Harry, and Ron walked out of the hogshead into the bright sunlight a few moments later, Harry and Ron still clutching their bottles of butterbeer. "'That Zacharias bloke's a wart,' said Ron, who was glowering after the figure of Smith, just discernible in the distance. "'I don't like him much either,' admitted Hermione, "'but he overheard me talking to Ernie and Hannah at the Hufflepuff table, and he seemed really interested in coming, so what could I say? But the more people, the better, really. I mean, Michael Corner and his friends wouldn't have come if he hadn't been going out with Ginny.' Ron, who had been draining the last few drops from his butterbeer bottle, gagged and sprayed butterbeer down his front. "'He's what?' said Ron, outraged, his ears now resembling curls of raw beef. She's going out with... My sister's going... What do you mean, Michael Corner? Well, that's why he and his friends came, I think. Well, they're obviously interested in learning defense, but if Ginny hadn't told Michael what was going on... When did this... When did she... They met at the Yule Ball, and they got together at the end of last year, said Hermione composedly. They had turned into the high street, and she paused outside Scrivenshaft's quill shop, where there was a handsome display of pheasant feather quills in the window. Mm-hmm. I could do with a new quill. She turned into the shop. Harry and Ron followed her. Which one was Michael Corner? Ron demanded furiously. The dark one, said Hermione. I didn't like him, said Ron at once. Big surprise, said Hermione under her breath. But, said Ron, following Hermione along a row of quills in copper pots, I thought Ginny fancied Harry. Hermione looked at him rather pityingly and shook her head. Ginny used to fancy Harry, but she gave up on him months ago. Not that she doesn't like you, of course, she added kindly to Harry, while she examined a long black and gold quill. Harry, whose head was still full of Cho's parting wave, did not find this subject quite as interesting as Ron, who was positively quivering with indignation, but it did bring something home to him that until now he had not really registered. So that's why she talks now, he asked Hermione. She never used to talk in front of me. Exactly, said Hermione. Yes, I think I'll have this one. She went up to the counter and handed over fifteen sickles and two canuts, Ron still breathing down her neck. Ron, she said severely as she turned and trod on his feet, this is exactly why Ginny hasn't told you she's seen Michael. She knew you'd take it badly, so don't harp on about it for heaven's sake. What do you mean? Who's taking anything badly? I'm not going to harp on about anything. Ron continued to chunter under his breath all the way down the street. Hermione rolled her eyes at Harry, 
and then said in an undertone while Ron was muttering imprecations about Michael Corner, and talking about Michael and Ginny, what about Cho and you? What do you mean? said Harry quickly. It was as though boiling water was rising rapidly inside him, a burning sensation that was causing his face to smart in the cold. Had he been that obvious? Well, said Hermione, smiling slightly, she just couldn't keep her eyes off you, could she? Harry had never before appreciated just how beautiful the village of Hogsmeade was. Chapter 17 Educational Decree Number 24 Harry felt happier for the rest of the weekend than he had done all term. He and Ron spent much of Sunday catching up with all their homework again, and although this could hardly be called fun, the last burst of autumn sunshine persisted, so rather than sitting hunched over tables in the common room, they took their work outside and lounged in the shade of a large beech tree on the edge of the lake. Hermione, who of course was up to date with all her work, brought more wool outside with her and bewitched her knitting needles so that they flashed and clicked in mid-air beside her, producing more hats and scarves. The knowledge that they were doing something to resist Umbridge in the Ministry and that he was a key part of the rebellion gave Harry a feeling of immense satisfaction. He kept reliving Saturday's meeting in his mind. All those people coming to him to learn defence against the Dark Arts and the looks on their faces as they had heard some of the things he had done, and Cho praising his performance in the Triwizard Tournament. The knowledge that all those people did not think him a lying weirdo, but someone to be admired, buoyed him up so much that he was still cheerful on Monday morning, despite the imminent prospect of all his least favourite classes. He and Ron headed downstairs from their dormitory together, discussing Angelina's idea that they were to work on a new move called the Sloth Grip Roll during that night's Quidditch practice, and not until they were halfway across the sunlit common room did they notice the addition to the room that had already attracted the attention of a small group of people. A large sign had been affixed to the Gryffindor notice board, so large that it covered everything else on there, the lists of second-hand spell books for sale, the regular reminders of school rules from Argus Filch, the Quidditch team training schedule, the offers to barter certain chocolate frog cards for others, the Weasley's new advertisement for testers, the dates of the Hogsmeade weekends, and the lost and found notices. The new sign was printed in large black letters, and there was a highly official-looking seal at the bottom beside a neat and curly signature. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, all student organizations, societies, teams, groups, and clubs are henceforth disbanded. An organization, society, team, group, or club is hereby defined as a regular meeting of three or more students. Permission to reform may be sought from the High Inquisitor, Professor Umbridge. No student organization, society, team, group, or club may exist without the knowledge and approval of the High Inquisitor. Any student found to have formed or to belong to an organization, society, team, group, or club that has not been approved by the High Inquisitor will be expelled. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 24, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor. Harry and Ron read the notice over the heads of some anxious-looking second years. Does this mean they're going to shut down the Gobstones Club? 
one of them asked his friend. I reckon you'll be okay with gobstones, Ron said darkly, making the second year jump. I don't think we're going to be as lucky, though, do you? He asked Harry as the second years hurried away. Harry was reading the notice through again. The happiness that had filled him since Saturday was gone. His insides were pulsing with rage. This isn't a coincidence, he said, his hands forming fists. She knows. She can't, said Ron at once. There were people listening in that pub. And, let's face it, we don't know how many of the people who turned up we can trust. Any of them could have run off and told Umbridge. And he had thought they believed him, thought they even admired him. Zachariah Smith, said Ron at once, punching a fist into his hand. Or, I thought that Michael Corner had a really shifty look, too. I wonder if Hermione's seen this yet, Harry said, looking around at the door to the girls' dormitories. Let's go and tell her, said Ron. He bounded forward, pulled open the door, and set off up the spiral staircase. He was on the sixth stair when it happened. There was a loud, wailing, klaxon-like sound, and the steps melted together to make a long, smooth stone slide. There was a brief moment when Ron tried to keep running, arms working madly like windmills. Then he toppled over backward and shot down the newly created slide, coming to rest on his back at Harry's feet. Uh, I don't think we're allowed in the girls' dormitories, said Harry, pulling Ron to his feet and trying not to laugh. Two fourth-year girls came zooming gleefully down the stone slide. Ooh, who tried to get upstairs? They giggled happily, leaping to their feet and ogling Harry and Ron. Me, said Ron, who was still rather disheveled. I didn't realize that would happen. It's not fair, he added to Harry, as the girls headed off for the portrait hole, still giggling madly. Hermione is allowed in our dormitory. How come we're not allowed? Well, it's an old-fashioned rule, said Hermione, who had just slid neatly onto a rug in front of them and was now getting to her feet. But it says in Hogwarts a history that the founders thought boys were less trustworthy than girls. Anyway, why were you trying to get in there? To see you. Look at this, said Ron, dragging her over to the notice board. Hermione's eyes slid rapidly down the notice. Her expression became stony. Someone must have blabbed to her, Ron said angrily. They can't have done, said Hermione in a low voice. You're so naive, said Ron. You think just because you're all honorable and trustworthy? No, they can't have done because I put a jinx on that piece of parchment we all signed, said Hermione grimly. Believe me, if anyone's run off and told Umbridge, we'll know exactly who they are and they will really regret it. What'll happen to them? said Ron eagerly. Well, put it this way, said Hermione. It'll make Eloise Midgen's acne look like a couple of cute freckles. Come on, let's get down to breakfast and see what the others think. I wonder whether this has been put up in all the houses. It was immediately apparent on entering the Great Hall that Umbridge's sign had not only appeared in Gryffindor Tower. There was a peculiar intensity about the chatter, and an extra measure of movement in the hall as people scurried up and down their tables, conferring on what they had read. Harry, Ron, and Hermione had barely taken their seats when Neville, Dean, Fred, George, and Ginny descended upon them. Did you see it? Do you reckon she knows? What are we going to do? They were all looking at Harry. He glanced around to make sure there were no teachers near them. We're going to do it anyway, of course, he said quietly. Knew you'd say that, 
said George, beaming and thumping Harry on the arm. The prefects as well, said Fred, looking quizzically at Ron and Hermione. Of course, said Hermione coolly. Here comes Ernie and Hannah Abbott, said Ron, looking over his shoulder, and those Ravenclaw blokes and Smith. And no one looks very spotty. Hermione looked alarmed. Never mind spots. The idiots can't come over here now. It'll look really suspicious. Sit down. She mouthed to Ernie and Hannah, gesturing frantically to them to rejoin the Hufflepuff table. Later. We'll talk to you later. I'll tell Michael, said Ginny, impatiently swinging herself off her bench. The fool, honestly. She hurried off toward the Ravenclaw table. Harry watched her go. Cho was sitting not far away, talking to the curly-haired friend she had brought along to the hogshead. Would Umbridge's notice scare her off meeting them again? But the full repercussions of the sign were not felt until they were leaving the Great Hall for History of Magic. Harry! Ron! It was Angelina, and she was hurrying toward them, looking perfectly desperate. It's okay, said Harry quietly when she was near enough to hear him. We're still going to... You realize she's including Quidditch in this, Angelina said over him. We have to go and ask permission to reform the Gryffindor team. What? said Harry. No way, said Ron, appalled. You read the sign. It mentions teams, too, so listen, Harry. I'm saying this for the last time. Please, please, don't lose your temper with Umbridge again, or she might not let us play any more. Okay, okay, said Harry, for Angelina looked as though she was on the verge of tears. Don't worry, I'll behave myself. Bet Umbridge is in history of magic, said Ron grimly, as they set off for Binz's lesson. She hasn't inspected Binz yet. Bet you anything she's there. But he was wrong. The only teacher present when they entered was Professor Binns, floating an inch or so above his chair as usual, and preparing to continue his monotonous drone on giant wars. Harry did not even attempt to follow what he was saying today. He doodled idly on his parchment, ignoring Hermione's frequent glares and nudges, until a particularly painful poke in the ribs made him look up angrily. What? She pointed at the window. Harry looked around. Hedwig was perched on the narrow window ledge, gazing through the thick glass at him, a letter tied to her leg. Harry could not understand it. They had just had breakfast. Why on earth hadn't she delivered the letter then, as usual? Many of his classmates were pointing out Hedwig to each other, too. Oh, I've always loved that owl. She's so beautiful. Harry heard Lavender sigh to Povati. He glanced around at Professor Binns, who continued to read his notes, serenely unaware that the class's attention was even less focused upon him than usual. Harry slipped quietly off his chair, crouched down, and hurried along the road to the window, where he slid the catch and opened it very slowly. He had expected Hedwig to hold out her leg so that he could remove the letter and then fly off to the owlery. But the moment the window was open wide enough, she hopped inside, hooting dolefully. He closed the window with an anxious glance at Professor Binns, crouched low again, and sped back to his seat with Hedwig on his shoulder. He regained his seat, transferred Hedwig to his lap, and made to remove the letter tied to her leg. It was only then that he realized that Hedwig's feathers were oddly ruffled, some were bent the wrong way, and she was holding one of her wings at an odd angle. She's hurt, Harry whispered, bending his head low over her. Hermione and Ron leaned in closer. Hermione even put down her quill. Look, there's something wrong with her wing. 
Hedwig was quivering. When Harry made to touch the wing, she gave a little jump, all her feathers on end as though she was inflating herself, and gazed at him reproachfully. "'Professor Binns!' said Harry loudly, and everyone in the class turned to look at him. "'I'm not feeling well!' Professor Binns raised his eyes from his notes, looking amazed as always to find the room in front of him full of people. "'Not feeling well?' he repeated hazily. "'Not at all well!' said Harry firmly, getting to his feet while concealing Hedwig behind his back. So I think I'll need to go to the hospital wing. Yes, said Professor Bings, clearly very much wrong-footed. Yes, yes, hospital wing. Well, off you go then, Perkins. Once outside the room, Harry returned Hedwig to his shoulder and hurried off up the corridor, pausing to think only when he was out of sight of Bins's door. His first choice of somebody to cure Hedwig would have been Hagrid, of course, but as he had no idea where Hagrid was, his only remaining option was to find Professor Grubbly Plank and hope she would help. He peered out of a window at the blustery overcast grounds. There was no sign of her anywhere near Hagrid's cabin. If she was not teaching, she was probably in the staff room. He set off downstairs, Hedwig hooting feebly as she swayed on his shoulder. Two stone gargoyles flanked the staff room door. As Harry approached, one of them croaked, You should be in class, Sonny Jim. This is urgent, said Harry curtly. Oh, urgent, is it? said the other gargoyle in a high-pitched voice. Well, that's put us in our place, hasn't it? Harry knocked. He heard footsteps and then the door opened and he found himself face to face with Professor McGonagall. You haven't been given another detention, she said at once, her square spectacles flashing alarmingly. No, Professor, said Harry hastily. Well then, why are you out of class? It's urgent, apparently, said the second gargoyle snidely. I'm looking for Professor Grubblyplank, Harry explained. It's my owl. She's injured. Injured owl, did you say? Professor Grubbly Plank appeared at Professor McGonagall's shoulder, smoking a pipe and holding a copy of the Daily Prophet. Yes, said Harry, lifting Hedwig carefully off his shoulder. She turned up after the other post-owls, and her wings all funny. Look. Professor Grubbly Plank stuck her pipe firmly between her teeth and took Hedwig from Harry while Professor McGonagall watched. Hmm, said Professor Grubbly Plank, her pipe waggling slightly as she talked. Looks like something's attacked her. Can't think what would have done it, though. Thestrals will sometimes go for birds, of course, but Hagrid's got the Hogwarts Thestrals well-chained not to touch owls. Harry neither knew nor cared what Thestrals were. He just wanted to know that Hedwig was going to be all right. Professor McGonagall, however, looked sharply at Harry and said, Do you know how far this owl's travelled, Potter? Uh, said Harry, from London, I think. He met her eyes briefly and knew that she understood London to mean number twelve Grimald Place, by the way her eyebrows joined in the middle. Professor Grubbly Plank pulled a monocle out of the inside of her robes and screwed it into her eye to examine Hedwig's wing closely. I should be able to sort this out if you leave her with me, Potter. She said, she shouldn't be flying long distances for a few days in any case. Uh, right. Thanks, said Harry, just as the bell rang for break. No problem, 
said Professor Grubbly Plank gruffly, turning back into the staff room. Just a moment, Wilhelmina, said Professor McGonagall. Potter's letter. Oh, yeah, said Harry, who had momentarily forgotten the scroll tied to Hedwig's leg. Professor Grubbly Plank handed it over and then disappeared into the staff room, carrying Hedwig, who was staring at Harry as though unable to believe he would give her away like this. Feeling slightly guilty, he turned to go, but Professor McGonagall called him back. Potter! Yes, Professor. She glanced up and down the corridor. There were students coming from both directions. Bear in mind, she said quickly and quietly, her eyes on the scroll in his hand, the channels of communication in and out of Hogwarts may be being watched, won't you? I, said Harry, but the flood of students rolling along the corridor was almost upon him. Professor McGonagall gave him a curt nod and retreated into the staff room, leaving Harry to be swept out into the courtyard with the crowd. Here he spotted Ron and Hermione, already standing in a sheltered corner, their cloak collars turned up against the wind. Harry slit open the scroll as he hurried toward them, and found five words in Sirius's handwriting. Today, same time, same place. Is Hedwig okay? asked Hermione anxiously the moment he was within earshot. Where did you take her? asked Ron. To Grubbly Plank, said Harry, and I met McGonagall. Listen and he told them what Professor McGonagall had said. To his surprise, neither of the others looked shocked. On the contrary, they exchanged significant looks. What? said Harry, looking from Ron to Hermione and back again. Well, I was just saying to Ron, what if someone had tried to intercept Hedwig? I mean, she's never been hurt on a flight before, has she? Who's the letter from, anyway? asked Ron, taking the note from Harry. Snuffles said Harry quietly. Same time, same place. Does he mean the fire in the common room? Obviously, said Hermione, also reading the note. She looked uneasy. I just hope nobody else has read this. But it was still sealed and everything, said Harry, trying to convince himself as much as her. And nobody would understand what it meant if they didn't know where we'd spoken to him before, would they? I don't know said Hermione anxiously, hitching her bag back over her shoulder as the bell rang again. It wouldn't be exactly difficult to reseal the scroll by magic, and if anyone's watching the flu network. But I don't really see how we can warn him not to come without that being intercepted, too. They trudged down the stone steps to the dungeons for potions, all three of them lost in thought. But as they reached the bottom of the stairs, they were recalled to themselves by the voice of Draco Malfoy, who was standing just outside Snape's classroom door, waving around an official-looking piece of parchment, and talking much louder than was necessary so that they could hear every word. Yeah, Umbridge gave the Slytherin Quidditch team permission to continue playing straight away. I went to ask her first thing this morning. Well, it was pretty much automatic. I mean, she knows my father really well. He's always popping in and out of the ministry. It'll be interesting to see whether Gryffindor are allowed to keep playing, won't it? Don't rise, Hermione whispered imploringly to Harry and Ron, who were both watching Malfoy, faces set and fists clenched. It's what he wants. I mean said Malfoy, raising his voice a little more, his grey eyes glittering malevolently in Harry and Ron's direction. If it's a question of influence with the Ministry, I don't think they've got much chance. 
From what my father says, they've been looking for an excuse to sack Arthur Weasley for years. And as for Potter, my father says it's a matter of time before the Ministry has him carted off to St. Mungo's. Apparently, they've got a special ward for people whose brains have been addled by magic. Malfoy made a grotesque face, his mouth sagging open and his eyes rolling. Crab and Goyle gave their usual grunts of laughter. Pansy Parkinson shrieked with glee. Something collided hard with Harry's shoulder, knocking him sideways. A split second later, he realized that Neville had just charged past him, heading straight for Malfoy. Neville! No! Harry leapt forward and seized the back of Neville's robes. Neville struggled frantically, his fists flailing, trying desperately to get at Malfoy, who looked for a moment extremely shocked. Help me! Harry flung at Ron, managing to get an arm around Neville's neck and dragging him backward away from the Slytherins. Crab and Goyle were now flexing their arms, closing in front of Malfoy, ready for the fight. Ron hurried forward and seized Neville's arms. Together, he and Harry succeeded in dragging Neville back into the Gryffindor line. Neville's face was scarlet. The pressure Harry was exerting on his throat rendered him quite incomprehensible, but odd words spluttered from his mouth. Not funny! Don't! Bungos! Show him! The dungeon door opened. Snape appeared there. His black eyes swept up the Gryffindor line to the point where Harry and Ron were wrestling with Neville. Fighting? Potter? Weasley? Longbottom? Snape said in his cold, sneering voice. Ten points from Gryffindor. Release Longbottom, Potter, or it will be detention. Inside, all of you. Harry let go of Neville, who stood panting and glaring at him. I had to stop you, Harry gasped, picking up his bag. Crab and Gaul would have torn you apart. Neville said nothing. He merely snatched up his own bag and stalked off into the dungeon. What in the name of Merlin, said Ron slowly as they followed Neville, was that about? Harry did not answer. He knew exactly why the subject of people who were in St. Mungo's because of magical damage to their brains was highly distressing to Neville, but he has sworn to Dumbledore that he would not tell anyone Neville's secret. Even Neville did not know that Harry knew. Harry, Ron, and Hermione took their usual seats at the back of the class and pulled out parchment quills and their copies of One Thousand Magical Herbs and Fungi. The class around them was whispering about what Neville had just done. But when Snape closed the dungeon door with an echoing bang, everybody fell silent immediately. You will notice, said Snape in his low, sneering voice, that we have a guest with us today. He gestured toward the dim corner of the dungeon, and Harry saw Professor Umbridge sitting there, clipboard on her knee. He glanced sideways at Ron and Hermione, his eyebrows raised. Snape and Umbridge the two teachers he hated most. It was hard to decide which he wanted to triumph over the other. We are continuing with our strengthening solutions today. You will find your mixtures as you left them last lesson. If correctly made, they should have matured well over the weekend. Instructions? He waved his wand again. On the board. Carry on. Professor Umbridge spent the first half hour of the lesson making notes in her corner. Harry was very interested in hearing her question Snape, so interested that he was becoming careless with his potion again. Salamander blood, Harry, 
Hermione moaned, grabbing his wrist to prevent him adding the wrong ingredient for the third time. Not pomegranate juice. Right, said Harry vaguely, putting down the bottle and continuing to watch the corner. Umbridge had just gotten to her feet. Ah, he said softly as she strode between two lines of desks towards Snape, who was bending over Dean Thomas's cauldron. Well, the class seems fairly advanced for their level, she said briskly to Snape's back. Though I would question whether it is advisable to teach them a potion like the strengthening solution, I think the Ministry would prefer it if that was removed from the syllabus. Snape straightened up slowly and turned to look at her. Now, how long have you been teaching at Hogwarts? She asked, her quill poised over her clipboard. Fourteen years, Snape replied. His expression was unfathomable. Harry, watching him closely, added a few drops to his potion. It hissed menacingly and turned from turquoise to orange. You applied first for the defense against the Dark Arts post, I believe, Professor Umbridge asked Snape. Yes, said Snape quietly. But you were unsuccessful? Snape's lip curled. Obviously. Professor Umbridge scribbled on her clipboard. And you have applied regularly for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post since you first joined the school, I believe. Yes, said Snape quietly, barely moving his lips. He looked very angry. Do you have any idea why Dumbledore has consistently refused to appoint you? asked Umbridge. I suggest you ask him, said Snape jerkily. I shall, said Professor Umbridge with a sweet smile. I suppose this is relevant, Snape asked, his black eyes narrowed. Oh, yes, said Professor Umbridge. Yes, the Ministry wants a thorough understanding of teachers' uh, backgrounds. She turned away, walked over to Pansy Parkinson and began questioning her about the lessons. Snape looked around at Harry, and their eyes met for a second. Harry hastily dropped his gaze to his potion, which was now congealing foully and giving off a strong smell of burned rubber. No marks again, then, Potter, said Snape maliciously, emptying Harry's cauldron with a wave of his wand. You will write me an essay on the correct composition of this potion, indicating how and why you went wrong to be handed in next lesson. Do you understand? Yes, said Harry furiously. Snape had already given them homework, and he had Quidditch practice this evening. This would mean another couple of sleepless nights. It did not seem possible that he had awoken that morning feeling very happy. All he felt now was a fervent desire for this day to end as soon as possible. Maybe I'll skive off divination, he said glumly as they stood again in the courtyard after lunch, the wind whipping at the hems of robes and brims of hats. I'll pretend to be ill and do Snape's essay instead. Then I won't have to stay up half the night. You can't skive off divination, said Hermione severely. Parku's talking. You walked out of divination. You hate Trelawney, said Ron indignantly. I don't hate her, said Hermione loftily. I just think she's an absolutely appalling teacher and a real old fraud. But Harry's already missed history of magic, and I don't think he ought to miss anything else today. 
There was too much truth in this to ignore. So half an hour later, Harry took his seat in the hot, over-perfumed atmosphere of the divination classroom, feeling angry at everybody. Professor Trelawney was handing out copies of The Dream Oracle yet again. He would surely be much better employed doing Snape's punishment essay than sitting here trying to find meaning in a lot of made-up dreams. It seemed, however, that he was not the only person in divination who was in a temper. Professor Trelawney slammed a copy of the oracle down on the table between Harry and Ron and swept away, her lips pursed. She threw the next copy of the oracle at Seamus and Dean, narrowly avoiding Seamus's head, and thrust the final one into Neville's chest with such force that he slipped off his poof. Well, carry on, said Professor Trelawney loudly, her voice high-pitched and somewhat hysterical. You know what to do. Or am I such a substandard teacher that you have never learned how to open a book? The class stared perplexedly at her and then at each other. Harry, however, thought he knew what was the matter. As Professor Trelawney flounced back to the high-backed teacher's chair, her magnified eyes full of angry tears, he leaned his head closer to Ron's and muttered, I think she's got the results of her inspection back. Professor, said Pravati Patil in a hushed voice. She and Lavender had always rather admired Professor Trelawney. Professor, is there anything uh, wrong? Wrong? cried Professor Trelawney in a voice throbbing with emotion. Certainly not. I have been insulted, certainly. Insinuations have been made against me. Unfounded accusations leveled. But no, there is nothing wrong. Certainly not. She took a great shuddering breath and looked away from Pavati, angry tears spilling from under her glasses. I say nothing, she choked, of sixteen years' devoted service. It has passed apparently unnoticed, but I shall not be insulted. No, I shall not. But, Professor, who's insulting you? asked Pavati timidly. The establishment, said Professor Trelawney in a deep, dramatic, wavering voice. Yes, those with eyes too clouded by the mundane to see as I see, to know as I know. Of course, we seers have always been feared, always persecuted. It is, alas, our fate. She gulped, dabbed at her wet cheeks with the end of her shawl, and then pulled a small embroidered handkerchief from her sleeve, into which she blew her nose very hard, with a sound like peeves blowing a raspberry. Ron sniggered. Lavender shot him a disgusted look. Professor, said Pavati, do you mean... Is it something, Professor Umbridge? Do not speak to me about that woman, cried Professor Trelawney, leaping to her feet, her bees rattling and her spectacles flashing. Kindly continue with your work. And she spent the rest of the lesson striding among them, tears still leaking from behind her glasses, muttering what sounded like threats under her breath. May well choose to leave the indignity of it. On probation, we shall see how she dares. You and Umbridge have got something in common, Harry told Hermione quietly when they met again in defense against the dark arts. She obviously reckons Trelawney is an old fraud too. Looks like she's put her on probation. Umbridge entered the room as he spoke, wearing her black velvet bow and an expression of great smugness. Good afternoon, class. 
Good afternoon, Professor Umbridge, they chanted dully. Ones away, please. But there was no answering flurry of movement this time. Nobody had bothered to take out their wands. Please turn to page 34 of Defensive Magical Theory and read the third chapter entitled The Case for Non-Offensive Responses to Magical Attack. There will be no need to talk, Harry, Ron, and Hermione said together under their breaths. No Quidditch practice, said Angelina in hollow tones when Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered the common room that night after dinner. But I kept my temper, said Harry, horrified. I didn't say anything to her. Angelina, I swear, I... I know, I know, said Angelina miserably. She just said she needed a bit of time to consider. Consider what? said Ron angrily. She's given the Slytherins permission. Why not us? But Harry could imagine how much Umbridge was enjoying holding the threat of no Gryffindor Quidditch team over their heads, and could easily understand why she would not want to relinquish that weapon over them too soon. Well, said Hermione, look on the bright side. At least now you'll have time to do Snape's essay. That's a bright side, is it? snapped Harry, while Ron stared incredulously at Hermione. No Quidditch practice and extra potions? Harry slumped down into a chair, dragged his potions essay reluctantly from his bag, and set to work. It was very hard to concentrate, even though he knew that Sirius was not due in the fire until much later, he could not help glancing into the flames every few minutes just in case. There was also an incredible amount of noise in the room. Fred and George appeared finally to have perfected one type of skiving snack box, which they were taking turns to demonstrate to a cheering and whooping crowd. First, Fred would take a bite out of the orange end of a chew, at which he would vomit spectacularly into a bucket they had placed in front of them. Then he would force down the purple end of the chew, at which the vomiting would immediately cease. Lee Jordan, who was assisting the demonstration, was lazily vanishing the vomit at regular intervals, with the same vanishing spells Snape kept using on Harry's potions. What with the regular sounds of retching, cheering, and Fred and George taking advance orders from the crowd, Harry was finding it exceptionally difficult to focus on the correct method for strengthening solutions. Hermione was not helping matters. The cheers and sound of vomit hitting the bottom of Fred and George's bucket were punctuated by loud and disapproving sniffs that Harry found, if anything, more distracting. Just go and stop them, then, he said irritably after crossing out the wrong weight of powdered griffin claw for the fourth time. I can't. They're not technically doing anything wrong, said Hermione through gritted teeth. They're quite within their rights to eat the foul things themselves, and I can't find a rule that says the other idiots aren't entitled to buy them, not unless they're proven to be dangerous in some way, and it doesn't look as though they are. She, Harry and Ron watched George projectile vomit into the bucket gulp down the rest of the chew, and straighten up, beaming, with his arms wide to protracted applause. You know, I don't get why Fred and George only got three OWLs each, said Harry, watching as Fred, George, and Lee collected gold from the eager crowd. They really know their stuff. Oh, they only know flashy stuff that's no real use to anyone, said Hermione disparagingly. No real use, said Ron in a strained voice. Hermione, they've got about twenty-six galleons already. 
It was a long while before the crowd around the Weasleys dispersed, and then Fred, Lee, and George sat up counting their takings even longer, so that it was well past midnight when Harry, Ron, and Hermione finally had the common room to themselves again. At long last, Fred closed the doorway to the boys' dormitories behind him, rattling his box of galleons ostentatiously so that Hermione scowled. Harry, who was making very little progress with his potions essay, decided to give it up for the night. As he put his books away, Ron, who was dozing lightly in an armchair, gave a muffled grunt, awoke, looked blearily into the fire, and said, Sirius! Harry whipped around. Sirius's untidy dark head was sitting in the fire again. Hi, he said, grinning. Hi, chorused Harry, Ron, and Hermione, all three kneeling down upon the hearthrug. Crookshanks purred loudly and approached the fire, trying, despite the heat, to put his face close to Sirius's. How are things? said Sirius. Not that good, said Harry, as Hermione pulled Crookshanks back to stop him singeing his whiskers. The Ministry's forced through another decree which means we're not allowed to have Quidditch teams. Or secret defense against the Dark Arts groups? said Sirius. There was a short pause. How did you know about that? Harry demanded. You want to choose your meeting places more carefully, said Sirius, grinning still more broadly. The Hogshead, I ask you. Well, it was better than the three broomsticks, said Hermione defensively. That's always packed with people. Which means you'd have been harder to overhear, said Sirius. You've got a lot to learn, Hermione. Who overheard us? Harry demanded. Mundungus, of course, said Sirius. And when they all looked puzzled, he laughed. He was the witch under the veil. That was Mundungus, Harry said, stunned. What was he doing in the hog's head? What do you think he was doing? said Sirius impatiently. Keeping an eye on you, of course. I'm still being followed? asked Harry angrily. Yeah, you are, said Sirius. And just as well, isn't it? If the first thing you're going to do on your weekend off is organize an illegal defense group. But he looked neither angry nor worried. On the contrary, he was looking at Harry with distinct pride. Why was Dung hiding from us? asked Ron, sounding disappointed. We'd have liked to have seen him. He was banned from the Hogshead twenty years ago, said Sirius. And that barman's got a long memory. We lost Moody's spare invisibility cloak when Sturgis was arrested, so Dung's been dressing as a witch a lot lately. Anyway, first of all, Ron, I've sworn to pass on a message from your mother. Oh, yeah, said Ron, sounding apprehensive. She says on no account whatsoever are you to take part in an illegal secret defense against the Dark Arts group. She says you'll be expelled for sure and your future will be ruined. She says there will be plenty of time to learn how to defend yourself later, and that you are too young to be worrying about that right now. She also, Sirius's eyes turned to the other two, advises Harry and Hermione not to proceed with the group, though she accepts that she has no authority over either of them, and simply begs them to remember that she has their best interests at heart. She would have written all this to you, but... If the owl had been intercepted, you'd all have been in real trouble. And she can't say it for herself because she's on duty tonight. On duty doing what? said Ron quickly. Never you mind, just stuff for the order, said Sirius. 
So it's fallen on me to be the messenger, and make sure you tell her I passed it all on, because I don't think she trusts me to. There was another pause in which Crookshanks, mewing, attempted to pour Sirius's head, and Ron fiddled with a hole in the hearthrug. So you want me to say I'm not going to take part in the defense group? he muttered finally. Me? Certainly not, said Sirius, looking surprised. I think it's an excellent idea. You do? said Harry, his heart lifting. Of course I do, said Sirius. Do you think your father and I would have lain down and taken orders from an old hag like Umbridge? But last term all you did was tell me to be careful and not take risks. Last year all the evidence was that someone inside Hogwarts was trying to kill you, Harry, said Sirius impatiently. This year we know that there's someone outside Hogwarts who'd like to kill us all, so... I think learning to defend yourselves properly is a very good idea. And if we do get expelled? Hermione asked, a quizzical look on her face. Hermione, this whole thing was your idea, said Harry, staring at her. I knew it was. I just wondered what Sirius thought, she said, shrugging. Well, better expelled and able to defend yourselves than sitting safely in school without a clue, said Sirius. Hear, hear, said Harry and Ron enthusiastically. So, said Sirius, how are you organizing this group? Where are you meeting? Well, that's a bit of a problem now, said Harry. Don't know where we're going to be able to go. How about the Shrieking Shack? suggested Sirius. Hey, that's an idea, said Ron excitedly. But Hermione made a skeptical noise, and all three of them looked at her, Sirius's head turning in the flames. Well, Sirius, it's just that there were only four of you meeting in the Shrieking Shack when you were at school, said Hermione, and all of you could transform into animals, and I suppose you could all have squeezed under a single invisibility cloak if you'd wanted to, but there are twenty-eight of us, and none of us is an Animagus, so we wouldn't need so much an invisibility cloak as an invisibility marquee. Fair point, said Sirius, looking slightly crestfallen. Well, I'm sure you'll come up with somewhere. There used to be a pretty roomy secret passageway behind that big mirror on the fourth floor. You might have enough space to practice jinxes in there. Fred and George told me it's blocked, said Harry, shaking his head. Caved in or something. Oh, said Sirius, frowning. Well, I'll have a think and get back to... He broke off. His face was suddenly tense, alarmed. He turned sideways, apparently looking into the solid brick wall of the fireplace. Sirius? said Harry anxiously. But he had vanished. Harry gaped at the flames for a moment, then turned to look at Ron and Hermione. Why did he— Hermione gave a horrified gasp and leapt to her feet, still staring at the fire. A hand had appeared amongst the flames, groping as though to catch hold of something. A stubby, short-fingered hand covered in ugly old-fashioned rings. The three of them ran for it. At the door of the boys' dormitory, Harry looked back. Umbridge's hand was still making snatching movements among the flames, as though she knew exactly where Sirius's hair had been moments before, and was determined to seize it. Chapter 18 Dumbledore's Army Umbridge has been reading your mail, Harry. There's no other explanation. You think Umbridge attacked Hedwig? He said, outraged. 
I'm almost certain of it, said Hermione grimly. Watch your frog, it's escaping. Harry pointed his wand at the bullfrog that had been hopping hopefully toward the other side of the table. Hassio! And it zoomed gloomily back into his hand. Charms was always one of the best lessons in which to enjoy a private chat. There was generally so much movement and activity that the danger of being overheard was very slight. Today, with a room full of croaking bullfrogs and cawing ravens, and with a heavy downpour of rain clattering and pounding against the classroom windows, Harry, Ron, and Hermione's whispered discussion about how Umbridge had nearly caught Sirius went quite unnoticed. I've been suspecting this ever since Filch accused you of ordering dung bombs, because it seemed such a stupid lie, Hermione whispered. I mean, once your letter had been read, it would have been quite clear you weren't ordering them, so you wouldn't have been in trouble at all. It's a bit of a feeble joke, isn't it? But then I thought, what if somebody just wanted an excuse to read your mail? Well then, it would be a perfect way for Umbridge to manage it. Tip off Filch, let him do the dirty work and confiscate the letter, then either find a way of stealing it from him or else demand to see it. I don't think Filch would object. When's he ever stuck up for a student's rights? Harry, you're squashing your frog. Harry looked down. He was indeed squeezing his bullfrog so tightly its eyes were popping. He replaced it hastily upon the desk. It was a very, very close call last night, said Hermione. I just wonder if Umbridge knows how close it was. Silencio! The bullfrog on which she was practicing her silencing charm was struck dumb mid-croak and glared at her reproachfully. If she'd caught snuffles, Harry finished the sentence for her. He'd probably be back in Azkaban this morning. He waved his wand without really concentrating. His bullfrog swelled like a green balloon and emitted a high-pitched whistle. Silencio, said Hermione hastily, pointing her wand at Harry's frog, which deflated silently before them. Well, he mustn't do it again, that's all. I just don't know how we're going to let him know. We can't send him an owl. I don't reckon he'll risk it again, said Ron. He's not stupid. He knows she nearly got him. Silencio! The large and ugly raven in front of him let out a derisive caw. Silencio! Silencio! The raven cawed more loudly. It's the way you're moving your wand, said Hermione, watching Ron critically. You don't want to wave it. It's more a sharp jab. Ravens are harder than frogs, said Ron through clenched teeth. Fine, let's swap, said Hermione, seizing Ron's raven and replacing it with her own fat bullfrog. Silencio! The raven continued to open and close its sharp beak, but no sound came out. Very good, Miss Granger, said Professor Flitwick's squeaky little voice, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione all jumped. Now, let me see you try, Mr. Weasley. What? Oh, oh, right, said Ron, very flustered. Uh, silencio! He jabbed at the bullfrog so hard that he poked it in the eye. The frog gave a deafening croak and leapt off the desk. It came as no surprise to any of them that they were given additional practice of the silencing charm for homework. They were allowed to remain inside over break due to the downpour outside. They found seats in a noisy and overcrowded classroom on the first floor in which Peeves was floating dreamily up near the chandelier, occasionally blowing an ink pellet at the top of somebody's head. 
They had barely sat down when Angelina came struggling toward them through the groups of gossiping students. I've got permission, she said, to reform the Quidditch team. Excellent, said Ron and Harry together. Yeah, said Angelina, beaming. I went to McGonagall, and I think she might have appealed to Dumbledore. Anyway, Umbridge had to give in. Ha! So, I want you down at the pitch at seven o'clock tonight, all right? Because we've got to make up time. You realize we're only three weeks away from our first match? She squeezed away from them, narrowly dodged an ink pellet from Peeves, which hit a nearby first year instead, and vanished from sight. Ron's smile slipped slightly as he looked out of the window, which was now opaque with hammering rain. Hope this clears up. What's up with you, Hermione? She too was gazing at the window, but not as though she really saw it. Her eyes were unfocused, and there was a frown on her face. Just thinking, she said, still frowning at the rain-washed window. About Siri Snuffles? said Harry. No, not exactly, said Hermione slowly, more wondering. I suppose we're doing the right thing, I think, aren't we? Harry and Ron looked at each other. Well, that clears that up said Ron. It would have been really annoying if you hadn't explained yourself properly. Hermione looked at him as though she had only just realized he was there. I was just wondering, she said, her voice stronger now, whether we're doing the right thing, starting this defense against the dark arts group. What? said Harry and Ron together. Hermione, it was your idea in the first place, said Ron indignantly. I know, said Hermione, twisting her fingers together. After talking to Snuffles. But he's all for it, said Harry. Yes, said Hermione, staring at the window again. Yes, that's what made me think maybe it wasn't a good idea after all. Peeves floated over them on his stomach, pea shooter at the ready. Automatically, all three of them lifted their bags to cover their heads until he had passed. Let's get this straight, said Harry angrily as they put their bags back on the floor. Sirius agrees with us, so you don't think we should do it any more? Hermione looked tense and rather miserable. Now staring at her own hands, she said, Do you honestly trust his judgment? Yes, I do, said Harry at once. He's always given us great advice. An ink pellet whizzed past them, striking Katie Bell squarely in the ear. Hermione watched Katie leap to her feet and start throwing things at Peeves. It was a few moments before Hermione spoke again, and it sounded as though she was choosing her words very carefully. You don't think he has become sort of reckless since he's been cooped up in grim old place? You don't think he's kind of living through us? What do you mean, living through us? Harry retorted. I mean... Well, I think he'd love to be forming secret defense societies right under the nose of someone from the Ministry. I think he's really frustrated at how little he can do where he is. So, I think he's keen to kind of egg us on. Ron looked utterly perplexed. Sirius is right, he said. You do sound just like my mother. Hermione bit her lip and did not answer. The bell rang just as Peeves swooped down upon Katie and emptied an entire ink bottle over her head. The weather did not improve as the day wore on, so that at seven o'clock that evening, when Harry and Ron went down to the Quidditch pitch for practice, they were soaked through within minutes, their feet slipping and sliding on the sodden grass. The sky was a deep, thundery grey, 
and it was a relief to gain the warmth and light of the changing rooms, even if they knew the respite was only temporary. They found Fred and George debating whether to use one of their own skiving snack boxes to get out of flying. But I bet she'd know what we'd done, said Fred out of the corner of his mouth. If only I hadn't offered to sell her some puking pastilles yesterday. We could try the fever fudge, George muttered. No one's seen that yet. Does it work? inquired Ron hopefully, as the hammering of rain on the roof intensified and wind howled around the building. Well, yeah, said Fred. Your temperature will go right up. But you get these massive pus-filled boils, too, said George. And we haven't worked out how to get rid of them yet. I can't see any boils, said Ron, staring at the twins. No, well, you wouldn't, said Fred darkly. They're not in a place we generally display to the public. But they make sitting on a broom a ripe pain in the... All right, everyone, listen up said Angelina loudly, emerging from the captain's office. I know it's not ideal weather, but there's a good chance we'll be playing slithering in conditions like this, so it's a good idea to work out how we're going to cope with them. Harry, didn't you do something to your glasses to stop the rain fogging them up when we played Hufflepuff in that storm? Hermione did it, said Harry. He pulled out his wand, tapped his glasses, and said, Impervious! I think we all ought to try that said Angelina. If we could just keep the rain off our faces, it would really help visibility. Altogether, come on! Impervious! Okay, let's go. They all stowed their wands back in the inside pockets of their robes, shouldered their brooms, and followed Angelina out of the changing rooms. They squelched through the deepening mud to the middle of the pitch. Visibility was still very poor, even with the impervious charm. Light was fading fast, and curtains of rain were sweeping the grounds. All right, on my whistle, shouted Angelina. Harry kicked off from the ground, spraying mud in all directions, and shot upward, the wind pulling him slightly off course. He had no idea how he was going to see the snitch in this weather. He was having enough difficulty seeing the one bludger with which they were practicing. A minute into the practice, it almost unseated him, and he had to use the sloth grip roll to avoid it. Unfortunately, Angelina did not see this. In fact, she did not appear to be able to see anything. None of them had a clue what the others were doing. The wind was picking up. Even at a distance, Harry could hear the swishing, pounding sounds of the rain pummeling the surface of the lake. Angelina kept them at it for nearly an hour before conceding defeat. She led her sodden and disgruntled team back into the changing rooms, insisting that the practice had not been a waste of time, though without any real conviction in her voice. Fred and George were looking particularly annoyed. Both were bandy-legged and winced with every movement. Harry could hear them complaining in low voices as he toweled his hair dry. I think a few of mine have ruptured, said Fred in a hollow voice. Mine haven't, said George through clenched teeth. They're throbbing like mad. Feel bigger, if anything. Ouch, said Harry. He pressed the towel to his face, his eyes screwed tight with pain. The scar on his forehead had seared again, more painfully than in months. "'What's up?' said several voices. Harry emerged from behind his towel. The changing room was blurred because he was not wearing his glasses, but he could still tell that everyone's face was turned toward him. "'Nothing,' he muttered. "'I poked myself in the eye, that's all.' But he gave Ron a significant look and the two of them hung back as the rest of the team filed back outside, muffled in their cloaks, their hats pulled low over their ears. 
What happened? said Ron, the moment that Alicia had disappeared through the door. Was it your scar? Harry nodded. But, looking scared, Ron strode across to the window and stared out into the rain. He, he can't be near us now, can he? No, Harry muttered, sinking onto a bench and rubbing his forehead. He's probably miles away. It hurt because he's angry. Harry had not meant to say that at all, and heard the words as though a stranger had spoken them, yet he knew at once that they were true. He did not know how he knew it, but he did. Voldemort, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, was in a towering temper. Did you see him? said Ron, looking horrified. Did you get a vision or something? Harry sat quite still, staring at his feet, allowing his mind and his memory to relax in the aftermath of the pain. A confused tangle of shapes, a howling rush of voices. He wants something done. And it's not happening fast enough, he said. Again he felt surprised to hear the words coming out of his mouth, and yet quite certain that they were true. But how do you know? said Ron. Harry shook his head and covered his eyes with his hands, pressing down upon them with his palms. Little stars erupted in them. He felt Ron sit down on the bench beside him, and knew Ron was staring at him. Is this what it was about last time? said Ron in a hushed voice. When your scar hurt in Umbridge's office, you know who was angry? Harry shook his head. What is it then? Harry was thinking himself back. He had been looking into Umbridge's face. His scar had hurt, and he had had that odd feeling in his stomach. A strange, leaping feeling. A happy feeling. But of course, he had not recognized it for what it was, as he had been feeling so miserable himself. Last time, it was because he was pleased, he said. Really pleased. He thought something good was going to happen. And the night before we came back to Hogwarts, he thought back to the moment when his scar had hurt so badly in his and Ron's bedroom in Grimald Place. He was furious. He looked around at Ron, who was gaping at him. You could take over from Trelawney, mate, he said in an awed voice. I'm not making prophecies, said Harry. No, you know what you're doing, Ron said, sounding both scared and impressed. Harry, you're reading you-know-who's mind. No, said Harry, shaking his head. It's more like his mood, I suppose. I'm just getting flashes of what mood he's in. Dumbledore said something like this was happening last year. He said that when Voldemort was near me, or when he was feeling hatred, I could tell. Well, now I'm feeling it when he's pleased, too. There was a pause. The wind and rain lashed at the building. You've got to tell someone, said Ron. I told Sirius last time. Well, tell him about this time. Can't, can I, said Harry grimly. Umbridge is watching the owls and the fires, remember? Well then, Dumbledore. I've just told you he already knows, said Harry shortly, getting to his feet, taking his cloak off his peg, and swinging it around himself. There's no point telling him again. Ron did up the fastening of his own cloak, watching Harry thoughtfully. Dumbledore'd want to know, he said. Harry shrugged. Come on, we've still got silencing charms to practice. They hurried back through the dark grounds, sliding and stumbling up the muddy lawns, not talking. Harry was thinking hard. What was it that Voldemort wanted done that was not happening quickly enough? He's got other plans, 
Plans he can put into operation very quietly, indeed. Stuff he can only get by stealth. Like a weapon. Something he didn't have last time. He had not thought about those words in weeks. He had been too absorbed in what was going on at Hogwarts, too busy dwelling on the ongoing battles with Umbridge, the injustice of all the Ministry interference. But now they came back to him and made him wonder. Voldemort's anger would make sense if he was no nearer laying hands on the weapon, whatever it was. Had the Order thwarted him, stopped him from seizing it? Where was it kept? Who had it now? Mimbulus Mimbletonia, said Ron's voice, and Harry came back to his senses just in time to clamber through the portrait hole into the common room. It appeared that Hermione had gone to bed early, leaving Crookshanks curled in a nearby chair and an assortment of knobbly knitted elf hats lying on a table by the fire. Harry was rather grateful that she was not around, because he did not much want to discuss his scar-hurting and have her urge him to go to Dumbledore too. Ron kept throwing him anxious glances, but Harry pulled out his potions books and set to work to finish his essay, though he was only pretending to concentrate and, by the time that Ron said he was going to bed too, had written hardly anything. Midnight came and went while Harry was reading and rereading a passage about the uses of scurvy grass, lovage, and sneezewort, and not taking in a word of it. These plants are most efficacious in the inflaming of the brain, and are therefore much used in confusing and befuddlement drafts, where the wizard is desirous of producing hot-headedness and recklessness. Hermione said Sirius was becoming reckless, cooped up in Grimald Place. Most efficacious in the inflaming of the brain, and are therefore much used. The Daily Prophet would think his brain was inflamed if they found out that he knew what Voldemort was feeling. Therefore much used in confusing and befuddlement drafts. Confusing was the word, all right. Why did he know what Voldemort was feeling? What was this weird connection between them, which Dumbledore had never been able to explain satisfactorily? Where the wizard is desirous, how he would like to sleep. Of producing hot-headedness, it was warm and comfortable in his armchair before the fire, with the rain still beating heavily on the window panes, and Crookshanks purring, and the crackling of the flames. The book slipped from Harry's slack grip and landed with a dull thud on the hearthrug. His head fell sideways. He was walking once more along a windowless corridor, his footsteps echoing in the silence. As the door at the end of the passage loomed larger, his heart beat fast with excitement. If he could only open it, enter beyond. He stretched out his hand. His fingertips were inches from it. Harry Potter, sir! He awoke with a start. The candles had all been extinguished in the common room, but there was something moving close by. Who's there? said Harry, sitting upright in his chair. The fire was almost extinguished, the room very dark. Dobby has your owl, sir, said a squeaky voice. Dobby, said Harry thickly, peering through the gloom toward the source of the voice. Dobby the house-elf was standing beside the table on which Hermione had left her half a dozen knitted hats. His large pointed ears were now sticking out from beneath what looked like all the hats that Hermione had ever knitted. He was wearing one on top of the other, so that his head seemed elongated by two or three feet, and on the very topmost bobble sat Hedwig, hooting serenely, and obviously cured. Dobby volunteered to return Harry Potter's owl, 
said the elf squeakily, with a look of positive adoration on his face. Professor Grubblyplank says she is all well now, sir. He sank into a deep bow, so that his pencil-like nose brushed the threadbare surface of the hearthrug, and Hedwig gave an indignant hoot and fluttered onto the arm of Harry's chair. Thanks, Dobby, said Harry, stroking Hedwig's head and blinking hard, trying to rid himself of the image of the door in his dream. It had been very vivid. Surveying Dobby more closely, he noticed that the elf was also wearing several scarves and innumerable socks, so that his feet looked far too big for his body. Uh, have you been taking all the clothes Hermione's been leaving out? Oh, no, sir, said Dobby happily. Dobby has been taking some for Winky, too, sir. Yeah? How is Winky? asked Harry. Dobby's ears drooped slightly. Winky is still drinking lots, sir, he said sadly, his enormous round green eyes large as tennis balls downcast. She still does not care for clothes, Harry Potter, nor do the other house elves. None of them will clean Gryffindor Tower anymore, not with the hats and socks hidden everywhere. They find them insulting, sir. Dobby does it all himself, sir. But Dobby does not mind, sir, for he always hopes to meet Harry Potter. And tonight, sir, he has got his wish. Dobby sank into a deep bow again. But Harry Potter does not seem happy, Dobby went on, straightening up again and looking timidly at Harry. Dobby heard him muttering in his sleep. Was Harry Potter having bad dreams? Not really bad, said Harry, yawning and rubbing his eyes. I've had worse. The elf surveyed Harry out of his vast orb-like eyes. Then he said very seriously, his ears drooping, Dobby wishes he could help Harry Potter, for Harry Potter set Dobby free, and Dobby is much, much happier now. Harry smiled. You can't help me, Dobby, but thanks for the offer. He bent and picked up his potions book. He'd have to try and finish the essay tomorrow. He closed the book, and as he did so, the firelight illuminated the thin white scars on the back of his hand, the result of his detention with Umbridge. Wait a moment. There is something you can do for me, Dobby, said Harry slowly. The elf looked around, beaming. Name it, Harry Potter, sir. I need to find a place where twenty-eight people can practice defense against the dark arts without being discovered by any of the teachers, especially... Harry clenched his hand on the book so that the scars shone pearly white. Professor Umbridge. He expected the elf's smile to vanish, his ears to droop. He expected him to say that this was impossible or else that he would try, but his hopes were not high. What he had not expected was for Dobby to give a little skip, his ears waggling happily, and clap his hands together. Dobby knows the perfect place, sir, he said happily. Dobby heard tell of it from the other house elves when he came to Hogwarts, sir. It is known by us as the come and go room, sir, or else as the room of requirement. Why? said Harry curiously. Because it is a room that a person can only enter, said Dobby seriously, when they have real need of it. Sometimes it is there, and sometimes it is not. But when it appears, it is always equipped for the seeker's needs. Dobby has used it, sir, said the elf, dropping his voice and looking guilty. When Winky has been very drunk, 
He has hidden her in the room of requirement, and he has found antidotes to butterbeer there, and a nice elf-sized bed to settle her on while she sleeps it off, sir. And Dobby knows Mr. Filch has found extra cleaning materials there when he has run short, sir. And... And if you really needed a bathroom, said Harry suddenly, remembering something Dumbledore had said at the Yule Ball the previous Christmas, would it fill itself with chamber pots? Dobby expects so, sir, said Dobby, nodding earnestly. It is a most amazing room, sir. How many people know about it? said Harry, sitting up straighter in his chair. Very few, sir. Mostly people stumbles across it when they need it, sir. But often they never finds it again, for they do not know that it is always there waiting to be called into service, sir. It sounds brilliant, said Harry, his heart racing. It sounds perfect, Dobby. When can you show me where it is? Any time, Harry Potter, sir, said Dobby, looking delighted at Harry's enthusiasm. We could go now, if you like. For a moment, Harry was tempted to go now. He was halfway out of his seat, intending to hurry upstairs for his invisibility cloak when, not for the first time, a voice very much like Hermione's whispered in his ear, Reckless! It was, after all, very late. He was exhausted and had Snape's essay to finish. Not tonight, Dobby, said Harry reluctantly, sinking back into his chair. This is really important. I don't want to blow it. It'll need proper planning. Listen, can you just tell me exactly where this room of requirement is and how to get in there? Their robes billowed and swirled around them as they splashed across the flooded vegetable patch to double herbology, where they could hardly hear what Professor Sprout was saying over the hammering of raindrops hard as hailstones on the greenhouse roof. The afternoon's care of magical creatures lesson was to be relocated from the storm-swept grounds to a free classroom on the ground floor, and, to their intense relief, Angelina sought out her team at lunch to tell them that Quidditch practice was cancelled. Good, said Harry quietly when she told him, because we've found somewhere to have our first defense meeting. Tonight, eight o'clock, seventh floor, opposite that tapestry of Barnabas the Barmy being clubbed by those trolls. Can you tell Katie and Alicia? She looked slightly taken aback, but promised to tell the others. Harry returned hungrily to his sausages and mash. When he looked up to take a drink of pumpkin juice, he found Hermione watching him. What? he said thickly. Well, it's just that Dobby's plans aren't always that safe. Don't you remember when he lost you all the bones in your arm? This room isn't just some mad idea of Dobby's. Dumbledore knows about it, too. He mentioned it to me at the Yule Ball. Hermione's expression cleared. Dumbledore told you about it? Just in passing, said Harry, shrugging. Oh, well, that's all right then, said Hermione briskly, and she raised no more objections. Together with Ron, they had spent most of the day seeking out those people who had signed their names to the list in the Hogshead and telling them where to meet that evening. Somewhat to Harry's disappointment, it was Ginny who managed to find Cho Chang and her friend first. However, by the end of dinner, he was confident that the news had been passed to every one of the twenty-five people who had turned up in the hogshead. At half-past seven, Harry, Ron, and Hermione left the Gryffindor common room, Harry clutching a certain piece of aged parchment in his hand. Fifth years were allowed to be out in the corridors until nine o'clock, 
but all three of them kept looking around nervously as they made their way up to the seventh floor. Hold it, said Harry warningly, unfolding the piece of parchment at the top of the last staircase, tapping it with his wand and muttering, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. A map of Hogwarts appeared upon the blank surface of the parchment. Tiny black moving dots, labelled with names, showed where various people were. Filch is on the second floor, said Harry, holding the map close to his eyes and scanning it closely. And Mrs. Norris is on the fourth. And Umbridge, said Hermione anxiously. In her office, said Harry, pointing. Okay, let's go. They hurried along the corridor to the place Dobby had described to Harry, a stretch of blank wall opposite an enormous tapestry depicting Barnabas the Barmy's foolish attempt to train trolls for the ballet. Okay, said Harry quietly, while a moth-eaten troll paused in his relentless clubbing of the would-be ballet teacher to watch. Dobby said to walk past this bit of wall three times, concentrating hard on what we need. They did so, turning sharply at the window just beyond the blank stretch of wall, then at the man-sized vase on its other side. Ron had screwed up his eyes in concentration. Hermione was whispering something under her breath. Harry's fists were clenched as he stared ahead of him. We need somewhere to learn to fight, he thought. Just give us a place to practice, somewhere they can't find us. Harry, said Hermione sharply as they wheeled around after their third walk past. A highly polished door had appeared in the wall. Ron was staring at it, looking slightly wary. Harry reached out, seized the brass handle, pulled open the door, and led the way into a spacious room lit with flickering torches, like those that illuminated the dungeons eight floors below. The walls were lined with wooden bookcases, and instead of chairs there were large silk cushions on the floor. A set of shelves at the far end of the room carried a range of instruments, such as sneakerscopes, secrecy sensors, and a large cracked faux glass that Harry was sure had hung the previous year in the fake Moody's office. These will be good when we're practicing stunning, said Ron enthusiastically, prodding one of the cushions with his foot. And just look at these books, said Hermione excitedly, running a finger along the spines of the large leather-bound tomes. A compendium of common curses and their counteractions? The dark arts outsmarted? Self-defensive spellwork? Wow! She looked around at Harry, her face glowing, and he saw that the presence of hundreds of books had finally convinced Hermione that what they were doing was right. Harry, this is wonderful. There's everything we need here. And without further ado, she slid Jinxes for the Jinxed from its shelf, sank onto the nearest cushion, and began to read. There was a gentle knock on the door. Harry looked around. Ginny, Neville, Lavender, Pavati, and Dean had arrived. Whoa! said Dean, staring around, impressed. What is this place? Harry began to explain, but before he had finished, more people had arrived, and he had to start all over again. By the time eight o'clock arrived, every cushion was occupied. Harry moved across to the door and turned the key protruding from the lock. It clicked in a satisfyingly loud way, and everybody fell silent, looking at him. Hermione carefully marked her page of jinxes for the jinxed and set the book aside. Well, said Harry, slightly nervously, this is the place we found for practices, and you've, uh, obviously found it okay. It's fantastic 
said Cho, and several people murmured their agreement. It's bizarre, said Fred, frowning around at it. We once hid from Filch in here, remember, George? But it was just a broom cupboard then. Hey, Harry, what's this stuff? asked Dean from the rear of the room, indicating the sneakoscopes and the faux glass. Dark detectors, said Harry, stepping between the cushions to reach them. Basically, they all show when dark wizards or enemies are around, but you don't want to rely on them too much. They can be fooled. He gazed for a moment into the crack faux glass. Shadowy figures were moving around inside it, though none was recognizable. He turned his back on it. Well, I've been thinking about the sort of stuff we ought to do first, and, uh, he noticed a raised hand. What, Hermione? I think we ought to elect a leader, said Hermione. Harry's leader, said Cho at once, looking at Hermione as though she were mad, and Harry's stomach did yet another backflip. Yes, but I think we ought to vote on it properly, said Hermione unperturbed. It makes it formal, and it gives him authority. So, everyone who thinks Harry ought to be our leader... Everybody put up their hands, even Zacharias Smith, though he did it very half-heartedly. Uh, right, thanks, said Harry, who could feel his face burning. And uh, what, Hermione? I also think we ought to have a name, she said brightly, her hands still in the air. It would promote a feeling of team spirit and unity, don't you think? Can we be the Anti-Umbridge League? said Angelina, hopefully. Or the Ministry of Magic a Morons group? suggested Fred. I was thinking, said Hermione, frowning at Fred, more of a, a name that didn't tell everyone what we were up to, so that we can refer to it safely outside meetings. The Defense Association, said Cho, the DA for short, so nobody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, the DA's good, said Ginny, only let's make it stand for Dumbledore's army, because that's the Ministry's worst fear, isn't it? There was a good deal of appreciative murmuring and laughter at this. All in favor of the D.A., said Hermione bossily, kneeling up on her cushion to count. That's a majority. Motion passed. She pinned the piece of paper with all their names on it on the wall and wrote Dumbledore's Army across the top in large letters. Right, said Harry when she had sat down again. Shall we get practicing then? I was thinking the first thing we should do is Expelliarmus, you know, the disarming charm. I know it's pretty basic, but I found it really useful. Oh, please, said Zacharias Smith, rolling his eyes and folding his arms. I don't think Expelliarmus is exactly going to help us against you-know-who, do you? I've used it against him, said Harry quietly. It saved my life last June. Smith opened his mouth stupidly. The rest of the room was very quiet. But if you think it's beneath you, you can leave, Harry said. Smith did not move, nor did anybody else. Okay, said Harry, his mouth slightly drier than usual with all those eyes upon him. I reckon we should all divide into pairs and practice. It felt very odd to be issuing instructions, but not nearly as odd as seeing them followed. Everybody got to their feet at once and divided up. Predictably, Neville was left partnerless. You can practice with me, Harry told him. Right, on the count of three, then. One, two, three. The room was suddenly full of shouts of Expelliarmus. Wands flew in all directions. Mist spells hit books on shelves and sent them flying into the air. 
Harry was too quick for Neville, whose wand went spinning out of his hand, hit the ceiling in a shower of sparks, and landed with a clatter on top of a bookshelf, from which Harry retrieved it with a summoning charm. Glancing around, he thought he had been right to suggest that they practice the basics first. There was a lot of shoddy spellwork going on. Many people were not succeeding in disarming their opponents at all, but merely causing them to jump backward a few paces, or wince as the feeble spell whooshed over them. Expelliarmus, said Neville, and Harry, caught unawares, felt his wand fly out of his hand. I did it, said Neville gleefully. I've never done it before. I did it. Good one, said Harry encouragingly, deciding not to point out that in a real duel situation, Neville's opponent was unlikely to be staring in the opposite direction with his wand held loosely at his side. Listen, Neville, can you take it in turns to practice with Ron and Hermione for a couple of minutes so I can walk around and see how the rest are doing? Harry moved off into the middle of the room. Something very odd was happening to Zacharias Smith. Every time he opened his mouth to disarm Antony Goldstein, his own wand would fly out of his hand. Yet Antony did not seem to be making a sound. Harry did not have to look far for the solution of the mystery, however. Fred and George were several feet from Smith, and taking it in turns to point their wands at his back. Sorry, Harry, said George hastily, when Harry caught his eye. Couldn't resist. Harry walked around the other pairs, trying to correct those who were doing the spell wrong. Ginny was teamed with Michael Corner. She was doing very well, whereas Michael was either very bad or unwilling to jinx her. Ernie McMillan was flourishing his wand unnecessarily, giving his partner time to get in under his guard. The Creevy brothers were enthusiastic but erratic, and mainly responsible for all the books leaping off the shelves around them. Luna Lovegood was similarly patchy, occasionally sending Justin Finch Fletchley's wand spinning out of his hand, at other times merely causing his hair to stand on end. Okay, stop, Harry shouted. Stop, stop! I need a whistle, he thought, and immediately spotted one lying on top of the nearest row of books. He caught it up and blew hard. Everyone lowered their wands. That wasn't bad, said Harry, but there's definite room for improvement. Zacharias Smith glared at him. Let's try again. He moved off around the room again, stopping here and there to make suggestions. Slowly the general performance improved. He avoided going near Cho and her friend for a while, but after walking twice around every other pair in the room, felt he could not ignore them any longer. Oh no, said Cho rather wildly as he approached. Expelliarmius! I mean, Expellimelius! I... Oh, sorry, Marietta. Her curly-haired friend's sleeve had caught fire. Marietta extinguished it with her own wand and glared at Harry as though it was his fault. You made me nervous. I was doing all right before then, Cho told Harry ruefully. That was quite good, Harry lied. But when she raised her eyebrows, he said, Well, no, it was lousy, but I know you can do it properly. I was watching from over there. She laughed. Her friend Marietta looked at them rather sourly and turned away. Don't mind her, Cho muttered. She doesn't really want to be here, but I made her come with me. Her parents have forbidden her to do anything that might upset Umbridge, you see. Her mum works for the Ministry. What about your parents? asked Harry. Well, they've forbidden me to get on the wrong side of Umbridge, too, said Cho, drawing herself up proudly. But if they think I'm not going to fight you-know-who after what happened to Cedric. She broke off, looking rather confused 
and an awkward silence fell between them. Terry Boots's wand went whizzing past Harry's ear and hit Alicia Spinnet hard on the nose. Well, my father is very supportive of any anti-ministry action, said Luna Lovegood proudly from just behind Harry. Evidently she had been eavesdropping on his conversation, while Justin Finch Fletchley attempted to disentangle himself from the robes that had flown up over his head. He's always saying he'd believe anything of Fudge. I mean, the number of goblins Fudge has had assassinated. And, of course, he uses the Department of Mysteries to develop terrible poisons, which he feeds secretly to anybody who disagrees with him. And then there's his ungobular slash-kilter. Don't ask, Harry muttered to Cho as she opened her mouth, looking puzzled. She giggled. Hey, Harry, Hermione called from the other end of the room. Have you checked the time? He looked down at his watch and received a shock. It was already ten past nine, which meant they needed to get back to their common rooms immediately or risk being caught and punished by Filch for being out of bounds. He blew his whistle. Everybody stopped shouting Expelliarmus, and the last couple of ones clattered to the floor. Well, that was pretty good, said Harry, but we've overrun. We'd better leave it here. Same time, same place next week. Sooner, said Dean Thomas eagerly, and many people nodded in agreement. Angelina, however, said quickly, The Quidditch season's about to start. We need team practices, too. Let's say next Wednesday night, then, said Harry, and we can decide on additional meetings then. Come on, we'd better get going. He pulled out the Marauder's map again and checked it carefully for signs of teachers on the seventh floor. He let them all leave in threes and fours, watching their tiny dots anxiously to see that they returned safely to their dormitories. The Hufflepuffs to the basement corridor that also led to the kitchens, the Ravenclaws to a tower on the west side of the castle, and the Gryffindors along the corridor to the seventh floor and the fat lady's portrait. That was really, really good, Harry, said Hermione, when finally it was just her, Harry, and Ron left. Yeah, it was, said Ron enthusiastically as they slipped out of the door and watched it melt back into stone behind them. Did you see me disarm Hermione, Harry? Only once, said Hermione, stung. I got you loads more than you got me. I did not only get you once, I got you at least three times. Well, if you're counting the one where you tripped over your own feet and knocked the wand out of my hand... They argued all the way back to the common room, but Harry was not listening to them. He had one eye on the Marauder's map, but he was also thinking of how Cho had said he made her nervous. Chapter 19 the Lion and the Serpent Harry felt as though he were carrying some kind of talisman inside his chest over the following two weeks, a glowing secret that supported him through Umbridge's classes, and even made it possible for him to smile blandly as he looked into her horrible, bulging eyes. He and the DA were resisting her under her very nose, doing the very thing that she and the Ministry most feared, and whenever he was supposed to be reading Wilbert Slinkhard's book during her lessons, he dwelled instead on satisfying memories of their most recent meetings, remembering how Neville had successfully disarmed Hermione, how Colin Creevy had mastered the impediment jinx after three meetings' hard effort, how Pavati Patil had produced such a good reductor curse that she had reduced the table carrying all the sneakoscopes to dust. He was finding it almost impossible to fix a regular night of the week for DA meetings, 
as they had to accommodate three separate Quidditch teams' practices, which were often rearranged depending on the weather conditions. But Harry was not sorry about this. He had a feeling that it was probably better to keep the timing of their meetings unpredictable. If anyone was watching them, it would be hard to make out a pattern. Hermione soon devised a very clever method of communicating the time and date of the next meeting to all the members in case they needed to change it at short notice, because it would look so suspicious if people from different houses were seen crossing the Great Hall to talk to each other too often. She gave each of the members of the DA a fake galleon. Ron became very excited when he saw the basket at first, convinced that she was actually giving out gold. You see the numerals around the edge of the coins? Hermione said, holding one up for examination at the end of their fourth meeting. The coin gleamed fat and yellow in the light from the torches. On real galleons, that's just a serial number referring to the goblin who cast the coin. On these fake coins, though, the numbers will change to reflect the time and date of the next meeting. The coins will grow hot when the date changes, so if you're carrying them in a pocket, you'll be able to feel them. We take one each, and when Harry sets the date of the next meeting, he'll change the numbers on his coin, and because I put a protein charm on them, they'll all change to mimic his. A blank silence greeted Hermione's words. She looked around at all the faces upturned to her, rather disconcerted. Well, I thought it was a good idea, she said uncertainly. I mean, even if Umbridge asked us to turn out our pockets... There's nothing fishy about carrying a galleon, is there? But, well, if you don't want to use them... You can do a protean charm, said Terry Boot. Yes, said Hermione. But that's... that's N-E-W-T standard, that is, he said weakly. Oh, said Hermione, trying to look modest. Oh, well, yes, I suppose it is. How come you're not in Ravenclaw? he demanded, staring at Hermione with something close to wonder. With brains like yours! Well, the sorting hat did seriously consider putting me in Ravenclaw during my sorting, said Hermione brightly, but it decided on Gryffindor in the end. So, does that mean we're using the galleons? There was a murmur of assent, and everybody moved forward to collect one from the basket. Harry looked sideways at Hermione. You know what these remind me of? No. What's that? The Death Eater's scars. Voldemort touches one of them, and all their scars burn, and they know they've got to join him. Well, yes, said Hermione quietly. That is where I got the idea. But you'll notice I decided to engrave the date on bits of metal, rather than on our members' skin. Yeah, I prefer your way, said Harry, grinning, as he slipped his galleon into his pocket. I suppose the only danger with these is that we might accidentally spend them. Fat chance, said Ron, who was examining his own fake galleon with a slightly mournful air. I haven't got any real galleons to confuse it with. As the first Quidditch match of the season, Gryffindor versus Slytherin, drew nearer, their DA meetings were put on hold because Angelina insisted on almost daily practices. The fact that the Quidditch Cup had not been held for so long added considerably to the interest and excitement surrounding the forthcoming game. The Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs were taking a lively interest in the outcome, for they, of course, would be playing both teams over the coming year. And the heads of house of the competing teams, though they attempted to disguise it under a decent pretense of sportsmanship, were determined to see their side's victory. 
Harry realized how much Professor McGonagall cared about beating Slytherin when she abstained from giving them homework in the week leading up to the match. I think you've got enough to be getting on with at the moment, she said loftily. Nobody could quite believe their ears until she looked directly at Harry and Ron and said grimly, I've become accustomed to seeing the Quidditch Cup in my study, boys, and I really don't want to hand it over to Professor Snape. So use the extra time to practice, won't you? Snape was no less obviously partisan. He had booked the Quidditch pitch for Slytherin practice so often that the Gryffindors had difficulty getting on it to play. He was also turning a deaf ear to the many reports of Slytherin attempts to hex Gryffindor players in the corridors. When Alicia Spinnet turned up in the hospital wing, with her eyebrows growing so thick and fast that they obscured her vision and obstructed her mouth, Snape insisted that she must have attempted a hair-thickening charm on herself, and refused to listen to the fourteen eyewitnesses who insisted that they had seen the Slytherin keeper, Miles Bletchley, hit her from behind with a jinx while she worked in the library. Harry felt optimistic about Gryffindor's chances. They had, after all, never lost to Malfoy's team. Admittedly, Ron was still not performing to Wood's standard, but he was working extremely hard to improve. His greatest weakness was a tendency to lose confidence when he made a blunder. If he let in one goal, he became flustered and was therefore likely to miss more. On the other hand, Harry had seen Ron make some truly spectacular saves when he was on form. During one memorable practice, he had hung one-handed from his broom and kicked the quaffle so hard away from the goal hoop that it soared the length of the pitch and through the center hoop at the other end. The rest of the team felt this save compared favorably with one made recently by Barry Ryan, the Irish international keeper against Poland's top chaser, Ladislav Zamoyski. Even Fred has said that Ron might yet make him and George proud, and that they were seriously considering admitting that he was related to them, something, he assured Ron, they had been trying to deny for four years. The only thing really worrying Harry was how much Ron was allowing the tactics of the slithering teen to upset him before they even got onto the pitch. Harry, of course, had endured their snide comments for more than four years, so whispers of, Hey, Potty, I heard Warrington sworn to knock you off your broom on Saturday, far from chilling his blood, made him laugh. Warrington's aim so pathetic, I'd be more worried if he was aiming for the person next to me, he retorted, which made Ron and Hermione laugh and wipe the smirk off Pansy Parkinson's face. But Ron had never endured a relentless campaign of insults, jeers, and intimidation. When Slytherins, some of them seventh years and considerably larger than he was, muttered as they passed in the corridors, Got your bed booked in the hospital wing, Weasley? He did not laugh, but turned a delicate shade of green. When Draco Malfoy imitated Ron dropping the quaffle, which he did whenever they were within sight of each other, Ron's ears glowed red, and his hands shook so badly that he was likely to drop whatever he was holding at the time, too. October extinguished itself in a rush of howling winds and driving rain, and November arrived, cold as frozen iron, with hard frosts every morning and icy draughts that bit at exposed hands and faces. The skies and the ceiling of the great hall turned a pale, pearly grey, the mountains around Hogwarts became snow-capped, and the temperature in the castle dropped so far that many students wore their thick protective dragon-skin gloves in the corridors between lessons. The morning of the match dawned bright and cold. 
When Harry awoke, he looked around at Ron's bed and saw him sitting bolt upright, his arms around his knees, staring fixedly into space. You all right? said Harry. Ron nodded but did not speak. Harry was reminded forcibly of the time that Ron had accidentally put a slug-vomiting charm on himself. He looked just as pale and sweaty as he had done then, not to mention as reluctant to open his mouth. You just need some breakfast, Harry said bracingly. Come on. The great hall was filling up fast when they arrived, the talk louder and the mood more exuberant than usual. As they passed the slithering table there was an upsurge of noise. Harry looked around and saw that nearly everyone there was wearing, in addition to the usual green and silver scarves and hats, silver badges in the shape of what seemed to be crowns. For some reason many of them waved at Ron, laughing uproariously. Harry tried to see what was written on the badges as he walked by, but he was too concerned to get Ron past their table quickly to linger long enough to read them. They received a rousing welcome at the Gryffindor table, where everyone was wearing red and gold. But far from raising Ron's spirits, the cheers seemed to sap the last of his morale. He collapsed onto the nearest bench, looking as though he were facing his final meal. I must have been mental to do this, he said in a croaky whisper. Mental! Don't be thick, said Harry firmly, passing him a choice of cereals. You're going to be fine. It's normal to be nervous. I'm rubbish, croaked Ron. I'm lousy. I can't play to save my life. What was I thinking? Get a grip, said Harry sternly. Look at that save you made with your foot the other day. Even Fred and George said it was brilliant. Ron turned a tortured face to Harry. That was an accident, he whispered miserably. I didn't mean to do it. I slipped off my broom when none of you were looking, and I was trying to get back on, and I kicked the quaffle by accident. Well said Harry, recovering quickly from this unpleasant surprise. A few more accidents like that and the game's in the bag, isn't it? Hermione and Ginny sat down opposite them wearing red and gold scarves, gloves and rosettes. How are you feeling? Ginny asked Ron, who was now staring into the dregs of milk at the bottom of his empty cereal bowl, as though seriously considering attempting to drown himself in them. He's just nervous, said Harry. Well, that's a good sign. I never feel you perform as well in exams if you're not a bit nervous, said Hermione heartily. Hello, said a vague and dreamy voice from behind them. Harry looked up. Luna Lovegood had drifted over from the Ravenclaw table. Many people were staring at her and a few openly laughing and pointing. She had managed to procure a hat, shaped like a life-size lion's head, which was perched precariously on her head. I'm supporting Gryffindor said Luna, pointing unnecessarily at her hat. Look what it does! She reached up and tapped the hat with her wand. It opened its mouth wide and gave an extremely realistic roar that made everyone in the vicinity jump. It's good, isn't it? said Luna happily. I wanted to have it chewing up a serpent to represent Slytherin, you know, but there wasn't time. Anyway, good luck, Ronald! She drifted away. They had not quite recovered from the shock of Luna's hat before Angelina came hurrying toward them, accompanied by Katie and Alicia, whose eyebrows had mercifully been returned to normal by Madame Pomfrey. When you're ready, she said, we're going to go straight down to the pitch, check our conditions and change. We'll be there in a bit, Harry assured her. Ron's just got to have some breakfast. 
It became clear after ten minutes, however, that Ron was not capable of eating anything more, and Harry thought it best to get him down to the changing rooms. As they rose from the table, Hermione got up too, and taking Harry's arm, she drew him to one side. Don't let Ron see what's on those Slytherin's badges, she whispered urgently. Harry looked questioningly at her, but she shook her head warningly. Ron had just ambled over to them, looking lost and desperate. Good luck, Ron, said Hermione, standing on tiptoe and kissing him on the cheek. And you, Harry? Ron seemed to come to himself slightly as they walked back across the great hall. He touched the spot on his face where Hermione had kissed him, looking puzzled, as though he was not quite sure what had just happened. He seemed too distracted to notice much around him, but Harry cast a curious glance at the crown-shaped badges as they passed the Slytherin table, and this time he made out the words etched onto them. Weasley is our king. With an unpleasant feeling that this could mean nothing good, he hurried Ron across the entrance hall, down the stone steps, and out into the icy air. The frosty grass crunched under their feet as they hurried down the sloping lawns toward the stadium. There was no wind at all, and the sky was a uniform pearly white, which meant that visibility would be good, without the drawback of direct sunlight in the eyes. Harry pointed out these encouraging factors to Ron as they walked, but he was not sure that Ron was listening. Angelina had changed already and was talking to the rest of the team when they entered. Harry and Ron pulled on their robes. Ron attempted to do his up back to front for several minutes, before Alicia took pity on him and went to help and then sat down to listen to the pre-match talk, while the babble of voices outside grew steadily louder as the crowd came pouring out of the castle toward the pitch. Okay, I've only just found out the final line-up for Slytherin, said Angelina, consulting a piece of parchment. Last year's beaters, Derek and Bowl, have left now, but it looks as though Montague's replaced them with the usual gorillas, rather than anyone who can fly particularly well. They're two blokes called Crab and Goyle. I don't know much about them. We do, said Harry and Ron together. Well, they don't look bright enough to tell one end of a broom from another, said Angelina, pocketing her parchment. But then, I was always surprised Derek and Bowl managed to find their way onto the pitch without signposts. Crab and Goyle are in the same mould, Harry assured her. They could hear hundreds of footsteps mounting the bank benches of the spectators' stands now. Some people were singing, though Harry could not make out the words. He was starting to feel nervous, but he knew his butterflies were as nothing to Ron's, who was clutching his stomach and staring straight ahead again, his jaw set and his complexion pale grey. "'It's time,' said Angelina in a hushed voice, looking at her watch. "'Come on, everyone. Good luck!' The team rose, shouldered their brooms, and marched in single file out of the changing room and into the dazzling sunlight. A roar of sound greeted them, in which Harry could still hear singing, though it was muffled by the cheers and whistles. The Slytherin team was standing, waiting for them. They too were wearing those silver crown-shaped badges. The new captain, Montague, was built along the same lines as Dudley, with massive forearms like hairy hams. Behind him lurked Crab and Goyle, almost as large, blinking stupidly in the sunlight, swinging their new beater's bats. Malfoy stood to one side, the sunlight gleaming on his white blonde head. He caught Harry's eye and smirked, tapping the crown-shaped badge on his chest. "'Captains, shake hands!' ordered the umpire, Madam Hooch, 
as Angelina and Montague reached each other. Harry could tell that Montague was trying to crush Angelina's fingers, though she did not wince. Mount your brooms! Madame Hooch placed her whistle in her mouth and blew. The balls were released and the fourteen players shot upward. Out of the corner of his eye, Harry saw Ron streak off toward the goal hoops. He zoomed higher, dodging a bludger, and set off on a wide lap of the pitch, gazing around for a glint of gold. On the other side of the stadium, Draco Malfoy was doing exactly the same. And it's Johnson Johnson with a quaffle. What a player that girl is. I've been saying it for years, but she still won't go out with me. Jordan, yelled Professor McGonagall. Just a fun fact, Professor, as a bit of interest. And she's Duck Warrington. She's past Montague. She's, ouch, been hit from behind by a bludger from Crab. Montague catches the quaffle. Montague heading back up the pitch. And nice bludger there from George Weasley. That's a bludger to the head for Montague. He drops the quaffle. Caught by Katie Bell. Katie Bell of Gryffindor reverse passes to Alicia Spinnet and Spinnet's away. Lee Jordan's commentary rang through the stadium, and Harry listened as hard as he could through the wind whistling in his ears and the din of the crowd all yelling and booing and singing. Dodges Warrington, avoids a bludger. Close call, Alicia. And the crowd are loving this. Just listen to them. What's that they're singing? And as Lee paused to listen, the song rose loud and clear from the sea of green and silver in the Slytherin section of the stands. Weasley cannot save a thing, he cannot block a single ring, that's why Slytherins all sing, Weasley is our king. Weasley was born in a bin, he always lets the quaffle in, Weasley will make sure we win, Weasley is our king. And Alicia passes back to Angelina, Lee shouted. And as Harry swerved, his insides boiling at what he had just heard, he knew Lee was trying to drown out the sound of the singing. Come on now, Angelina. Looks like she's just got the keeper to beat. She shoots. She... Ah! Bletchley, the slithering keeper, had saved the goal. He threw the quaffle to Warrington, who sped off with it, zigzagging in between Alicia and Katie. The singing from below grew louder and louder as he drew nearer and nearer Ron. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He always lets the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. Harry could not help himself. Abandoning his search for the snitch, he wheeled around to watch Ron, a lone figure at the far end of the pitch, hovering before the three goal hoops, while the massive Warrington pelted toward him. And it's Warrington with a quaffle. Warrington heading for goal. He's out of bludger range, with just the keeper ahead. A great swell of song rose from the Slytherin stands below. Weasley cannot save a thing, he cannot block a single ring. So it's the first test for new Gryffindor keeper, Weasley, brother of Beaches, Fred and George, and a promising new talent on the team. Come on, Ron! But the scream of delight came from the Slytherin end. Ron had dived wildly, his arms wide, and the quaffle had soared between them, straight through Ron's central hoop. Slytherin score! came Lee's voice amid the cheering and booing from the crowds below. So that's ten nil to Slytherin. Bad luck, Ron. The Slytherin sang even louder. Weasley was born in a bin. He always lets the quaffle in. And Gryffindor back in possession. And it's Katie Bell tanking up the pitch, cried Lee valiantly, though the singing was now so deafening that he could hardly make himself heard above it. Weasley will make sure we win. Weasley is our king. Harry, what are you doing? screamed Angelina, soaring past him to keep up with Katie. Get going! 
Harry realized that he had been stationary in midair for more than a minute, watching the progress of the match without sparing a thought for the whereabouts of the snitch. Horrified, he went into a dive and started circling the pitch again, staring around, trying to ignore the chorus now thundering through the stadium. Weasley is our king! Weasley is our king! There was no sign of the snitch anywhere he looked. Malfoy was still circling the stadium just like Harry. They passed midway around the pitch going in opposite directions, and Harry heard Malfoy singing loudly. Weasley was born in a bin. And it's Warrington again, bellowed Lee. Who passes to Pusey? Pusey's off past Spinnet. Come on now, Angelina, you can take him. Turns out you can't. But nice bludger from Fred Weasley. I mean, George Weasley. Oh, who cares? One of them anyway. And Warrington drops the quaffle. And Katie Bell uh, drops it too. So that's Montague with the quaffle. Slithering Captain Montague takes the quaffle. And he's off up the pitch. Come on now, Gryffindor. Block him. Harry zoomed around the end of the stadium behind the slithering goal hoops, willing himself not to look at what was going on at Ron's end. As he sped past the slithering keeper, he heard Bletchley singing along with the crowd below. Weasley cannot save a thing! And Pusey's dodged Alicia again, and he's heading straight for goal! Stop it! Run! Harry did not have to look to see what had happened. There was a terrible groan from the Gryffindor end, coupled with fresh screams and applause from the Slytherins. Looking down, Harry saw the pug-faced Pansy Parkinson right at the front of the stands, her back to the pitch, as she conducted the Slytherin supporters, who were roaring. That's why Slytherins all sing, Weasley is our king! But twenty-nil was nothing. There was still time for Gryffindor to catch up or catch the snitch. A few goals and they would be in the lead as usual. Harry assured himself bobbing and weaving through the other players in pursuit of something shiny that turned out to be Montague's watch strap. But Ron let in two more goals. There was an edge of panic in Harry's desire to find the snitch now. If he could just get it soon and finish the game quickly. And Katie Bell of Gryffindor dodges Pusey. Ducks Montague. Nice swerve, Katie. And she throws to Johnson. Angelina Johnson takes the quaffle. She's past Warrington. She's heading for goal. Come on now, Angelina. Gryffindor score! It's forty-ten! Forty-ten to Slytherin, and Pusey has a quaffle. Harry could hear Luna's ludicrous lion hat roaring amidst the Gryffindor cheers and felt heartened. Only thirty points in it. That was nothing. They could pull back easily. Harry ducked a bludger that Crab had sent rocketing in his direction and resumed his frantic scouring of the pitch for the snitch, keeping one eye on Malfoy in case he showed signs of having spotted it. But Malfoy, like him, was continuing to soar around the stadium, searching fruitlessly. Pusey throws to Warrington. Warrington to Montague. Montague back to Pusey. Johnson intervenes. Johnson takes the quaffle. Johnson to Bell. This looks good. I mean bad. Bell's hit by a bludger from Goyle of Slytherin, and it's Pusey in possession again. Weasley was born in a bin. He always lets the quaffle in. Weasley will make sure we win. But Harry had seen it at last. The tiny, fluttering golden snitch was hovering feet from the ground at the Slytherin end of the pitch. He dived. In a matter of seconds, Malfoy was streaking out of the sky on Harry's left, a green and silver blur lying flat on his broom. The snitch skirted the foot of one of the goal hoops and scooted off toward the other side of the stands. Its change of direction suited Malfoy, who was nearer. Harry pulled his firebolt around. He and Malfoy were now neck and neck. Feet from the ground... Harry lifted his right hand from his broom, stretching toward the snitch. To his right, Malfoy's arm extended too, reaching, groping. 
It was over in two breathless, desperate, windswept seconds. Harry's fingers closed around the tiny, struggling ball. Malfoy's fingernails scrabbled the back of Harry's hand hopelessly. Harry pulled his broom upward, holding the struggling ball in his hand, and the Gryffindor spectators screamed their approval. They were saved. It did not matter that Ron had let in those goals nobody would remember as long as Gryffindor had won. Bam! A bludger hit Harry squarely in the small of the back, and he flew forward off his broom. Luckily, he was only five or six feet above the ground, having dived so low to catch the snitch, but he was winded all the same as he landed flat on his back on the frozen pitch. He heard Madame Hooch's shrill whistle, an uproar in the stands compounded of catcalls, angry yells and jeering, a thud, then Angelina's frantic voice. Are you all right? Course I am, said Harry grimly, taking her hand and allowing her to pull him to his feet. Madame Hooch was zooming toward one of the Slytherin players above him, though he could not see who it was at this angle. It was that thug, Crab! said Angelina angrily. He whacked the bludger at you the moment he saw you'd got the snitch. But we won, Harry. We won. Harry heard a snort from behind him and turned around, still holding the snitch tightly in his hand. Draco Malfoy had landed close by, white-faced with fury. He was still managing to sneer. Saved Weasley's neck, haven't you? he said to Harry. I've never seen a worse keeper, but then he was born in a bin. Did you like my lyrics, Potter? Harry did not answer. He turned away to meet the rest of the team, who were now landing one by one, yelling and punching the air in triumph, all except Ron, who had dismounted from his broom over by the goalposts and was making his way slowly back to the changing rooms alone. We wanted to write another couple of verses, Malfoy called, as Katie and Alicia hugged Harry, but we couldn't find rhymes for fat and ugly. We wanted to sing about his mother, see? Talk about sour grapes, said Angelina, casting Malfoy a disgusted look. We couldn't fit in useless loser either, for his father, you know. Fred and George had realized what Malfoy was talking about. Halfway through shaking Harry's hand, they stiffened, looking around at Malfoy. Leave it, said Angelina at once, taking Fred by the arm. Leave it, Fred. Let him yell. He's just saw he lost the jumped-up little... But you like the Weasleys, don't you, Potter? said Malfoy, sneering. Spend holidays there and everything, don't you? Can't see how you stand the stink. But I suppose when you've been dragged up by muggles, even the Weasleys' hovels smells okay. Harry grabbed hold of George. Meanwhile, it was taking the combined efforts of Angelina, Alicia, and Katie to stop Fred leaping on Malfoy, who was laughing openly. Harry looked around for Madame Hooch but she was still berating Crab for his illegal bludger attack. Or perhaps, said Malfoy, leering as he backed away, you can remember what your mother's house stank like, Potter, and Weasley's pigsty reminds you of it. Harry was not aware of releasing George. All he knew was that a second later both of them were sprinting at Malfoy. He had completely forgotten the fact that all the teachers were watching. All he wanted to do was cause Malfoy as much pain as possible. With no time to draw out his wand, he merely drew back the fist, clutching the snitch, and sank it as hard as he could into Malfoy's stomach. Harry! Harry! George! No! He could hear girls' voices screaming, Malfoy yelling, George swearing, a whistle blowing, and the bellowing of the crowd around him. But he did not care. Not until somebody in the vicinity yelled, 
Impedimenta! And only when he was knocked over backward by the force of the spell did he abandon the attempt to punch every inch of Malfoy he could reach. What do you think you're doing? screamed Madame Hooch as Harry leapt to his feet again. It was she who had hit him with the impediment jinx. She was holding her whistle in one hand and a wand in the other. Her broom lay abandoned several feet away. Malfoy was curled up on the ground, whimpering and moaning, his nose bloody. George was sporting a swollen lip. Fred was still being forcibly restrained by the three chasers, and Crab was cackling in the background. I've never seen behavior like it. Back up to the castle, both of you, and straight to your head of house's office. Go! Now! Harry and George turned on their heels and marched off the pitch, both panting, neither saying a word to each other. The howling and jeering of the crowd grew fainter and fainter until they reached the entrance hall, where they could hear nothing except the sound of their own footsteps. Harry became aware that something was still struggling in his right hand, the knuckles of which he had bruised against Malfoy's jaw. Looking down, he saw the snitch's silver wings protruding from between his fingers, struggling for release. They had barely reached the door of Professor McGonagall's office when she came marching along the corridor behind them. She was wearing a Gryffindor scarf, but tore it from her throat with shaking hands as she strode toward them, looking livid. In! she said furiously, pointing to the door. Harry and George entered. She strode around behind her desk and faced them, quivering with rage as she threw the Gryffindor scarf aside onto the floor. Well, she said, I have never seen such a disgraceful exhibition. Two unto one. Explain yourselves. Malfoy provoked us, said Harry stiffly. Provoked you? shouted Professor McGonagall, slamming a fist onto her desk so that her tartan biscuit tin slid sideways off it and burst open, littering the floor with ginger newts. He just lost, hadn't he? Of course he wanted to provoke you. But what on earth he can have said that justifies what you do? He insulted my parents, snarled George, and Harry's mother. But instead of leaving it to Madame Hooch to sort out, you two decided to give an exhibition of muggle dueling, did you? bellowed Professor McGonagall. Have you any idea what you've... Hum! Hum! George and Harry both wheeled around. Dolores Umbridge was standing in the doorway wrapped in a green tweed coat that greatly enhanced her resemblance to a giant toad, and smiling in the horribly sickly, ominous way that Harry had come to associate with imminent misery. May I help, Professor McGonagall? asked Professor Umbridge in her most poisonously sweet voice. Blood rushed into Professor McGonagall's face. Help, she repeated in a constricted voice. What do you mean, help? Professor Umbridge moved forward into the office, still smiling her sickly smile. Why, I thought you might be grateful for a little extra authority. Harry would not have been surprised to see sparks fly from Professor McGonagall's nostrils. You thought wrong, she said, turning her back on Umbridge. Now you two had better listen closely. I do not care what provocation Malfoy offered you. I do not care if he insulted every family member you possess. Your behavior was disgusting, and I'm giving each of you a week's worth of detention. Do not look at me like that, Potter. You deserve it. And if either of you ever... Hmm, hmm. Professor McGonagall closed her eyes as though praying for patience as she turned her face toward Professor Umbridge again. Yes, I think they deserve rather more than detentions, 
said Umbridge, smiling still more broadly. Professor McGonagall's eyes flew open. But unfortunately, she said with an attempt at a reciprocal smile that made her look as though she had lockjaw, it is what I think that counts, as they are in my house, Dolores. Well, actually, Minerva, simpered Umbridge, I think you find that what I think does count. Now, where is it? Cornelius just sent it. I mean... She gave a little false laugh as she rummaged in her handbag. The minister just sent it. Ah, yes. She had pulled out a piece of parchment that she now unfurled, clearing her throat fussily before starting to read what it said. <clears throat> Educational decree number 25. Not another one! exclaimed Professor McGonagall violently. Well, yes, said Umbridge, still smiling. As a matter of fact, Minerva, it was you who made me see that we needed a further amendment. You remember how you overrode me when I was unwilling to allow the Gryffindor Quidditch team to reform? How you took the case to Dumbledore, who insisted that the team be allowed to play? Well, now, I couldn't have that. I contacted the minister at once. And he quite agreed with me that the High Inquisitor has to have the power to strip pupils of privileges, or she, that is to say I, would have less authority than common teachers. And you see now, don't you, Minerva, how right I was in attempting to stop the Gryffindor team reforming. Dreadful tempers. Anyway, I was reading out our amendment. <laughs> The High Inquisitor will henceforth have supreme authority over all punishments, sanctions, and removal of privileges pertaining to the students of Hogwarts, and the power to alter such punishments, sanctions, and removals of privileges as may have been ordered by other staff members. Signed, Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, Order of Merlin, First Class, etc., etc., she rolled up the parchment and put it back into her handbag, still smiling. So, I really think I will have to ban these two from playing Quidditch ever again, she said, looking from Harry to George and back again. Harry felt the snitch fluttering madly in his hand. Ban us, he said, and his voice sounded strangely distant. From playing? Ever again? Yes, Mr. Potter. I think a lifelong ban ought to do the trick, said Umbridge, her smile widening still further as she watched him struggle to comprehend what she had said. You and Mr. Weasley here. And I think, to be safe, this young man's twin ought to be stopped too. If his teammates had not restrained him, I feel sure he would have attacked young Mr. Malfoy as well. I will want their broomsticks confiscated, of course. I shall keep them safely in my office to make sure there is no infringement of my ban. But I am not unreasonable, Professor McGonagall, she continued, turning back to Professor McGonagall, who was now standing as still as though carved from ice, staring at her. The rest of the team can continue playing. I saw no signs of violence from any of them. Well, good afternoon to you. And with a look of utmost satisfaction, Umbridge left the room, leaving a horrified silence in her wake. And, said Angelina in a hollow voice, late that evening in the common room. Banned? No seeker and no beaters? What on earth are we going to do? It did not feel as though they had won the match at all. Everywhere Harry looked, there were disconsolate and angry faces, 
The team themselves were slumped around the fire, all apart from Ron, who had not been seen since the end of the match. It's just so unfair, said Alicia numbly. I mean, what about Crab and that bludger he hit after the whistle had been blown? Has she banned him? No, said Ginny miserably. She and Hermione were sitting on either side of Harry. He just got lines. I heard Montague laughing about it at dinner. And banning Fred when he didn't even do anything, said Alicia furiously, pummeling her knee with her fist. It's not my fault I didn't, said Fred, with a very ugly look on his face. I would have pounded the little scumbag to a pulp if you three hadn't been holding me back. Harry stared miserably at the dark window. Snow was falling. The stitch he had caught earlier was now zooming around and around the common room. People were watching its progress as though hypnotized, and Crookshanks was leaping from chair to chair, trying to catch it. I'm going to bed, said Angelina, getting slowly to her feet. Maybe this will all turn out to have been a bad dream. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and find we haven't played yet. She was soon followed by Alicia and Katie. Fred and George sloped off to bed some time later, glowering at everyone they passed, and Ginny went not long after that. Only Harry and Hermione were left beside the fire. Have you seen Ron? Hermione asked in a low voice. Harry shook his head. I think he's avoiding us, said Hermione. Where do you think he... But at that precise moment, there was a creaking sound behind them as the fat lady swung forward and Ron came clambering through the portrait hole. He was very pale indeed, and there was snow in his hair. When he saw Harry and Hermione, he stopped dead in his tracks. "'Where have you been?' said Hermione anxiously, springing up. "'Walking,' Ron mumbled. He was still wearing his Quidditch things. "'You look frozen,' said Hermione. "'Come and sit down.' Ron walked to the fireside and sank into the chair farthest from Harry's, not looking at him. The stolen snitch zoomed over their heads. I'm sorry, Ron mumbled, looking at his feet. What for? said Harry. For thinking I can play Quidditch, said Ron. I'm going to resign first thing tomorrow. If you resign, said Harry testily, there'll only be three players left on the team. And when Ron looked puzzled, he said, I've been given a lifetime ban, so have Fred and George. What? Ron yelped. Hermione told him the full story. Harry could not bear to tell it again. When she had finished, Ron looked more anguished than ever. This is all my fault. You didn't make me punch Malfoy, said Harry angrily. If I wasn't so lousy at Quidditch, it's got nothing to do with that. It was that song that wound me up. It would have wound anyone up. Hermione got up and walked to the window, away from the argument, watching the snow swirling down against the pane. Look, drop it, will you? Harry burst out. It's bad enough without you blaming yourself for everything. Ron said nothing, but sat gazing miserably at the damp hem of his robes. After a while, he said in a dull voice, This is the worst I've ever felt in my life. Join the club, said Harry bitterly. Well, said Hermione, her voice trembling slightly, I can think of one thing that might cheer you both up. Oh, yeah, said Harry, skeptically. Yeah, said Hermione, turning away from the pitch-black snowflake window, a broad smile spreading across her face. Hagrid's back. Chapter 20 Hagrid's Tale 
Harry sprinted up to the boys' dormitory to fetch the invisibility cloak and the marauder's map from his trunk. He was so quick that he and Ron were ready to leave at least five minutes before Hermione hurried back down from the girls' dormitories, wearing scarf, gloves, and one of her own knobbly elf hats. "'Well, it's cold out there,' she said defensively as Ron clicked his tongue impatiently. They crept through the portrait hole and covered themselves hastily in the cloak. Ron had grown so much he now needed to crouch to prevent his feet showing. Then, moving slowly and cautiously, they proceeded down the many staircases, pausing at intervals to check the map for signs of Filch or Mrs. Norris. They were lucky. They saw nobody but nearly headless Nick, who was gliding along absent-mindedly humming something that sounded horribly like Weasley is our king. They crept across the entrance hall and then out into the silent, snowy grounds. With a great leap of his heart, Harry saw little golden squares of light ahead and smoke coiling up from Hagrid's chimney. He set off at a quick march, the other two jostling and bumping along behind him, and they crunched excitedly through the thickening snow until at last they reached the wooden front door. When Harry raised his fist and knocked three times, a dog started barking frantically inside. Hagrid! It's us! Harry called through the keyhole. Should have known, said a gruff voice. They beamed at one another under the cloak. They could tell that Hagrid's voice was pleased. Been home three seconds. Out the way, Fang. Out the way, you dozy dog. The bolt was drawn back, the door creaked open, and Hagrid's head appeared in the gap. Hermione screamed. Merlin's beard, keep it down, said Hagrid hastily, staring wildly over their heads. Under that cloak, are you? Well, get in, get in. I'm sorry, Hermione gasped, as the three of them squeezed past Hagrid into the house and pulled the cloak off themselves so he could see them. I just... Oh, Hagrid! It's nothing, it's nothing, said Hagrid hastily, shutting the door behind them and hurrying to close all the curtains. But Hermione continued to gaze up at him in horror. Hagrid's hair was matted with congealed blood, and his left eye had been reduced to a puffy slit amid a mass of purple and black bruises. There were many cuts on his face and hands, some of them still bleeding, and he was moving gingerly, which made Harry suspect broken ribs. It was obvious that he had only just got home. A thick black travelling cloak lay over the back of a chair, and a haversack large enough to carry several small children leaned against the wall inside the door. Hagrid himself, twice the size of a normal man and three times as broad, was now limping over to the fire and placing a copper kettle over it. "'What happened to you?' Harry demanded, while Fang danced around them all, trying to lick their faces. "'Told you nothing,' said Hagrid firmly. "'Want a cuppa?' "'Come off it,' said Ron. "'You're in a right state.' "'I'm telling you I'm fine.' said Hagrid, straightening up and turning to beam at them all, but wincing. Blimey, it's good to see you three again. Had good summers, did you? Hagrid, you've been attacked, said Ron. For the last time, it's nothing, said Hagrid firmly. Would you say it was nothing if one of us turned out with a pound of mince instead of a face? Ron demanded. You ought to go and see Madame Pomfrey, Hagrid, said Hermione anxiously. Some of those cuts look nasty. I'm dealing with it all right, said Hagrid repressively. He walked across to the enormous wooden table that stood in the middle of his cabin and twitched aside a tea towel that had been lying on it. Underneath was a raw, bloody, green-tinged steak, slightly larger than the average car tire.
You're not going to eat that, are you, Hagrid? said Ron, leaning in for a closer look. It looks poisonous. It's supposed to look like that. It's dragon meat, Hagrid said, and I didn't get it to eat. He picked up the steak and slapped it over the left side of his face. Greenish blood trickled down into his beard as he gave a soft moan of satisfaction. That's better. It helps with the singing, you know. So, are you going to tell us what's happened to you? Harry asked. Can't, Harry. Top secret. More than me job's worth to tell you that. Did the giants beat you up, Hagrid? asked Hermione quietly. Hagrid's fingers slipped on the dragon's stake, and it slid squelchily onto his chest. Giants? said Hagrid, catching the stake before it reached his belt and slapping it back over his face. Who said anything about giants? Who you been talking to? Who told you what I've... Who said I've been... Eh? We guessed, said Hermione apologetically. Oh, you did, did you? said Hagrid, surveying her sternly with the eye that was not hidden by the stake. It was kind of obvious, said Ron. Harry nodded. Hagrid glared at them, then snorted, threw the stake onto the table again, and strode back to the kettle, which was now whistling. Never known kids like you three for knowing more than you oughta, he muttered, splashing boiling water into three of his bucket-shaped mugs. And I'm not complimenting you, neither. Nosy, some would call it. Interfering. But his beard twitched. So you have been to look for giants, said Harry, grinning as he sat down at the table. Hagrid set tea in front of each of them, sat down, picked up his stake again, and slapped it back over his face. Yeah, all right, he grunted. I have. And you found them? said Hermione in a hushed voice. Well, they're not that difficult to find, to be honest, said Hagrid. Pretty big, see? Where are they? said Ron. Mountains, said Hagrid unhelpfully. So why don't muggles... They do, said Hagrid darkly. Only their deaths are always put down to mountaineering accidents, aren't they? He adjusted the stake a little so that it covered the worst of the bruising. Come on, Hagrid, tell us what you've been up to, said Ron. Tell us about being attacked by the giants, and Harry can tell you about being attacked by the Dementors. Hagrid choked in his mug and dropped his stake at the same time. A large quantity of spit, tea, and dragon blood was sprayed over the table as Hagrid coughed and spluttered and the stake slid with a soft splat onto the floor. What do you mean, attacked by Dementors? growled Hagrid. Didn't you know? Hermione asked him, wide-eyed. I don't know anything that's been happening since I left. I was on a secret mission, wasn't I? Didn't want owls following me all over the place. Ruddy Dementors? You're not serious. Yeah, I am. They turned up in little whinging and attacked my cousin and me, and then the Ministry of Magic expelled me. What? And I had to go to a hearing and everything. But tell us about the giants first. You were expelled? Tell us about your summer, and I'll tell you about mine. Hagrid glared at him through his one open eye. Harry looked right back, an expression of innocent determination on his face. Oh, all right, Hagrid said in a resigned voice. He bent down and tugged the dragon stake out of Fang's mouth. Oh, Hagrid, don't. It's not hygiene. Hermione began, but Hagrid had already slapped the meat back over his swollen eye. He took another fortifying gulp of tea and then said, Well, we set off right after term ended. 
Madame Maxime went with you then, Hermione interjected. Yeah, that's right, said Hagrid, and a softened expression appeared on the few inches of face that were not obscured by beard or green steak. Yeah, it was just the pair of us. And I tell you this, she's not afraid of roughing it a limp. You know, she's a fine, well-dressed woman, and knowing where we was going, I wondered how she'd feel about clambering over boulders and sleeping in caves and that, but she never complained once. You knew where you were going, Harry repeated. You knew where the giants were? Well, Dumbledore knew, and he told us, said Hagrid. Are they hidden? asked Ron. Is it a secret where they are? Not really said Hagrid, shaking his shaggy head. It's just that most wizards aren't bothered where they are, so long as it's a good long way away. But where they are is very difficult to get to, for humans anyway, so we needed Dumbledore's instructions. Took us about a month to get there. A month? said Ron, as though he'd never heard of a journey lasting such a ridiculously long time. But why couldn't you just grab a port key or something? There was an odd expression in Hagrid's unobscured eye as he surveyed Ron. It was almost pitying. We're being watched, Ron, he said gruffly. What do you mean? You don't understand, said Hagrid. The Ministry's keeping an eye on Dumbledore and anyone they reckon's in league with him, and— We know about that, said Harry quickly, keen to hear the rest of Hagrid's story. We know about the Ministry watching Dumbledore. So you couldn't use magic to get there? asked Ron, looking thunderstruck. You had to act like muggles? All the way? Well, not exactly all the way, said Hagrid cagily. We just had to be careful, cause a limp and me, we stick out a bit. Ron made a stifled noise somewhere between a snort and a sniff, and hastily took a gulp of tea. So we're not hard to follow. We was pretending we was going on holiday together, so we got into France, and we made like we was heading for where Olymp's school is, cause we knew we was being tailed by someone from the Ministry. We had to go slow, cause I'm not really supposed to use magic, and we knew the Ministry had be looking for a reason to run us in. But we managed to give the Burke trailing us the slip around about Dijon. Oh, Dijon! said Hermione excitedly. I've been there on holiday. Did you see? She fell silent at the look on Ron's face. We chanced a bit of magic after that, and it wasn't a bad journey. Ran into a couple of mad trolls on the Polish border, and I had a slight disagreement with a vampire in a pub in Minsk. But apart from that, couldn't have been smoother. And then we reached the place, and we started trekking up through the mountains, looking for signs of them. We had to lay off the magic once we got near them, partly because they don't like wizards, and we didn't want to put their backs up too soon, and partly because Dumbledore had warned us you-know-who was bound to be after the giants and all, said it was odds on he'd send a messenger off to them already, told us to be very careful of drawing attention to ourselves as we got nearer, in case there was Death Eaters around. Hagrid paused for a long draught of tea. Go on said Harry urgently. Found them, said Hagrid boldly. Went over a ridge one night, and there they was, spread out underneath us, little fires burning below, and huge shadows. It was like watching bits of the mountain moving. How big are they? asked Ron in a hushed voice. About 
twenty feet, said Hagrid casually. Some of the bigger ones might have been twenty-five. And how many were there? asked Harry. I reckon about seventy or eighty, said Hagrid. Is that all? said Hermione. Yep, said Hagrid sadly. Eighty left. And there was loads once. Must have been a hundred different tribes from all over the world. But they've been dying out for ages. Wizards killed a few, of course, but mostly they killed each other, and now they're dying out faster than ever. They're not made to live bunched up together like that. Dumbledore says it's our fault. It was the wizards who forced them to go and make them live a good long way from us, and they had no choice but to stick together for their own protection. So, said Harry, you saw them, and then what? Well, we waited till morning. Didn't want to go sneaking up on them in the dark for our own safety, said Hagrid. About three in the morning, they fell asleep just where they were sitting. We didn't dare sleep. For one thing, we wanted to make sure none of them woke up and came up where we were. And for another, the snoring was unbelievable. Caused an avalanche near morning. Anyway, once it was light, we went down to see him. Just like that? said Ron, looking awestruck. You just walked into a giant camp. Well, Dumbledore had told us how to do it, said Hagrid. Give the Gurg gifts. Show some respect, you know. Give the what gifts? asked Harry. Oh, the Gurg means the chief. How could you tell which one was the Gurg? asked Ron. Hagrid grunted in amusement. No problem, he said. He was the biggest, the ugliest, and the laziest. Sitting there, waiting to be brought food by the others. Dead goats and such like. Name of carcass. I'd put him at twenty-two, twenty-three feet, and the weight of a couple of bull elephants, skin like rhino-eyed and all. And you just walked up to him, said Hermione breathlessly. Well, down to him, where he was lying in the valley. They was in this dip between four pretty high mountains, see? Beside a mountain lake, and Carcass was lying by the lake, roaring at the others to feed him and his wife. Olymp and I went down the mountainside. But didn't they try and kill you when they saw you? asked Ron incredulously. It was definitely on some of their minds, said Hagrid, shrugging. But we did what Dumbledore told us to do, which was to hold our gift up high and keep our eyes on the gurg and ignore the others. So that's what we did. And the rest of them went quiet and watched us pass. And we got right up to Carcass's feet and we bowed and put our present down in front of him. What do you give a giant? asked Ron eagerly. Food? Nah, he can get food all right for himself, said Hagrid. We took him magic. Giants like magic, just don't like us using it against them. Anyway, that first day we gave him a branch of Gabrathian fire. Hermione said, Wow, softly, but Harry and Ron both frowned in puzzlement. A branch of everlasting fire, said Hermione irritably. You ought to know that by now. Professor Flitwick's mentioned it at least twice in class. Well, anyway, said Hagrid quickly, intervening before Ron could answer back, Dumbledore had bewitched this branch to burn evermore, which isn't something any wizard could do, so I lies it down in the snow by Carcass's feet and says, A gift to the Gurg of the Giants from Albus Dumbledore, who sends his respectful greetings.
And what did Carcass say? asked Harry eagerly. Nothing, said Hagrid. Didn't speak English. You're kidding. Didn't matter, said Hagrid imperturbably. Dumbledore had warned us that might happen. Carcass knew enough to yell for a couple of giants who knew our lingo, and they translated for us. And did he like the present? asked Ron. Oh, yeah, it went down a storm once they understood what it was, said Hagrid, turning his dragon stake over to press the cooler side to his swollen eye. Very pleased. So then I said, Albus Dumbledore asked the Gurg to speak with his messenger when he returns tomorrow with another gift. Why couldn't you speak to them that day? asked Hermione. Dumbledore wanted us to take it very slow, said Hagrid. Let them see we kept our promises. We'll come back tomorrow with another present, and then we do come back with another present. Gives a good impression, see? And gives them time to test out the first present, and find out it's a good one, and get them eager for more. In any case, giants like carcass, overload them with information, and they'll kill you just to simplify things. So we bowed out of the way, and went off and found ourselves a nice little cave to spend the night in. And the following morning we went back, and this time we found Carcass sitting up waiting for us, looking all eager. And you talked to him? Oh, yeah. First we presented him with a nice battle helmet, goblin-made and indestructible, you know. And then we sat down and we talked. What did he say? Not much, said Hagrid. Listen, mostly. But there were good signs. He'd heard of Dumbledore, heard he'd argued against the killing of the last giants in Britain. Carcass seemed to be quite interested in what Dumbledore had to say, and a few of the others, especially the ones who had some English. They gathered round and listened too. We were hopeful when we left that day, promised to come back next day with another present. But that night it all went wrong. What do you mean? said Ron quickly. Well, like I say, they're not meant to live together, giants, said Hagrid sadly. Not in big groups like that. They can't help themselves. They half kill each other every few weeks. The men fight each other and the women fight each other. The remnants of the old tribes fight each other. And that's even without squabbles over food and the best fires and sleeping spots. You'd think, seeing as how their whole race is about finished, they'd lay off each other, but... Hagrid sighed deeply. That night a fight broke out. We saw it from the mouth of our cave, looking down on the valley. Went on for hours, you wouldn't believe the noise. And when the sun came up, the snow was scarlet, and his head was lying at the bottom of the lake. Whose head? gasped Hermione. Carcasses, said Hagrid heavily. There was a new gurg, Golgamoth. He sighed deeply. Well, we hadn't bargained on a new gurg two days after we'd made friendly contact with the first one, and we had a funny feeling Golgamath wouldn't be so keen to listen to us, but we had to try. You went to speak to him? asked Ron incredulously, after you'd watched him rip off another giant's head. Course we did, said Hagrid. We hadn't gone all that way to give up after two days. We went down with the next present we'd meant to give to Carcass. I knew it was no good before I'd opened me mouth. He was sitting there, wearing Carcass's helmet, leering at us as we got nearer. He's massive, one of the biggest ones there. Black hair and matching teeth and a necklace of bones. 
human-looking bones, some of them. Well, I gave it a go, held out a great roll of dragon skin, and said, A gift for the gurg of the giants. Next thing I knew, I was hanging upside down in the air by me feet. Two of his mates had grabbed me. Hermione clapped her hands to her mouth. How did you get out of that? asked Harry. Wouldn't have done if a limp hadn't been there, said Hagrid. She pulled out her wand and did some of the fastest spell work I've ever seen. Ruddy marvellous! Hit the two holding me right in the eyes with conjunctivitis curses, and they dropped me straight away. But we were in trouble then, cause we'd use magic against them, and that's what giants hate about wizards. We had to leg it, and we knew there was no way we was going to be able to march into camp again. Blimey, Hagrid, said Ron quietly. So how come it's taken you so long to get home if you were only there for three days? asked Hermione. We didn't leave after three days, said Hagrid, looking outraged. Dumbledore was relying on us. But you've just said there was no way you could go back. Not by daylight. We couldn't know. We just had to rethink a bit. Spent a couple of days lying low up in the cave and watching, and what we saw wasn't good. Did he rip off more heads? asked Hermione, sounding squeamish. No, said Hagrid. I wish he had. What do you mean? I mean, we soon found out he didn't object to all wizards, just us. Death Eaters? said Harry quickly. Yep, said Hagrid darkly. Couple of them were visiting him every day, bringing gifts to the Gurg, and he wasn't dangling them upside down. How do you know they were Death Eaters? said Ron. Because I recognized one of them, Hagrid growled. McNair, remember him? Bloke they sent to kill Buckbeak. Maniac he is. Likes killing as much as Golgamath. No wonder they were getting on so well. So McNair's persuaded the giants to join you-know-who, said Hermione desperately. Hold your hippogriffs. I haven't finished my story yet, said Hagrid indignantly who, considering he had not wanted to tell them anything in the first place, now seemed to be rather enjoying himself. Me and the limp talked it over, and we agreed. Just cause the gurg looked like favoring you-know-who didn't mean all of them would. We had to try and persuade some of the others, the ones who hadn't wanted Golgamath as gurg. How could you tell which ones they were? asked Ron. Well, they were the ones being beaten to a pulp, weren't they? said Hagrid patiently. The ones with any sense were keeping out of Golgamath's way, hiding out in caves round the gully just like we were. So we decided we'd go poking round the caves by night and see if we couldn't persuade a few of them. You went poking round dark caves looking for giants? said Ron with awed respect in his voice. Well, it wasn't the giants who worried us most, said Hagrid. We were more concerned about the Death Eaters. Dumbledore had told us before we went not to tangle with them if we could avoid it. And the trouble is, they knew we was around. Spec Golgamath told him about us. At night, when the giants were sleeping and we wanted to be creeping into the caves, McNair and the other one were sneaking round the mountains looking for us. I was hard put to stop a limp jumping out at them, said Hagrid, the corners of his mouth lifting his wild beard. She was raring to attack them. She's something when she's roused a limp. Fiery, you know. Spectus the French in her. 
Hagrid gazed misty-eyed into the fire. Harry allowed him thirty seconds' reminiscence before clearing his throat loudly. So what happened? Did you ever get near any of the other giants? What? Oh, oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, on the third night after Cargus was killed, we crept out of the cave we'd been hiding in and headed back down into the gully, keeping our eyes skinned for the Death Eaters. Got inside a few of the caves, no go. Then, in about the sixth one, we found three giants hiding. Cave must have been cramped, said Ron. Wasn't room to swing a nasal, said Hagrid. Didn't they attack you when they saw you? asked Hermione. Probably would have done if they'd been in any condition, said Hagrid. But they was badly hurt, all three of them. Golgamath's lot had beaten them unconscious. They'd woken up and crawled into the nearest shelter they could find. Anyway, one of them had a bit of English, and he translated for the others. And what we had to say didn't seem to go down too badly, so we kept going back, visiting the wounded. I reckon we had about six or seven of them convinced at one point. Six or seven? said Ron eagerly. Well, that's not bad. Are they going to come over here and start fighting you-know-who with us? But Hermione said, What do you mean, at one point? Hagrid. Hagrid looked at her sadly. Golgamath's lot raided the caves. The ones that survived didn't want no more to do with us after that. So, so there aren't any giants coming? said Ron, looking disappointed. Nope, said Hagrid, heaving a deep sigh as he turned over his stake again and applied the cooler side to his face. But we did what we meant to do. We gave them Dumbledore's message, and some of them heard it, and I expect some of them will remember it. Just maybe them that don't want to stay around Golgamath will move out of the mountains, and there's got to be a chance they'll remember Dumbledore's friendly to them. Could be they'll come. Snow was filling up the window now. Harry became aware that the knees of his robes were soaked through. Fang was drooling with his head in Harry's lap. Hagrid, said Hermione quietly after a while. Hmm? Did you... Was there any sign of... Did you hear anything about your... your mother while you were there? Hagrid's unobscured eye rested upon her, and Hermione looked rather scared. I'm sorry, I... Forget it. Dead, Hagrid grunted. Died years ago, they told me. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, said Hermione in a very small voice. Hagrid shrugged his massive shoulders. No need, he said shortly. Can't remember her much. Wasn't a great mother. They were silent again. Hermione glanced nervously at Harry and Ron, plainly wanting them to speak. But you still haven't explained how you got in this state, Hagrid, Ron said, gesturing toward Hagrid's blood-stained face. Or why you're back so late, said Harry. Sirius says Madame Maxime got back ages ago. Who attacked you? said Ron. I haven't been attacked, said Hagrid emphatically. I... But the rest of his words were drowned in a sudden outbreak of rapping on the door. Hermione gasped. Her mug slipped through her fingers and smashed on the floor. Fang yelped. All four of them stared at the window beside the doorway. The shadow of somebody small and squat rippled across the thin curtain. It's her, Ron whispered. Get under here, Harry said quickly. Seizing the invisibility cloak, he whirled it over himself and Hermione, while Ron tore around the table and dived beneath the cloak as well. Huddled together, they backed away into a corner. 
Fang was barking madly at the door. Hagrid looked thoroughly confused. Hagrid, hide our mugs! Hagrid seized Harry and Ron's mugs and shoved them under the cushion in Fang's basket. Fang was now leaping up at the door. Hagrid pushed him out of the way with his foot and pulled it open. Professor Umbridge was standing in the doorway, wearing her green tweed cloak and a matching hat with ear flaps. Lips pursed, she leaned back so as to see Hagrid's face. She barely reached his navel. So, she said slowly and loudly, as though speaking to somebody deaf, you're Hagrid, are you? Without waiting for an answer, she strolled into the room, her bulging eyes rolling in every direction. Get away, she snapped, waving her handbag at Fang, who had bounded up to her and was attempting to lick her face. Er, I don't want to be rude, said Hagrid, staring at her, but who the ruddy hell are you? My name is Dolores Umbridge. Her eyes were sweeping the cabin. Twice they stared directly into the corner where Harry stood, sandwiched between Ron and Hermione. Dolores Umbridge? Hagrid said, sounding thoroughly confused. I thought you were one of their ministry. Don't you work with Fudge? I was senior undersecretary to the minister, yes, said Umbridge, now pacing around the cabin, taking in every tiny detail within, from the haversack against the wall to the abandoned travelling cloak. I am now the defence against the dark arts teacher. That's brave of you, said Hagrid. There's not many who take that job any more. And Hogwarts High Inquisitor said Umbridge, giving no sign that she had heard him. What's that? said Hagrid, frowning. Precisely what I was going to ask, said Umbridge, pointing at the broken shards of china on the floor that had been Hermione's mug. Oh, said Hagrid, with a most unhelpful glance toward the corner where Harry, Ron, and Hermione stood hidden. Oh, that was... was Fang! He broke a mug, so I had to use this one instead. Hagrid pointed to the mug from which he had been drinking, one hand still clamped over the dragon stake pressed to his eye. Umbridge stood facing him now, taking in every detail of his appearance instead of the cabins. I heard voices, she said quietly. I was talking to Fang, said Hagrid stoutly. And was he talking back to you? Well, in a manner of speaking, said Hagrid, looking uncomfortable. I sometimes say Fang's near enough human. There are three sets of footprints in the snow leading from the castle doors to your cabin, said Umbridge sleekly. Hermione gasped. Harry clapped her hand over her mouth. Luckily Fang was sniffing loudly around the hem of Professor Umbridge's robes, and she did not appear to have heard. Well, I only just got back, said Hagrid, waving an enormous hand at the haversack. Maybe someone came to call earlier and I missed him. There are no footsteps leading away from your cabin door. Well, I... I don't know why that'd be, said Hagrid, tugging nervously at his beard, and again glancing toward the corner where Harry, Ron, and Hermione stood, as though asking for help. Um... Umbridge wheeled around and strode the length of the cabin, looking around carefully. She bent and peered under the bed. She opened Hagrid's cupboards. She passed within two inches of where Harry, Ron, and Hermione stood pressed against the wall. Harry actually pulled in his stomach as she walked by. After looking carefully inside the enormous cauldron Hagrid used for cooking, she wheeled around again and said, What has happened to you? 
How did you sustain those injuries? Hagrid hastily removed the dragon's stake from his face, which, in Harry's opinion, was a mistake, because the black and purple bruising all around his eye was now clearly visible, not to mention the large amount of fresh and congealed blood on his face. Oh, I had a bit of an accident, he said lamely. What sort of accident? I... I tripped. You tripped? She repeated coolly. Yeah, that's right. Over, over a friend's broomstick. I don't fly him myself. Well, look at the size of me. I don't reckon there's a broomstick that'd hold me. Friend of mine breeds Abraxan horses. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Big beasts. Winged, you know. I've had a bit of a ride on one of them, and it was... Where have you been? Asked Umbridge, cutting coolly through Hagrid's babbling. Where have I... Been, yes, she said. Term started more than two months ago. Another teacher has had to cover your classes. None of your colleagues has been able to give me any information as to your whereabouts. You left no address. Where have you been? There was a pause in which Hagrid stared at her with his newly uncovered eye. Harry could almost hear his brain working furiously. I... I've been away for me health, he said. For your health? repeated Umbridge. Her eyes travelled over Hagrid's discoloured and swollen face. Dragon blood dripped gently onto his waistcoat in the silence. I see. Yeah, said Hagrid. But, uh, fresh air, you know. Yes, as gamekeeper, fresh air must be so difficult to come by, said Umbridge sweetly. The small patch of Hagrid's face that was not black or purple flushed. Well, change of scene, you know. Mountain scenery? said Umbridge swiftly. She knows, Harry thought desperately. Mountains? Hagrid repeated, clearly thinking fast. Nope! South of France for me. Bit of sun and... and sea. Really? said Umbridge. You don't have much of a tan. Yeah, well, sensitive skin said Hagrid, attempting an ingratiating smile. Harry noticed that two of his teeth had been knocked out. Umbridge looked at him coldly. His smile faltered. Then she hoisted her handbag a little higher into the crook of her arm and said, I shall, of course, be informing the minister of your late return. Right, said Hagrid, nodding. You ought to know, too, that as High Inquisitor, it is my unfortunate but necessary duty to inspect my fellow teachers, so I dare say we shall meet again soon enough. She turned sharply and marched back to the door. You're inspecting us? Hagrid repeated blankly, looking after her. Oh, yes, said Umbridge softly, looking back at him with her hand on the door handle. The Ministry is determined to weed out unsatisfactory teachers, Hagrid. Good night. She left, closing the door behind her with a snap. Harry made to pull off the invisibility cloak, but Hermione seized his wrist. Not yet, she breathed in his ear. She might not be gone yet. Hagrid seemed to be thinking the same way. He stumped across the room and pulled back the curtain an inch or so. She's going back to the castle, he said in a low voice. Blimey, inspecting people, is she? Yeah said Harry, pulling the cloak off. Trelawn is on probation already. Um, what sort of thing are you planning to do with us in class, Hagrid? asked Hermione. 
Oh, don't you worry about that. I've got a great load of lessons planned, said Hagrid enthusiastically, scooping up his dragon steak from the table and slapping it over his eye again. I've been keeping a couple of creatures safe for your OWL year. You wait, there's something really special. Um, special in what way? asked Hermione tentatively. I'm not saying, said Hagrid happily. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Look, Hagrid, said Hermione urgently, dropping all pretense, Professor Umbridge won't be at all happy if you bring anything to class that's too dangerous. Dangerous? said Hagrid, looking genially bemused. Don't be silly. I wouldn't give you anything dangerous. I mean, all right, they can look after themselves. Hagrid, you've got to pass Umbridge's inspection, and to do that it would really be better if she saw you teaching us how to look after Porlocks. How to tell the difference between gnarls and hedgehogs. Stuff like that, said Hermione earnestly. But that's not very interesting, Hermione, said Hagrid. The stuff I've got's much more impressive. I've been bringing them on for years. I reckon I've got the only domestic herd in Britain. Hagrid, please, said Hermione, a note of real desperation in her voice. Umbridge is looking for any excuse to get rid of teachers she thinks are too close to Dumbledore. Please, Hagrid, teach us something dull that's bound to come up in our OWL. But Hagrid merely yawned widely and cast a one-eyed look of longing toward the vast bed in the corner. Listen, it's been a long day and it's late he said, patting Hermione gently on the shoulder so that her knees gave way and hit the floor with a thud. Oh, sorry. He pulled her back up by the neck of her robes. Look, don't you go worrying about me. I promise you I've got really good stuff planned for your lessons now I'm back. Now, you lot better get back up to the castle and don't forget to wipe your footprints out behind you. I don't know if you got through to him, said Ron. A short while later, when, having checked that the coast was clear, they walked back up to the castle through the thickening snow, leaving no trace behind them due to the obliteration charm Hermione was performing as they went. Then I'll go back again tomorrow, said Hermione determinedly. I'll plan his lessons for him if I have to. I don't care if she throws out Trelawney, but she's not taking Hagrid. Chapter 21 The Eye of the Snake Hermione ploughed her way back to Hagrid's cabin through two feet of snow on Sunday morning. Harry and Ron wanted to go with her, but their mountain of homework had reached an alarming height again, so they grudgingly remained in the common room, trying to ignore the gleeful shouts drifting up from the grounds outside, where students were enjoying themselves, skating on the frozen lake, tobogganing and, worst of all, bewitching snowballs to zoom up to Gryffindor Tower and rap hard on the windows. Way, bellowed Ron, finally losing patience and sticking his head out of the window. I am a prefect, and if one more snowball hits this window... Ouch! He withdrew his head sharply, his face covered in snow. It's Fred and George, he said bitterly, slamming the window behind him. Gits! Hermione returned from Hagrid's just before lunch, shivering slightly, her robes damp to the knees. So? said Ron, looking up when she entered. Got all his lessons planned for him? Well, I tried, she said dully, sinking into a chair beside Harry. 
She pulled out her wand and gave it a complicated little wave so that hot air streamed out of the tip. She then pointed this at her robes, which began to steam as they dried out. He wasn't even there when I arrived. I was knocking for at least half an hour, and then he came stumping out of the forest. Harry groaned. The Forbidden Forest was teeming with the kind of creatures most likely to get Hagrid the sack. Was he keeping in there, did he say? asked Harry. No, said Hermione miserably. He says he wants them to be a surprise. I tried to explain about Umbridge, but he just doesn't get it. He kept saying nobody in their right mind would rather study Gnarls than Chimeras. Oh, I don't think he's got a Chimera, she added at the appalled look on Harry and Ron's faces. But that's not for lack of trying, for what he said about how hard it is to get eggs. I don't know how many times I told him he'd be better off following Grubbly Plank's plan. I honestly don't think he listened to half of what I said. He's in a bit of a funny mood, you know. He still won't say how he got all those injuries. Hagrid's reappearance at the staff table at breakfast next day was not greeted by enthusiasm from all students. Some, like Fred, George and Lee, roared with delight and sprinted up the aisle between the Gryffindor and Hufflepuff tables to wring Hagrid's enormous hand. Others, like Pavati and Lavender, exchanged gloomy looks and shook their heads. Harry knew that many of them preferred Professor Grubbly Plank's lessons, and the worst of it was that a very small, unbiased part of him knew that they had good reason. Grubbly Plank's idea of an interesting class was not one where there was a risk that somebody might have their head ripped off. It was with a certain amount of apprehension that Harry, Ron, and Hermione headed down to Hagrid's on Tuesday, heavily muffled against the cold. Harry was worried not only about what Hagrid might have decided to teach them, but also about how the rest of the class, particularly Malfoy and his cronies, would behave if Umbridge was watching them. However, the High Inquisitor was nowhere to be seen as they struggled through the snow toward Hagrid, who stood waiting for them on the edge of the forest. He did not present a reassuring sight. The bruises that had been purple on Saturday night were now tinged with green and yellow, and some of his cuts still seemed to be bleeding. Harry could not understand this. Had Hagrid perhaps been attacked by some creature whose venom prevented the wounds it inflicted from healing? As though to complete the ominous picture, Hagrid was carrying what looked like half a dead cow over his shoulder. "'We're working in here today,' Hagrid called happily to the approaching students, jerking his head back at the dark trees behind him. "'Bit more sheltered. Anyway, they prefer the dark.' "'What prefers the dark?' Harry heard Malfoy say sharply to Crabbe and Goyle, a trace of panic in his voice. "'What did he say, prefers the dark? Did you hear?' Harry remembered the only occasion on which Malfoy had entered the forest before now. He had not been very brave then, either. He smiled to himself. After the Quidditch match, anything that caused Malfoy discomfort was all right with him. "'Ready?' said Hagrid, happily, looking around at the class. "'Right, well, I've been saving a trip into the forest for your fifth year. Thought we'd go and see these creatures in their natural habitat. Now, what we're studying today is pretty rare.' I reckon I'm probably the only person in Britain who's managed to train them. And you're sure they're trained, are you? said Malfoy, the panic in his voice even more pronounced now. Only it wouldn't be the first time you'd brought wild stuff to class, would it? The Slytherins murmured agreement, and a few Gryffindors looked as though they thought Malfoy had a fair point, too. Course they're trained, said Hagrid, scowling and hoisting the dead cow a little higher on his shoulder. So what happened to your face, then? 
demanded Malfoy. Mind your own business, said Hagrid angrily. Now, if you've finished asking stupid questions, follow me. He turned and strode straight into the forest. Nobody seemed much disposed to follow. Harry glanced at Ron and Hermione, who sighed but nodded, and the three of them set off after Hagrid, leading the rest of the class. They walked for about ten minutes until they reached the place where the trees stood so closely together that it was as dark as twilight, and there was no snow on the ground at all. Hagrid deposited his half a cow with a grunt on the ground, stepped back, and turned to face his class again, most of whom were creeping toward him from tree to tree, peering around nervously as though expecting to be set upon at any moment. "'Gather round, gather round,' said Hagrid encouragingly. "'Now, they'll be attracted by the smell of the meat, but I'm going to give them a call anyway, because they'll like to know it's me.' He turned, shook his shaggy head to get the hair out of his face, and gave an odd shrieking cry that echoed through the dark trees like the call of some monstrous bird. Nobody laughed. Most of them looked too scared to make a sound. Hagrid gave the shrieking cry again. A minute passed, in which the class continued to peer nervously over their shoulders and around trees for a first glimpse of whatever it was that was coming. And then, as Hagrid shook his hair back for a third time and expanded his enormous chest, Harry nudged Ron and pointed into the black space between two gnarled yew trees. A pair of blank, white, shining eyes were growing larger through the gloom, and a moment later the dragonish face, neck, and then skeletal body of a great black-winged horse emerged from the darkness. It surveyed the class for a few seconds, swishing its long black tail, then bowed its head and began to tear flesh from the dead cow with its pointed fangs. A great wave of relief broke over Harry. Here at last was proof that he had not imagined these creatures, that they were real. Hagrid knew about them, too. He looked eagerly at Ron, but Ron was still staring around into the trees, and after a few seconds he whispered, Why doesn't Hagrid call again? Most of the rest of the class were wearing expressions as confused and nervously expectant as Ron's, and were still gazing everywhere but at the horse standing feet from them. There were only two other people who seemed to be able to see them. A stringy Slytherin boy standing just behind Goyle was watching the horse eating with an expression of great distaste on his face, and Neville, whose eyes were following the swishing progress of the long black tail. "'Oh, and here comes another one,' said Hagrid proudly, as a second black horse appeared out of the dark trees, folded its leathery wings closer to its body, and dipped its head to gorge on the meat. "'Now, put your hands up. Who can see him? Immensely pleased to feel that he was at last going to understand the mystery of these horses, Harry raised his hand. Hagrid nodded at him. Yeah, yeah, I knew you'd be able to, Harry, he said seriously. And you too, Neville? Hey? And— Excuse me, said Malfoy in a sneering voice, but what exactly are we supposed to be seeing? For answer— Hagrid pointed at the cow carcass on the ground. The whole class stared at it for a few seconds, then several people gasped, and Pavati squealed. Harry understood why. Bits of flesh stripping themselves away from the bones and vanishing into thin air had to look very odd indeed. "'What's doing it?' Pavati demanded in a terrified voice, retreating behind the nearest tree. "'What's eating it?' "'Festrals,' said Hagrid proudly, and Hermione gave a soft, "'Oh!' of comprehension at Harry's shoulder. Hogwarts has got a whole herd of them in here, 
Now, who knows? But they're really, really unlucky, interrupted Pavati, looking alarmed. They're supposed to bring all sorts of horrible misfortune on people who see them. Professor Trelawney told me once. No, 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 said Hagrid, chuckling. That's just superstition, that is. They aren't unlucky, they're dead clever and useful. Course, this lot don't get a lot of work. It's mainly just pulling the school carriages, unless Dumbledore's taken a long journey and don't want to apparate. And here's another couple. Look. Two more horses came quietly out of the trees, one of them passing very close to Pavati, who shivered and pressed herself closer to the tree, saying, I think I felt something. I think it's near me. Don't worry, it won't hurt you, said Hagrid patiently. Right now, who can tell me why some of you can see them and some can't? Hermione raised her hand. Go on, then, said Hagrid, beaming at her. The only people who can see Thestrals, she said, are people who have seen death. That's exactly right, said Hagrid solemnly. Ten points to Gryffindor. Now, Thestrals... Hmm, hmm. Professor Umbridge had arrived. She was standing a few feet away from Harry, wearing her green hat and cloak again, her clipboard at the ready. Hagrid, who had never heard Umbridge's fake cough before, was gazing in some concern at the closest Thestral, evidently under the impression that it had made the sound. Hum, hum! Oh, hello, Hagrid said, smiling, having located the source of the noise. You received the note I sent to your cabin this morning, said Umbridge, in the same loud, slow voice she had used with him earlier, as though she was addressing somebody both foreign and very slow. Telling you that I would be inspecting your lesson? Oh, yeah, said Hagrid brightly. Glad you found the place all right. Well, as you can see, or, I don't know, can you? We're doing festivals today. I'm sorry, said Umbridge loudly, cupping her hand around her ear and frowning. What did you say? Hagrid looked a little confused. Er, Thestrals, he said loudly. Big, er, winged horses, you know. He flapped his gigantic arms, hopefully. Professor Umbridge raised her eyebrows at him and muttered as she made a note on her clipboard. Has to resort to crude sign language. Well, anyway, said Hagrid, turning back to the class and looking slightly flustered. Um... What was I saying? Appears to have poor short-term memory, muttered Umbridge, loudly enough for everyone to hear her. Draco Malfoy looked as though Christmas had come a month early. Hermione, on the other hand, had turned scarlet with suppressed rage. Oh, yeah, said Hagrid, throwing an uneasy glance at Umbridge's clipboard, but plowing on valiantly. Yeah, I was going to tell you how come we got a herd. Yeah. So... We started off with a male and five females. This one. He patted the first horse to have appeared. Name a tenebrous. He's my special favorite. First one born here in the forest. Are you aware, Umbridge said loudly, interrupting him, that the Ministry of Magic has classified Thestrals as dangerous? Harry's heart sank like a stone, but Hagrid merely chuckled. Thestrals aren't dangerous. All right, they may take a bite out of you if you really annoy them. Shows signs of pleasure at idea of violence, 
muttered Umbridge, scribbling on her clipboard again. No, oh, come on, said Hagrid, looking a little anxious now. I mean, a dog'll bite you if you bait it, won't it? But Thestrals have just got a bad reputation because of the death thing. People used to think they were bad omens, didn't they? Just didn't understand, did they? Umbridge did not answer. She finished writing her last note, then looked up at Hagrid and said again very loudly and slowly, Please continue teaching as usual. I am going to walk. She mimed walking. Malfoy and Pansy Parkinson were having silent fits of laughter. Among the students. She pointed around at individual members of the class. And asked them questions. She pointed at her mouth to indicate talking. Hagrid stared at her, clearly at a complete loss to understand why she was acting as though he did not understand normal English. Hermione had tears of fury in her eyes now. You hag! You evil hag! She whispered as Umbridge walked towards Pansy Parkinson. I know what you're doing, you awful, twisted, vicious! <clears throat> anyway, said Hagrid, clearly struggling to regain the flow of his lesson. So, Festivals, yeah. Well, there's loads of good stuff about them. Do you find, said Professor Umbridge in a ringing voice to Pansy Parkinson, that you are able to understand Professor Hagrid when he talks? Just like Hermione, Pansy had tears in her eyes, but these were tears of laughter. Indeed, her answer was almost incoherent because she was trying to suppress her giggles. No, because, well, it sounds... That grunting a lot of the time. Umbridge scribbled on her clipboard. The few unbruised bits of Hagrid's face flushed, but he tried to act as though he had not heard Pansy's answer. Uh, yeah, good stuff about Thestrals. Well, once they're tamed like this lot, you'll never be lost again. Amazing senses of direction. Just tell them where you want to go. Assuming they can understand you, of course, said Malfoy loudly and Pansy Parkinson collapsed in a fit of renewed giggles. Professor Umbridge smiled indulgently at them, and then turned to Neville. You can see the Thestrals, Longbottom, can you? she said. Neville nodded. Whom did you see die? she asked, her tone indifferent. My, my granddad, said Neville. And what do you think of them? she said, waving her stubby hand at the horses who by now had stripped a great deal of the carcass down to bone. Um, said Neville nervously, with a glance at Hagrid. Well, they're, uh, okay. Students are too intimidated to admit they are frightened, muttered Umbridge, making another note on her clipboard. No, said Neville, looking upset. No, I'm not scared of them. It's quite all right, said Umbridge patting Neville on the shoulder with what she evidently intended to be an understanding smile, though it looked more like a leer to Harry. Well, Hagrid? She turned to look up at him again, speaking once more in that loud, slow voice. I think I've got enough to be getting along with. You will receive, she mimed, taking something from the air in front of her, the results of your inspection, she pointed at the clipboard, in ten days' time. She held up ten stubby little fingers then, her smile wider and more toad-like than ever before beneath her green hat. She bustled from their midst, leaving Malfoy and Pansy Parkinson in fits of laughter.
Hermione actually shaking with fury, and Neville looking confused and upset. That foul, lying, twisting old gargoyle! stormed Hermione half an hour later as they made their way back up to the castle through the channels they had made earlier in the snow. You see what she's up to. It's her thing about half-breeds all over again. She's trying to make out Hagrid some kind of dim-witted troll just because he had a giantess for a mother. And oh, it's not fair. That really wasn't a bad lesson at all. I mean, all right, if it had been blast-ended scroots again, but... Thestrals are fine. In fact, for Hagrid, they're really good. Umbridge said they're dangerous, said Ron. Well, it's like Hagrid said. They can look after themselves, said Hermione impatiently. And I suppose a teacher like Grubbly Plank wouldn't usually show them to us before any WT level, but, well, they are very interesting, aren't they? The way some people can see them and some can't. I wish I could. Do you? Harry asked her quietly. She looked horror-struck. Oh, Harry, I'm sorry. No, of course I don't. That was a really stupid thing to say. It's okay, he said quickly. Don't worry. I'm surprised so many people could see them, said Ron. Three in a class. Yeah, Weasley, we were just wondering, said a malicious voice nearby. Unheard by any of them in the muffling snow, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle were walking along right behind them. Do you reckon if you saw someone snuff it, you'd be able to see the quaffle better? He, Crab, and Goyle roared with laughter as they pushed past on their way to the castle, and then broke into a chorus of, Weasley is our king! Ron's ears turned scarlet. Ignore them, just ignore them, intoned Hermione, pulling out her wand and performing the charm to produce hot air again, so that she could melt them an easier path through the untouched snow between them and the greenhouses. December arrived, bringing with it more snow and a positive avalanche of homework for the fifth years. Ron and Hermione's prefect duties also became more and more onerous as Christmas approached. They were called upon to supervise the decoration of the castle. You try putting up tinsel when Peeves has got the other end and is trying to strangle you with it, said Ron. To watch over first and second years spending their break times inside because of the bitter cold. And their cheeky little snot rags, you know, we definitely weren't that rude when we were in first year, said Ron. And to patrol the corridors in shifts with Argus Filch, who suspected that the holiday spirit might show itself in an outbreak of wizard duels. He's got dung for brains, that one, said Ron furiously. They were so busy that Hermione had stopped knitting elf hats and was fretting that she was down to her last three. All those poor elves I haven't set free yet having to stay over during Christmas because there aren't enough hats. Harry, who had not had the heart to tell her that Dobby was taking everything she made, bent lower over his history of magic essay. In any case, he did not want to think about Christmas. For the first time in his school career, he very much wanted to spend the holidays away from Hogwarts. Between his Quidditch ban and worry about whether or not Hagrid was going to be put on probation, he felt highly resentful toward the place at the moment. The only thing he really looked forward to were the DA meetings, and they would have to stop over the holidays, as nearly everybody in the DA would be spending the time with their families. Hermione was going skiing with her parents, something that greatly amused Ron, who had never before heard of muggles strapping narrow strips of wood to their feet to slide down mountains. Ron, meanwhile, was going home to the burrow. 
Harry endured several days of jealousy before Ron said, in response to Harry asking how Ron was going to get home for Christmas, But you're coming too! Didn't I say? Mum wrote and told me to invite you weeks ago. Hermione rolled her eyes, but Harry's spirits soared. The thought of Christmas at the burrow was truly wonderful, only slightly marred by Harry's guilty feeling that he would not be able to spend the holiday with Sirius. He wondered whether he could possibly persuade Mrs. Weasley to invite his godfather for the festivities too, but apart from the fact that he doubted whether Dumbledore would permit Sirius to leave Grimauld Place, he could not help but feel that Mrs. Weasley might not want him. They were so often at loggerheads. Sirius had not contacted Harry at all since his last appearance in the fire, and although Harry knew that with Umbridge on the constant watch it would be unwise to attempt to contact him, he did not like to think of Sirius alone in his mother's old house, perhaps pulling a lonely cracker with Creature. Harry arrived early in the room of requirement for the last DA meeting before the holidays, and was very glad he had, because when the lamps burst into light, he saw that Dobby had taken it upon himself to decorate the place for Christmas. He could tell that the elf had done it, because nobody else would have strung a hundred golden baubles from the ceiling, each showing a picture of Harry's face and bearing the legend, Have a very Harry Christmas. Harry had only just managed to get the last of them down before the door creaked open, and Luna Lovegood entered, looking dreamy as always. Hello, she said vaguely, looking around at what remained of the decorations. These are nice. Did you put them up? No, said Harry. It was Dobby, the house elf. Mistletoe, said Luna dreamily, pointing at a large clump of white berries placed almost over Harry's head. He jumped out from under it. Good thinking, said Luna very seriously. It's often infested with nargles. Harry was saved the necessity of asking what nargles were by the arrival of Angelina, Katie, and Alicia. All three of them were breathless and looked very cold. Well, said Angelina dully, pulling off her cloak and throwing it into a corner. We've replaced you. Replaced me? said Harry blankly. You and Fred and George, she said impatiently. We've got another seeker. Who? said Harry quickly. Ginny Weasley said Katie. Harry gaped at her. Yeah, I know, said Angelina, pulling out her wand and flexing her arm. But she's pretty good, actually. Nothing on you, of course, she said, throwing him a very dirty look. But as we can't have you... Harry bit back the retort he was longing to utter. Did she imagine for a second that he did not regret his expulsion from the team a hundred times more than she did? And what about the beaters? he asked, trying to keep his voice even. Andrew Kirk, said Alicia without enthusiasm, and Jack Sloper. Neither of them are brilliant, but compared with the rest of the idiots who turned up. The arrival of Ron, Hermione, and Neville brought this depressing discussion to an end, and within five minutes the room was full enough to prevent him seeing Angelina's burning, reproachful looks. Okay, he said, calling them all to order. I thought this evening we should just go over the things we've done so far, because it's the last meeting before the holidays, and there's no point starting anything new right before a three-week break. We're not doing anything new, said Zacharias Smith, in a disgruntled whisper loud enough to carry through the room. If I'd known that, I wouldn't have come. We're all really sorry Harry didn't tell you then, said Fred loudly. Several people sniggered, 
Harry saw Cho laughing and felt the familiar swooping sensation in his stomach, as though he had missed a step going downstairs. We can practice in pairs, said Harry. We'll start with the impediment jinx for just ten minutes, then we can get out the cushions and try stunning again. They all divided up obediently. Harry partnered Neville as usual. The room was soon full of intermittent cries of impedimenta. People froze for a minute or so, during which their partners would stare aimlessly around the room, watching other pairs at work, then would unfreeze and take their turn at the jinx. Neville had improved beyond all recognition. After a while, when Harry had unfrozen three times in a row, he had Neville join Ron and Hermione again, so that he could walk around the room and watch the others. When he passed Cho, she beamed at him. He resisted the temptation to walk past her several more times. After ten minutes on the impediment jinx, they laid out cushions all over the floor and started practicing stunning again. Space was really too confined to allow them all to work this spell at once. Half the group observed the others for a while, then swapped over. Harry felt himself positively swelling with pride as he watched them all. True, Neville did stun Padma Patil rather than Dean, at whom he had been aiming, but it was a much closer miss than usual, and everybody else had made enormous progress. At the end of an hour, Harry called a halt. You're getting really good, he said, beaming around at them. When we get back from the holidays, we can start doing some of the big stuff, maybe even Patronuses. There was a murmur of excitement. The room began to clear in the usual twos and threes. Most people wished Harry a happy Christmas as they went. Feeling cheerful, he collected up the cushions with Ron and Hermione and stacked them neatly away. Ron and Hermione left before he did. He hung back a little because Cho was still there, and he was hoping to receive a Merry Christmas from her. No, you go on, he heard her say to her friend Marietta, and his heart gave a jolt that seemed to take it into the region of his Adam's apple. He pretended to be straightening the cushioned pile. He was quite sure they were alone now, and waited for her to speak. Instead, he heard a hearty sniff. He turned and saw Cho standing in the middle of the room, tears pouring down her face. What? He didn't know what to do. She was simply standing there, crying silently. What's up? he said feebly. She shook her head and wiped her eyes on her sleeve. I'm sorry, she said thickly. I suppose it's just learning all this stuff. It just makes me wonder whether if he'd known it all, he'd still be alive. Harry's heart sank right back past its usual spot and settled somewhere around his navel. He ought to have known. She wanted to talk about Cedric. He did know this stuff. Harry said heavily. He was really good at it, or he could never have got to the middle of that maze. But if Voldemort really wants to kill you, you don't stand a chance. She hiccuped at the sound of Voldemort's name, but stared at Harry without flinching. You survived when you were just a baby, she said quietly. Yeah, well, said Harry wearily, moving toward the door. I don't know why, nor does anyone else, so it's nothing to be proud of. Oh, don't go said Cho, sounding tearful again. I'm really sorry to get all upset like this. I didn't mean to... She hiccuped again. She was very pretty, even when her eyes were red and puffy. Harry felt thoroughly miserable. He'd have been so pleased just with a Merry Christmas. 
I know it must be horrible for you, she said, mopping her eyes on her sleeve again. Me mentioning Cedric when you saw him die. I suppose you just want to forget about it. Harry did not say anything to this. It was quite true, but he felt heartless saying it. You're a really good teacher, you know, said Cho with a watery smile. I've never been able to stun anything before. Thanks, said Harry awkwardly. They looked at each other for a long moment. Harry felt a burning desire to run from the room and, at the same time, a complete inability to move his feet. Mistletoe, said Cho quietly, pointing at the ceiling over his head. Yeah, said Harry. His mouth was very dry. It's probably full of nargles, though. What are nargles? No idea, said Harry. She had moved closer. His brain seemed to have been stupefied. You'd have to ask Looney. Luna, I mean. Cho made a funny noise halfway between a sob and a laugh. She was even nearer him now. He could have counted the freckles on her nose. I really like you, Harry. He could not think. A tingling sensation was spreading throughout him, paralyzing his arms, legs, and brain. She was much too close. He could see every tear clinging to her eyelashes. He returned to the common room half an hour later to find Hermione and Ron in the best seats by the fire. Nearly everybody else had gone to bed. Hermione was writing a very long letter. She had already filled half a roll of parchment, which was dangling from the edge of the table. Ron was lying on the hearthrug, trying to finish his transfiguration homework. What kept you? he asked, as Harry sank into the armchair next to Hermione's. Harry did not answer. He was in a state of shock. Half of him wanted to tell Ron and Hermione what had just happened, but the other half wanted to take the secret with him to the grave. Are you all right, Harry? Hermione asked, peering at him over the tip of her quill. Harry gave a half-hearted shrug. In truth, he didn't know whether he was all right or not. What's up? said Ron, hoisting himself up on his elbow to get a clearer view of Harry. What's happened? Harry didn't quite know how to set about telling them, and still wasn't sure whether he wanted to. Just as he had decided not to say anything, Hermione took matters out of his hands. Is it Cho? she asked in a businesslike way. Did she corner you after the meeting? Numbly surprised, Harry nodded. Ron sniggered, breaking off when Hermione caught his eye. So, uh, what did she want? he asked in a mock casual voice. She, Harry began rather hoarsely. He cleared his throat and tried again. She, uh... Did you kiss? asked Hermione briskly. Ron sat up so fast that he sent his ink bottle flying all over the rug. Disregarding this completely, he stared avidly at Harry. Well? he demanded. Harry looked from Ron's expression of mingled curiosity and hilarity to Hermione's slight frown and nodded. Ha! Ron made a triumphant gesture with his fist and went into a raucous peal of laughter that made several timid-looking second years over beside the window jump. A reluctant grin spread over Harry's face as he watched Ron rolling around on the hearthrug. Hermione gave Ron a look of deep disgust and returned to her letter. Well, Ron said, finally looking up at Harry, how was it? Harry considered for a moment. Wet, he said truthfully. Ron made a noise that might have indicated jubilation or disgust. It was hard to tell. 
Because she was crying, Harry continued heavily. Oh, said Ron, his smile fading slightly. Are you that bad at kissing? Dunno, said Harry, who hadn't considered this, and immediately felt rather worried. Maybe I am. Of course you're not, said Hermione absently, still scribbling away at her letter. How do you know, said Ron in a sharp voice. Because Cho spends half her time crying these days, said Hermione vaguely. She does it at mealtimes, in the loos, all over the place. You'd think a bit of kissing would cheer her up, said Ron, grinning. Ron, said Hermione in a dignified voice, dipping the point of her quill into her inkpot. You are the most insensitive wart I've ever had the misfortune to meet. What's that supposed to mean? said Ron indignantly. What sort of person cries while someone's kissing them? Yeah, said Harry slightly desperately. Who does? Hermione looked at the pair of them with an almost pitying expression on her face. Don't you understand how Cho's feeling at the moment? she asked. No, said Harry and Ron together. Hermione sighed and laid down her quill. Well, obviously she's feeling very sad because of Cedric dying. Then I expect she's feeling confused because she liked Cedric, and now she likes Harry, and she can't work out who she likes best. Then she'll be feeling guilty, thinking it's an insult to Cedric's memory to be kissing Harry at all, and she'll be worrying about what everyone else might say about her if she starts going out with Harry. And she probably can't work out what her feelings towards Harry are anyway, because he was the one who was with Cedric when Cedric died, so that's all very mixed up and painful. Oh, and she's afraid she's going to be thrown off the Ravenclaw Quidditch team because she's been flying so badly. A slightly stunned silence greeted the end of this speech. Then Ron said, One person can't feel all that at once. They'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, said Hermione nastily, picking up her quill again. She was the one who started it, said Harry. I wouldn't have. She just sort of came at me, and next thing she's crying all over me. I didn't know what to do. Don't blame you, mate, said Ron, looking alarmed at the very thought. You just had to be nice to her, said Hermione, looking up anxiously. You were? weren't you? Well, said Harry, an unpleasant heat creeping up his face. I sort of patted her on the back a bit. Hermione looked as though she was restraining herself from rolling her eyes with extreme difficulty. Well, I suppose it could have been worse, she said. Are you going to see her again? I'll have to, won't I? said Harry. We've got DA meetings, haven't we? You know what I mean, said Hermione impatiently. Harry said nothing. Hermione's words opened up a whole new vista of frightening possibilities. He tried to imagine going somewhere with Cho, Hogsmeade perhaps, and being alone with her for hours at a time. Of course, she would have been expecting him to ask her out after what had just happened. The thought made his stomach clench painfully. Oh, well, said Hermione distantly, buried in her letter once more. You'll have plenty of opportunities to ask her. What if he doesn't want to ask her? said Ron, who had been watching Harry with an unusually shrewd expression on his face. Don't be silly, said Hermione vaguely. Harry's liked her for ages, haven't you, Harry? He did not answer. Yes, he had liked Cho for ages, but whenever he had imagined a scene involving the two of them, it had always featured a Cho who was enjoying herself, 
as opposed to a Cho who was sobbing uncontrollably into his shoulder. Who were you writing the novel to, anyway? Ron asked Hermione, trying to read the bit of parchment now trailing on the floor. Hermione hitched it up out of sight. Victor. Crumb? How many other Victors do we know? Ron said nothing but looked disgruntled. They sat in silence for another twenty minutes, Ron finishing his transfiguration essay with many snorts of impatience and crossings out, Hermione writing steadily to the very end of the parchment, rolling it up carefully and sealing it, and Harry staring into the fire, wishing more than anything that Sirius's head would appear there and give him some advice about girls. But the fire merely crackled lower and lower, until the red-hot embers crumbled into ash, and, looking around, Harry saw that they were, yet again, the last in the common room. Well, night, said Hermione, yawning widely, and she set off up the girl's staircase. What is she seeing, Crumb? Ron demanded as he and Harry climbed the boy's stairs. Well, said Harry, considering the matter, I suppose he's older, isn't he? And he's an international Quidditch player. Yeah, but apart from that, said Ron, sounding aggravated, I mean, he's a grouchy git, isn't he? Bit grouchy, yeah, said Harry, whose thoughts were still on Cho. They pulled off their robes and put on pyjamas in silence. Dean, Seamus, and Neville were already asleep. Harry put his glasses on his bedside table and got into bed, but did not pull the hangings closed around his four-poster. Instead, he stared at the patch of starry sky visible through the window next to Neville's bed. If he had known this time last night, that in twenty-four hours' time he would have kissed Cho Chang. Night, grunted Ron from somewhere to his right. Night, said Harry. Maybe next time, if there was a next time, she'd be a bit happier. He ought to have asked her out. She had probably been expecting it and was now really angry with him. Or was she lying in bed still crying about Cedric? He did not know what to think. Hermione's explanation had made it all seem more complicated rather than easier to understand. That's what they should teach us here, he thought, turning over onto his side. How girls' brains work. It'd be more useful than divination, anyway. Neville snuffled in his sleep. An owl hooted somewhere out in the night. Harry dreamed he was back in the D.A. room. Cho was accusing him of luring her there under false pretenses. She said that he had promised her a hundred and fifty chocolate frog cards if she showed up. Harry protested. Cho shouted, Cedric gave me loads of chocolate frog cards, look! And she pulled out fistfuls of cards from inside her robes and threw them into the air, and then turned into Hermione, who said, You did promise her, you know, Harry. I think you'd better give her something else instead. How about your firebolt? And Harry was protesting that he could not give Cho his firebolt because Umbridge had it, and anyway, the whole thing was ridiculous. He'd only come to the D.A. room to put up some Christmas baubles shaped like Dobby's head. The dream changed. His body felt smooth, powerful, and flexible. He was gliding between shining metal bars across dark, cold stone. He was flat against the floor, sliding along on his belly. It was dark, yet he could see objects around him shimmering in strange, vibrant colors. He was turning his head. At first glance, the corridor was empty, but no, a man was sitting on the floor ahead, his chin drooping onto his chest, his outline gleaming in the dark. Harry put out his tongue, 
he tasted the man's scent on the air. He was alive but drowsing, sitting in front of a door at the end of the corridor. Harry longed to bite the man, but he must master the impulse. He had more important work to do. But the man was stirring. A silvery cloak fell from his legs as he jumped to his feet, and Harry saw his vibrant, blurred outline towering above him, saw a wand withdrawn from a belt. He had no choice. He reared high from the floor and struck once, twice, three times, plunging his fangs deeply into the man's flesh, feeling his ribs splinter beneath his jaws, feeling the warm gush of blood. The man was yelling in pain. Then he fell silent. He slumped backward against the wall. Blood was splattering onto the floor. His forehead hurt terribly. It was aching, fit to burst. Harry! Harry! He opened his eyes. Every inch of his body was covered in icy sweat. His bed covers were twisted all around him like a straitjacket. He felt as though a white-hot poker was being applied to his forehead. Harry! Ron was standing over him, looking extremely frightened. There were more figures at the foot of Harry's bed. He clutched his head in his hands. The pain was blinding him. He rolled right over and vomited over the edge of the mattress. He's really ill, said a scared voice. Shall we call someone? Harry! Harry! He had to tell Ron it was very important that he tell him. Taking great gulps of air, Harry pushed himself up in bed, willing himself not to throw up again, the pain half blinding him. Your dad, he panted, his chest heaving. Your dad's been attacked. What? said Ron, uncomprehendingly. Your dad! He's been bitten, it's serious. There was blood everywhere. I'm going for help, said the same scared voice and Harry heard footsteps running out of the dormitory. Harry, mate, said Ron uncertainly. You, you were just dreaming. No, said Harry furiously. It was crucial that Ron understand. It wasn't a dream, not an ordinary dream. I was there. I saw it. I did it. He could hear Seamus and Dean muttering, but did not care. The pain in his forehead was subsiding slightly, though he was still sweating and shivering feverishly. He retched again, and Ron leapt backward out of the way. Harry, you're not well, he said shakily. Neville's gone for help. I'm fine, Harry choked, wiping his mouth on his pajamas and shaking uncontrollably. There's nothing wrong with me. It's your dad you've got to worry about. We need to find out where he is. He's bleeding like mad. I was... It was a huge snake. He tried to get out of bed, but Ron pushed him back into it. Dean and Seamus were still whispering somewhere nearby. Whether one minute passed or ten, Harry did not know. He simply sat there, shaking, feeling the pain recede very slowly from his scar. Then there were hurried footsteps coming up the stairs, and he heard Neville's voice again. Over here, Professor! Professor McGonagall came hurrying into the dormitory in her tartan dressing gown, her glasses perched lopsidedly on the bridge of her bony nose. What is it, Potter? Where does it hurt? He had never been so pleased to see her. It was a member of the Order of the Phoenix he needed now, not someone fussing over him and prescribing useless potions. It's Ron's dad, he said, sitting up again. He's been attacked by a snake, and it's serious. I saw it happen. What do you mean you saw it happen? said Professor McGonagall, her dark eyebrows contracting. I don't know. I was asleep, and then I was there. You mean 
you dream this? No, said Harry angrily. Would none of them understand? I was having a dream at first about something completely different, something stupid, and then this interrupted it. It was real. I didn't imagine it. Mr. Weasley was asleep on the floor, and he was attacked by a gigantic snake. There was a load of blood. He collapsed. Someone's got to find out where he is. Professor McGonagall was gazing at him through her lopsided spectacles, as though horrified at what she was seeing. I'm not lying, and I'm not mad. Harry told her, his voice rising to a shout. I tell you, I saw it happen. I believe you, Potter," said Professor McGonagall curtly. "Put on your dressing gown. We're going to see the headmaster." Chapter Twenty-Two. Saint Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. Harry was so relieved that she was taking him seriously that he did not hesitate, but jumped out of bed at once, pulled on his dressing gown, and pushed his glasses back onto his nose. "Weasley, you ought to come too," said Professor McGonagall. They followed Professor McGonagall past the silent figures of Neville, Dean, and Seamus out of the dormitory, down the spiral stairs into the common room, through the portrait hole, and off along the fat lady's moonlit corridor. Harry felt as though the panic inside him might spill over at any moment. He wanted to run, to yell for Dumbledore. Mister Weasley was bleeding as they walked along so sedately. And what if those fangs? Harry tried hard not to think my fangs had been poisonous. They passed Missus Norris, who turned her lamp-like eyes upon them and hissed faintly. But Professor McGonagall said, "Shoo!" Missus Norris slunk away into the shadows. And in a few minutes, they had reached the stone gargoyle guarding the entrance to Dumbledore's office. Fizzing, Wisby," said Professor McGonagall. The gargoyle sprang to life and leapt aside. The wall behind it split in two to reveal a stone staircase that was moving continuously upward like a spiral escalator. The three of them stepped onto the moving stairs. The wall closed behind them with a thud, and they were moving upward in tight circles. Until they reached the highly polished oak door with a brass knocker shaped like a griffin, though it was now well past midnight, there were voices coming from inside the room—a positive babble of them. It sounded as though Dumbledore was entertaining at least a dozen people. Professor McGonagall rapped three times with the griffin knocker, and the voices ceased abruptly, as though someone had switched them all off. The door opened of its own accord, and Professor McGonagall led Harry and Ron inside. The room was in half darkness. The strange silver instruments standing on tables were silent and still, rather than whirring and emitting puffs of smoke as they usually did. The portraits of old headmasters and headmistresses covering the walls were all snoozing in their frames. Behind the door, a magnificent red and gold bird the size of a swan dozed on its perch with its head under its wing. Oh, it's you, Professor McGonagall, and ah. Dumbledore was sitting in a high-backed chair behind his desk. He leaned forward into the pool of candlelight, illuminating the papers laid out before him. He was wearing a magnificently embroidered purple and gold dressing gown over a snowy white nightshirt, but seemed wide awake. His penetrating light blue eyes fixed intently upon Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, Potter has had a well, a nightmare," said Professor McGonagall. He says it wasn't a nightmare. Said Harry quickly. Professor McGonagall looked around at Harry, frowning slightly. Very well then, Potter. You tell the headmaster about it. I, well, 
I was asleep, said Harry, and even in his terror and his desperation to make Dumbledore understand, he felt slightly irritated that the headmaster was not looking at him, but examining his own interlocked fingers. But it wasn't an ordinary dream. It was real. I saw it happen. He took a deep breath. Ron's dad, Mr. Weasley, has been attacked by a giant snake. The words seemed to reverberate in the air after he had said them, slightly ridiculous, even comic. There was a pause in which Dumbledore leaned back and stared meditatively at the ceiling. Ron looked from Harry to Dumbledore, white-faced and shocked. "'How did you see this?' Dumbledore asked quietly, still not looking at Harry. "'Well, I don't know,' said Harry, rather angrily. "'What did it matter? Inside my head, I suppose.' "'You misunderstand me,' said Dumbledore, still in the same calm tone. "'I mean, can you remember, uh, where you were positioned as you watched this attack happen?' Were you perhaps standing beside the victim, or else looking down on the scene from above? This was such a curious question that Harry gaped at Dumbledore. It was almost as though he knew. I was the snake, he said. I saw it all from the snake's point of view. Nobody else spoke for a moment. Then Dumbledore, now looking at Ron, who was still way-faced, said in a new and sharper voice, Is Arthur seriously injured? Yes! said Harry emphatically. Why were they all so slow on the uptake? Did they not realize how much a person bled when fangs that long pierced their side? And why could Dumbledore not do him the courtesy of looking at him? But Dumbledore stood up so quickly that Harry jumped and addressed one of the old portraits hanging very near the ceiling. Everard, he said sharply, and you too, Dillis. A sallow-faced wizard with short black bangs and an elderly witch with long silver ringlets in the frame beside him, both of whom seemed to have been in the deepest of sleeps, opened their eyes immediately. "'You were listening?' said Dumbledore. The wizard nodded. The witch said, "'Naturally.' "'The man has red hair and glasses,' said Dumbledore. "'Everard, you will need to raise the alarm. Make sure he is found by the right people.' Both nodded and moved sideways out of their frames. But instead of emerging in neighboring pictures, as usually happened at Hogwarts, neither reappeared. One frame now contained nothing but a backdrop of dark curtain, the other a handsome leather armchair. Harry noticed that many of the other headmasters and mistresses on the walls, though snoring and drooling most convincingly, kept sneaking peeks at him under their eyelids, and he suddenly understood who had been talking when they had knocked. Everard and Dillis were two of Hogwarts' most celebrated heads, Dumbledore said, now sweeping around Harry, Ron, and Professor McGonagall, and approaching the magnificent sleeping bird on his perch beside the door. Their renown is such that both have portraits hanging in other important wizarding institutions. As they are free to move between their own portraits, they can tell us what may be happening elsewhere. But Mr. Weasley could be anywhere, said Harry. Please sit down, all three of you, said Dumbledore, as though Harry had not spoken. Everard and Dillis may not be back for several minutes. Professor McGonagall, if you could draw up extra chairs. Professor McGonagall pulled her wand from the pocket of her dressing gown and waved it. Three chairs appeared out of thin air, straight-backed and wooden, quite unlike the comfortable chintz armchairs that Dumbledore had conjured back at Harry's hearing. Harry sat down, watching Dumbledore over his shoulder.
Dumbledore was now stroking Fawkes's plumed golden head with one finger. The phoenix awoke immediately. He stretched his beautiful head high and observed Dumbledore through bright, dark eyes. We will need, said Dumbledore very quietly to the bird, a warning. There was a flash of fire, and the phoenix had gone. Dumbledore now swooped down upon one of the fragile silver instruments, whose function Harry had never known, carried it over to his desk, sat down facing them again, and tapped it gently with the tip of his wand. The instrument tinkled into life at once with rhythmic clinking noises. Tiny puffs of pale green smoke issued from the minuscule silver tube at the top. Dumbledore watched the smoke closely, his brow furrowed, and after a few seconds the tiny puffs became a steady stream of smoke that thickened and coiled in the air. A serpent's head grew out of the end of it, opening its mouth wide. Harry wondered whether the instrument was confirming his story. He looked eagerly at Dumbledore for a sign that he was right, but Dumbledore did not look up. Naturally, naturally, murmured Dumbledore apparently to himself, still observing the stream of smoke without the slightest sign of surprise. But in essence divided? Harry could make neither head nor tail of this question. The smoke serpent, however, split itself instantly into two snakes, both coiling and undulating in the dark air. With a look of grim satisfaction, Dumbledore gave the instrument another gentle tap with his wand. The clinking noise slowed and died, and the smoke serpents grew faint, became a formless haze, and vanished. Dumbledore replaced the instrument upon its spindly little table. Harry saw many of the old headmasters in the portraits follow him with their eyes, then, realizing that Harry was watching them, hastily pretend to be sleeping again. Harry wanted to ask what the strange silver instrument was for, but before he could do so, there was a shout from the top of the wall to their right. The wizard called Everard had reappeared in his portrait, panting slightly. Dumbledore! What news? said Dumbledore at once. I yelled until someone came running, said the wizard, who was mopping his brow on the curtain behind him. Said I'd heard something moving downstairs. They weren't sure whether to believe me, but went down to check. You know there are no portraits down there to watch from? Anyway, they carried him up a few minutes later. He doesn't look good. He's covered in blood. I ran along to Elfrida Cragg's portrait to get a good view as they left. Good, said Dumbledore, as Ron made a convulsive movement. I take it Dillis will have seen him arrive then. And moments later, the silver ringleted witch had reappeared in her picture too. She sank, coughing into her armchair, and said, Yes, they've taken him to St. Mungo's, Dumbledore. They carried him past under my portrait. He looks bad. Thank you, said Dumbledore. He looked around at Professor McGonagall. Minerva, I need you to go and wake the other Weasley children. Of course. Professor McGonagall got up and moved swiftly to the door. Harry cast a sideways glance at Ron, who was now looking terrified. And Dumbledore, what about Molly? said Professor McGonagall, pausing at the door. That will be a job for Fawkes when he has finished keeping a lookout for anybody approaching, said Dumbledore. But she may already know. That excellent clock of hers. Harry knew Dumbledore was referring to the clock that told, not the time, but the whereabouts and conditions of the various Weasley family members, and with a pang he thought that Mr. Weasley's hand must, even now, be pointing at mortal peril. But it was very late. Mrs. Weasley was probably asleep, not watching the clock, and he felt cold as he remembered Mrs. Weasley's bogart turning into Mr. Weasley's lifeless body, his glasses askew, blood running down his face. 
But Mr. Weasley wasn't going to die. He couldn't. Dumbledore was now rummaging in a cupboard behind Harry and Ron. He emerged from it carrying a blackened old kettle, which he placed carefully upon his desk. He raised his wand and murmured, Portus! For a moment the kettle trembled, glowing with an odd blue light, then it quivered to a rest as solidly black as ever. Dumbledore marched over to another portrait, this time of a clever-looking wizard with a pointed beard, who had been painted wearing the slithering colors of green and silver, and was apparently sleeping so deeply that he could not hear Dumbledore's voice when he attempted to rouse him. Phineas! Phineas! And now the subjects of the portraits lining the room were no longer pretending to be asleep. They were shifting around in their frames, the better to watch what was happening. When the clever-looking wizard continued to feign sleep, some of them shouted his name, too. Phineas! 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 He could not pretend any longer. He gave a theatrical jerk and opened his eyes wide. Did someone call? I need you to visit your other portrait again, Phineas, said Dumbledore. I've got another message. Visit my other portrait? said Phineas in a reedy voice, giving a long fake yawn, his eyes travelling around the room and focusing upon Harry. Oh no, Dumbledore, I'm too tired tonight. Something about Phineas's voice was familiar to Harry. Where had he heard it before? But before he could think, the portraits on the surrounding walls broke into a storm of protest. Insubordination, sir, roared a corpulent red-nosed wizard, brandishing his fists. Dereliction of duty! We are honor-bound to give service to the present headmaster of Hogwarts, cried a frail-looking old wizard, whom Harry recognized as Dumbledore's predecessor, Armando Dippet. Shame on you, Phineas! Shall I persuade him, Dumbledore? called a gimlet-eyed witch, raising an unusually thick wand that looked not unlike a birch rod. Oh, very well said the wizard called Phineas, eyeing this one slightly apprehensively. Though he may well have destroyed my picture by now, he's done most of the family. Sirius knows not to destroy your portrait, said Dumbledore, and Harry realized immediately where he had heard Phineas's voice before, issuing from the apparently empty frame in his bedroom in Grimald Place. You are to give him the message that Arthur Weasley has been gravely injured, and that his wife, children, and Harry Potter will be arriving at his house shortly. Do you understand? Arthur Weasley injured, wife and children, and Harry Potter coming to stay, repeated Phineas in a bored voice. Yes, yes, very well. He sloped away into the frame of the portrait and disappeared from view at the very moment that the study door opened again. Fred, George, and Ginny were ushered inside by Professor McGonagall, all three of them looking disheveled and shocked, still in their night things. Harry, what's going on? asked Ginny, who looked frightened. Professor McGonagall says you saw Dad hurt. Your father has been injured in the course of his work for the Order of the Phoenix, said Dumbledore before Harry could speak. He has been taken to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. I am sending you back to Sirius's house, which is much more convenient for the hospital than the burrow. You will meet your mother there. How are we going? asked Fred, looking shaken. Flu powder? No, said Dumbledore. Flu powder is not safe at the moment. The network is being watched. You will be taking a port key. He indicated the old kettle lying innocently on his desk. 
We are just waiting for Phineas Nigellus to report back. I wish to be sure that the coast is clear before sending you... There was a flash of flame in the very middle of the office, leaving behind a single golden feather that floated gently to the floor. It is Fawkes's warning, said Dumbledore, catching the feather as it fell. She must know you're out of your beds. Minerva, go and head her off. Tell her any story. Professor McGonagall was gone in a swish of tartan. He says he'll be delighted, said a bored voice behind Dumbledore. The wizard called Phineas had reappeared in front of his Slytherin banner. My great-great-grandson has always had odd taste in house guests. Come here, then, Dumbledore said to Harry and the Weasleys, and quickly, before anyone else joins us. Harry and the others gathered around Dumbledore's desk. You have all used a portkey before, asked Dumbledore, and they nodded, each reaching out to touch some part of the blackened kettle. Good. On the count of three, then. One, two. It happened in a fraction of a second. In the infinitesimal pause before Dumbledore said three, Harry looked up at him. They were very close together, and Dumbledore's clear blue gaze moved from the port key to Harry's face. At once, Harry's scar burned white-hot, as though the old wound had burst open again, and, unbidden, unwanted, but terrifyingly strong, there rose within Harry a hatred so powerful he felt for that instant that he would like nothing better than to strike, to bite, to sink his fangs into the man before him. Three! He felt a powerful jerk behind his navel, the ground vanished from beneath his feet, his hand was glued to the kettle. He was banging into the others, as all sped forward in a swirl of colours and a rush of wind, the kettle pulling them onward, and then his feet hit the ground so hard that his knees buckled. The kettle clattered to the ground, and somewhere close at hand a voice said, Back again, the blood traitor brats! Is it true their father's dying? Out! roared a second voice. Harry scrambled to his feet and looked around. They had arrived in the gloomy basement kitchen of Number 12 Grimauld Place. The only sources of light were the fire and one guttering candle which illuminated the remains of a solitary supper. Creature was disappearing through the door to the hall, looking back at them malevolently as he hitched up his loincloth. Sirius was hurrying toward them all, looking anxious. He was unshaven and still in his day clothes. There was also a slightly mundungus-like whiff of stale drink about him. What's going on? he said, stretching out a hand to help Ginny up. Phineas Nigellus said Arthur's been badly injured. Ask Harry, said Fred. Yeah, I want to hear this for myself, said George. The twins and Ginny were staring at him. Creature's footsteps had stopped on the stairs outside. It was... Harry began. This was even worse than telling McGonagall and Dumbledore. I had a... a kind of... vision. And he told them all that he had seen though he altered the story so that it sounded as though he had watched from the sidelines as the snake attacked, rather than from behind the snake's own eyes. Ron, who was still very white, gave him a fleeting look but did not speak. When Harry had finished, Fred, George, and Ginny continued to stare at him for a moment. Harry did not know whether he was imagining it or not, but he fancied there was something accusatory in their looks. Well, if they were going to blame him for just seeing the attack— he was glad he had not told them that he had been inside the snake at the time. His mum here, said Fred, turning to Sirius. She probably doesn't even know what's happened yet, said Sirius. The important thing was to get you away before Umbridge could interfere. I expect Dumbledore's letting Molly know now. We've got to go to St. Mungo's, 
said Ginny urgently. She looked around at her brothers. They were, of course, still in their pajamas. Sirius, can you lend us cloaks or anything? Hang on, you can't go tearing off to St. Mungo's, said Sirius. Course we can go to St. Mungo's if we want, said Fred with a mulish expression. He's our dad. And how are you going to explain how you knew Arthur was attacked before the hospital even let his wife know? What does that matter? said George hotly. It matters because we don't want to draw attention to the fact that Harry is having visions of things that are happening hundreds of miles away, said Sirius angrily. Have you any idea what the Ministry would make of that information? Fred and George looked as though they could not care less what the Ministry made of anything. Ron was still white-faced and silent. Ginny said, Somebody else could have told us. We could have heard it somewhere other than Harry. Like who? said Sirius impatiently. Listen, your dad's been hurt while on duty for the order, and the circumstances are fishy enough without his children knowing about it seconds after it happened. You could seriously damage the orders. We don't care about that dumb order, shouted Fred. It's our dad dying we're talking about, yelled George. Your father knew what he was getting into, and he won't thank you for messing things up for the order, said Sirius angrily in his turn. This is how it is. This is why you're not in the order. You don't understand. There are things worth dying for. Easy for you to say stuck here, bellowed Fred. I don't see you risking your neck. The little color remaining in Sirius's face strained from it. He looked for a moment as though he would quite like to hit Fred, but when he spoke, it was in a voice of determined calm. I know it's hard, but we've all got to act as though we don't know anything yet. We've got to stay put, at least until we hear from your mother, all right? Fred and George still looked mutinous. Ginny, however, took a few steps over to the nearest chair and sank into it. Harry looked at Ron, who made a funny movement somewhere between a nod and a shrug, and they sat down too. The twins glared at Sirius for another minute, then took seats on either side of Ginny. That's right, said Sirius encouragingly. Come on, let's all... Let's all have a drink while we're waiting. Asio Butterbeer. He raised his wand as he spoke, and half a dozen bottles came flying toward them out of the pantry, skidded along the table, scattering the debris of Sirius's meal, and stopped neatly in front of the six of them. They all drank, and for a while the only sounds were those of the crackling of the kitchen fire and the soft thud of their bottles on the table. Harry was only drinking to have something to do with his hands. His stomach was full of horrible, hot, bubbling guilt. They would not be here if it were not for him. They would all still be asleep in bed, and it was no good telling himself that by raising the alarm he had ensured that Mr. Weasley was found. Because there was also the inescapable business of it being he who had attacked Mr. Weasley in the first place. Don't be stupid, you haven't got fangs he told himself, trying to keep calm, though the hand on his butterbeer bottle was shaking. You were lying in bed. You weren't attacking anyone. But then, what just happened in Dumbledore's office? he asked himself. I felt like I wanted to attack Dumbledore, too. He put the bottle down on the table a little harder than he meant to, so that it slopped over onto the table. No one took any notice. Then a burst of fire in midair illuminated the dirty plates in front of them, and as they gave cries of shock, a scroll of parchment fell with a thud onto the table, accompanied by a single golden phoenix tail feather. Forks, said Sirius at once, snatching up the parchment. That's not Dumbledore's writing. It must be a message from your mother. Here. 
He thrust the letter into George's hand, who ripped it open and read aloud, Dad is still alive. I am setting out for St. Mungo's now. Stay where you are. I will send news as soon as I can. Mum. George looked around the table. Still alive, he said slowly. But that makes it sound... He did not need to finish the sentence. It sounded to Harry, too, as though Mr. Weasley was hovering somewhere between life and death. Still exceptionally pale, Ron stared at the back of his mother's letter, as though it might speak words of comfort to him. Fred pulled the parchment out of George's hands and read it for himself, then looked up at Harry, who felt his hands shaking on his butterbeer bottle again, and clenched it more tightly to stop the trembling. If Harry had ever sat through a longer night than this one, he could not remember it. Sirius suggested once that they all go to bed, but without any real conviction and the Weasleys' looks of disgust were answer enough. They mostly sat in silence around the table, watching the candle wick sinking lower and lower into liquid wax, now and then raising bottles to their lips, speaking only to check the time, to wonder aloud what was happening, and to reassure one another that if there was bad news, they would know straight away, for Mrs. Weasley must long since have arrived at St. Mungo's. Fred fell into a doze, his head sagging sideways onto his shoulder. Ginny was curled like a cat on her chair, but her eyes were open. Harry could see them reflecting the firelight. Ron was sitting with his head in his hands. Whether awake or asleep, it was impossible to tell. And he and Sirius looked at each other every so often, intruders upon the family grief, waiting, waiting. And then, at ten past five in the morning by Ron's watch, the kitchen door swung open and Mrs. Weasley entered the kitchen. She was extremely pale, but when they all turned to look at her, Fred, Ron, and Harry, half rising from their chairs, she gave a wan smile. He's going to be all right, she said, her voice weak with tiredness. He's sleeping. We can all go and see him later. Bill's sitting with him now. He's going to take the morning off work. Fred fell back into his chair with his hands over his face. George and Ginny got up, walked swiftly over to their mother, and hugged her. Ron gave a very shaky laugh and downed the rest of his butterbeer in one. Breakfast, said Sirius loudly and joyfully, jumping to his feet. Where's that accursed house-elf? Creature! Creature! But Creature did not answer the summons. Oh, forget it then, muttered Sirius, counting the people in front of him. So it's breakfast for, let's see, seven bacon and eggs, I think, and some tea and toast. Harry hurried over to the stove to help. He did not want to intrude upon the Weasley's happiness, and he dreaded the moment when Mrs. Weasley would ask him to recount his vision. However, he had barely taken plates from the dresser when Mrs. Weasley lifted them out of his hands and pulled him into a hug. "'I don't know what would have happened if it hadn't been for you, Harry,' she said in a muffled voice. "'They might not have found Arthur for hours, and then it would have been too late, but thanks to you he's alive. "'And Dumbledore's been able to think up a good cover story for Arthur being where he was. "'You've no idea what trouble he would have been in otherwise. Look at poor Sturgis.' "'Harry could hardly stand her gratitude, but fortunately she soon released him to turn to Sirius "'and thank him for looking after her children through the night.' Sirius said that he was very pleased to have been able to help, and hoped they would all stay with him as long as Mr. Weasley was in the hospital. Oh, Sirius, I'm so grateful. They think he'll be there a little while, and it would be wonderful to be nearer. Of course, that might mean we're here for Christmas. The more the merrier!
said Sirius with such obvious sincerity that Mrs. Weasley beamed at him, threw on an apron, and began to help with breakfast. Sirius, Harry muttered, unable to stand it a moment longer. Can I have a quick word, uh, now? He walked into the dark pantry and Sirius followed. Without preamble, Harry told his godfather every detail of the vision he had had, including the fact that he himself had been the snake who had attacked Mr. Weasley. When he paused for breath, Sirius said, Did you tell Dumbledore this? Yes, said Harry impatiently, but he didn't tell me what it meant. Well, he doesn't tell me anything any more. I'm sure he would have told you if it was anything to worry about, said Sirius steadily. But that's not all, said Harry in a voice only a little above a whisper. Sirius, I... I think I'm going mad. Back in Dumbledore's office, just before we took the port key, for a couple of seconds there, I thought I was a snake. I felt like one. My scar really hurt when I was looking at Dumbledore. Sirius, I wanted to attack him. He could only see a sliver of Sirius's face. The rest was in darkness. It must have been the aftermath of the vision, that's all, said Sirius. You were still thinking of the dream or whatever it was, and it wasn't that said Harry, shaking his head. It was like something rose up inside me. Like there's a snake inside me. You need to sleep, said Sirius firmly. You're going to have breakfast and then go upstairs to bed, and then you can go and see Arthur after lunch with the others. You're in shock, Harry. You're blaming yourself for something you only witnessed. And it's lucky you did witness it, or Arthur might have died. Just stop worrying. He clapped Harry on the shoulder and left the pantry leaving Harry standing alone in the dark. Everyone but Harry spent the rest of the morning sleeping. He went up to the bedroom he had shared with Ron over the summer, but while Ron crawled into bed and was asleep within minutes, Harry sat fully clothed, hunched against the cold metal bars of the bedstead, keeping himself deliberately uncomfortable, determined not to fall into a doze, terrified that he might become the serpent again in his sleep, and awake to find that he had attacked Ron, or else slithered through the house after one of the others. When Ron woke up, Harry pretended to have enjoyed a refreshing nap, too. Their trunks arrived from Hogwarts while they were eating lunch, so that they could dress as muggles for the trip to St. Mungo's. Everybody except Harry was riotously happy and talkative as they changed out of their robes into jeans and sweatshirts, and they greeted Tonks and Mad-Eye, who had turned up to escort them across London, gleefully laughing at the bowler hat Mad-Eye was wearing at an angle to conceal his magical eye, and assuring him, truthfully, that Tonks, whose hair was short and bright pink again, would attract far less attention on the underground. Tonks was very interested in Harry's vision of the attack on Mr. Weasley, something he was not remotely interested in discussing. There isn't any seer blood in your family, is there? She inquired curiously as they sat side by side on a train rattling toward the heart of the city. No, said Harry, thinking of Professor Trelawney and feeling insulted. No, said Tonks musingly. No, I suppose it's not really prophecy you're doing, is it? I mean, you're not seeing the future. You're seeing the present. It's odd, isn't it? Useful, though. Harry did not answer. Fortunately, they got out at the next stop, a station in the very heart of London, and in the bustle of leaving the train, he was able to allow Fred and George to get between himself and Tonks, who was leading the way. They all followed her up the escalator, Moody clunking along at the back of the group, his bowler tilted low, and one gnarled hand stuck in between the buttons of his coat, clutching his wand. 
Harry thought he sensed the concealed eyes staring hard at him, trying to deflect more questions about his dream. He asked Mad-Eye where St. Mungo's was hidden. Not far from here, grunted Moody as they stepped out into the wintry air on a broad store-lined street packed with Christmas shoppers. He pushed Harry a little ahead of him and stumped along just behind. Harry knew the eye was rolling in all directions under the tilted hat. Wasn't easy to find a good location for a hospital. Nowhere in Diagon Alley was big enough, and we couldn't have it underground like the Ministry. Unhealthy. In the end, they managed to get hold of a building up here. Theory was, sick wizards could come and go and just blend in with the crowd. He seized Harry's shoulder to prevent them being separated by a gaggle of shoppers, plainly intent on nothing but making it into a nearby shop full of electrical gadgets. Here we go, said Moody a moment later. They had arrived outside a large, old-fashioned, red-brick department store called Purge and Dow's Limited. The place had a shabby, miserable air. The window displays consisted of a few chip dummies with their wigs askew, standing at random and modelling fashions at least ten years out of date. Large signs on all the dusty doors read, Closed for Refurbishment. Harry distinctly heard a large woman, laden with plastic shopping bags, say to her friend as they passed, It's never open, that place. Right, said Tonks, beckoning them forward to a window displaying nothing but a particularly ugly female dummy whose false eyelashes were hanging off and who was modelling a green nylon pinafore dress. Everybody ready? They nodded, clustering around her. Moody gave Harry another shove between the shoulder blades to urge him forward, and Tonks leaned close to the glass, looking up at the very ugly dummy, and said, her breath steaming up the glass, Whatcha? We're here to see Arthur Weasley. For a split second, Harry thought how absurd it was for Tonks to expect the dummy to hear her talking that quietly through a sheet of glass, when there were buses rumbling along behind her and all the racket of a street full of shoppers. Then he reminded himself that dummies could not hear anyway. Next second his mouth opened in shock as the dummy gave a tiny nod, beckoned its jointed finger, and Tonks had seized Ginny and Mrs. Weasley by the elbows, stepped right through the glass, and vanished. Fred, George, and Ron stepped after them. Harry glanced around at the jostling crowd. Not one of them seemed to have a glance to spare for window displays as ugly as Purge and Dow's limiteds. Nor did any of them seem to have noticed that six people had just melted into thin air in front of them. Come on, growled Moody, giving Harry yet another poke in the back, and together they stepped forward through what felt like a sheet of cool water, emerging quite warm and dry on the other side. There was no sign of the ugly dummy or the space where she had stood. They had arrived in what seemed to be a crowded reception area, where rows of witches and wizards sat upon rickety wooden chairs, some looking perfectly normal and perusing out-of-date copies of Witch Weekly. Others sporting gruesome disfigurements such as elephant chunks or extra hands sticking out of their chests. The room was scarcely less quiet than the street outside, for many of the patients were making very peculiar noises. A sweaty-faced witch in the center of the front row, who was fanning herself vigorously with a copy of the Daily Prophet, kept letting off a high-pitched whistle as steam came pouring out of her mouth and a grubby-looking warlock in the corner clanged like a bell every time he moved, and with each clang his head vibrated horribly so that he had to seize himself by the ears and hold it steady. Witches and wizards in lime-green robes were walking up and down the rows, asking questions and making notes on clipboards like umbrages. Harry noticed the emblem embroidered on their chests, a wand and bone, crossed. "'Are they doctors?' he asked Ron quietly. "'Doctors?' 
said Ron, looking startled. Those muggle nutters that cut people up? Nah, they're healers. Over here, called Mrs. Weasley over the renewed clanging of the warlock in the corner, and they followed her to the queue in front of a plump blonde witch seated at a desk marked Inquiries. The wall behind her was covered in notices and posters saying things like, A clean cauldron keeps potions from becoming poisons. And antidotes are antidotes, unless approved by a qualified healer. There was also a large portrait of a witch with long silver ringlets that was labelled Dillis Derwent, St. Mungo's Healer, 1722-1741, Headmistress of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, 1741-1768. Dillis was eyeing the Weasley party closely as though counting them. When Harry caught her eyes, she gave a tiny wink, walked sideways out of her portrait, and vanished. Meanwhile, at the front of the queue, a young wizard was performing an odd on-the-spot jig and trying, in between yelps of pain, to explain his predicament to the witch behind the desk. It's these ouch shoes my brother gave me. Oh, they're eating my ouch feet. Just look at them. There must be some kind of ah jinx on them. I can't. Oh, get them off. He hopped from one foot to the other as though dancing on hot coals. The shoes don't prevent your reading, do they? said the blonde witch irritably pointing at a large sign to the left of her desk. You want spell damage, fourth floor, just like it says on the floor guide. Next! The wizard hobbled and pranced sideways out of the way. The Weasley party moved forward a few steps, and Harry read the floor guide. Artifact accidents, ground floor. Cauldron explosion, one backfiring, broom crashes, etc. Creature-induced injuries, first floor. Bites, stings, burns, embedded spines, etc. Magical bugs, second floor. Contagious maladies, e.g. dragonpox, vanishing sickness, scrofungulus. Potion and plant poisoning, third floor. Rashes, regurgitation, uncontrollable giggling, etc. Spell damage, fourth floor. Unliftable jinxes, hexes, and incorrectly applied charms, etc. Visitor's Tea Room and Hospital Shop, 5th Floor If you are unsure where to go, incapable of normal speech, or unable to remember why you are here, our welcome witch will be pleased to help. A very old, stooped wizard with a hearing trumpet had shuffled to the front of the queue now. I'm here <coughs> to see <coughs> Broderick <coughs> Bode, <coughs> he wheezed. Ward 49, but I'm afraid you're wasting your time, said the witch dismissively. He's completely addled, you know, still thinks he's a teapot. Next! A harassed-looking wizard was holding his small daughter tightly by the ankle while she flapped around his head, using the immensely large feathery wings that had sprouted right out the back of her romper suit. Fourth floor, said the witch in a bored voice, without asking, and the man disappeared through the double doors beside the desk, holding his daughter like an oddly shaped balloon. Next! Mrs. Weasley moved forward to the desk. Hello, she said. My husband Arthur Weasley was supposed to be moved to a different ward this morning. Could you tell us? Arthur Weasley, said the witch, running her finger down a long list in front of her. Yes, first floor, second door on the right, Di Llewellyn Ward. Thank you, said Mrs. Weasley. Come on, you lot. They followed through the double doors and along the narrow corridor beyond, which was lined with more portraits of famous healers, and lit by crystal bubbles full of candles that floated up on the ceiling, looking like giant soap suds. 
More witches and wizards in lime-green robes walked in and out of the doors they passed. A foul-smelling yellow gas wafted into the passageway as they passed one door, and every now and then they heard distant wailing. They climbed a flight of stairs and entered the creature-induced injuries corridor, where the second door on the right bore the words, Dangerous, Die Llewellyn Ward, Serious Bites. Underneath this was a card in a brass holder on which had been written, Healer in Charge, Hippocrates Smethwick, Trainee Healer, Augustus Pye. We'll wait outside, Molly, Tonk said. Arthur won't want too many visitors at once. It ought to be just the family first. Mad-Eye growled his approval of this idea, and set himself with his back against the corridor wall, his magical eyes spinning in all directions. Harry drew back too, but Mrs. Weasley reached out a hand and pushed him through the door, saying, Don't be silly, Harry. Arthur wants to thank you. The ward was small and rather dingy, as the only window was narrow and set high in the wall facing the door. Most of the light came from more shining crystal bubbles clustered in the middle of the ceiling. The walls were of panelled oak, and there was a portrait of a rather vicious-looking wizard on the wall captioned, Urquhart Rackharrow, 1612 to 1697, inventor of the entrail-expelling curse. There were only three patients. Mr. Weasley was occupying the bed at the far end of the ward beside the tiny window. Harry was pleased and relieved to see that he was propped up on several pillows and reading the daily profit by the solitary ray of sunlight falling onto his bed. He looked around as they walked toward him, and, seeing whom it was, beamed. "'Hello,' he called, throwing the prophet aside. "'Bill just left Molly, had to get back to work, but he says he'll drop in on you later.' "'How are you, Arthur?' asked Mrs. Weasley, bending down to kiss his cheek and looking anxiously into his face. "'You're still looking a bit peaky.' "'I feel absolutely fine,' said Mr. Weasley brightly, holding out his good arm to give Ginny a hug. If they could only take the bandages off, I'd be fit to go home. Why can't they take them off, Dad? asked Fred. Well, I start bleeding like mad every time they try, said Mr. Weasley cheerfully, reaching across for his wand, which lay on his bedside cabinet, and waving it so that six extra chairs appeared at his bedside to seat them all. It seems there was some rather unusual kind of poison in that snake's fangs that keeps wounds open. They're sure they'll find an antidote, though. They say they've had much worse cases than mine, and in the meantime, I just have to keep taking a blood-replenishing potion every hour. But that fellow over there, he said, dropping his voice and nodding toward the bed opposite in which a man lay, looking green and sickly and staring at the ceiling. Bitten by a werewolf. Poor chap. No cure at all. A werewolf? whispered Mrs. Weasley, looking alarmed. Is he safe in a public ward? Shouldn't he be in a private room? It's two weeks till full moon, Mr. Weasley reminded her quietly. They've been talking to him this morning, the healers, you know, trying to persuade him he'll be able to lead an almost normal life. I said to him, didn't mention names, of course, but I said, I knew a werewolf personally, very nice man, who finds the condition quite easy to manage. What did he say? asked George. Said he'd give me another bite if I didn't shut up, said Mr. Weasley sadly. And that woman over there, he indicated the only other occupied bed, which was right beside the door, won't tell the healers what bitter, which makes us all think it must have been something she was handling illegally. Whatever it was took a real chunk out of her leg. Very nasty smell when they take off the dressings. So you're going to tell us what happened, Dad? asked Fred, pulling his chair closer to the bed. 
Well, you already know, don't you? said Mr. Weasley with a significant smile at Harry. It's very simple. I'd had a very long day, dozed off, got sneaked upon, and bitten. Is it in the profit you been attacked? asked Fred, indicating the newspaper Mr. Weasley had cast aside. No, of course not, said Mr. Weasley with a slightly bitter smile. The Ministry wouldn't want everyone to know a dirty great serpent got... Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley warningly, got, uh, me... Mr. Weasley said hastily, though Harry was quite sure that was not what he had meant to say. "'So where were you when it happened, Dad?' asked George. "'That's my business,' said Mr. Weasley, though with a small smile. He snatched up the Daily Prophet, shook it open again, and said, "'I was just reading about Willie Widdishin's arrest when you arrived. You know, Willie turned out to be behind those regurgitating toilets last summer.' One of his jinxes backfired, the toilet exploded, and they found him lying unconscious in the wreckage, covered from head to foot in... When you say you were on duty, Fred interrupted in a low voice, what were you doing? You heard your father, whispered Mrs. Weasley. We are not discussing this here. Come on about Willie Widdershins, Arthur. Well, don't ask me how, but he actually got off on the toilet charge, said Mr. Weasley grimly. I can only suppose gold changed hands. You were guarding it, weren't you? said George quietly. The weapon, the thing you know who's after. George, be quiet, snapped Mrs. Weasley. Anyway, said Mr. Weasley in a raised voice, this time Willie's been caught selling biting doorknobs to muggles, and I don't think he'll be able to worm his way out of it because, according to this article, two muggles have lost fingers and are now instant mungos for emergency bone regrowth and memory modification. Just think of it. Muggles, instant mungos. I wonder which ward they're in. And he looked eagerly around as though hoping to see a signpost. Didn't you say you know who's got a snake, Harry? Asked Fred, looking at his father for a reaction. A massive one. You saw it the night he returned, didn't you? That's enough, said Mrs. Weasley crossly. Mad-Eye and Tonks are outside, Arthur. They want to come and see you. And you lot can wait outside she added to her children and Harry. You can come and say goodbye afterward. Go on. They trooped back into the corridor. Mad-Eye and Tonks went in and closed the door of the ward behind them. Fred raised his eyebrows. Fine, he said coolly, rummaging in his pockets. Be like that. Don't tell us anything. Looking for these, said George, holding out what looked like a tangle of flesh-coloured string. You read my mind, said Fred, grinning. Let's see if St. Mungo's puts imperturbable charms on its ward doors, shall we? He and George disentangled the string and separated five extendable ears from each other. Fred and George handed them around. Harry hesitated to take one. Go on, Harry, take it. You saved Dad's life. If anyone's got the right to eavesdrop on him, it's you. Grinning in spite of himself, Harry took the end of the string and inserted it into his ear as the twins had done. Okay, go, Fred whispered. The flesh-colored strings wriggled like long, skinny worms, then snaked under the door. For a few seconds, Harry could hear nothing. Then he heard Tonks whispering as clearly as though she was standing right beside him. They searched the whole area, but they couldn't find the snake anywhere. It just seems to have vanished after it attacked you, Arthur. But you know who can't have expected a snake to get in, can he? I reckon he sent it as a lookout, growled Moody.
Because he's not had any luck so far, has he? No, I reckon he's trying to get a clearer picture of what he's facing. And if Arthur hadn't been there, the beast would have had much more time to look around. So Potter says, he saw it all happen? Yes, said Mrs. Weasley. She sounded rather uneasy. You know, Dumbledore seems almost to have been waiting for Harry to see something like this. Yeah, well, said Moody. There's something funny about the Potter kid. We all know that. "'Dumbledore seemed worried about Harry when I spoke to him this morning,' whispered Mrs. Weasley. "'Course he's worried,' growled Moody. "'The boy's seeing things from inside you-know-who's snake. "'Obviously Potter doesn't realize what that means, "'but if you-know-who's possessing him—' "'Harry pulled the extendable ear out of his own, "'his heart hammering very fast and heat rushing up his face. "'He looked around at the others.' They were all staring at him, the strings still trailing from their ears, looking suddenly fearful. Chapter 23 Christmas on the Closed Ward Was this why Dumbledore would no longer meet Harry's eyes? Did he expect to see Voldemort staring out of them, afraid perhaps that their vivid green might turn suddenly to scarlet with cat-like slits for pupils? Harry remembered how the snake-like face of Voldemort had once forced itself out of the back of Professor Quirrell's head, and he ran his hand over the back of his own, wondering what it would feel like if Voldemort burst out of his skull. He felt dirty, contaminated, as though he were carrying some deadly germ, unworthy to sit on the underground train back from the hospital with innocent, clean people whose minds and bodies were free of the taint of Voldemort. He had not merely seen the snake— he had been the snake. He knew it now. And then a truly terrible thought occurred to him, a memory bobbing to the surface of his mind, one that made his insides writhe and squirm like serpents. What's he after, apart from followers? Stuff he can only get by stealth, like a weapon, something he didn't have last time. I'm the weapon, Harry thought and it was as though poison were pumping through his veins, chilling him, bringing him out in a sweat as he swayed with the train through the dark tunnel. I'm the one Voldemort's trying to use. That's why they've got guards around me everywhere I go. It's not for my protection. It's for other people's. Only it's not working. They can't have someone on me all the time at Hogwarts. I did attack Mr. Weasley last night. It was me. Voldemort made me do it, and he could be inside me, listening to my thoughts right now. Are you all right, Harry, dear? whispered Mrs. Weasley, leaning across Ginny to speak to him as the train rattled along through its dark tunnel. You don't look very well. Are you feeling sick? They were all watching him. He shook his head violently and stared up at an advertisement for home insurance. Harry, dear, are you sure you're all right? said Mrs. Weasley in a worried voice as they walked around the unkempt patch of grass in the middle of Grim Old Place. You look ever so pale. Are you sure you slept this morning? You go upstairs to bed right now, and you can have a couple of hours sleep before dinner. All right? He nodded. Here was a ready-made excuse not to talk to any of the others, which was precisely what he wanted. So, when she opened the front door, he proceeded straight past the troll's leg umbrella stand and up the stairs, and hurried into his and Ron's bedroom. Here he began to pace up and down, past the two beds and Phineas Nigellus's empty portrait, his brain teeming and seething with questions and ever more dreadful ideas. How had he become a snake? Perhaps he was an animagus. 
No, he couldn't be. He would know. Perhaps Voldemort was an Animagus. Yes, thought Harry, that would fit. He would turn into a snake, of course. And when he's possessing me, then we both transform. That still doesn't explain how come I got to London and back to my bed in the space of about five minutes, though. But then, Voldemort's about the most powerful wizard in the world, apart from Dumbledore. It's probably no problem at all to him to transport people like that. And then, with a terrible stab of panic, he thought, But this is insane! If Voldemort's possessing me, I'm giving him a clear view into the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix right now. He'll know who's in the Order and where Sirius is. And I've heard loads of stuff I shouldn't have. Everything Sirius told me the first night I was here. There was only one thing for it. He would have to leave Grimauld Place straight away. He would spend Christmas at Hogwarts without the others, which would keep them safe over the holidays at least. But no, that wouldn't do. There were still plenty of people at Hogwarts to maim and injure. What if it was Seamus, Dean, or Neville next time? He stopped his pacing and stood staring at Phineas Nigellus's empty frame. A leaden sensation was settling in the pit of his stomach. He had no alternative. He was going to have to return to Privet Drive, cut himself off from other wizards entirely. Well, if he had to do it, he thought there was no point hanging around, trying with all his might not to think how the Dursleys were going to react when they found him on their doorstep six months earlier than they had expected. He strode over to his trunk, slammed the lid shut and locked it, then glanced around automatically for Hedwig before remembering that she was still at Hogwarts. Well, her cage would be one less thing to carry. He seized one end of his trunk and had dragged it halfway toward the door when a sneaky voice said, Running away, are we? He looked around. Phineas Nigellus had appeared upon the canvas of his portrait and was leaning against the frame, watching Harry with an amused expression on his face. Not running away, no, said Harry shortly, dragging his trunk a few more feet across the room. I thought said Phineas Nigellus, stroking his pointed beard, that to belong in Gryffindor House you were supposed to be brave. It looks to me as though you would have been better off in my own house. We Slytherins are brave, yes, but not stupid. For instance, given the choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. It's not my own neck I'm saving, said Harry tersely, tugging the trunk over a patch of particularly uneven, moth-eaten carpet right in front of the door. Oh, I see, said Phineas Nigellus, still stroking his beard. This is no cowardly flight. You are being noble. Harry ignored him. His hand was on the doorknob when Phineas Nigellus said lazily, I have a message for you from Albus Dumbledore. Harry spun around. What is it? Stay where you are. I haven't moved, said Harry, his hands still upon the doorknob. So what's the message? I have just given it to you, Dolt, said Phineas Nigellus smoothly. Dumbledore says stay where you are. Why? said Harry eagerly, dropping the end of his trunk. Why does he want me to stay? What else did he say? Nothing whatsoever said Phineas Nigellus, raising a thin black eyebrow, as though he found Harry impertinent. Harry's temper rose to the surface like a snake rearing from long grass. He was exhausted, he was confused beyond measure. He had experienced terror, relief, and then terror again in the last twelve hours, and still Dumbledore did not want to talk to him. 
So that's it, is it? He said loudly. Stay there. That's all anyone could tell me after I got attacked by those Dementors, too. Just stay put while the grown-ups sort it out, Harry. We won't bother telling you anything, though, because your tiny little brain might not be able to cope with it. You know, said Phineas Nigellus, even more loudly than Harry, this is precisely why I loathe being a teacher. Young people are so infernally convinced that they are absolutely right about everything. Has it not occurred to you, my poor, puffed-up Popinjay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every tiny detail of his plans to you? Have you never paused while feeling hard done by to note that following Dumbledore's orders has never led you into harm? No, no, like all young people, you are quite sure that you alone feel and think. You alone recognize danger. You alone are the only one clever enough to realize what the Dark Lord may be planning. He is planning something to do with me, then, said Harry swiftly. Did I say that? said Phineas Nigellus, idly examining his silk gloves. Now, if you will excuse me, I have better things to do than to listen to adolescent agonizing. Good day to you. And he strolled into his frame and out of sight. Fine. Go then, Harry bellowed at the empty frame, and tell Dumbledore thanks for nothing. The empty canvas remained silent. Fuming, Harry dragged his trunk back to the foot of his bed, then threw himself face down upon the moth-eaten covers, his eyes shut, his body heavy and aching. He felt he had journeyed miles and miles. It seemed impossible that less than twenty-four hours ago Cho Chang had been approaching him under the mistletoe. He was so tired. He was scared to sleep, yet he did not know how long he could fight it. Dumbledore had told him to stay. That must mean he was allowed to sleep. But he was scared. What if it happened again? He was sinking into shadows. It was as though a film in his head had been waiting to start. He was walking down a deserted corridor toward a plain black door, past rough stone walls, torches, and an open doorway, onto a flight of stone steps leading downstairs on the left. He reached the black door but could not open it. He stood gazing at it, desperate for entry. Something he wanted with all his heart lay beyond, a prize beyond his dreams. If only his scar would stop prickling then he would be able to think more clearly. Harry, said Ron's voice from far, far away. Mum says dinner's ready, but she'll save you something if you want to stay in bed. Harry opened his eyes, but Ron had already left the room. He doesn't want to be on his own with me, Harry thought, not after what he heard Moody say. He supposed none of them would want him there any more now that they knew what was inside him. He would not go down to dinner. He would not inflict his company upon them. He turned over onto his other side and after a while dropped back off to sleep, waking much later in the early hours of the morning with his insides aching with hunger and Ron snoring in the next bed. Squinting around the room, he saw the dark outline of Phineas Nigellus standing again in his portrait, and it occurred to Harry that Dumbledore had probably set Phineas Nigellus to watch over him in case he attacked somebody else. The feeling of being unclean intensified. He half wished he had not obeyed Dumbledore and stayed. If this was how life was going to be in Grimmauld Place from now on, maybe he would be better off in Privet Drive after all. Everybody else spent the following morning putting up Christmas decorations. 
Harry could not remember Sirius ever being in such a good mood. He was actually singing carols, apparently delighted that he was to have company over Christmas. Harry could hear his voice echoing up through the floor in the cold and empty drawing room where he was sitting alone, watching the sky outside the windows growing whiter, threatening snow, all the time feeling a savage pleasure that he was giving the others the opportunity to keep talking about him, as they were bound to be doing. When he heard Mrs. Weasley calling his name softly up the stairs around lunchtime, he retreated farther upstairs and ignored her. It was around six o'clock in the evening that the doorbell rang and Mrs. Black started screaming again. Assuming that Mundungus or some other order member had come to call, Harry merely settled himself more comfortably against the wall of Buckbeak the Hippogriff's room where he was hiding, trying to ignore how hungry he felt as he fed Buckbeak dead rats. It came as a slight shock when somebody hammered hard on the door a few minutes later. I know you're in there, said Hermione's voice. Will you please come out? I want to talk to you. What are you doing here? Harry asked her, pulling open the door as Buckbeak resumed his scratching at the straw-strewn floor for any fragments of rat he might have dropped. I thought you were skiing with your mum and dad. Well, to tell the truth, skiing's not really my thing said Hermione. So, I've come for Christmas. There was snow in her hair, and her face was pink with cold. But don't tell Ron that. I told him it's really good because he kept laughing so much. Anyway, Mum and Dad are a bit disappointed, but I've told them that everyone who's serious about the exams is staying at Hogwarts to study. They want me to do well. They'll understand. Anyway, she said briskly, let's go to your bedroom. Ron's mum's lit a fire in there, and she sent up sandwiches. Harry followed her back to the second floor. When he entered the bedroom, he was rather surprised to see both Ron and Ginny waiting for them, sitting on Ron's bed. I came on the night bus, said Hermione airily, pulling off her jacket before Harry had time to speak. Dumbledore told me what had happened first thing this morning, but I had to wait for term to end officially before setting off. Umbridge is already livid that you lot disappeared right under her nose, even though Dumbledore told her Mr. Weasley was in St. Mungo's and he'd given you all permission to visit. So, she sat down next to Ginny, and the two girls and Ron looked up at Harry. How are you feeling? asked Hermione. Fine, said Harry stiffly. Oh, don't lie, Harry, she said impatiently. Ron and Ginny say you've been hiding from everyone since you got back from St. Mungo's. They do, do they? said Harry, glaring at Ron and Ginny. Ron looked down at his feet, but Ginny seemed quite unabashed. Well, you have, she said, and you won't look at any of us. It's you lot who won't look at me, said Harry angrily. Maybe you're taking it in turns to look and keep missing each other, suggested Hermione, the corners of her mouth twitching. Very funny snapped Harry, turning away. Oh, stop feeling all misunderstood, said Hermione sharply. Look, the others have told me what you overheard last night on the extendable ears. Yeah, growled Harry, his hands deep in his pockets as he watched the snow now falling thickly outside. All been talking about me, have you? Well, I'm getting used to it. We wanted to talk to you, Harry, said Ginny, but as you've been hiding ever since we got back, I didn't want anyone to talk to me said Harry, who was feeling more and more nettled. Well, that was a bit stupid of you, said Ginny angrily, seeing as you don't know anyone but me who's been possessed by you-know-who, and I can tell you how it feels. Harry remained quite still as the impact of these words hit him. Then he wheeled around. I forgot, he said. Lucky you, said Ginny coolly.
I'm sorry, Harry said, and he meant it. So, so do you think I'm being possessed then? Well, can you remember everything you've been doing? Ginny asked. Are there big blank periods where you don't know what you've been up to? Harry racked his brains. No, he said. Then you know who hasn't ever possessed you, said Ginny simply. When he did it to me, I couldn't remember what I'd been doing for hours at a time. I'd find myself somewhere and not know how I got there. Harry hardly dared believe her, yet his heart was lightening almost in spite of himself. That dream I had about your dad and the snake, though. Harry, you've had these dreams before, Hermione said. You had flashes of what Voldemort was up to last year. This was different, said Harry, shaking his head. I was inside that snake. It was like I was the snake. What if Voldemort somehow transported me to London? One day, said Hermione, sounding thoroughly exasperated, you'll read Hogwarts, a history, and perhaps that will remind you that you can't apparate or disapparate inside Hogwarts. Even Voldemort couldn't just make you fly out of your dormitory, Harry. You didn't leave your bed, mate said Ron. I saw you thrashing around in your sleep about a minute before we could wake you up. Harry started pacing up and down the room again, thinking. What they were all saying was not only comforting, it made sense. Without really thinking, he took a sandwich from the plate on the bed and crammed it hungrily into his mouth. I'm not the weapon after all, thought Harry. His heart swelled with happiness and relief, and he felt like joining in as they heard Sirius tramping past their door toward Buckbeak's room, singing, God rest you merry hippogriffs, at the top of his voice. How could he have dreamed of returning to Privet Drive for Christmas? Sirius's delight at having the house full again, and especially at having Harry back, was infectious. He was no longer their sullen host of the summer. Now he seemed determined that everyone should enjoy themselves as much, if not more, than they would have done at Hogwarts, and he worked tirelessly in the run-up to Christmas Day, cleaning and decorating with their help, so that by the time they all went to bed on Christmas Eve, the house was barely recognizable. The tarnished chandeliers were no longer hung with cobwebs, but with garlands of holly and gold and silver streamers. Magical snow glittered in heaps over the threadbare carpets. A great Christmas tree obtained by Mundungus and decorated with live fairies blocked Sirius's family tree from view, and even the stuffed elf heads on the wall wore Father Christmas hats and beards. Harry awoke on Christmas morning to find a stack of presents at the foot of his bed, and Ron already halfway through opening his own rather larger pile. Good haul this year! He informed Harry through a cloud of paper. Thanks for the broom compass, it's excellent. Beats Hermione's. She's got me a homework planner. Harry sorted through his presents and found one with Hermione's handwriting on it. She had given him, too, a book that resembled a diary, except that it said things like, Do it today or later you'll pay. Every time he opened a page. Sirius and Lupin had given Harry a set of excellent books entitled Practical Defensive Magic and Its Use Against the Dark Arts, which had superb moving color illustrations of all the counterjinxes and hexes it described. Harry flicked through the first volume eagerly. He could see it was going to be highly useful in his plans for the D.A. Hagrid had sent a furry brown wallet that had fangs, which were presumably supposed to be an anti-theft device, but unfortunately prevented Harry putting any money in without getting his fingers ripped off. 
Tonks's present was a small working model of a firebolt, which Harry watched fly around the room, wishing he still had his full-size version. Ron had given him an enormous box of every flavor beans, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, the usual hand-knitted jumper, and some mince pies, and Dobby, a truly dreadful painting that Harry suspected had been done by the elf himself. He had just turned it upside down to see whether it looked better that way, when, with a loud crack, Fred and George apparated at the foot of his bed. "'Merry Christmas!' said George. "'Don't go downstairs for a bit.' "'Why not?' said Ron. "'Mum's crying again,' said Fred heavily. "'Percy sent back his Christmas jumper.' "'Without a note,' added George. "'Hasn't asked how Dad is or visited him or anything.' "'We tried to comfort her.' said Fred, moving around the bed to look at Harry's portrait. Told her purse is nothing more than a humongous pile of rat droppings. Didn't work, said George, helping himself to a chocolate frog. So Lupin took over. Best let him cheer her up before we go down for breakfast, I reckon. What's that supposed to be, anyway? asked Fred, squinting at Dobby's painting. Looks like a gibbon with two black eyes. It's Harry, said George, pointing at the back of the picture. Says so on the back. Good likeness, said Fred, grinning. Harry threw his new homework diary at him. It hit the wall opposite and fell to the floor where it said happily, If you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's, then you may do whatever you please. They got up and dressed. They could hear various inhabitants of the house calling Merry Christmas to each other. On their way downstairs, they met Hermione. Thanks for the book, Harry she said happily. I've been wanting that new theory of numerology for ages, and that perfume is really unusual, Ron. No problem, said Ron. Who's that for, anyway? He added, nodding at the neatly wrapped present she was carrying. Creature, said Hermione brightly. It'd better not be clothes, said Ron warningly. You know what Sirius said. Creature knows too much. We can't set him free. It isn't clothes said Hermione, although if I had my way I'd certainly give him something to wear other than that filthy old rag. No, it's a patchwork quilt. I thought it would brighten up his bedroom. What bedroom? said Harry, dropping his voice to a whisper as they were passing the portrait of Sirius's mother. Well, Sirius says it's not so much a bedroom, more a kind of den, said Hermione. Apparently he sleeps under the boiler in that cupboard off the kitchen. Mrs. Weasley was the only person in the basement when they arrived there. She was standing at the stove, and sounded as though she had a bad head cold when she wished them Merry Christmas, and they all averted their eyes. "'So this is Creature's bedroom?' said Ron, strolling over to a dingy door in the corner opposite the pantry which Harry had never seen open. "'Yes,' said Hermione, now sounding a little nervous. "'Uh, I think we'd better knock.' Ron rapped the door with his knuckles, but there was no reply. He must be sneaking around upstairs, he said, and without further ado pulled open the door. Ugh! Harry peered inside. Most of the cupboard was taken up with a very large and old-fashioned boiler, but in the foot's space underneath the pipes, Creature had made himself something that looked like a nest. A jumble of assorted rags and smelly old blankets were piled on the floor, and the small dent in the middle of it showed where Creature curled up to sleep every night. Here and there among the material were stale bread crusts and mouldy old bits of cheese. In a far corner glinted small objects and coins that Harry guessed Creature had saved, magpie-like, from Sirius's purge of the house, 
and he had also managed to retrieve the silver-framed family photographs that Sirius had thrown away over the summer. Their glass might be shattered, but still the little black-and-white people inside them peered haughtily up at him, including, he felt a little jolt in his stomach, the dark, heavy-lidded woman whose trial he had witnessed in Dumbledore's pensive, Bellatrix Lestrange. By the looks of it, hers was Creature's favorite photograph. He had placed it to the fore of all the others and had mended the glass clumsily with spellotape. I think I'll just leave his present here, said Hermione, laying the package neatly in the middle of the depression in the rags and blankets and closing the door quietly. He'll find it later. That'll be fine. Come to think of it, said Sirius, emerging from the pantry carrying a large turkey as they closed the cupboard door. Has anyone actually seen Creature lately? I haven't seen him since the night we came back here, said Harry. You were ordering him out of the kitchen. Yeah, said Sirius, frowning. You know, I think that's the last time I saw him, too. He must be hiding upstairs somewhere. He couldn't have left, could he? said Harry. I mean, when you said out, maybe he thought you meant get out of the house. No, no, house-selves can't leave unless they're given clothes. They're tied to their family's house, said Sirius. They can leave the house if they really want to, Harry contradicted him. Dobby did. He left the Malfoys to give me warnings two years ago. He had to punish himself afterward, but he still managed it. Sirius looked slightly disconcerted for a moment, then said, I'll look for him later. I expect I'll find him upstairs crying his eyes out over my mother's old bloomers or something. Of course, he might have crawled into the airing cupboard and died, but I mustn't get my hopes up. Fred, George, and Ron laughed. Hermione, however, looked reproachful. Once they had had their Christmas lunch, the Weasleys and Harry and Hermione were planning to pay Mr. Weasley another visit, escorted by Mad-Eye and Lupin. Mundungus turned up in time for Christmas pudding and trifle, having managed to borrow a car for the occasion, as the underground did not run on Christmas Day. The car, which Harry doubted very much had been taken with the knowledge or consent of its owner, had had a similar enlarging spell put upon it as the Wheezes' old Ford Anglia. Although normally proportioned outside, ten people, with Mundungus driving, were able to fit into it quite comfortably. Mrs. Weasley hesitated at the point of getting inside. Harry knew that her disapproval of Mundungus was battling with her dislike of travelling without magic. Finally the cold outside and her children's pleading triumphed, and she settled herself into the back seat between Fred and Bill with good grace. The journey to St. Mungo's was quite quick, as there was very little traffic on the roads. A small trickle of witches and wizards were creeping furtively up the otherwise deserted street to visit the hospital. Harry and the others got out of the car, and Mundungus drove off around the corner to wait for them. They strolled casually toward the window where the dummy in green nylon stood, then, one by one, stepped through the glass. The reception area looked pleasantly festive. The crystal orbs that illuminated St. Mungo's had been turned to red and gold so that they became gigantic glowing Christmas baubles. Holly hung around every doorway, and shining white Christmas trees covered in magical snow and icicles glittered in every corner, each topped with a gleaming gold star. It was less crowded than the last time they had been there, although halfway across the room Harry found himself shunted aside by a witch with a walnut jammed up her left nostril. "'Family argument, eh?' smirked the blonde witch behind the desk. "'You're the third I've seen today. Spell damage, fourth floor.' 
They found Mr. Weasley propped up in bed with the remains of his turkey dinner on a tray in his lap and a rather sheepish expression on his face. Everything all right, Arthur? asked Mrs. Weasley, after they had all greeted Mr. Weasley and handed over their presents. Fine, fine, said Mr. Weasley, a little too heartily. You, uh, haven't seen Healer Smithwick, have you? No, said Mrs. Weasley suspiciously. Why? Nothing, nothing, said Mr. Weasley airily, starting to unwrap his pile of gifts. Well, everyone had a good day. What did you all get for Christmas? Oh, Harry, this is absolutely wonderful. For he had just opened Harry's gift of fuse wire and screwdrivers. Mrs. Weasley did not seem entirely satisfied with Mr. Weasley's answer. As her husband leaned over to shake Harry's hand, she peered at the bandaging under his nightshirt. Arthur, she said with a snap in her voice like a mousetrap, you've had your bandages changed. Why have you had your bandages changed a day early, Arthur? You told me they wouldn't need doing until tomorrow. What? said Mr. Weasley, looking rather frightened and pulling the bed covers higher up his chest. No, no, it's nothing, it's I... He seemed to deflate under Mrs. Weasley's piercing gaze. Well, now don't get upset, Molly, but Augustus Pye had an idea. He's the trainee healer, you know, lovely young chap and very interested in, um... Complimentary medicine. I mean, some of these old muggle remedies. Well, they're called stitches, Molly, and they work very well on, on muggle wounds. Mrs. Weasley let out an ominous noise somewhere between a shriek and a snarl. Lupin strolled away from the bed and over to the werewolf, who had no visitors and was looking rather wistfully at the crowd around Mr. Weasley. Bill muttered something about getting himself a cup of tea, and Fred and George leapt up to accompany him, grinning. "'Do you mean to tell me?' said Mrs. Weasley, her voice growing louder with every word, and apparently unaware that her fellow visitors were scurrying for cover, "'that you have been messing about with muggle remedies?' "'Not messing about?' Molly, dear, said Mr. Weasley imploringly, it was just, just something pie and I thought we'd try. Only, most unfortunately, well, with these particular kinds of wounds, it doesn't seem to work as well as we'd hoped. Meaning? Well, well, I don't know whether you know what, what stitches are. It sounds as though you've been trying to sew your skin back together said Mrs. Weasley, with a snort of mirthless laughter. But even you, Arthur, wouldn't be that stupid. I fancy a cup of tea, too, said Harry, jumping to his feet. Hermione, Ron, and Ginny almost sprinted to the door with him. As it swung closed behind them, they heard Mrs. Weasley shriek, What do you mean that's the general idea? Typical dad, said Ginny, shaking her head as they set off up the corridor. Stitches, I ask you. Well, you know, they do work well on non-magical wounds, said Hermione fairly. I suppose something in that snake's venom dissolves them or something. I wonder where the tea room is. Fifth floor, said Harry, remembering the sign over the welcome witch's desk. They walked along the corridor through a set of double doors and found a rickety staircase lined with more portraits of brutal-looking healers. As they climbed it, the various healers called out to them diagnosing odd complaints and suggesting horrible remedies. Ron was seriously affronted when a medieval wizard called out that he clearly had a bad case of spattergroit. And what's that supposed to be? 
he asked angrily, as the healer pursued him through six more portraits, shoving the occupants out of the way. "'Tis a most grievous affliction of the skin, young master, that will leave you pockmarked and more gruesome even than you are now. What you you're calling gruesome?" said Ron, his ears turning red. "'The only remedy is to take the liver of a toad, bind it tight about your throat, stand naked by the full moon in a barrel of eel's eyes. I have not got spatagoit, but the unsightly blemish is upon your visage, young master.' "'They're freckles!' said Ron furiously. Now get back in your own picture and leave me alone. He rounded on the others, who were all keeping determinedly straight faces. What floor's this? I think it's the fifth, said Hermione. Nah, it's the fourth, said Harry. One more. But as he stepped onto the landing, he came to an abrupt halt, staring at the small window set into the double doors that marked the start of a corridor signposted Spell Damage. A man was peering out at them all with his nose pressed against the glass. He had wavy blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and a broad, vacant smile that revealed dazzlingly white teeth. "'Blimey!' said Ron, also staring at the man. "'Oh, my goodness!' said Hermione, suddenly sounding breathless. "'Professor Lockhart!' Their ex-defense against the dark arts teacher pushed open the doors and moved toward them, wearing a long lilac dressing gown. "'Well, hello there,' he said. "'I expect you'd like my autograph, would you?' "'Hasn't changed much, has he?' Harry muttered to Ginny, who grinned. "'Uh, how are you, Professor?' said Ron, sounding slightly guilty. It had been Ron's malfunctioning wand that had damaged Professor Lockhart's memory so badly that he had landed here in the first place. Though, as Lockhart had been attempting to permanently wipe Harry and Ron's memories at the time, Harry's sympathy was limited. "'I'm very well indeed, thank you,' said Lockhart exuberantly, pulling a rather battered peacock feather quill from his pocket. "'Now, how many autographs would you like? I can do joined-up writing now, you know.' "'Uh, we don't want any at the moment, thanks,' said Ron, raising his eyebrows at Harry, who asked, Professor, should you be wandering around the corridors? Shouldn't you be in a ward? The smile faded slowly from Lockhart's face. For a few moments he gazed intently at Harry, then he said, Haven't we met? Uh, yeah, we have, said Harry. You used to teach us at Hogwarts, remember? Teach? repeated Lockhart, looking faintly unsettled. Me? Did I? And then the smile reappeared upon his face so suddenly it was rather alarming. Taught you everything you know I expected, I? Well, how about those autographs, then? Shall we say a round dozen? You can give them to all your little friends, then, and nobody will be left out. But just then a head poked out of a door at the far end of the corridor, and a voice said, Gilderoy, you naughty boy, where have you wandered off to? A motherly-looking healer wearing a tinsel wreath in her hair came bustling up the corridor, smiling warmly at Harry and the others. Oh, Gilderoy, you've got visitors. How lovely. And on Christmas Day, too. Do you know, he never gets visitors, poor lamb. And I can't think why. He's such a sweetie, aren't you? We're doing autographs, Gilderoy told the healer with another glittering smile. They want loads of them. Won't take no for an answer. I just hope we've got enough photographs. 
"'Listen to him,' said the healer, taking Lockhart's arm and beaming fondly at him, as though he were a precocious two-year-old. "'He was rather well known a few years ago. We very much hope that this liking for giving autographs is a sign that his memory might be coming back a little bit. Will you step this way? He's in a closed ward, you know.' He must have slipped out while I was bringing in the Christmas presents. The door's usually kept locked. Not that he's dangerous, but... She lowered her voice to a whisper. Bit of a danger to himself, bless him. Doesn't know who he is, you see. Wanders off and can't remember how to get back. It is nice of you to have come to see him. Uh, said Ron, gesturing uselessly at the floor above. Actually, we were just, uh... But the healer was smiling expectantly at them, and Ron's feeble mutter of, "'Going to have a cup of tea?' trailed away into nothingness. They looked at one another rather hopelessly, and then followed Lockhart and his healer along the corridor. "'Let's not stay long,' Ron said quietly. The healer pointed her wand at the door of the Janus thicky ward and muttered, "'Allo, Hermora!' The door swung open and she led the way inside, keeping a firm grasp on Gilderoy's arm until she had settled him into an armchair beside his bed. "'This is our long-term resident ward,' she informed Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny in a low voice. "'For permanent spell damage, you know. Of course, with intensive remedial potions and charms and a bit of luck, we can produce some improvement.' Gilderoy does seem to be getting back some sense of himself, and we've seen a real improvement in Mr. Bode. He seems to be regaining the power of speech very well, though he isn't speaking any language we recognize yet. Well, I must finish giving out the Christmas presents. I'll leave you all to chat. Harry looked around. This ward bore unmistakable signs of being a permanent home to its residents. They had many more personal effects around their beds than in Mr. Weasley's ward. The wall around Gilderoy's headboard, for instance, was papered with pictures of himself, all beaming toothily and waving at the new arrivals. He had autographed many of them to himself in disjointed childish writing. The moment he had been deposited in his chair by the healer, Gilderoy pulled a fresh stack of photographs toward him, seized a quill, and started signing them all feverishly. "'You can put them in envelopes,' he said to Ginny, throwing the signed pictures into her lap one by one as he finished them. "'I am not forgotten, you know. No, I still receive a very great deal of fan mail. Gladys Gudgeon writes weekly. I just wish I knew why.' He paused, looking faintly puzzled, then beamed again and returned to his signing with renewed vigour. I suspect it's simply my good looks. A sallow-skinned, mournful-looking wizard lay in the bed opposite, staring at the ceiling. He was mumbling to himself and seemed quite unaware of anything around him. Two beds along was a woman whose entire head was covered in fur. Harry remembered something similar happening to Hermione during their second year, although fortunately the damage in her case had not been permanent. At the far end of the ward, flowery curtains had been drawn around two beds to give the occupants and their visitors some privacy. "'Here you are, Agnes,' said the healer brightly to the furry-faced woman, handing her a small pile of Christmas presents. "'See, not forgotten, are you? And your son's sent an owl to say he's visiting tonight, so that's nice, isn't it?' Agnes gave several loud barks. 
And look, Broderick, you've been sent a potted plant and a lovely calendar with a different fancy hippogriff for each month. They'll brighten things up, won't they? said the healer, bustling along to the mumbling man, setting a rather ugly plant with long, swaying tentacles on the bedside cabinet and fixing the calendar to the wall with a wand. And, uh, oh, a Mrs. Longbottom, are you leaving already? Harry's head spun round. The curtains had been drawn back from the two beds at the end of the ward, and two visitors were walking back down the aisle between the beds. A formidable-looking old witch wearing a long green dress, a moth-eaten fox fur, and a pointed hat decorated with what was unmistakably a stuffed vulture, and, trailing behind her looking thoroughly depressed, Neville. With a sudden rush of understanding, Harry realized who the people in the end beds must be. He cast around wildly for some means of distracting the others so that Neville could leave the ward unnoticed and unquestioned. But Ron had looked up at the sound of the name Longbottom, too, and before Harry could stop him, had called, Neville! Neville jumped and cowered as though a bullet had narrowly missed him. It's us! Neville! said Ron brightly, getting to his feet. Have you seen? Lockhart's here! Who've you been visiting? Friends of yours, Neville, dear? said Neville's grandmother graciously, bearing down upon them all. Neville looked as though he would rather be anywhere in the world but here. A dull purple flush was creeping up his plump face, and he was not making eye contact with any of them. Ah, yes, said his grandmother, looking closely at Harry and sticking out a shriveled claw-like hand for him to shake. Yes, yes, I know who you are, of course. Neville speaks most highly of you. Uh, thanks, said Harry, shaking hands. Neville did not look at him but surveyed his own feet, the colour deepening in his face all the while. And you two are clearly Weasleys, Mrs. Longbottom continued, proffering her hand regally to Ron and Ginny in turn. Yes, I know your parents. Not well, of course, but fine people, fine people. And you must be Hermione Granger. Hermione looked rather startled that Mrs. Longbottom knew her name, but shook hands all the same. Yes, Neville's told me all about you. Helped him out of a few sticky spots, haven't you? He's a good boy, she said, casting a sternly appraising look down her rather bony nose at Neville. But he hasn't got his father's talent, I'm afraid to say. And she jerked her head in the direction of the two beds at the end of the ward, so that the stuffed vulture on her hat trembled alarmingly. What? said Ron, looking amazed. Harry wanted to stamp on Ron's foot, but that sort of thing was much harder to bring off unnoticed when you were wearing jeans rather than robes. Is that your dad down the end, Neville? What's this? said Mrs. Longbottom sharply. Haven't you told your friends about your parents, Neville? Neville took a deep breath, looked up at the ceiling, and shook his head. Harry could not remember ever feeling sorrier for anyone, but he could not think of any way of helping Neville out of the situation. Well, it's nothing to be ashamed of, said Mrs. Longbottom angrily. You should be proud, Neville, proud. They didn't give their health and their sanity so their only son would be ashamed of them, you know. I'm not ashamed, said Neville very faintly, still looking anywhere but at Harry and the others. Ron was now standing on tiptoe to look over at the inhabitants of the two beds. Well, you've got a funny way of showing it, said Mrs. Longbottom. My son and his wife, she said, turning haughtily to Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, were tortured into insanity by you-know-who's followers. 
Hermione and Ginny both clapped their hands over their mouths. Ron stopped craning his neck to catch a glimpse of Neville's parents and looked mortified. They were Aurors, you know, and very well respected within the wizarding community, Mrs. Longbottom went on. Highly gifted, the pair of them. I... Yes, Alice, dear, what is it? Neville's mother had come edging down the ward in her nightdress. She no longer had the plump, happy-looking face Harry had seen in Moody's old photograph of the original Order of the Phoenix. Her face was thin and worn now. Her eyes seemed overlarge, and her hair, which had turned white, was wispy and dead-looking. She did not seem to want to speak, or perhaps she was not able to, but she made timid motions toward Neville, holding something in her outstretched hand. Again? said Mrs. Longbottom, sounding slightly weary. Very well, Alice, dear, very well. Neville, take it, whatever it is. But Neville had already stretched out his hand, into which his mother dropped an empty, Drubal's blowing gum wrapper. Very nice, dear, said Neville's grandmother in a falsely cheery voice, patting his mother on the shoulder. But Neville said quietly, Thanks, Mum. His mother tottered away, back up the ward, humming to herself. Neville looked around at the others, his expression defiant, as though daring them to laugh. But Harry did not think he'd ever found anything less funny in his life. Well, we better get back, sighed Mrs. Longbottom, drawing on long green gloves. Very nice to have met you all. Neville, put that wrapper in the bin. She must have given you enough of them to paper your bedroom by now. But as they left, Harry was sure he saw Neville slip the wrapper into his pocket. The door closed behind them. I never knew, said Hermione, who looked tearful. Nor did I, said Ron rather hoarsely. Nor me, whispered Ginny. They all looked at Harry. I did, he said glumly. Dumbledore told me, but I promised I wouldn't mention it. That's what Bellatrix Lestrange got sent to Azkaban for, using the Cruciatus curse on Neville's parents until they lost their minds. Bellatrix Lestrange did that, whispered Hermione, horrified. That woman creature's got a photo of in his den. There was a long silence, broken by Lockhart's angry voice. Look, I didn't learn joined-up writing for nothing, you know. Chapter 24 Occlumency Creature, it transpired, had been lurking in the attic. Sirius said he had found him up there covered in dust, no doubt looking for more relics of the Black family to hide in his cupboard. Though Sirius seemed satisfied with this story, it made Harry uneasy. Creature seemed to be in a better mood on his reappearance. His bitter muttering had subsided somewhat, and he submitted to orders more docilely than usual, though once or twice Harry caught the house-elf staring avidly at him, always looking quickly away when he saw that Harry had noticed. Harry did not mention his vague suspicions to Sirius, whose cheerfulness was evaporating fast now that Christmas was over. As the date of their departure back to Hogwarts drew nearer, he became more and more prone to what Mrs. Weasley called fits of the sullens, in which he would become taciturn and grumpy, often withdrawing to Buckbeak's room for hours at a time. His gloom seeped through the house, oozing under doorways like some noxious gas, so that all of them became infected by it. Harry did not want to leave Sirius all alone again with only Creature for company. In fact, for the first time in his life, he was not looking forward to returning to Hogwarts. 
Going back to school would mean placing himself once again under the tyranny of Dolores Umbridge, who had no doubt managed to force through another dozen decrees in their absence. Then there was no Quidditch to look forward to now that he had been banned. There was every likelihood that their burden of homework would increase as the exams drew even nearer. Dumbledore remained as remote as ever. In fact, if it had not been for the D.A., Harry felt he might have gone to Sirius and begged him to let him leave Hogwarts and remain in Grimmauld Place. Then, on the very last day of the holidays, something happened that made Harry positively dread his return to school. "'Harry, dear,' said Mrs. Weasley, poking her head into his and Ron's bedroom, where the pair of them were playing wizard chess, watched by Hermione, Ginny, and Crookshanks. "'Could you come down to the kitchen? Professor Snape would like a word with you.' Harry did not immediately register what she had said. One of his castles was engaged in a violent tussle with a pawn of Ron's, and he was egging it on enthusiastically. Squash him! Squash him! He's only a pawn, you idiot! Sorry? Mrs. Weasley, what did you say? Professor Snape, dear! In the kitchen! He'd like a word! Harry's mouth fell open in horror. He looked around at Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, all of whom were gaping back at him. Crookshanks, whom Hermione had been restraining with difficulty for the past quarter of an hour, leapt gleefully upon the board and set the pieces running for cover, squealing at the top of their voices. Snape? said Harry blankly. Professor Snape, dear, said Mrs. Weasley reprovingly. Now come on quickly. He says he can't stay long. What's he want with you? said Ron, looking unnerved, as Mrs. Weasley withdrew from the room. You haven't done anything, have you? No, said Harry indignantly, racking his brains to think what he could have done that would make Snape pursue him to Grimauld Place. Had his last piece of homework perhaps earned a tea? He pushed open the kitchen door a minute or two later to find Sirius and Snape both seated at the long kitchen table, glaring in opposite directions. The silence between them was heavy with mutual dislike. A letter lay open on the table in front of Sirius. Ah, said Harry to announce his presence. Snape looked around at him, his face framed between curtains of greasy black hair. "'Sit down, Potter.' "'You know,' said Sirius loudly, leaning back on his rear chair legs and speaking to the ceiling, "'I think I'd prefer it if you didn't give orders here, Snape. It's my house, you see.' An ugly flush suffused Snape's pallid face. Harry sat down in a chair beside Sirius, facing Snape across the table. I was supposed to see you alone, Potter, said Snape, the familiar sneer curling his mouth. But Black, I'm his godfather, said Sirius louder than ever. I am here on Dumbledore's orders, said Snape, whose voice by contrast was becoming more and more quietly waspish. But by all means stay, Black. I know you like to feel involved. What's that supposed to mean? said Sirius, letting his chair fall back onto all four legs with a loud bang. Merely that I am sure you must feel uh, frustrated by the fact that you can do nothing useful. Snape laid a delicate stress on the word. For the order. It was Sirius's turn to flush. Snape's lip curled in triumph as he turned to Harry. The headmaster has sent me to tell you, Potter, that it is his wish for you to study occlumency this term. Study what? said Harry blankly. Snape's sneer became more pronounced. Occlumency, Potter. 
the magical defense of the mind against external penetration, an obscure branch of magic, but a highly useful one. Harry's heart began to pump very fast indeed. Defense against external penetration? But he was not being possessed. They had all agreed on that. Why do I have to study Oklu thing? he blurted out. Because the headmaster thinks it a good idea, said Snape smoothly. You will receive private lessons once a week, but you will not tell anybody what you are doing, least of all Dolores Umbridge. You understand? Yes, said Harry. Who's going to be teaching me? Snape raised an eyebrow. I am, he said. Harry had the horrible sensation that his insides were melting. Extra lessons with Snape? What on earth had he done to deserve this? He looked quickly around at Sirius for support. Why can't Dumbledore teach Harry? asked Sirius aggressively. Why you? I suppose because it is a headmaster's privilege to delegate less enjoyable tasks, said Snape silkily. I assure you I did not beg for the job. He got to his feet. I will expect you at six o'clock on Monday evening, Potter. My office. If anybody asks, you are taking remedial potions. Nobody who has seen you in my classes could deny you need them. He turned to leave, his black travelling cloak billowing behind him. Wait a moment, said Sirius, sitting up straighter in his chair. Snape turned back to face them, sneering. I am in rather a hurry, Black. Unlike you, I do not have unlimited leisure time. I'll get to the point, then, said Sirius, standing up. He was rather taller than Snape, who, Harry noticed, had balled his fist in the pocket of his cloak over what Harry was sure was the handle of his wand. If I hear you're using these occlumency lessons to give Harry a hard time, you'll have me to answer to. How touching, Snape sneered. But surely you have noticed that Potter is very like his father. Yes, I have, said Sirius proudly. Well, then, you'll know he's so arrogant that criticism simply bounces off him, Snape said sleekly. Sirius pushed his chair roughly aside and strode around the table towards Snape, pulling out his wand as he went. Snape whipped out his own. They were squaring up to each other, Sirius looking livid, Snape calculating, his eyes darting from Sirius's wand tip to his face. Sirius, said Harry loudly, but Sirius appeared not to hear him. I've warned you, Snivellus, said Sirius, his face barely a foot from Snape's. I don't care if Dumbledore thinks you've reformed. I know better. Oh, but why don't you tell him so, whispered Snape. Or are you afraid he might not take the advice of a man who has been hiding inside his mother's house for six months very seriously? Tell me, how is Lucius Malfoy these days? I expect he's delighted his lapdogs working at Hogwarts, isn't he? Speaking of dogs, said Snape softly, did you know that Lucius Malfoy recognized you last time you risked a little jaunt outside? Clever idea, Black, getting yourself seen on a safe station platform. Gave you a cast-iron excuse not to leave your hidey-hole in future, didn't it? Sirius raised his wand. No! Harry yelled, vaulting over the table and trying to get in between them. Sirius, don't! Are you calling me a coward? 
roared Sirius, trying to push Harry out of the way, but Harry would not budge. Why, yes, I suppose I am, said Snape. Harry, get out of it, snarled Sirius, pushing him out of the way with his free hand. The kitchen door opened and the entire Weasley family, plus Hermione, came inside, all looking very happy, with Mr. Weasley walking proudly in their midst, dressed in a pair of striped pajamas covered by a Macintosh. Cured, he announced brightly to the kitchen at large. Completely cured. He and all the other Weasleys froze on the threshold, gazing at the scene in front of them, which was also suspended in mid-action, both Sirius and Snape looking toward the door, with their wands pointing into each other's faces, and Harry immobile between them, a hand stretched out to each of them trying to force them apart. Merlin's beard, said Mr. Weasley, the smile sliding off his face. What's going on here? Both Sirius and Snape lowered their wands. Harry looked from one to the other. Each wore an expression of utmost contempt, yet the unexpected entrance of so many witnesses seemed to have brought them to their senses. Snape pocketed his wand, turned on his heel, and swept back across the kitchen, passing the Weasleys without comment. At the door, he looked back. Six o'clock, Monday evening, Potter. He was gone. Sirius glared after him, his wand at his side. But what's been going on? asked Mr. Weasley again. Nothing, Arthur, said Sirius, who was breathing heavily as though he had just run a long distance. Just a friendly little chat between two old school friends. With what looked like an enormous effort, he smiled. So, you're cured. That's great news. Really great. Yes, isn't it? said Mrs. Weasley, leading her husband forward into a chair. Healer Smethwick worked his magic in the end, found an antidote to whatever that snake's got in its fangs, and Arthur's learned his lesson about dabbling in muggle medicine. Haven't you, dear? she added rather menacingly. Yes, Molly dear, said Mr. Weasley meekly. That night's meal should have been a cheerful one with Mr. Weasley back amongst them. Harry could tell Sirius was trying to make it so, yet when his godfather was not forcing himself to laugh loudly at Fred and George's jokes or offering everyone more food, his face fell back into a moody, brooding expression. Harry was separated from him by Mundungus and Mad-Eye, who had dropped in to offer Mr. Weasley their congratulations. He wanted to talk to Sirius, to tell him that he should not listen to a word Snape said, that Snape was goading him deliberately, and that the rest of them did not think Sirius was a coward for doing as Dumbledore told him and remaining in grim old place. But he had no opportunity to do so, and wondered occasionally, eyeing the ugly look on Sirius's face, whether he would have dared to even if he had the chance. Instead, he told Ron and Hermione under his voice about having to take occlumency lessons with Snape. Dumbledore wants to stop you having those dreams about Voldemort said Hermione at once. Well, you won't be sorry not to have them any more, will you? Extra lessons with Snape, said Ron, sounding aghast. I'd rather have the nightmares. They were to return to Hogwarts on the night bus the following day, escorted once again by Tonks and Lupin, both of whom were eating breakfast in the kitchen when Harry, Ron, and Hermione arrived there next morning. The adults seemed to have been midway through a whispered conversation when the door opened. All of them looked around hastily and fell silent. After a hurried breakfast, they pulled on jackets and scarves against the chilly grey January morning. Harry had an unpleasant, constricted sensation in his chest. He did not want to say goodbye to Sirius. 
He had a bad feeling about this parting. He did not know when they would next see each other, and felt that it was incumbent upon him to say something to Sirius to stop him doing anything stupid. Harry was worried that Snape's accusation of cowardice had stung Sirius so badly he might even now be planning some foolhardy trip beyond Grimald Place. Before he could think of what to say, however, Sirius had beckoned him to his side. "'I want you to take this,' he said quietly, thrusting a badly wrapped package roughly the size of a paperback book into Harry's hands. "'What is it?' Harry asked. "'A way of letting me know if Snape's giving you a hard time. No, don't open it in here.' said Sirius, with a wary look at Mrs. Weasley, who was trying to persuade the twins to wear hand-knitted mittens. I doubt Molly would approve, but I want you to use it if you need me, all right? Okay, said Harry, stowing the package away in the inside pocket of his jacket, but he knew he would never use whatever it was. It would not be he, Harry, who lured Sirius from his place of safety, no matter how foully Snape treated him in their forthcoming occlumency classes. Let's go, then, said Sirius, clapping Harry on the shoulder and smiling grimly, and before Harry could say anything else, they were heading upstairs, stopping before the heavily chained and bolted front door, surrounded by Weasleys. Goodbye, Harry, take care, said Mrs. Weasley, hugging him. See you, Harry, and keep an eye out for snakes for me, said Mr. Weasley, genially shaking his hand. Right, yeah, said Harry distractedly. It was his last chance to tell Sirius to be careful. He turned, looked into his godfather's face, and opened his mouth to speak. But before he could do so, Sirius was giving him a brief one-armed hug. He said gruffly, Look after yourself, Harry. And next moment Harry found himself being shunted out into the icy winter air, with Tonks, today heavily disguised as a tall, tweedy woman with iron-gray hair, chivying him down the steps. The door of number twelve slammed shut behind them. They followed Lupin down the front steps. As he reached the pavement, Harry looked around. Number twelve was shrinking rapidly, as those on either side of it stretched sideways, squeezing it out of sight. One blink later, it had gone. "'Come on, the quicker we get on the bus, the better,' said Tonks, and Harry thought there was nervousness in the glance she threw around the square. Lupin flung out his right arm. "'Bang!' A violently purple, triple-decker bus had appeared out of thin air in front of them, narrowly avoiding the nearest lamppost, which jumped backward out of its way. A thin, pimply, jug-eared youth in a purple uniform leapt down onto the pavement and said, "'Welcome to the—' "'Yes, yes, we know. Thank you,' said Tonks swiftly. "'On, on, get on!' And she shoved Harry forward toward the steps, past the conductor, who goggled at Harry as he passed. "'Here! It's Harry!' If you shout his name, I will curse you into oblivion, muttered Tonks menacingly, now shunting Ginny and Hermione forward. I've always wanted to go on this thing, said Ron happily, joining Harry on board and looking around. It had been evening the last time Harry had travelled by night bus, and its three decks had been full of brass bedsteads. Now in the early morning it was crammed with an assortment of mismatched chairs grouped haphazardly around windows. Some of these appeared to have fallen over when the bus stopped abruptly in Grimwald Place. A few witches and wizards were still getting to their feet, grumbling, and somebody's shopping bag had slid the length of the bus. An unpleasant mixture of frog spawn, cockroaches, and custard creams was scattered all over the floor. Looks like we'll have to split up, said Tonks briskly, looking around for empty chairs. Fred, George, and Ginny, if you just take those seats at the back, Remus can stay with you. 
She, Harry, Ron and Hermione proceeded up to the very top deck, where there were two chairs at the very front of the bus and two at the back. Stan Shunpike, the conductor, followed Harry and Ron eagerly to the back. Heads turned as Harry passed, and when he sat down, he saw all the faces flick back to the front again. As Harry and Ron handed Stan eleven sickles each, the bus set off again, swaying ominously. It rumbled around Grimwald Square, weaving on and off the pavement. Then, with another tremendous bang, they were all flung backward. Ron's chair toppled right over, and Pigwidgeon, who had been on his lap, burst out of his cage and flew twittering wildly up to the front of the bus, where he fluttered down upon Hermione's shoulder instead. Harry, who had narrowly avoided falling by seizing a candle bracket, looked out of the window. They were now speeding down what appeared to be a motorway. Just outside Birmingham! said Stan happily, answering Harry's unasked question as Ron struggled up from the floor. You keep him well then, Harry. I've seen your name in the paper loads over the summer, but it weren't never nothing very nice. I said to her, and I said, he didn't seem like a nutter when we met him. Just goes to show, done it. He handed over their tickets and continued to gaze enthralled at Harry. Apparently Stan did not care how nutty somebody was if they were famous enough to be in the paper. The night bus swayed alarmingly, overtaking a line of cars on the inside. Looking toward the front of the bus, Harry saw Hermione cover her eyes with her hands, Pigwidgeon still swaying happily on her shoulder. Bang! Chairs slid backward again as the night bus jumped from the Birmingham motorway to a quiet country lane full of hairpin bends. Hedgerows on either side of the road were leaping out of their way as they mounted the verges. From here they moved to a main street in the middle of a busy town, then to a viaduct surrounded by tall hills, then to a windswept road between high-rise flats, each time with a loud bang. I've changed my mind, muttered Ron, picking himself up from the floor for the sixth time. I never want to ride on here again. Listen, it's Hogwarts stop after this, said Stan brightly, swaying toward them. That bossy woman up front who got on with you, she's given us a little tip to move you up the queue. We're just going to let Madame Marsh off first, though. There was more retching from downstairs, followed by a horrible spattering sound. She's not feeling her best. A few minutes later, the night bus screeched to a halt outside a small pub, which squeezed itself out of the way to avoid a collision. They could hear Stan ushering the unfortunate Madame Marsh out of the bus and the relieved murmurings of her fellow passengers on the second deck. The bus moved on again, gathering speed, until... Bang! They were rolling through a snowy hogsmead. Harry caught a glimpse of the hogshead down its side street, the severed boar's head sign creaking in the wintry wind. Flecks of snow hit the large window at the front of the bus. At last they rolled to a halt outside the gates to Hogwarts. Lupin and Tonks helped them off the bus with their luggage and then got off to say goodbye. Harry glanced up at the three decks of the night bus and saw all the passengers staring down at them, noses flat against the windows. You'll be safe once you're in the grounds, said Tonks, casting a careful eye around at the deserted road. Have a good term, okay? Look after yourselves, said Lupin, shaking hands all round and reaching Harry last. And listen. He lowered his voice while the rest of them exchanged last-minute goodbyes with Tonks. Harry, I know you don't like Snape, but he is a superb Occlumens, and we all, Sirius included, want you to learn to protect yourself. So work hard, all right? Yeah, all right, said Harry heavily, looking up into Lupin's prematurely lined face. See you then. The six of them struggled up the slippery drive toward the castle, dragging their trunks. 
Hermione was already talking about knitting a few elf hats before bedtime. Harry glanced back when they reached the oak front doors. The night bus had already gone, and he half-wished, given what was coming the following day, that he was still on board. Harry spent most of the next day dreading the evening. His morning potions lesson did nothing to dispel his trepidation, as Snape was as unpleasant as ever, and Harry's mood was further lowered by the fact that members of the D.A. were continually approaching him in the corridors between classes, asking hopefully whether there would be a meeting that night. I'll let you know when the next one is, Harry said over and over again. But I can't do it tonight. I've got to go to, uh, remedial potions. You take remedial potions? asked Zachariah Smith superciliously, having cornered Harry in the entrance hall after lunch. Good Lord, you must be terrible. Snape doesn't usually give extra lessons, does he? As Smith strode away in an annoyingly buoyant fashion, Ron glared after him. Shall I jinx him? I can still get him from here, he said, raising his wand and taking aim between Smith's shoulder blades. Forget it, said Harry dismally. It's what everyone's going to think, isn't it, that I'm really stoop. Hi, Harry, said a voice behind him. He turned around and found Cho standing there. Oh, said Harry as his stomach leapt uncomfortably. Hi. We'll be in the library, Harry said Hermione firmly, and she seized Ron above the elbow and dragged him off toward the marble staircase. Had a good Christmas? asked Cho. Yeah, not bad, said Harry. Mine was pretty quiet, said Cho. For some reason she was looking rather embarrassed. Um, there's another Hogsmeade trip next month. Did you see the notice? What? Oh, no, I haven't checked the notice board since I got back. Yes, it's on Valentine's Day. Right, said Harry, wondering why she was telling him this. Well, I suppose you want to... Only if you do, she said eagerly. Harry stared. He had been about to say, I suppose you want to know when the next DA meeting is. But her response did not seem to fit. I, uh, he said. Oh, it's okay if you don't, she said, looking mortified. Don't worry, I... I'll see you around. She walked away. Harry stood staring after her, his brain working frantically. Then something clunked into place. Cho! Hey, Cho! He ran after her, catching her halfway up the marble staircase. Uh, do you want to come into Hogsmeade with me on Valentine's Day? Oh, yes, she said, blushing crimson and beaming at him. Right, well, that's settled then, said Harry. And, feeling that the day was not going to be a complete loss after all, he headed off to the library to pick up Ron and Hermione before their afternoon lessons, walking in a rather bouncy way himself. By six o'clock that evening, however, even the glow of having successfully asked out Cho Chang was insufficient to lighten the ominous feelings that intensified with every step Harry took towards Snape's office. He paused outside the door when he reached it, wishing he were almost anywhere else, then, taking a deep breath, knocked and entered. It was a shadowy room lined with shelves bearing hundreds of glass jars in which floated slimy bits of animals and plants suspended in variously coloured potions. In a corner stood the cupboard full of ingredients that Snape had once accused Harry, not without reason, of robbing. Harry's attention was drawn toward the desk, however, where a shallow stone basin engraved with runes and symbols lay in a pool of candlelight, 
Harry recognized it at once. Dumbledore's pensive. Wondering what on earth it was doing here, he jumped when Snape's cold voice came out of the corner. Shut the door behind you, Potter. Harry did as he was told with the horrible feeling that he was imprisoning himself as he did so. When he turned back to face the room, Snape had moved into the light and was pointing silently at the chair opposite his desk. Harry sat down, and so did Snape, his cold black eyes fixed unblinkingly upon Harry, dislike etched in every line of his face. "'Well, Potter, you know why you are here,' he said. "'The headmaster has asked me to teach you occlumency. I can only hope that you prove more adept at it than potions.' "'Right,' said Harry tersely. "'This may not be an ordinary class, Potter.' said Snape, his eyes narrowed malevolently. But I am still your teacher, and you will therefore call me Sir, or Professor, at all times. Yes, Sir, said Harry. Snape continued to survey him through narrowed eyes for a moment, then said, Now, occlumency. As I told you back in your dear godfather's kitchen, this branch of magic seals the mind against magical intrusion and influence. And why does Professor Dumbledore think I need it, sir? said Harry, looking directly into Snape's dark, cold eyes and wondering whether he would answer. Snape looked back at him for a moment and then said contemptuously, Surely even you could have worked that out by now, Potter. The Dark Lord is highly skilled at legilimency. What's that, sir? It is the ability to extract feelings and memories from another person's mind. He can read minds, said Harry quickly, his worst fears confirmed. You have no subtlety, Potter, said Snape, his dark eyes glittering. You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable potion maker. Snape paused for a moment, apparently to savor the pleasure of insulting Harry, before continuing. Only muggles talk of mind-reading. The mind is not a book. To be opened at will and examined at leisure? Thoughts are not etched on the inside of skulls to be perused by any invader. The mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter. Or at least most minds are. He smirked. It is true, however, that those who have mastered legilimency are able, under certain conditions, to delve into the minds of their victims and to interpret their findings correctly. The Dark Lord, for instance, almost always knows when somebody is lying to him. Only those skilled at occlumency are able to shut down those feelings and memories that contradict the lie, and so utter falsehoods in his presence without detection. Whatever Snape said, legilimency sounded like mind-reading to Harry, and he did not like the sound of it at all. So he could know what we're thinking right now, sir? The Dark Lord is at a considerable distance, and the walls and grounds of Hogwarts are guarded by many ancient spells and charms to ensure the bodily and mental safety of those who dwell within them, said Snape. Time and space matter in magic, Potter. Eye contact is often essential to legilimency. Well then, why do I have to learn occlumency? Snape eyed Harry, tracing his mouth with one long, thin finger as he did so. 
The usual rules do not seem to apply with you, Potter. The curse that failed to kill you seems to have forged some kind of connection between you and the Dark Lord. The evidence suggests that at times when your mind is most relaxed and vulnerable, when you are asleep, for instance, you are sharing the Dark Lord's thoughts and emotions. The Headmaster thinks it inadvisable for this to continue. He wishes me to teach you how to close your mind to the Dark Lord. Harry's heart was pumping fast again. None of this added up. But why does Professor Dumbledore want to stop it? He asked abruptly. I don't like it much, but it's been useful, hasn't it? I mean, I saw that snake attack Mr. Weasley, and if I hadn't, Professor Dumbledore wouldn't have been able to save him, would he? Sir. Snape stared at Harry for a few moments, still tracing his mouth with his finger. When he spoke again, it was slowly and deliberately, as though he weighed every word. It appears that the Dark Lord has been unaware of the connection between you and himself until very recently. Up till now, it seems that you have been experiencing his emotions and sharing his thoughts without his being any the wiser. However, the vision you had shortly before Christmas, the one with the snake and Mr. Weasley, do not interrupt me, Potter, said Snape in a dangerous voice. As I was saying, the vision you had shortly before Christmas represented such a powerful incursion upon the Dark Lord's thoughts. I saw inside the snake's head, not his. I thought I just told you not to interrupt me, Potter. But Harry did not care if Snape was angry. At last he seemed to be getting to the bottom of this business. He had moved forward in his chair so that, without realizing it, he was perched on the very edge, tense as though poised for flight. How come I saw through the snake's eyes if it's Voldemort's thoughts I'm sharing? Do not say the Dark Lord's name, spat Snape. There was a nasty silence. They glared at each other across the pensive. Professor Dumbledore says his name, said Harry quietly. Dumbledore is an extremely powerful wizard, Snape muttered. While he may feel secure enough to use the name, the rest of us... He rubbed his left forearm, apparently unconsciously, on the spot where Harry knew the dark mark was burned into his skin. I just wanted to know, Harry began again, forcing his voice back to politeness. Why, you seem to have visited the snake's mind, because that was where the Dark Lord was, at that particular moment snarled Snape. He was possessing the snake at the time, and so you dreamed you were inside it, too. And Vol, he realized I was there? It seems so, said Snape coolly. How do you know? said Harry urgently. Is this just Professor Dumbledore guessing, or— I told you, said Snape, rigid in his chair, his eyes slits, to call me sir. Yes, sir, said Harry impatiently. But how do you know? It is enough that we know, said Snape repressively. The important point is that the Dark Lord is now aware that you are gaining access to his thoughts and feelings. He has also deduced that the process is likely to work in reverse. That is to say, he has realized that he might be able to access your thoughts and feelings in return. And he might try and make me do things? asked Harry. Sir? he added hurriedly. He might, said Snape, sounding cold and unconcerned. 
Which brings us back to occlumency. Snape pulled out his wand from an inside pocket of his robes, and Harry tensed in his chair. But Snape merely raised the wand to his temple and placed its tip into the greasy roots of his hair. When he withdrew it, some silvery substance came away, stretching from temple to wand like a thick gossamer strand, which broke as he pulled the wand away from it and fell gracefully into the pensive, where it swirled silvery white, neither gas nor liquid. Twice more Snape raised the wand to his temple and deposited the silvery substance into the stone basin. Then, without offering any explanation of his behavior, he picked up the pensive carefully, removed it to a shelf out of their way, and returned to face Harry with his wand held at the ready. Stand up and take out your wand, Potter. Harry got to his feet feeling nervous. They faced each other with the desk between them. You may use your wand to attempt to disarm me, or defend yourself in any other way you can think of, said Snape. And what are you going to do? Harry asked, eyeing Snape's wand apprehensively. I am about to attempt to break into your mind, said Snape softly. We are going to see how well you resist. I have been told that you have already shown aptitude at resisting the imperious curse. You will find that similar powers are needed for this. Brace yourself now. Legilimens! Snape had struck before Harry was ready, before Harry had even begun to summon any force of resistance. The office swam in front of his eyes and vanished. Image after image was racing through his mind like a flickering film, so vivid it blinded him to his surroundings. He was five, watching Dudley riding a new red bicycle, and his heart was bursting with jealousy. He was nine, and Ripper the Bulldog was chasing him up a tree, and the Dursleys were laughing below on the lawn. He was sitting under the sorting hat, and it was telling him he would do well in Slytherin. Hermione was lying in the hospital wing, her face covered with thick black hair. A hundred Dementors were closing in on him beside the dark lake. Cho Chang was drawing nearer to him under the mistletoe. No! said a voice in Harry's head as the memory of Cho drew nearer. You're not watching that. You're not watching it. It's private. He felt a sharp pain in his knee. Snape's office had come back into view, and he realized that he had fallen to the floor. One of his knees had collided painfully with the leg of Snape's desk. He looked up at Snape, who had lowered his wand, and was rubbing his wrist. There was an angry wheel there, like a scorch mark. Did you mean to produce a stinging hex? asked Snape coolly. No, said Harry bitterly, getting up from the floor. I thought not, said Snape, watching him closely. You let me get in too far. You lost control. Did you see everything I saw? Harry asked, unsure whether he wanted to hear the answer. Flashes of it, said Snape, his lip curling. To whom did the dog belong? My Aunt Marge, Harry muttered, hating Snape. Well, for a first attempt, that was not as poor as it might have been, said Snape, raising his wand once more. You managed to stop me eventually, though you wasted time and energy shouting. You must remain focused. Repel me with your brain, and you will not need to resort to your wand. I'm trying, said Harry angrily, but you're not telling me how. Manners, Potter, said Snape dangerously. Now... I want you to close your eyes. Harry threw him a filthy look before doing as he was told. 
He did not like the idea of standing there with his eyes shut while Snape faced him, carrying a wand. Clear your mind, Potter, said Snape's cold voice. Let go of all emotion. But Harry's anger at Snape continued to pound through his veins like venom. Let go of his anger. He could as easily detach his legs. You're not doing it, Potter. You will need more discipline than this. Focus! Now! Harry tried to empty his mind, tried not to think or remember or feel. Let's go again. On the count of three. One, two, three. Platillimens! A great black dragon was rearing in front of him. His father and mother were waving at him out of an enchanted mirror. Cedric Diggory was lying on the ground with blank eyes staring at him. No! He was on his knees again, his face buried in his hands, his brain aching as though someone had been trying to pull it from his skull. Get up, said Snape sharply. Get up! You're not trying, you are making no effort. You are allowing me access to memories you fear, handing me weapons. Harry stood up again, his heart thumping wildly as though he had really just seen Cedric dead in the graveyard. Snape looked paler than usual, and angrier, though not nearly as angry as Harry was. I am making an effort, he said through clenched teeth. I told you to empty yourself of emotion. Yeah? Well, I'm finding that hard at the moment, Harry snarled. Then you will find yourself easy prey for the Dark Lord said Snape savagely. Fools who wear their hearts proudly on their sleeves, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked this easily. Weak people, in other words, they stand no chance against his powers. He will penetrate your mind with absurd ease, Potter. I am not weak, said Harry in a low voice, fury now pumping through him, so that he thought he might attack Snape in a moment. Then prove it! Master yourself! spat Snape. Control your anger, discipline your mind. We shall try again. Get ready now. Legilimens! He was watching Uncle Vernon hammering the letterbox shut. A hundred Dementors were drifting across the lake in the grounds toward him. He was running along a windowless passage with Mr. Weasley. They were drawing nearer to the plain black door at the end of the corridor. Harry expected to go through it but Mr. Weasley led him off to the left, down a flight of stone steps. I know! I know! He was on all fours again on Snape's office floor. His scar was prickling unpleasantly, but the voice that had just issued from his mouth was triumphant. He pushed himself up again to find Snape staring at him, his wand raised. It looked as though this time Snape had lifted the spell before Harry had even tried to fight back. What happened then, Potter? he asked, eyeing Harry intently. I saw... I remembered, Harry panted. I've just realized. Realized what? asked Snape sharply. Harry did not answer at once. He was still savoring the moment of blinding realization as he rubbed his forehead. He had been dreaming about a windowless corridor ending in a locked door for months, without once realizing that it was a real place. Now, seeing the memory again, he knew that all along he had been dreaming about the corridor down which he had run with Mr. Weasley on the 12th of August, as they hurried to the courtrooms in the ministry. It was the corridor leading to the Department of Mysteries, and Mr. Weasley had been there the night that he had been attacked by Voldemort's snake. He looked up at Snape. What's in the Department of Mysteries? What did you say? Snape asked quietly, 
and Harry saw with deep satisfaction that Snape was unnerved. I said, What's in the Department of Mysteries, sir? Harry said. And why, said Snape slowly, would you ask such a thing? Because, said Harry, watching Snape's face closely, that corridor I've just seen, I've been dreaming about it for months, I've just recognized it. It leads to the Department of Mysteries, and I think Voldemort wants something from— I have told you not to say the Dark Lord's name. They glared at each other. Harry's scar seared again, but he did not care. Snape looked agitated. When he spoke again, he sounded as though he was trying to appear cool and unconcerned. There are many things in the Department of Mysteries, Potter— Few of which you would understand, and none of which concern you. Do I make myself plain? Yes, Harry said, still rubbing his prickling scar, which was becoming more painful. I want you back here same time on Wednesday, and we will continue work then. Fine, said Harry. He was desperate to get out of Snape's office and find Ron and Hermione. You are to rid your mind of all emotion every night before sleep. Empty it. Make it blank and calm. You understand? Yes, said Harry, who was barely listening. And be warned, Potter. I shall know if you have not practiced. Right, Harry mumbled. He picked up his school bag, swung it over his shoulder, and hurried toward the office door. As he opened it, he glanced back at Snape, who had his back to Harry and was scooping his own thoughts out of the pensive with the tip of his wand and replacing them carefully inside his own head. Harry left without another word, closing the door carefully behind him, his scar still throbbing painfully. Harry found Ron and Hermione in the library, where they were working on Umbridge's most recent ream of homework. Other students, nearly all of them fifth years, sat at lamplit tables nearby, noses close to books, quills scratching feverishly, while the sky outside the mullioned windows grew steadily blacker. The only other sound was the slight squeaking of one of Madame Pince's shoes as the librarian prowled the aisles menacingly, breathing down the necks of those touching her precious books. Harry felt shivery. His scar was still aching. He felt almost feverish. When he sat down opposite Ron and Hermione, he caught sight of himself in the window opposite. He was very white, and his scar seemed to be showing up more clearly than usual. How did it go? Hermione whispered, and then, looking concerned, Are you all right, Harry? Yeah, fine. I don't know, said Harry impatiently, wincing as pain shot through his scar again. Listen, I've just realized something. And he told them what he had just seen and deduced. So... So are you saying, whispered Ron, as Madame Pince swept past, squeaking slightly, that the weapon, the thing you know who's after, is in the Ministry of Magic? In the Department of Mysteries, it's got to be, Harry whispered. I saw that door when your dad took me down to the courtrooms for my hearing, and it's definitely the same one he was guarding when the snake bit him. Hermione let out a long, slow sigh. Of course, she breathed. Of course what? said Ron rather impatiently. Ron, think about it. Sturgis Podmore was trying to get through a door at the Ministry of Magic. It must have been that one. It's too much of a coincidence. How come Sturgis was trying to break in when he's on our side, said Ron. Well, I don't know, Hermione admitted. That is a bit odd. So what's in the Department of Mysteries? Harry asked Ron. 
Has your dad ever mentioned anything about it? I know they call the people who work in there unspeakables, said Ron, frowning, because no one really seems to know what they do in there. Weird place to have a weapon. It's not weird at all. It makes perfect sense, said Hermione. It will be something top secret that the Ministry has been developing, I expect. Harry, are you sure you're all right? For Harry had just run both his hands hard over his forehead, as though trying to iron it. Yeah, fine, he said, lowering his hands, which were trembling. I just feel a bit... I don't like Occlumency much. I expect anyone would feel shaky if they'd had their mind attacked over and over again, said Hermione sympathetically. Look, let's get back to the common room. We'll be a bit more comfortable there. But the common room was packed and full of shrieks of laughter and excitement. Fred and George were demonstrating their latest bit of joke shop merchandise. Headless hats! shouted George as Fred waved a pointed hat decorated with a fluffy pink feather at the watching students. Two galleons each! Watch Fred now! Fred swept the hat onto his head, beaming. For a second he merely looked rather stupid, then both hat and head vanished. Several girls screamed, but everyone else was roaring with laughter. And off again, shouted George, and Fred's hand groped for a moment in what seemed to be thin air over his shoulder. Then his head reappeared as he swept the pink feathered hat from it again. How do those hats work, then? said Hermione, distracted from her homework and watching Fred and George closely. I mean, obviously it's some kind of invisibility spell— but it's rather clever to have extended the field of invisibility beyond the boundaries of the charmed object. I'd imagine the charm wouldn't have a very long life, though. Harry did not answer. He was still feeling ill. I'm going to have to do this tomorrow, he muttered, pushing the books he had just taken out of his bag back inside it. Well, write it in your homework planner, then, said Hermione encouragingly, so you don't forget. Harry and Ron exchanged looks as he reached into his bag, withdrew the planner, and opened it tentatively. Don't leave it till later, you big second-rater, chided the book as Harry scribbled down Umbridge's homework. Hermione beamed at it. I think I'll go to bed, said Harry, stuffing the homework planner back into his bag and making a mental note to drop it in the fire the first opportunity he got. He walked across the common room, dodging George, who tried to put a headless hat on him, and reached the peace and cool of the stone staircase to the boys' dormitories. He was feeling sick again, just as he had the night he had had the vision of the snake, but thought that if he could just lie down for a while, he would be all right. He opened the door of his dormitory, and was one step inside it when he experienced pain so severe he thought that someone must have sliced into the top of his head. He did not know where he was, whether he was standing or lying down. He did not even know his own name. Maniacal laughter was ringing in his ears. He was happier than he had been in a very long time. Jubilant, ecstatic, triumphant. A wonderful, wonderful thing had happened. Harry? Harry! Someone had hit him around the face. The insane laughter was punctuated with a cry of pain. The happiness was draining out of him, but the laughter continued. He opened his eyes, and, as he did so, he became aware that the wild laughter was coming out of his own mouth. The moment he realized this, it died away. Harry lay panting on the floor, staring up at the ceiling, the scar on his forehead throbbing horribly. Ron was bending over him, looking very worried. What happened? he said. I don't know, Harry gasped, sitting up again. 
He's really happy. Really happy. You know who is? Something good's happened, mumbled Harry. He was shaking as badly as he had done after seeing the snake attack Mr. Weasley and felt very sick. Something he's been hoping for. The words came just as they had back in the Gryffindor changing room, as though a stranger was speaking them through Harry's mouth, yet he knew they were true. He took deep breaths, willing himself not to vomit all over Ron. He was very glad that Dean and Seamus were not here to watch this time. Hermione told me to come and check on you, said Ron in a low voice, helping Harry to his feet. She says your defences will be low at the moment, after Snape's been fiddling around with your mind. Still, I suppose it'll help in the long run, won't it? He looked doubtfully at Harry as he helped him toward bed. Harry nodded without any conviction and slumped back on his pillows, aching all over from having fallen to the floor so often that evening, his scar still prickling painfully. He could not help feeling that his first foray into occlumency had weakened his mind's resistance rather than strengthening it, and he wondered with a feeling of great trepidation what had happened to make Lord Voldemort the happiest he had been in fourteen years. Chapter 25 The Beetle at Bay Harry's question was answered the very next morning. When Hermione's daily prophet arrived, she smoothed it out, gazed for a moment at the front page, and then gave a yelp that caused everyone in the vicinity to stare at her. What? said Harry and Ron together. For an answer, she spread the newspaper on the table in front of them and pointed at ten black-and-white photographs that filled the whole of the front page. Nine showing wizards' faces, and the tenth a witch's. Some of the people in the photographs were silently jeering. Others were tapping their fingers on the frame of their pictures, looking insolent. Each picture was captioned with a name and the crime for which the person had been sent to Azkaban. Antonin Dolohov read the legend beneath a wizard with a long, pale, twisted face who was sneering up at Harry, convicted of the brutal murders of Gideon and Fabian Pruitt. Augustus Rookwood, said the caption beneath a pockmarked man with greasy hair, who was leaning against the edge of his picture, looking bored. Convicted of leaking Ministry of Magic Secrets to He Who Must Not Be Named. But Harry's eyes were drawn to the picture of the witch. Her face had leapt out at him the moment he had seen the page. She had long, dark hair that looked unkempt and straggly in the picture, though he had seen it sleek, thick, and shining. She glared up at him through heavily-lidded eyes, an arrogant, disdainful smile playing around her thin mouth. Like Sirius, she retained vestiges of great good looks, but something, perhaps Azkaban, had taken most of her beauty. Bellatrix Lestrange, convicted of the torture and permanent incapacitation of Frank and Alice Longbottom. Hermione nudged Harry and pointed at the headline over the pictures, which Harry, concentrating on Bellatrix, had not yet read. Mass breakout from Azkaban. Ministry fears Black is rallying point for old Death Eaters. Black? said Harry loudly. Not— Shh! whispered Hermione desperately. Not so loud. Just read it. The Ministry of Magic announced late last night that there has been a mass breakout from Azkaban. Speaking to reporters in his private office, Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, confirmed that ten high-security prisoners escaped in the early hours of yesterday evening, and that he has already informed the Muggle Prime Minister of the dangerous nature of these individuals. 
we find ourselves most unfortunately in the same position we were two and a half years ago when the murderous Sirius Black escaped, said Fudge last night, nor do we think the two breakouts are unrelated. An escape of this magnitude suggests outside help, and we must remember that Black, as the first person ever to break out of Azkaban, would be ideally placed to help others follow in his footsteps. We think it likely that these individuals, who include Black's cousin, Bellatrix Lestrange, have rallied around Black as their leader. We are, however, doing all we can to round up the criminals and beg the magical community to remain alert and cautious. On no account should any of these individuals be approached. There you are, Harry, said Ron, looking awestruck. That's why he was happy last night. I don't believe this, snarled Harry. Fudge is blaming the breakout on Sirius? What other options does he have, said Hermione bitterly. He can hardly say, Sorry, everyone. Dumbledore warned me this might happen. The Azkaban guards have joined Lord Voldemort. Stop whimpering, Ron. And now Voldemort's worst supporters have broken out, too. I mean, he's spent a good six months telling everyone you and Dumbledore are liars, hasn't he? Hermione ripped open the newspaper and began to read the report inside while Harry looked around the great hall. He could not understand why his fellow students were not looking scared, or at least discussing the terrible piece of news on the front page, but very few of them took the newspaper every day like Hermione. There they all were, talking about homework and Quidditch, and who knew what other rubbish, and outside these walls ten more Death Eaters had swollen Voldemort's ranks. He glanced up at the staff table. It was a different story here. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall were deep in conversation, both looking extremely grave. Professor Sprout had the prophet propped against a bottle of ketchup and was reading the front page with such concentration that she was not noticing the gentle drip of egg yolk falling into her lap from her stationary spoon. Meanwhile, at the far end of the table, Professor Umbridge was tucking into a bowl of porridge. For once her pouchy toad's eyes were not sweeping the great hall looking for misbehaving students. She scowled as she gulped down her food, and every now and then she shot a malevolent glance up the table to where Dumbledore and McGonagall were talking so intently. Oh, my, said Hermione wonderingly, still staring at the newspaper. What now? said Harry quickly. He was feeling jumpy. It's horrible, said Hermione, looking shaken. She folded back page ten of the newspaper and handed it back to Harry and Ron. Tragic demise of Ministry of Magic Worker St. Mungo's Hospital promised a full inquiry last night after Ministry of Magic Worker Broderick Bode, 49, was discovered dead in his bed, strangled by a potted plant. Healers called to the scene were unable to revive Mr. Bode, who had been injured in a workplace accident some weeks prior to his death. Healer Miriam Strout, who was in charge of Mr. Bode's ward at the time of the incident, has been suspended on full pay and was unavailable for comment yesterday. But a spokeswizard for the hospital said in a statement, St. Mungo's deeply regrets the death of Mr. Bode, whose health was improving steadily prior to this tragic accident. We have strict guidelines on the decorations permitted on our wards, but it appears that Healer Strout, busy over the Christmas period, overlooked the dangers of the plant on Mr. Bode's bedside table. As his speech and mobility improved, Healer Strout encouraged Mr. Bode to look after the plant himself, unaware that it was not an innocent flitter bloom, 
but a cutting of devil's snare, which, when touched by the convalescent Mr. Bode, throttled him instantly. St. Mungo's is as yet unable to account for the presence of the plant on the ward, and asks any witch or wizard with information to come forward. Bode, said Ron. Bode! It rings a bell. We saw him, Hermione whispered, in St. Mungo's, remember? He was in the bed opposite Lockhart's, just lying there, staring at the ceiling, and we saw the devil's snare arrive. She, the healer, said it was a Christmas present. Harry looked back at the story. A feeling of horror was rising like bile in his throat. How come we didn't recognize Devil's Snare? We've seen it before. We could have stopped this from happening. Who expects Devil's Snare to turn up in a hospital disguised as a potted plant? said Ron sharply. It's not our fault. Whoever sent it to the bloke is to blame. They must be a real prat. Why didn't they check what they were buying? Oh, come on, Ron, said Hermione shakily. I don't think anyone could put Devil's Snare in a pot and not realize it tries to kill whoever touches it. This... this was murder. A clever murder as well. If the plant was sent anonymously, how's anyone ever going to find out who did it? Harry was not thinking about Devil's Snare. He was remembering taking the lift down to the ninth level of the ministry on the day of his hearing and the sallow-faced man who had got in on the atrium level. I met Bode he said slowly. I saw him at the ministry with your dad. Ron's mouth fell open. I've heard dad talk about him at home. He was an unspeakable. He worked in the department of mysteries. They looked at one another for a moment. Then Hermione pulled the newspaper back toward her, closed it, glared for a moment at the pictures of the ten escaped Death Eaters on the front, then leapt to her feet. Where are you going? said Ron, startled. To send a letter said Hermione, swinging her bag onto her shoulder. It, well, I don't know whether, but it's worth trying, and I'm the only one who can. I hate it when she does that, grumbled Ron, as he and Harry got up from the table and made their own slower way out of the great hall. Would it kill her to tell us what she's up to for once? It'd take her about ten more seconds. Hey, Hagrid! Hagrid was standing beside the doors into the entrance hall, waiting for a crowd of Ravenclaws to pass. He was still as heavily bruised as he had been on the day he had come back from his mission to the Giants, and there was a new cut right across the bridge of his nose. All right, you two, he said, trying to muster a smile, but managing only a kind of pained grimace. Are you okay, Hagrid? asked Harry, following him as he lumbered after the Ravenclaws. Fine, fine, said Hagrid, with a feeble assumption of airiness. He waved a hand and narrowly missed concussing a frightened-looking Professor Vector who was passing. Just busy, you know, usual stuff. Lessons to prepare. Couple of salamanders got scale rot. And I'm on probation, he mumbled. You're on probation, said Ron very loudly, so that many students passing looked around curiously. Sorry, I mean... You're on probation, he whispered. Yeah, said Hagrid. It's no more than I expected, to tell you the truth. You might not have picked up on it, but that inspection didn't go too well. You know, anyway, he sighed deeply. Best go and rub a bit more chili powder on them salamanders, or their tails will be hanging off them next. See you, Harry, Ron. He trudged away out the front doors and down the stone steps into the damp grounds. Harry watched him go, wondering how much more bad news he could stand.
The fact that Hagrid was now on probation became common knowledge within the school over the next few days, but to Harry's indignation, hardly anybody appeared to be upset about it. Indeed, some people, Draco Malfoy prominent among them, seemed positively gleeful. As for the freakish death of an obscure Department of Mysteries employee in St. Mungo's, Harry, Ron, and Hermione seemed to be the only people who knew or cared. There was only one topic of conversation in the corridors now, the ten escaped Death Eaters, whose story had finally filtered through the school from those few people who read the newspapers. Rumours were flying that some of the convicts had been spotted in Hogsmeade, that they were supposed to be hiding out in the Shrieking Shack, and that they were going to break into Hogwarts, just as Sirius Black had done. Those who came from wizarding families had grown up hearing the names of these Death Eaters spoken with almost as much fear as Voldemort's. The crimes they had committed during the days of Voldemort's reign of terror were legendary. There were relatives of their victims among the Hogwarts students who now found themselves the unwilling objects of a gruesome sort of reflected fame as they walked the corridors. Susan Bones, who had an uncle, an aunt, and cousins who had all died at the hands of one of the ten, said, miserably during Herbology, that she now had a good idea what it felt like to be Harry. And I don't know how you stand it. It's horrible she said bluntly, dumping far too much dragon manure on her tray of screech-snapped seedlings, causing them to wiggle and squeak in discomfort. It was true that Harry was the subject of much renewed muttering and pointing in the corridors these days, yet he thought he detected a slight difference in the tone of the whisperers' voices. They sounded curious rather than hostile now, and once or twice he was sure he overheard snatches of conversation that suggested that the speakers were not satisfied with the prophet's version of how and why ten Death Eaters had managed to break out of Azkaban Fortress. In their confusion and fear, these doubters now seemed to be turning to the only other explanation available to them, the one that Harry and Dumbledore had been expounding since the previous year. It was not only the students' mood that had changed, it was now quite common to come across two or three teachers conversing in low, urgent whispers in the corridors, breaking off their conversations the moment they saw students approaching. "'They obviously can't talk freely in the staff room any more,' said Hermione in a low voice, as she, Harry and Ron, passed Professors McGonagall, Flitwick and Sprout, huddled together outside the Charms classroom one day. "'Not with Umbridge there.' "'Reckon they know anything new?' said Ron, gazing back over his shoulder at the three teachers. If they do, we're not going to hear about it, are we? said Harry angrily. Not after decree. What number are we on now? For new signs had appeared on the house notice boards the morning after news of the Azkaban breakout. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, teachers are hereby banned from giving students any information that is not strictly related to the subjects they are paid to teach. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 26, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor. This latest decree had been the subject of a great number of jokes among the students. Lee Jordan had pointed out to Umbridge that by the terms of the new rule, she was not allowed to tell Fred and George off for playing Exploding Snap in the back of the class. Exploding Snap's got nothing to do with defense against the Dark Arts, Professor. That's not information relating to your subject. When Harry next saw Lee, the back of his hand was bleeding rather badly. Harry recommended Essence of Mertlap. 
Harry had thought that the breakout from Azkaban might have humbled Umbridge a little, that she might have been abashed at the catastrophe that had occurred right under her beloved Fudge's nose. It seemed, however, to have only intensified her furious desire to bring every aspect of life at Hogwarts under her personal control. She seemed determined at the very least to achieve a sacking before long, and the only question was whether it would be Professor Trelawney or Hagrid who went first. Every single divination and care of magical creatures lesson was now conducted in the presence of Umbridge and her clipboard. She lurked by the fire in the heavily perfumed tower room, interrupting Professor Trelawney's increasingly hysterical talks with difficult questions about ornithomancy and heptomology, insisting that she predict students' answers before they gave them, and demanding that she demonstrate her skill at the crystal ball, the tea leaves, and the rune stones in turn. Harry thought that Professor Trelawney might soon crack under the strain. Several times he passed her in the corridors, in itself a very unusual occurrence, as she generally remained in her tower room, muttering wildly to herself, wringing her hands, and shooting terrified glances over her shoulder, all the time giving off a powerful smell of cooking sherry. If he had not been so worried about Hagrid, he would have felt sorry for her, but if one of them was to be ousted out of a job, there could be only one choice for Harry as to who should remain. Unfortunately, Harry could not see that Hagrid was putting up a better show than Trelawney. Though he seemed to be following Hermione's advice and had shown them nothing more frightening than a Krupp, a creature indistinguishable from a Jack Russell Terrier except for its forked tail, since before Christmas, he also seemed to have lost his nerve. He was oddly distracted and jumpy in lessons, losing the thread of what he was saying while talking to the class, answering questions wrongly, and glancing anxiously at Umbridge all the time. He was also more distant with Harry, Ron, and Hermione than he had ever been before, expressly forbidding them to visit him after dark. "'If she catches you, it'll be all of our necks on the line,' he told them flatly and with no desire to do anything that jeopardized his job further, they abstained from walking down to his hut in the evenings. It seemed to Harry that Umbridge was steadily depriving him of everything that made his life at Hogwarts worth living. Visits to Hagrid's house, letters from Sirius, his Firebolt, and Quidditch. He took his revenge the only way he had, redoubling his efforts for the D.A. Harry was pleased to see that all of them, even Zacharias Smith, had been spurred to work harder than ever by the news that ten more Death Eaters were now on the loose. But in nobody was this improvement more pronounced than in Neville. The news of his parents' attacker's escape had wrought a strange and even slightly alarming change in him. He had not once mentioned his meeting with Harry, Ron, and Hermione on the closed ward in St. Mungo's, and, taking their lead from him, they had kept quiet about it, too. Nor had he said anything on the subject of Bellatrix and her fellow torturer's escape. In fact, he barely spoke during DA meetings any more, but worked relentlessly on every new jinx and counter-curse Harry taught them, his plump face screwed up in concentration, apparently indifferent to injuries or accidents, working harder than anyone else in the room. He was improving so fast it was quite unnerving, and when Harry taught them the shield charm— a means of deflecting minor jinxes so that they rebounded upon the attacker, only Hermione mastered the charm faster than Neville. In fact, Harry would have given a great deal to be making as much progress at occlumency as Neville was making during DA meetings. Harry's sessions with Snape, which had started badly enough, were not improving. On the contrary, Harry felt he was getting worse with every lesson. Before he had started studying occlumency, his scar had prickled occasionally, 
usually during the night, or else following one of those strange flashes of Voldemort's thoughts or moods that he experienced every now and then. Nowadays, however, his scar hardly ever stopped prickling, and he often felt lurches of annoyance or cheerfulness that were unrelated to what was happening to him at the time, which were always accompanied by a particularly painful twinge from his scar. He had the horrible impression that he was slowly turning into a kind of aerial that was tuned into tiny fluctuations in Voldemort's mood, and he was sure he could date this increased sensitivity firmly from his first occlumency lesson with Snape. What was more, he was now dreaming about walking down the corridor toward the entrance to the Department of Mysteries almost every night, dreams that always culminated in him standing longingly in front of the plain black door. "'Maybe it's a bit like an illness,' said Hermione, looking concerned when Harry confided in her and Ron. "'A fever or something. It has to get worse before it gets better.' "'It's lessons with Snape that are making it worse,' said Harry flatly. I'm getting sick of my scar hurting, and I'm getting bored walking down that corridor every night. He rubbed his forehead angrily. I just wish the door would open. I'm sick of standing, staring at it. That's not funny, said Hermione sharply. Dumbledore doesn't want you to have dreams about that corridor at all, or he wouldn't have asked Snape to teach you occlumency. You're just going to have to work a bit harder in your lessons. I am working, said Harry, nettled. You try it sometime. Snape trying to get inside your head. It's not a bundle of laughs, you know. Maybe, said Ron slowly. Maybe what? said Hermione rather snappishly. Maybe it's not Harry's fault he can't close his mind, said Ron darkly. What do you mean? said Hermione. Well, maybe Snape isn't really trying to help Harry. Harry and Hermione stared at him. Ron looked darkly and meaningfully from one to the other. Maybe, he said again in a lower voice, he's actually trying to open Harry's mind a bit wider, make it easier for you, no... Shut up, Ron, said Hermione angrily. How many times have you suspected Snape? And when have you ever been right? Dumbledore trusts him. He works for the Order. That ought to be enough. He used to be a Death Eater, said Ron stubbornly, and we've never seen proof that he really swapped sides. Dumbledore trusts him, Hermione repeated, and if we can't trust Dumbledore, we can't trust anyone. With so much to worry about and so much to do, startling amounts of homework that frequently kept the fifth years working until past midnight, secret DA meetings and regular classes with Snape, January seemed to be passing alarmingly fast. Before Harry knew it, February had arrived, bringing with it wetter and warmer weather and the prospect of the second Hogsmeade visit of the year. Harry had had very little time to spare on conversations with Cho since they had agreed to visit the village together, but suddenly found himself facing a Valentine's Day spent entirely in her company. On the morning of the 14th, he dressed particularly carefully. He and Ron arrived at breakfast just in time for the arrival of the post-owls. Hedwig was not there. Not that he had expected her, but Hermione was tugging a letter from the beak of an unfamiliar brown owl as they sat down. And about time! If it hadn't come today, she said eagerly, tearing open the envelope and pulling out a small piece of parchment. Her eyes sped from left to right as she read through the message, and a grimly pleased expression spread across her face. Listen, Harry, she said, looking up at him, this is really important. Do you think you could meet me in the three broomsticks around midday? Well, I don't know, said Harry dubiously. Cho might be expecting me to spend the whole day with her. We never said what we were going to do. Well, bring her along if you must, 
said Hermione urgently. But will you come? Well, all right, but why? I haven't got time to tell you now. I've got to answer this quickly. And she hurried out of the great hall, the letter clutched in one hand and a piece of uneaten toast in the other. Are you coming? Harry asked Ron, but he shook his head, looking glum. I can't come into Hogsmeade at all. Angelina wants a full day's training. Like it's going to help. We're the worst team I've ever seen. You should see Sloper and Kirk. They're pathetic, even worse than I am. He heaved a great sigh. I don't know why Angelina won't just let me resign. It's because you're good when you're on form. That's why, said Harry irritably. He found it very hard to be sympathetic to Ron's plight when he himself would have given almost anything to be playing in the forthcoming match against Hufflepuff. Ron seemed to notice Harry's tone, because he did not mention Quidditch again during breakfast, and there was a slight frostiness in the way they said goodbye to each other shortly afterward. Ron departed for the Quidditch pitch, and Harry, after attempting to flatten his hair while staring at his reflection in the back of a teaspoon, proceeded alone to the entrance hall to meet Cho, feeling very apprehensive and wondering what on earth they were going to talk about. She was waiting for him a little to the side of the oak front doors, looking very pretty with her hair tied back in a long ponytail. Harry's feet seemed to be too big for his body as he walked toward her, and he was suddenly horribly aware of his arms and how stupid they looked swinging at his sides. Hi, said Cho, slightly breathlessly. Hi, said Harry. They stared at each other for a moment, then Harry said, Well, uh, shall we go then? Oh, yes. They joined the queue of people being signed out by Filch, occasionally catching each other's eye and grinning shiftily, but not talking to each other. Harry was relieved when they reached the fresh air, finding it easier to walk along in silence than just stand there looking awkward. It was a fresh, breezy sort of day, and as they passed the Quidditch Stadium, Harry glimpsed Ron and Ginny skimming over the stands and felt a horrible pang that he was not up there with them. "'You really miss it, don't you?' said Cho. He looked around and saw her watching him. "'Yeah,' sighed Harry. "'I do. "'Remember the first time we played against each other in the third year?' she asked him. "'Yeah,' said Harry, grinning. "'You kept blocking me.' "'And Wood told you not to be a gentleman and knock me off my broom if you had to?' said Cho, smiling reminiscently. "'I heard he got taken on by pride of poetry. Is that right?' "'Nah, it was Puddlemere United. I saw him at the World Cup last year. "'Oh, I saw you there too, remember? We were on the same campsite. It was really good, wasn't it?' The subject of the Quidditch World Cup carried them all the way down the drive and out through the gates. Harry could hardly believe how easy it was to talk to her. No more difficult, in fact, than talking to Ron and Hermione. And he was just starting to feel confident and cheerful when a large gang of Slytherin girls passed them, including Pansy Parkinson. Potter and Chang! screeched Pansy to a chorus of snide giggles. Ooh, Chang! I don't think much of your taste. At least Degree was good-looking. They sped up, talking and shrieking in a pointed fashion, with many exaggerated glances back at Harry and Cho, leaving an embarrassed silence in their wake. Harry could think of nothing else to say about Quidditch, and Cho, slightly flushed, was watching her feet. So, uh, where do you want to go? Harry asked as they entered Hogsmeade. The high street was full of students ambling up and down, peering into the shop windows and messing about together on the pavements. Oh, I don't mind said Cho, shrugging. Um, shall we just have a look in the shops or something? 
they wandered toward Dervish and Bangs. A large poster had been stuck up in the window, and a few hogsmeaders were looking at it. They moved aside when Harry and Cho approached, and Harry found himself staring once more at the ten pictures of the escaped Death Eaters. The poster, by order of the Ministry of Magic, offered a thousand galleon reward to any witch or wizard with information relating to the recapture of any of the convicts pictured. It's funny, isn't it? said Cho in a low voice, also gazing up at the pictures of the Death Eaters. Remember when that serious Black escaped, and there were Dementors all over Hogsmeade looking for him? And now ten Death Eaters are on the loose, and there aren't Dementors anywhere. Yeah, said Harry, tearing his eyes away from Bellatrix Lestrange's face to glance up and down the high street. Yeah, it is weird. He was not sorry that there were no Dementors nearby, but now he came to think of it, their absence was highly significant. They had not only let the Death Eaters escape— they were not bothering to look for them. It looked as though they really were outside Ministry control now. The ten escaped Death Eaters were staring out of every shop window he and Cho passed. It started to rain as they passed scriven shafts. Cold, heavy drops of water kept hitting Harry's face and the back of his neck. Um, do you want to get a coffee? said Cho tentatively as the rain began to fall more heavily. Yeah, all right, said Harry, looking around. Where... Oh, there's a really nice place just up here. Haven't you ever been to Madame Puddyfoot's? She said brightly, and she led him up a side road and into a small tea shop that Harry had never noticed before. It was a cramped, steamy little place where everything seemed to have been decorated with frills or bows. Harry was reminded unpleasantly of Umbridge's office. Cute, isn't it? said Cho happily. Ah, uh, yeah, said Harry untruthfully. Look, she's decorated it for Valentine's Day, said Cho, indicating a number of golden cherubs that were hovering over each of the small circular tables, occasionally throwing pink confetti over the occupants. Ah! They sat down at the last remaining table, which was situated in the steamy window. Roger Davies, the Ravenclaw Quidditch captain, was sitting about a foot and a half away with a pretty blonde girl. They were holding hands. The sight made Harry feel uncomfortable, particularly when, looking around the tea shop, he saw that it was full of nothing but couples, all of them holding hands. Perhaps Cho would expect him to hold her hand. "'What can I get you, me dears?' said Madame Puddyfoot, a very stout woman with a shiny black bun, squeezing between their table and Roger Davis's with great difficulty. Two coffees, please,' said Cho. In the time it took for their coffees to arrive, Roger Davis and his girlfriend started kissing over their sugar bowl. Harry wished they wouldn't. He felt that Davis was setting a standard with which Cho would soon expect him to compete. He felt his face growing hot and tried staring out of the window, but it was so steamed up he could not see the street outside. To postpone the moment when he had to look at Cho, he stared up at the ceiling as though examining the paintwork and received a handful of confetti in the face from their hovering cherub. After a few more painful minutes, Cho mentioned Umbridge. Harry seized on the subject with relief, and they passed a few happy moments abusing her, but the subject had already been so thoroughly canvassed during DA meetings, it did not last very long. Silence fell again. Harry was very conscious of these slurping noises coming from the table next door, and cast wildly around for something else to say. Uh, listen, do you want to come with me to the three broomsticks at lunchtime? I'm meeting Hermione Granger there. Cho raised her eyebrows. You're meeting Hermione Granger? Today? Yeah. Well, she asked me to, so I thought I would. 
Do you want to come with me? She said it wouldn't matter if you did. Oh, well, that was nice of her. But Cho did not sound as though she thought it was nice at all. On the contrary, her tone was cold, and all of a sudden she looked rather forbidding. A few more minutes passed in total silence, Harry drinking his coffee so fast that he would soon need a fresh cup. Next door, Roger Davis and his girlfriend seemed glued together by the lips. Cho's hand was lying on the table beside her coffee, and Harry was feeling a mounting pressure to take hold of it. Just do it, he told himself, as a fount of mingled panic and excitement surged up inside his chest. Just reach out and grab it. Amazing how much more difficult it was to extend his arm twelve inches and touch her hand than to snatch a speeding snitch from midair. But just as he moved his hand forward, Cho took hers off the table. She was now watching Roger Davis kissing his girlfriend with a mildly interested expression. He asked me out, you know, she said in a quiet voice, a couple of weeks ago. Roger, I turned him down, though. Harry, who had grabbed the sugar bowl to excuse his sudden lunging movement across the table, could not think why she was telling him this. If she wished she was sitting at the table next door being heartily kissed by Roger Davis, why had she agreed to come out with him? He said nothing. Their cherub threw another handful of confetti over them. Some of it landed in the last cold dregs of coffee Harry had been about to drink. I came in here with Cedric last year, said Cho. In the second or so it took for him to take in what she had said, Harry's insides had become glacial. He could not believe she wanted to talk about Cedric now, while kissing couples surrounded them and a cherub floated over their heads. Cho's voice was rather higher when she spoke again. I've been meaning to ask you for ages. Did Cedric, did he m mention me at all before he died? This was the very last subject on earth Harry wanted to discuss, and least of all with Cho. Well, no, he said quietly. There, there wasn't time for him to say anything. Um, so, do you... Do you get to see a lot of Quidditch in the holidays? You support the tornadoes, right? His voice sounded falsely bright and cheery. To his horror, he saw that her eyes were swimming with tears again, just as they had been after the last DA meeting before Christmas. Look, he said desperately, leaning in so that nobody else could overhear. Let's not talk about Cedric right now. Let's talk about something else. But this apparently was quite the wrong thing to say. I thought... She said, tears spattering down onto the table. I thought you'd un un understand. I need to talk about it. Surely you n need to talk about it, t too. I mean, you saw it happened, didn't you? Everything was going nightmarishly wrong. Roger Davis's girlfriend had even unglued herself to look around at Cho, crying. Well, I have talked about it, Harry said in a whisper, to Ron and Hermione, but... Oh! You'll talk to Hermione Granger, she said shrilly, her face now shining with tears, and several more kissing couples broke apart to stare. But you won't talk to me. P perhaps it would be best if we just, just paid, and you went and met up with Hermione G Granger, like you obviously want to. Harry stared at her, utterly bewildered as she seized a frilly napkin and dabbed at her shining face with it. Cho? He said weakly, wishing Roger would seize his girlfriend and start kissing her again to stop her goggling at him and Cho. Go on, leave, she said, now crying into the napkin. I don't know why you asked me out in the first place if you're going to make arrangements to meet other girls right after me. How many are you meeting after Hermione? 
"'It's not like that,' said Harry, and he was so relieved at finally understanding what she was annoyed about that he laughed, which he realized a split second too late was a mistake. Cho sprang to her feet. The whole tea room was quiet, and everybody was watching them now. "'I'll see you around, Harry,' she said dramatically, and, hiccuping slightly, she dashed to the door, wrenched it open, and hurried off into the pouring rain. "'Cho!' Harry called after her but the door had already swung shut behind her with a tuneful tinkle. There was total silence within the tea shop. Every eye was upon Harry. He threw a galleon down onto the table, shook pink confetti out of his eyes, and followed Cho out of the door. It was raining hard now, and she was nowhere to be seen. He simply did not understand what had happened. Half an hour ago they had been getting along fine. Women! he muttered angrily, sloshing down the rain-washed street with his hands in his pockets. What did she want to talk about Cedric for, anyway? Why does she always want to drag up a subject that makes her act like a human hosepipe? He turned right and broke into a splashy run, and within minutes he was turning into the doorway of the three broomsticks. He knew he was too early to meet Hermione, but he thought it likely there would be someone in here with whom he could spend the intervening time. He shook his wet hair out of his eyes and looked around. Hagrid was sitting alone in a corner, looking morose. "'Hi, Hagrid,' he said, when he had squeezed through the crammed tables and pulled up a chair beside him. Hagrid jumped and looked down at Harry as though he barely recognized him. Harry saw that he had two fresh cuts on his face and several new bruises. "'Oh, it's you, Harry,' said Hagrid. "'You all right?' "'Yeah, I'm fine,' lied Harry. In fact, next to this battered and mournful-looking Hagrid, he felt he did not have much to complain about. Uh, are you okay? Me? said Hagrid. Oh, yeah, I'm grand, Harry. Grand. He gazed into the depths of his pewter tankard, which was the size of a large bucket, and sighed. Harry did not know what to say to him. They sat side by side in silence for a moment. Then Hagrid said abruptly, "'In the same boat, you and me, aren't we, Harry?' "'Uh,' said Harry. "'Yeah, I've said it before. "'Both outsiders, like,' said Hagrid, nodding wisely. "'And both orphans. "'Yeah, both orphans.' "'He took a great swig from his tankard. "'Makes a difference, having a decent family,' he said. "'Me dad was decent, and your mum and dad were decent.' If they'd lived, life would have been different, eh? Yeah, I suppose, said Harry cautiously. Hagrid seemed to be in a very strange mood. Family, said Hagrid gloomily. Whatever you say, blood's important. And he wiped a trickle of it out of his eye. Hagrid, said Harry, unable to stop himself. Where are you getting all these injuries? Eh? said Hagrid, looking startled. "'What injuries?' "'All those,' said Harry, pointing at Hagrid's face. "'Oh, that's just normal bumps and bruises, Harry,' said Hagrid dismissively. "'I got a rough job.' He drained his tankard, set it back upon the table, and got to his feet. "'I'll be seeing you, Harry. Take care now.' And he lumbered out of the pub looking wretched, and then disappeared into the torrential rain. Harry watched him go, feeling miserable. Hagrid was unhappy and he was hiding something, but he seemed determined not to accept help. What was going on? 
But before Harry could think about the matter any further, he heard a voice calling his name. Harry! Harry, over here! Hermione was waving at him from the other side of the room. He got up and made his way toward her through the crowded pub. He was still a few tables away when he realized that Hermione was not alone. She was sitting at a table with the unlikeliest pair of drinking mates he could ever have imagined. Luna Lovegood, and none other than Rita Skeeter, ex-journalist on the Daily Prophet and one of Hermione's least favorite people in the world. You're early, said Hermione, moving along to give him room to sit down. I thought you were with Cho. I wasn't expecting you for another hour at least. Cho? said Rita at once, twisting around in her seat to stare avidly at Harry. A girl? She snatched up her crocodile-skin handbag and groped within it. It's none of your business if Harry's been with a hundred girls, Hermione told Rita coolly, so you can put that away right now. Rita had been on the point of withdrawing an acid-green quill from her bag. Looking as though she had been forced to swallow stink sap, she snapped her bag shut again. What are you up to? Harry asked, sitting down and staring from Rita to Luna to Hermione. Little Miss Perfect was just about to tell me when you arrived, said Rita, taking a large slurp of her drink. I suppose I'm allowed to talk to him, am I? She shot at Hermione. Yes, I suppose you are, said Hermione coldly. Unemployment did not suit Rita. The hair that had once been set in elaborate curls now hung lank and unkempt around her face. The scarlet paint on her two-inch talons was chipped, and there were a couple of false jewels missing from her winged glasses. She took another great gulp of her drink and said out of the corner of her mouth, Pretty girl, is she, Harry? One more word about Harry's love life and the deal's off, and that's a promise, said Hermione irritably. What deal, said Rita, wiping her mouth on the back of her hand. You haven't mentioned a deal yet, Miss Prissy. You just told me to turn up. Oh, one of these days. She took a deep, shuddering breath. Yes, yes, one of these days you'll write more horrible stories about Harry and me, said Hermione indifferently. Find someone who cares, why don't you? They've run plenty of horrible stories about Harry this year without my help, said Rita, shooting a sideways look at him over the top of her glass and adding in a rough whisper, How has that made you feel, Harry? Betrayed? Distraught? Misunderstood? He feels angry, of course, said Hermione in a hard, clear voice because he's told the Minister of Magic the truth, and the Minister's too much of an idiot to believe him. So, you actually stick to it, do you? That he who must not be named is back? said Rita, lowering her glass and subjecting Harry to a piercing stare, while her fingers strayed longingly to the clasp of the crocodile bag. You stand by all this garbage Dumbledore's been telling everybody, about you-know-who returning, and you being the sole witness? I wasn't the sole witness, snarled Harry. There were a dozen odd Death Eaters there as well. Want their names? I love them, breathed Rita, now fumbling in her bag once more and gazing at him as though he was the most beautiful thing she had ever seen. A great bold headline. Potter accuses. A subheading. Harry Potter names Death Eaters still among us. And then, beneath a nice big photograph of you, disturbed teenage survivor of you-know-who's attack, Harry Potter 15, caused outrage yesterday by accusing respectable and prominent members of the wizarding community of being Death Eaters. The quick quotes quill was actually in her hand and halfway to her mouth when the rapturous expression died out of her face. But of course she said, lowering the quill and looking daggers at Hermione. Little Miss Perfect wouldn't want that story out there, would she? As a matter of fact, said Hermione sweetly, that's exactly what Little Miss Perfect does want. Rita stared at her. So did Harry. 
Luna, on the other hand, sang, Weasley is our king, dreamily under her breath, and stirred her drink with a cocktail onion on a stick. You want me to report what he says about he who must not be named? Rita asked Hermione in a hushed voice. Yes, I do, said Hermione. The true story, all the facts, exactly as Harry reports them. He'll give you all the details. He'll tell you the names of the undiscovered Death Eaters he saw there. He'll tell you what Voldemort looks like now. Oh, get a grip on yourself, she added contemptuously, throwing a napkin across the table. For at the sound of Voldemort's name, Rita had jumped so badly that she had slopped half her glass of fire whiskey down herself. Rita blotted the front of her grubby raincoat, still staring at Hermione. Then she said baldly, The prophet wouldn't print it. In case you haven't noticed, nobody believes his cock and bull story. Everyone thinks he's delusional. Now, if you'll let me write the story from that angle... We don't need another story about how Harry's lost his marbles, said Hermione angrily. We've had plenty of those already, thank you. I want him given the opportunity to tell the truth. There's no market for a story like that said Rita coldly. You mean the prophet won't print it because Fudge won't let them, said Hermione irritably. Rita gave Hermione a long, hard look. Then, leaning forward across the table toward her, she said in a businesslike tone, All right, Fudge is leaning on the prophet, but it comes to the same thing. They won't print a story that shows Harry in a good light. Nobody wants to read it. It's against the public mood. This last Azkaban breakout has got people quite worried enough. People just don't want to believe you know who's back. So the Daily Prophet exists to tell people what they want to hear, does it? said Hermione scathingly. Rita sat up straight again, her eyebrows raised, and drained her glass of fire whiskey. The Prophet exists to sell itself, you silly girl, she said coldly. My dad thinks it's an awful paper said Luna, chipping into the conversation unexpectedly. Sucking on her cocktail onion, she gazed at Rita with her enormous, protuberant, slightly mad eyes. He publishes important stories that he thinks the public needs to know. He doesn't care about making money. Rita looked disparagingly at Luna. I'm guessing your father runs some stupid little village newsletter, she said. Twenty-five ways to mingle with muggles and the dates of the next bring and fly sale. No said Luna, dipping her onion back into her gilly water. He's the editor of The Quibbler. Rita snorted so loudly that people at a nearby table looked around in alarm. Important stories he thinks the public needs to know, she said witheringly. I could manure my garden with the contents of that rag. Well, this is your chance to raise the tone of it a bit, isn't it? said Hermione pleasantly. Luna says her father's quite happy to take Harry's interview. That's who will be publishing it. Rita stared at them both for a moment, and then let out a great whoop of laughter. The Quibbler, she said, cackling. You think people would take him seriously if he's published in The Quibbler? Some people won't, said Hermione in a level voice. But the Daily Prophet's version of the Azkaban breakout had some gaping holes in it. I think a lot of people will be wondering whether there isn't a better explanation of what happened, and if there's an alternative story available, even if it is published in a... She glanced sideways at Luna. In a, well, an unusual magazine. I think they might be rather keen to read it. Rita did not say anything for a while, but eyed Hermione shrewdly, her head a little to one side. All right, let's say for a moment I'll do it, she said abruptly. What kind of fee am I going to get? 
I don't think Daddy exactly pays people to write for the magazine, said Luna dreamily. They do it because it's an honor, and, of course, to see their names in print. Rita Skeeter looked as though the taste of stink sap was strong in her mouth again as she rounded on Hermione. I'm supposed to do this for free? Well, yes, said Hermione calmly, taking a sip of her drink. Otherwise, as you very well know, I will inform the authorities that you are an unregistered animagus. Of course, the profit might give you rather a lot for an insider's account of life in Azkaban. Rita looked as though she would have liked nothing better than to seize the paper umbrella sticking out of Hermione's drink and thrust it up her nose. I don't suppose I've got any choice, have I? said Rita, her voice shaking slightly. She opened her crocodile bag once more, withdrew a piece of parchment, and raised her quick quotes quill. Daddy will be pleased, said Luna brightly. A muscle twitched in Rita's jaw. Okay, Harry, said Hermione, turning to him. Ready to tell the public the truth? I suppose, said Harry, watching Rita balancing the quick quotes quill at the ready on the parchment between them. Fire away then, Rita, said Hermione serenely, fishing a cherry out of the bottom of her glass. Chapter 26 Seen and Unforeseen Luna said vaguely that she did not know how soon Rita's interview with Harry would appear in the quibbler, that her father was expecting a lovely long article on recent sightings of Crumplehorn's Snorkax. And, of course, that'll be a very important story. So Harry's might have to wait for the following issue, said Luna. Harry had not found it an easy experience to talk about the night when Voldemort had returned. Rita had pressed him for every little detail, and he had given her everything he could remember, knowing that this was his one big opportunity to tell the world the truth. He wondered how people would react to the story. He guessed that it would confirm a lot of people in the view that he was completely insane, not least because his story would be appearing alongside utter rubbish about Crumplehorn Snorkax, but the breakout of Bellatrix Lestrange and her fellow Death Eaters had given Harry a burning desire to do something, whether it worked or not. "'Can't wait to see what Umbridge thinks of your going public,' said Dean, sounding awestruck at dinner on Monday night. Seamus was shoveling down large amounts of chicken and ham pie on Dean's other side, but Harry knew he was listening. "'It's the right thing to do, Harry,' said Neville, who was sitting opposite him. He was rather pale, but went on in a low voice. It must have been tough talking about it, was it? Yeah, mumbled Harry, but people have got to know what Voldemort's capable of, haven't they? That's right, said Neville, nodding, and his Death Eaters, too. People should know. Neville left his sentence hanging and returned to his baked potato. Seamus looked up, but when he caught Harry's eye, he looked quickly back at his plate again. After a while, Dean, Seamus, and Neville departed for the common room, leaving Harry and Hermione at the table waiting for Ron, who had not yet had dinner because of Quidditch practice. Cho Chang walked into the hall with her friend Marietta. Harry's stomach gave an unpleasant lurch, but she did not look over at the Gryffindor table and sat down with her back to him. Oh, I forgot to ask you, said Hermione brightly, glancing over at the Ravenclaw table. What happened on your date with Cho? How come you were back so early? Uh, well, it was, said Harry, pulling a dish of rhubarb crumble toward him and helping himself to seconds. A complete fiasco, now you mention it. And he told her what had happened in Madame Puddyfoot's tea shop. So then, 
he finished several minutes later as the final bit of crumble disappeared. She jumps up, right, and says, I'll see you around, Harry, and runs out of the place. He put down his spoon and looked at Hermione. I mean, what was all that about? What was going on? Hermione glanced over at the back of Cho's head and sighed. Oh, Harry, she said sadly. Well, I'm sorry, but you were a bit tactless. Me? Tactless? said Harry, outraged. One minute we were getting on fine. Next minute she was telling me that Roger Davis asked her out and how she used to go and snog Cedric in that stupid tea shop. How was I supposed to feel about that? Well, you see, said Hermione, with the patient air of one explaining that one plus one equals two to an over-emotional toddler. You shouldn't have told her that you wanted to meet me halfway through your date. But, but, spluttered Harry, but you told me to meet you at twelve and to bring her along. How was I supposed to do that without telling her? You should have told her differently, said Hermione, still with that maddeningly patient air. You should have said it was really annoying, but I'd made you promise to come along to the three broomsticks, and you really didn't want to go. You'd much rather spend the whole day with her, but unfortunately you thought you really ought to meet me, and would she please, please come along with you, and hopefully you'd be able to get away more quickly. And it might have been a good idea to mention how ugly you think I am, too. Hermione added as an afterthought. But I don't think you're ugly, said Harry, bemused. Hermione laughed. Harry, you're worse than Ron. Well, no, you're not, she sighed, as Ron came stumping into the hall, splattered with mud and looking grumpy. Look, you upset Cho when you said you were going to meet me, so she tried to make you jealous. It was her way of trying to find out how much you liked her. Is that what she was doing? said Harry, as Ron dropped onto the bench opposite them and pulled every dish within reach toward himself. Well, wouldn't it have been easier if she'd just asked me whether I liked her better than you? Girls don't often ask questions like that, said Hermione. Well, they should, said Harry forcefully. Then I could have just told her I fancy her, and she wouldn't have had to get herself all worked up again about Cedric dying. I'm not saying what she did was sensible said Hermione, as Ginny joined them, just as muddy as Ron, and looking equally disgruntled. I'm just trying to make you see how she was feeling at the time. You should write a book, Ron told Hermione, as he cut up his potatoes. Translating mad things girls do so boys can understand them. Yeah, said Harry fervently, looking over at the Ravenclaw table. Cho had just got up. Still not looking at him, she left the great hall. Feeling rather depressed, he looked back at Ron and Ginny. So, how was Quidditch practice? It was a nightmare, said Ron in a surly voice. Oh, come on, said Hermione, looking at Ginny. I'm sure it wasn't that. Yes, it was, said Ginny. It was appalling. Angelina was nearly in tears by the end of it. Ron and Ginny went off for baths after dinner. Harry and Hermione returned to the busy Gryffindor common room and their usual pile of homework. Harry had been struggling with a new star chart for astronomy for half an hour when Fred and George turned up. Ron and Ginny not here? asked Fred, looking around as he pulled up a chair, and when Harry shook his head, he said, Good! We were watching their practice. They're going to be slaughtered. They're complete rubbish without us. Come on, Ginny's not bad, said George fairly, sitting down next to Fred. Actually, I don't know how she got so good, seeing how we never let her play with us. She's been breaking into your broom shed in the garden since the age of six, and taking each of your brooms out in turn when you weren't looking. 
said Hermione from behind her tottering pile of ancient rune books. Oh, said George, looking mildly impressed. Well, that'd explain it. Has Ron saved a goal yet? asked Hermione, peering over the top of magical hieroglyphs and logograms. Well, he can do it if he doesn't think anyone's watching him, said Fred, rolling his eyes. So all we have to do is ask the crowd to turn their backs and talk among themselves every time the quaffle goes up his end on Saturday. He got up again and moved restlessly to the window, staring out across the dark grounds. You know, Quidditch was about the only thing in this place worth staying for. Hermione cast him a stern look. You've got exams coming. Told you already, we're not fussed about any WTs, said Fred. The snack boxes are ready to roll. We found out how to get rid of those boils. Just a couple of drops of Myrtlap essence sorts them. Lee put us onto it. George yawned widely and looked out disconsolately at the cloudy night sky. I don't know if I even want to watch this match. If Zacharias Smith beats us, I might have to kill myself. Kill him, more like, said Fred firmly. That's the trouble with Quidditch, said Hermione absent-mindedly, once again bent over her rune translation. It creates all this bad feeling and tension between the houses. She looked up to find her copy of Spellman's syllabary and caught Fred, George, and Harry looking at her with expressions of mingled disgust and incredulity on their faces. Well, it does, she said impatiently. It's only a game, isn't it? Hermione, said Harry, shaking his head, you're good on feelings and stuff, but you just don't understand about Quidditch. Maybe not, she said darkly, returning to her translation again. But at least my happiness doesn't depend on Ron's goalkeeping ability. And though Harry would rather have jumped off the astronomy tower than admit it to her, by the time he had watched the game the following Saturday, he would have given any number of galleons not to care about Quidditch either. The very best thing you could say about the match was that it was short. The Gryffindor spectators had to endure only twenty-two minutes of agony. It was hard to say what the worst thing was. Harry thought it was a close-run contest between Ron's fourteenth failed save, Sloper missing the bludger but hitting Angelina in the mouth with his bat, and Kirk shrieking as Zacharias Smith zoomed at him carrying the quaffle and falling backward off his broom. The miracle was that Gryffindor only lost by ten points. Ginny managed to snatch the snitch from right under Hufflepuff Seeker Summerby's nose, so that the final score was 240 versus 230. Good catch, Harry told Ginny back in the common room, where the atmosphere closely resembled that of a particularly dismal funeral. I was lucky, she shrugged. It wasn't a very fast snitch, and Summerby's got a cold. He sneezed and closed his eyes at exactly the wrong moment. Anyway, once you're back on the team... Ginny... I've got a lifelong ban. You're banned as long as Umbridge is in the school, Ginny corrected him. There's a difference. Anyway, once you're back, I think I'll try out for Chaser. Angelina and Alicia are both leaving next year, and I prefer goal scoring to seeking anyway. Harry looked over at Ron, who was hunched in a corner, staring at his knees, a bottle of butterbeer clutched in his hand. Angelina still won't let him resign, Ginny said, as though reading Harry's mind. She says she knows he's got it in him. Harry liked Angelina for the faith she was showing in Ron, but at the same time thought it would really be kinder to let him leave the team. Ron had left the pitch to another booming chorus of Weasley is our king, sung with great gusto by the Slytherins, who were now favourites to win the Quidditch Cup. Fred and George wandered over. 
I haven't got the heart to take the mickey out of him even, said Fred, looking over at Ron's crumpled figure. Mind you, when he missed the fourteenth, he made wild motions with his arms as though doing an upright doggy paddle. Well, I'll save it for parties, eh? Ron dragged himself up to bed shortly after this. Out of respect for his feelings, Harry waited a while before going up to the dormitory himself, so that Ron could pretend to be asleep if he wanted to. Sure enough, when Harry finally entered the room, Ron was snoring a little too loudly to be entirely plausible. Harry got into bed thinking about the match. It had been immensely frustrating watching from the sidelines. He was quite impressed by Ginny's performance, but he felt that if he had been playing he could have caught the snitch sooner. There had been a moment when it had been fluttering near Kirk's ankle. If she hadn't hesitated, she might have been able to scrape a win for Gryffindor. Umbridge had been sitting a few rows below Harry and Hermione. Once or twice she had turned squatly in her seat to look at him. Her wide toad's mouth stretched in what he thought had been a gloating smile. The memory of it made him feel hot with anger as he lay there in the dark. After a few moments, however, he remembered that he was supposed to be emptying his mind of all emotion before he slept as Snape kept instructing him at the end of every occlumency lesson. He tried for a moment or two, but the thought of Snape, on top of memories of Umbridge, merely increased his sense of grumbling resentment, and he found himself focusing instead on how much he loathed the pair of them. Slowly Ron's snores died away, replaced by the sound of deep, slow breathing. It took Harry much longer to get to sleep. His body was tired, but it took his brain a long time to close down. He dreamed that Neville and Professor Sprout were waltzing around the Room of Requirement while Professor McGonagall played the bagpipes. He watched them happily for a while, then decided to go and find the other members of the D.A. But when he left the room he found himself facing not the tapestry of Barnabas the Barmy, but a torch burning in its bracket on a stone wall. He turned his head slowly to the left. There, at the far end of the windowless passage, was a plain black door. He walked toward it with a sense of mounting excitement. He had the strangest feeling that this time he was going to get lucky at last and find the way to open it. He was feet from it and saw, with a leap of excitement, that there was a glowing strip of faint blue light down the right-hand side. The door was ajar. He stretched out his hand to push it wide, and— Ron gave a loud, rasping, genuine snore, and Harry awoke abruptly, with his right hand stretched in front of him in the darkness— to open a door that was hundreds of miles away. He let it fall with a feeling of mingled disappointment and guilt. He knew he should not have seen the door, but at the same time felt so consumed with curiosity about what was behind it that he could not help feeling annoyed with Ron. If he could have saved his snore for just another minute... They entered the Great Hall for breakfast at exactly the same moment as the post-owls on Monday morning. Hermione was not the only person eagerly awaiting her daily profit. Nearly everyone was eager for more news about the escaped Death Eaters who, despite many reported sightings, had still not been caught. She gave the delivery owl a canut and unfolded the newspaper eagerly while Harry helped himself to orange juice. And as he had only received one note during the entire year, he was sure when the first owl landed with a thud in front of him that it had made a mistake. Who were you after? he asked it, languidly removing his orange juice from underneath its beak and leaning forward to see the recipient's name and address. Harry Potter, Great Hall, Hogwarts School. Frowning, he made to take the letter from the owl, but before he could do so, three, four, five more owls had fluttered down beside it and were jockeying for position, treading in the butter, knocking over the salt, 
and each attempting to give him their letters first. "'What's going on?' Ron asked in amazement, as the whole of Gryffindor table leaned forward to watch as another seven owls landed among the first ones, screeching, hooting, and flapping their wings. "'Harry!' said Hermione breathlessly, plunging her hands into the feathery mass and pulling out a screech owl bearing a long cylindrical package. I think I know what this means. Open this one first. Harry ripped off the brown packaging. Out rolled a tightly furled copy of March's edition of The Quibbler. He unrolled it to see his own face grinning sheepishly at him from the front cover. In large red letters across his picture were the words, Harry Potter speaks out at last, the truth about he who must not be named, and the night I saw him return. It's good, isn't it? said Luna, who had drifted over to the Gryffindor table, and now squeezed herself onto the bench between Fred and Ron. It came out yesterday. I asked Dad to send you a free copy. I expect all these. She waved a hand at the assembled owls still scrabbling around on the table in front of Harry. Our letters from readers. That's what I thought, said Hermione eagerly. Harry, do you mind if we... Help yourself, said Harry, feeling slightly bemused. Ron and Hermione both started ripping open envelopes. This one's from a bloke who thinks you're off your rocker, said Ron, glancing down his letter. Ah, well, this woman recommends you try a good course of shock spells at St. Mungo's said Hermione, looking disappointed and crumpling up a second. "'This one looks okay, though,' said Harry slowly, scanning a long letter from a witch in Paisley. "'Hey, she says she believes me.' "'This one's in two minds,' said Fred, who had joined in the letter opening with enthusiasm. "'Says you don't come across as a mad person, but he really doesn't want to believe you know who's back, so he doesn't know what to think now.' "'Blimey, what a waste of parchment!' "'Here's another one you've convinced, Harry,' said Hermione excitedly. "'Having read your side of the story, I am forced to the conclusion that the Daily Prophet has treated you very unfairly. Little though I want to think that he who must not be named has returned, I am forced to accept that you are telling the truth. Oh, this is wonderful!' "'Another one who thinks you're barking,' said Ron, throwing a crumpled letter over his shoulder. "'But this one says you've got her converted, and she now thinks you're a real hero.' She's put in a photograph, too. Wow! What is going on here? said a falsely sweet girlish voice. Harry looked up with his hands full of envelopes. Professor Umbridge was standing behind Fred and Luna, her bulging toad's eyes scanning the mess of owls and letters on the table in front of Harry. Behind her, he saw many of the students watching them avidly. Why have you got all these letters, Mr. Potter? she asked slowly. Is that a crime now? said Fred loudly, getting mail. Be careful, Mr. Weasley, or I shall have to put you in detention, said Umbridge. Well, Mr. Potter? Harry hesitated, but he did not see how he could keep what he had done quiet. It was surely only a matter of time before a copy of the Quibbler came to Umbridge's attention. People have written to me because I gave an interview, said Harry, about what happened to me last June. For some reason he glanced up at the staff table as he said this. He had the strangest feeling that Dumbledore had been watching him a second before, but when he looked, Dumbledore seemed to be absorbed in conversation with Professor Flitwick. "'An interview?' repeated Umbridge, her voice thinner and higher than ever. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean a reporter asked me questions, and I answered them,' said Harry. "'Here!' and he threw the copy of the quibbler at her. She caught it and stared down at the cover. Her pale, doughy face turned an ugly, patchy violet. 
When did you do this? She asked, her voice trembling slightly. Last Hogsmeade weekend, said Harry. She looked at him, incandescent with rage, the magazine shaking in her stubby fingers. There will be no more Hogsmeade trips for you, Mr. Potter, she whispered. How you dare, how you could. She took a deep breath. I have tried again and again to teach you not to tell lies. The message apparently has still not sunk in. Fifty points from Gryffindor and another week's worth of detentions. She stalked away, clutching the quibbler to her chest, the eyes of many students following her. By mid-morning, enormous signs had been put up all over the school, not just on house notice boards, but in the corridors and classrooms, too. By order of the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, any student found in possession of the magazine The Quibbler will be expelled. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 27, signed Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor. For some reason, every time Hermione caught sight of one of these signs, she beamed with pleasure. What exactly are you so happy about? Harry asked her. Oh, Harry, don't you see? Hermione breathed. If she could have done one thing to make absolutely sure that every single person in the school will read your interview, it was banning it. And it seemed that Hermione was quite right. By the end of that day, though Harry had not seen so much as a corner of the quibbler anywhere in the school, the whole place seemed to be quoting the interview at each other. Harry heard them whispering about it as they queued up outside classes, discussing it over lunch and in the back of lessons, while Hermione even reported that every occupant of the cubicles in the girls' toilets had been talking about it when she nipped in there before ancient runes. And then they spotted me, and obviously they know I know you, so they were bombarding me with questions, Hermione told Harry, her eyes shining. And Harry... I think they believed you. I really do. I think you've finally got them convinced. Meanwhile, Professor Umbridge was stalking the school, stopping students at random and demanding that they turn out their books and pockets. Harry knew she was looking for copies of the quibbler, but the students were several steps ahead of her. The pages carrying Harry's interview had been bewitched to resemble extracts from textbooks if anyone but themselves read it, or else wiped magically blank until they wanted to peruse it again. Soon it seemed that every single person in the school had read it. The teachers were, of course, forbidden from mentioning the interview by Educational Decree Number 26, but they found ways to express their feelings about it all the same. Professor Sprout awarded Gryffindor twenty points when Harry passed her a watering can. A beaming Professor Flitwick pressed a box of squeaking sugar mice on him at the end of charms, said, Shh, and hurried away. And Professor Trelawney broke into hysterical sobs during divination and announced to the startled class and a very disapproving umbrage that Harry was not going to suffer an early death after all, but would live to a ripe old age, become Minister of Magic, and have twelve children. But what made Harry happiest was Cho catching up with him as he was hurrying along to Transfiguration the next day. Before he knew what had happened, her hand was in his, and she was breathing in his ear. I'm really, really sorry. That interview was so brave. It made me cry. He was sorry to hear she had shed even more tears over it, but very glad they were on speaking terms again, and even more pleased when she gave him a swift kiss on the cheek and hurried off again. And, unbelievably, no sooner had he arrived outside Transfiguration than something just as good happened. Seamus stepped out of the queue to face him. I just wanted to see... He mumbled, squinting at Harry's left knee. I believe you, and I've sent a copy of that magazine to me, ma'am. 
If anything more was needed to complete Harry's happiness, it was Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle's reactions. He saw them with their heads together later that afternoon in the library. Together with a weedy-looking boy, Hermione whispered was called Theodore Knott. They looked around at Harry as he browsed the shelves for the book he needed on partial vanishment, and Goyle cracked his knuckles threateningly, and Malfoy whispered something undoubtedly malevolent to Crabbe. Harry knew perfectly well why they were acting like this. He had named all of their fathers as Death Eaters. And the best bit is, whispered Hermione gleefully as they left the library, they can't contradict you, because they can't admit they've read the article. To cap it all, Luna told him over dinner that no copy of the Quibbler had ever sold out faster. Dad's reprinting, she told Harry, her eyes popping excitedly. He can't believe it. He says people seem even more interested in this than the crumpled horned Snorkax. Harry was a hero in the Gryffindor common room that night. Daringly, Fred and George had put an enlargement charm on the front cover of the quibbler and hung it on the wall so that Harry's giant head gazed down upon the proceedings, occasionally saying things like, The Ministry are morons, and Eat Dung, Umbridge, in a booming voice. Hermione did not find this very amusing. She said it interfered with her concentration and ended up going to bed early out of irritation. Harry had to admit that the poster was not quite as funny after an hour or two, especially when the talking spell had started to wear off, so that it merely shouted disconnected words like dung and umbrage at more and more frequent intervals in a progressively higher voice. In fact, it started to make his head ache and his scar began prickling uncomfortably again. Two disappointed moans from the many people who were sitting around him, asking him to relive his interview for the umpteenth time. He announced that he too needed an early night. The dormitory was empty when he reached it. He rested his forehead for a moment against the cool glass of the window beside his bed. It felt soothing against his scar. Then he undressed and got into bed, wishing his headache would go away. He also felt slightly sick. He rolled over onto his side, closed his eyes, and fell asleep almost at once. He was standing in a dark, curtained room lit by a single branch of candles. His hands were clenched on the back of a chair in front of him. They were long-fingered and white, as though they had not seen sunlight for years, and looked like large, pale spiders against the dark velvet of the chair. Beyond the chair, in a pool of light cast upon the floor by the candles, knelt a man in black robes. "'I have been badly advised, it seems.' said Harry, in a high, cold voice that pulsed with anger. Master, I crave your pardon, croaked the man kneeling on the floor. The back of his head glimmered in the candlelight. He seemed to be trembling. I do not blame you, Rookwood, said Harry in that cold, cruel voice. He relinquished his grip upon the chair and walked around it, closer to the man cowering upon the floor, until he stood directly over him in the darkness, looking down from a far greater height than usual. "'You are sure of your facts, Rokewood?' asked Harry. "'Yes, my lord, yes. I used to work in the department after—after after all—' "'Avery told me Bode would be able to remove it.' "'Bode could never have taken it, master.' Bode would have known he could not. Undoubtedly that is why he fought so hard against Malfoy's imperious curse. Stand up, Rookwood, whispered Harry.
The kneeling man almost fell over in his haste to obey. His face was pockmarked. The scars were thrown into relief by the candlelight. He remained a little stooped when standing, as though halfway through a bow, and he darted terrified looks up at Harry's face. You have done well to tell me this, said Harry. Very well. I have wasted months on fruitless schemes, it seems. But no matter, we begin again from now. You have Lord Voldemort's gratitude, Rookwood. My lord, yes, my lord, gasped Rookwood, his voice hoarse with relief. I shall need your help. I shall need all the information you can give me. Of course, my lord, of course. Anything. Very well, you may go. Send Avery to me. Rookwood scurried backward, bowing, and disappeared through a door. Left alone in the dark room, Harry turned toward the wall. A cracked, age-spotted mirror hung on the wall in the shadows. Harry moved toward it. His reflection grew larger and clearer in the darkness. A face whiter than a skull, red eyes with slits for pupils. No! What? yelled a voice nearby. Harry flailed around madly, became entangled in the hangings, and fell out of his bed. For a few seconds he did not know where he was. He was convinced that he was about to see the white, skull-like face looming at him out of the dark again. Then Ron's voice spoke very near to him. Will you stop acting like a maniac and I can get you out of here? Ron wrenched the hangings apart, and Harry stared up at him in the moonlight, as he lay flat on his back, his scar searing with pain. Ron looked as though he had just been getting ready for bed. One arm was out of his robes. Has someone been attacked again? asked Ron, pulling Harry roughly to his feet. Is it Dad? Is it that snake? No, everyone's fine, gasped Harry, whose forehead felt as though it was on fire again. Well, Avery isn't. He's in trouble. He gave him the wrong information. He's really angry. Harry groaned and sank shaking onto his bed, rubbing his scar. But Rookwood's going to help him now. He's on the right track again. What are you talking about? said Ron, sounding scared. Do you mean, did you just see you-know-who? I was you-know-who, said Harry, and he stretched out his hands in the darkness and held them up to his face to check that they were no longer deathly white and long-fingered. He was with Rookwood. He's one of the Death Eaters who escaped from Azkaban, remember? Rookwood's just told him Bode couldn't have done it. Done what? Remove something. He said Bode would have known he couldn't have done it. Bode was under the Imperious Curse. I think he said Malfoy's dad put it on him. Bode was bewitched to remove something, Ron said. But Harry, that's got to be the weapon. Harry finished the sentence for him. I know. The dormitory door opened. Dean and Seamus came in. Harry swung his legs back into bed. He did not want to look as though anything odd had just happened, seeing as Seamus had only just stopped thinking Harry was a nutter. Did you say, murmured Ron, putting his head close to Harry's on the pretense of helping himself to water from the jug on his bedside table, that you were you-know-who? Yeah, said Harry quietly. Ron took an unnecessarily large gulp of water. Harry saw it spill over his chin onto his chest. Harry! he said, as Dean and Seamus clattered around noisily, pulling off their robes and talking. You've got to tell. I haven't got to tell anyone, said Harry shortly. I wouldn't have seen it at all if I could do occlumency. I'm supposed to have learnt to shut this stuff out. That's what they want. By they, he meant Dumbledore. 
He got back into bed and rolled over onto his side with his back to Ron, and after a while he heard Ron's mattress creak as he lay back down too. His scar began to burn. He bit hard on his pillow to stop himself making a noise. Somewhere he knew Avery was being punished. Harry and Ron waited until break next morning to tell Hermione exactly what had happened. They wanted to be absolutely sure they could not be overheard. Standing in their usual corner of the cool and breezy courtyard, Harry told her every detail of the dream he could remember. When he had finished, she said nothing at all for a few moments, but stared with a kind of painful intensity at Fred and George, who were both headless and selling their magical hats from under their cloaks on the other side of the yard. So that's why they killed him, she said quietly, withdrawing her gaze from Fred and George at last. When Bode tried to steal this weapon, something funny happened to him. I think there must be defensive spells on it, or around it, to stop people from touching it. That's why he was instant mungos. His brain had gone all funny and he couldn't talk. But remember what the healer told us. He was recovering, and they couldn't risk him getting better, could they? I mean, the shock of whatever happened when he touched that weapon probably made the Imperious Curse lift. Once he'd got his voice back, he'd explain what he'd been doing, wouldn't he? They would have known he'd been sent to steal the weapon. Of course, it would have been easy for Lucius Malfoy to put the curse on him. Never out of the Ministry, is he? He was even hanging around that day I had my hearing, said Harry, in the... Hang on, he said slowly. He was in the Department of Mysteries corridor that day. Your dad said he was probably trying to sneak down and find out what happened in my hearing. But what if... Sturgis, gasped Hermione, looking thunderstruck. Sorry? said Ron, looking bewildered. Sturgis Podmore, said Hermione breathlessly, arrested for trying to get through a door. Lucius Malfoy got him too. I bet he did it the day you saw him there, Harry. Sturgis had Moody's invisibility cloak, right? So, what if he was standing guard by the door, invisible, and Malfoy heard him move, or guessed he was there, or just did the imperious curse on the off chance that a guard was there. So when Sturgis next had an opportunity, probably when it was his turn on guard duty again, he tried to get into the department to steal the weapon for Voldemort. Ron, be quiet. But he got caught and sent to Azkaban. She gazed at Harry. And now Rookwood's told Voldemort how to get the weapon? I didn't hear all the conversation, but that's what it sounded like, said Harry. Rookwood used to work there. Maybe Voldemort'll send Rookwood to do it? Hermione nodded, apparently still lost in thought. Then, quite abruptly, she said, But you shouldn't have seen this at all, Harry. What? he said, taken aback. You're supposed to be learning how to close your mind to this sort of thing, said Hermione, suddenly stern. I know I am, said Harry, but... Well... I think we should just try and forget what you saw, said Hermione firmly, and you ought to put in a bit more effort on your occlumency from now on. Harry was so angry with her that he did not talk to her for the rest of the day, which proved to be another bad one. When people were not discussing the escaped Death Eaters in the corridors today, they were laughing at Gryffindor's abysmal performance in their match against Hufflepuff. The Slytherins were singing Weasley is our king so loudly and frequently that by sundown Filch had banned it from the corridors out of sheer irritation. The week did not improve as it progressed. Harry received two more D's in potions, was still on tenterhooks that Hagrid might get the sack, 
and could not stop himself from dwelling on the dream in which he had seen Voldemort, though he did not bring it up with Ron and Hermione again, because he did not want another telling off from Hermione. He wished very much that he could have talked to Sirius about it, but that was out of the question, so he tried to push the matter to the back of his mind. Unfortunately, the back of his mind was no longer the secure place it had once been. Get up, Potter! A couple of weeks after his dream of Rookwood, Harry was to be found yet again kneeling on the floor of Snape's office, trying to clear his head. He had just been forced yet again to relive a stream of very early memories he had not even realized he still had, most of them concerning humiliations Dudley and his gang had inflicted upon him in primary school. That last memory, said Snape, what was it? I don't know, said Harry, getting wearily to his feet. He was finding it increasingly difficult to disentangle separate memories from the rush of images and sound that Snape kept calling forth. You mean the one where my cousin tried to make me stand in the toilet? No, said Snape softly. I mean the one concerning a man kneeling in the middle of a darkened room. It's nothing, said Harry. Snape's dark eyes bored into Harry's. Remembering what Snape had said about eye contact being crucial in legitimacy, Harry blinked and looked away. How do that man in that room come to be inside your head, Potter? said Snape. It, said Harry, looking everywhere but at Snape, it was just a dream I had. A dream, repeated Snape. There was a pause during which Harry stared fixedly at a large dead frog suspended in a purple liquid in its jar. You do know why we are here, don't you, Potter? said Snape in a low, dangerous voice. You do know why I am giving up my evenings to this tedious job? Yes, said Harry stiffly. Remind me why we are here, Potter. So I can learn occlumency, said Harry, now glaring at a dead eel. Correct, Potter, and dim though you may be, Harry looked back at Snape, hating him. I would have thought that after two months' worth of lessons, you might have made some progress. How many other dreams about the Dark Lord have you had? Just that one, lied Harry. Perhaps, said Snape, his dark, cold eyes narrowing slightly. Perhaps you actually enjoy having these visions and dreams, Potter. Maybe they make you feel special, important? No, they don't said Harry, his jaw set and his fingers clenched tightly around the handle of his wand. That is just as well, Potter, said Snape coldly, because you are neither special nor important, and it is not up to you to find out what the Dark Lord is saying to his Death Eaters. No, that's your job, isn't it? Harry shot at him. He had not meant to say it. It had burst out of him in temper. For a long moment they stared at each other, Harry convinced he had gone too far, but there was a curious, almost satisfied expression on Snape's face when he answered. Yes, Potter, he said, his eyes glinting. That is my job. Now, if you are ready, we will start again. He raised his wand. One, two, three, legilimens! A hundred Dementors were swooping toward Harry across the lake in the grounds. He screwed up his face in concentration. They were coming closer. He could see the dark holes beneath their hoods. Yet he could also see Snape standing in front of him, his eyes fixed upon Harry's face, muttering under his breath.
and somehow Snape was growing clearer, and the Dementors were growing fainter. Harry raised his own wand. Protego! Snape staggered. His wand flew upward away from Harry, and suddenly Harry's mind was teeming with memories that were not his. A hook-nosed man was shouting at a cowering woman, while a small dark-haired boy cried in a corner. A greasy-haired teenager sat alone in a dark bedroom, pointing his wand at the ceiling, shooting down flies. A girl was laughing as a scrawny boy tried to mount a bucking broomstick. Enough! Harry felt as though he had been pushed hard in the chest. He took several staggering steps backward, hit some of the shelves covering Snape's walls, and heard something crack. Snape was shaking slightly, very white in the face. The back of Harry's robes were damp. One of the jars behind him had broken when he fell against it. The pickled, slimy thing within was swirling in its draining potion. Repero! hissed Snape, and the jar sealed itself once more. Well, Potter, that was certainly an improvement. Panting slightly, Snape straightened the pensive in which he had again stored some of his thoughts before starting the lesson, almost as though checking that they were still there. I don't remember telling you to use a shield charm, but there is no doubt that it was effective. Harry did not speak. He felt that to say anything might be dangerous. He was sure he had just broken into Snape's memories, that he had just seen scenes from Snape's childhood, and it was unnerving to think that the crying little boy who had watched his parents shouting was actually standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. Let's try again, shall we? said Snape. Harry felt a thrill of dread. He was about to pay for what had just happened, he was sure of it. They moved back into position with a desk between them, Harry feeling he was going to find it much harder to empty his mind this time. On the count of three, then, said Snape, raising his wand once more. One, two. Harry did not have time to gather himself together and attempt to clear his mind, for Snape had already cried. Legilimens! He was hurtling along the corridor toward the Department of Mysteries, past the blank stone walls, past the torches, the plain black door was growing ever larger. He was moving so fast he was going to collide with it. He was feet from it, and he could see that chink of faint blue light again. The door had flown open. He was through it at last, inside a black-walled, black-floored circular room lit with blue-flamed candles, and there were more doors all around him. He needed to go on, but which door ought he to take? Hatsa! Harry opened his eyes. He was flat on his back again, with no memory of having gotten there. He was also panting as though he really had run the length of the Department of Mysteries corridor, really had sprinted through the black door and found the circular room. Explain yourself, said Snape, who was standing over him, looking furious. I don't know what happened, said Harry, truthfully standing up. There was a lump on the back of his head from where he had hit the ground, and he felt feverish. I've never seen that before. I mean, I've told you I've dreamed about the door, but it's never opened before. You are not working hard enough. For some reason, Snape seemed even angrier than he had done two minutes before, when Harry had seen into his own memories. You are lazy and sloppy, Potter. It is small wonder that the Dark Lord... Can you tell me something, sir? said Harry, firing up again. Why do you call Voldemort the Dark Lord? I've only ever heard Death Eaters call him that. Snape opened his mouth in a snarl, and a woman screamed from somewhere outside the room. Snape's head jerked upward. He was gazing at the ceiling. What the? he muttered.
Harry could hear a muffled commotion coming from what he thought might be the entrance hall. Snape looked around at him, frowning. Did you see anything unusual on your way down here, Potter? Harry shook his head. Somewhere above them the woman screamed again. Snape strode to his office door, his wand still held at the ready, and swept out of sight. Harry hesitated for a moment, then followed. The screams were indeed coming from the entrance hall. They grew louder as Harry ran toward the stone steps leading up from the dungeons. When he reached the top, he found the entrance hall packed. Students had come flooding out of the great hall, where dinner was still in progress, to see what was going on. Others had crammed themselves onto the marble staircase. Harry pushed forward through a knot of tall Slytherins and saw that the onlookers had formed a great ring, some of them looking shocked, others even frightened. Professor McGonagall was directly opposite Harry on the other side of the hall. She looked as though what she was watching made her feel faintly sick. Professor Trelawney was standing in the middle of the entrance hall with her wand in one hand and an empty sherry bottle in the other, looking utterly mad. Her hair was sticking up on end. Her glasses were lopsided, so that one eye was magnified more than the other. Her innumerable shawls and scarves were trailing haphazardly from her shoulders, giving the impression that she was falling apart at the seams. Two large trunks lay on the floor beside her, one of them upside down. It looked very much as though it had been thrown down the stairs after her. Professor Trelawney was staring, apparently terrified, at something Harry could not see but that seemed to be standing at the foot of the stairs. No! she shrieked. No! This cannot be happening! It cannot! I refuse to accept it! You didn't realize this was coming? said a high girlish voice, sounding callously amused, and Harry, moving slightly to his right, saw that Trelawney's terrifying vision was nothing other than Professor Umbridge. Incapable though you are of predicting even tomorrow's weather, you must surely have realized that your pitiful performance during my inspections and lack of any improvement would make it inevitable you would be sacked. You can't. Howled Professor Trelawney, tears streaming down her face from behind her enormous lenses. You c can't sack me. I've been here sixteen years. H Hogwarts is m my h home. It was your home, said Professor Umbridge, and Harry was revolted to see the enjoyment stretching her toad-like face as she watched Professor Trelawney sink, sobbing uncontrollably, onto one of her trunks. Until an hour ago, when the Minister of Magic countersigned the order for your dismissal. Now kindly remove yourself from this hall. You are embarrassing us. But she stood and watched, with an expression of gloating enjoyment, as Professor Trelawney shuddered and moaned, rocking backward and forward on her trunk in paroxysms of grief. Harry heard a sob to his left and looked around. Lavender and Pavati were both crying silently, their arms around each other. Then he heard footsteps. Professor McGonagall had broken away from the spectators, marched straight up to Professor Trelawney, and was patting her firmly on the back while withdrawing a large handkerchief from within her robes. There, there, Sybil, calm down. Blow your nose on this. It's not as bad as you think now. You're not going to have to leave Hogwarts. Oh, really, Professor McGonagall? said Umbridge in a deadly voice, taking a few steps forward. And your authority for that statement is... 
That would be mine, said a deep voice. The oak front doors had swung open. Students beside them scuttled out of the way as Dumbledore appeared in the entrance. What he had been doing out in the grounds Harry could not imagine, but there was something impressive about the sight of him framed in the doorway against an oddly misty night. Leaving the doors wide behind him, he strode forward through the circle of onlookers toward the place where Professor Trelawney sat, tear-stained and trembling, upon her trunk, Professor McGonagall alongside her. Yours, Professor Dumbledore? said Umbridge, with a singularly unpleasant little laugh. I'm afraid you do not understand the position. I have here, she pulled a parchment scroll from within her robes, an order of dismissal signed by myself and the Minister of Magic. Under the terms of Educational Decree Number 23, the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts has the power to inspect, place upon probation, and sack any teacher she, that is to say, I feel is not performing up to the standard required by the Ministry of Magic. I have decided that Professor Trelawney is not up to scratch. I have dismissed her. To Harry's very great surprise, Dumbledore continued to smile. He looked down at Professor Trelawney, who was still sobbing and choking on her trunk, and said, You are quite right, of course, Professor Umbridge. As High Inquisitor, you have every right to dismiss my teachers. You do not, however, have the authority to send them away from the castle. I am afraid, he went on with a courteous little bow, that the power to do that still resides with the headmaster, and it is my wish that Professor Trelawney continue to live at Hogwarts. At this, Professor Trelawney gave a wild little laugh in which a hiccup was barely hidden. No, no, I'll go, Dumbledore. I sh shall l leave Hogwarts and s seek my fortune elsewhere. No, said Dumbledore sharply. It is my wish that you remain, Sybil. He turned to Professor McGonagall. Might I ask you to escort Sybil back upstairs, Professor McGonagall? Of course, said McGonagall. Up you get, Sybil. Professor Sprout came hurrying forward out of the crowd and grabbed Professor Trelawney's other arm. Together they guided her past Umbridge and up the marble stairs. Professor Flitwick went scurrying after them, his wand held out before him. He squeaked, Locomotor trunks! And Professor Trelawney's luggage rose into the air and proceeded up the staircase after her, Professor Flitwick bringing up the rear. Professor Umbridge was standing stock still, staring at Dumbledore, who continued to smile benignly. And what? she said in a whisper that nevertheless carried all around the entrance hall. Are you going to do with her once I appoint a new divination teacher who needs her lodgings? Oh, that won't be a problem, said Dumbledore pleasantly. You see, I have already found us a new divination teacher, and he will prefer lodgings on the ground floor. You've found, said Umbridge shrilly, you've found? Might I remind you, Dumbledore, that under Educational Decree 22, the Ministry has the right to appoint a suitable candidate if, and only if, the Headmaster is unable to find one, said Dumbledore. And I am happy to say that on this occasion I have succeeded. May I introduce you? He turned to face the open front doors, through which night mist was now drifting. Harry heard hooves. There was a shocked murmur around the hall, and those nearest the doors hastily moved even farther backward, 
some of them tripping over in their haste to clear a path for the newcomer. Through the mist came a face Harry had seen once before on a dark, dangerous night in the Forbidden Forest. White blonde hair and astonishingly blue eyes, the head and torso of a man joined to the palomino body of a horse. This is Ferenzi, said Dumbledore happily to a thunderstruck umbrage. I think you'll find him suitable. Chapter 27 The Centaur and the Sneak I'll bet you wish you hadn't given up divination now, don't you, Hermione? asked Pavati, smirking. It was breakfast time a few days after the sacking of Professor Trelawney, and Pavati was curling her eyelashes around her wand and examining the effect in the back of her spoon. They were to have their first lesson with Ferenzi that morning. Not really, said Hermione indifferently, who was reading the Daily Prophet. I've never really liked horses. She turned a page of the newspaper, scanning its columns. He's not a horse, he's a centaur, said Lavender, sounding shocked. A gorgeous centaur, sighed Pavati. Either way, he's still got four legs, said Hermione coolly. Anyway, I thought you two were all upset that Trelawney had gone. We are, Lavender assured her. We went up to her office to see her. We took her some daffodils. Not the honking ones that Sprout's got. Nice ones. How is she? asked Harry. Not very good, poor thing, said Lavender sympathetically. She was crying and saying she'd rather leave the castle forever than stay here if Umbridge is still here, and I don't blame her. Umbridge was horrible to her, wasn't she? I've got a feeling Umbridge has only just started being horrible, said Hermione darkly. Impossible said Ron, who was tucking into a large plate of eggs and bacon. She can't get any worse than she's been already. You mark my words, she's going to want revenge on Dumbledore for appointing a new teacher without consulting her, said Hermione, closing the newspaper. Especially another part human. You saw the look on her face when she saw Ferenzi? After breakfast, Hermione departed for her arithmancy class, and Harry and Ron followed Pavati and Lavender into the entrance hall, heading for divination. Aren't we going up to North Tower? asked Ron, looking puzzled as Pavati bypassed the marble staircase. Pavati looked scornfully over her shoulder at him. How do you expect Ferenzi to climb that ladder? We're in Classroom 11 now. It was on the notice board yesterday. Classroom 11 was situated in the ground floor corridor, leading off the entrance hall on the opposite side to the Great Hall. Harry knew it to be one of those classrooms that were never used regularly, and that it therefore had the slightly neglected feeling of a cupboard or storeroom. When he entered it right behind Ron and found himself right in the middle of a forest clearing, he was therefore momentarily stunned. What the— The classroom floor had become springily mossy, and trees were growing out of it. Their leafy branches fanned across the ceiling and windows, so that the room was full of slanting shafts of soft, dappled green light. The students who had already arrived were sitting on the earthy floor with their backs resting against tree trunks or boulders, arms wrapped around their knees or folded tightly across their chests, looking rather nervous. In the middle of the room where there were no trees stood Ferenzi. Harry Potter, he said, holding out a hand when Harry entered. Ah, uh, hi, said Harry, shaking hands with the centaur, who surveyed him unblinkingly through those astonishingly blue eyes, but did not smile. 
Ah, uh, good to see you. And you, said the centaur, inclining his white blonde head. It was foretold that we would meet again. Harry noticed that there was a shadow of a hoof-shaped bruise on Ferenzi's chest. As he turned to join the rest of the class upon the floor, he saw that they were all looking at him with awe, apparently deeply impressed that he was on speaking terms with Ferenzi, whom they seemed to find intimidating. When the door was closed and the last student had sat down upon a tree stump beside the waste-paper basket, Ferenzi gestured around the room. Professor Dumbledore has kindly arranged this classroom for us, said Ferenzi, when everyone had settled down. In imitation of my natural habitat, I would have preferred to teach you in the Forbidden Forest, which was until Monday my home, but this is not possible. Please, uh, sir, said Povati, breathlessly raising her hand. Why not? We've been in there with Hagrid. We're not frightened. It is not a question of your bravery, said Ferenzi, but of my position. I can no longer return to the forest. My herd has banished me. Herd? said Lavender in a confused voice, and Harry knew she was thinking of cows. What? Oh! Comprehension dawned on her face. There are more of you? she said, stunned. Did Hagrid breed you like the Thestrals? asked Dean eagerly. Ferenzi turned his head very slowly to face Dean, who seemed to realize at once that he had said something very offensive. I didn't. I meant... Sorry, he finished in a hushed voice. Centaurs are not the servants or playthings of humans, said Ferenzi quietly. There was a pause, then Parvati raised her hand again. Please, sir, why have the other centaurs banished you? Because I have agreed to work for Professor Dumbledore, said Ferenzi. They see this as a betrayal of our kind. Harry remembered how nearly four years ago the centaur Bane had shouted at Ferenzi for allowing Harry to ride to safety upon his back, calling him a common mule. He wondered whether it had been Bane who had kicked Ferenzi in the chest. Let us begin, said Ferenzi. He swished his long palomino tail, raised his hand toward the leafy canopy overhead, then lowered it slowly and as he did so, the light in the room dimmed, so that they now seemed to be sitting in a forest clearing by twilight, and stars emerged upon the ceiling. There were oohs and gasps, and Ron said audibly, Blimey! Lie back upon the floor, said Ferenzi in his calm voice, and observe the heavens. Here is written for those who can see the fortune of our races. Harry stretched out on his back and gazed upward at the ceiling, a twinkling red star winked at him from overhead. I know that you have learned the names of the planets and their moons in astronomy, said Ferenzi's calm voice, and that you have mapped the star's progress through the heavens. Centaurs have unraveled the mysteries of these movements over centuries. Our findings teach us that the future may be glimpsed in the sky above us. Professor Trelawney did astrology with us, said Pavati excitedly raising her hand in front of her so that it stuck up in the air as she lay on her back. Mars causes accidents and burns and things like that, and when it makes an angle to Saturn, like now, she drew a right angle in the air above her. That means that people need to be extra careful when handling hot things. That, said Ferenzi calmly, is human nonsense. Pavati's hand fell limply to her side. Trivial hurts, tiny human accidents, said Ferenzi, as his hooves thudded over the mossy floor. 
These are of no more significance than the scurryings of ants to the wide universe and are unaffected by planetary movements. Professor Trelawney, began Pavati in a hurt and indignant voice, is a human, said Ferenzi simply, and is therefore blinkered and fettered by the limitations of your kind. Harry turned his head very slightly to look at Pavati. She looked very offended, as did several of the people surrounding her. Sybil Trelawney may have seen, I do not know, continued Ferenzi, and Harry heard the swishing of his tail again as he walked up and down before them. But she wastes her time in the main on the self-flattering nonsense humans call fortune-telling. I, however, am here to explain the wisdom of centaurs, which is impersonal and impartial. We watch the skies for the great tides of evil or change that are sometimes marked there. It may take ten years to be sure of what we are seeing. Ferenzi pointed to the red star directly above Harry. In the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must break out again soon. How soon? Centaurs may attempt to divine by the burning of certain herbs and leaves, by the observation of fume and flame. It was the most unusual lesson Harry had ever attended. They did indeed burn sage and mallow sweet there on the classroom floor, and Ferenzi told them to look for certain shapes and symbols in the pungent fumes, but he seemed perfectly unconcerned that not one of them could see any of the signs he described, telling them that humans were hardly ever good at this, that it took centaurs years and years to become competent, and finished by telling them that it was foolish to put too much faith in such things anyway, because even centaurs sometimes read them wrongly. He was nothing like any human teacher Harry had ever had. His priority did not seem to be to teach them what he knew, but rather to impress upon them that nothing, not even Centaur's knowledge, was foolproof. He's not very definite on anything, is he? said Ron in a low voice as they put out their mallow-sweet fire. I mean, I could do with a few more details about this war we're about to have, couldn't you? The bell rang right outside the classroom door, and everyone jumped. Harry had completely forgotten that they were still inside the castle, quite convinced that he was really in the forest. The class filed out, looking slightly perplexed. Harry and Ron were on the point of following them when Ferenzi called, Harry Potter, a word, please? Harry turned. The centaur advanced a little toward him. Ron hesitated. You may stay, Ferenzi told him, but close the door, please. Ron hastened to obey. Harry Potter, you are a friend of Hagrid's, are you not? said the centaur. Yes, said Harry. Then give him a warning from me. His attempt is not working. He would do better to abandon it. His attempt is not working, Harry repeated blankly. And he would do better to abandon it, said Ferenzi, nodding. I would warn Hagrid myself, but I am banished. It would be unwise for me to go too near the forest now. Hagrid has troubles enough without a centaur's battle. But what's Hagrid attempting to do? said Harry nervously. Ferenzi surveyed Harry impassively. Hagrid has recently rendered me a great service, said Ferenzi. And he has long since earned my respect for the care he shows all living creatures. I shall not betray his secret, but he must be brought to his senses. The attempt is not working. Tell him, Harry Potter. Good day to you. 
The happiness Harry had felt in the aftermath of the Quibbler interview had long since evaporated. As a dull march blurred into a squally April, his life seemed to have become one long series of worries and problems again. Umbridge had continued attending all Care of Magical Creatures lessons, so it had been very difficult to deliver Ferenzi's warning to Hagrid. At last Harry had managed it by pretending he had lost his copy of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and doubling back after class one day. When he repeated Ferenzi's words, Hagrid gazed at him for a moment through his puffy, blackened eyes, apparently taken aback. Then he seemed to pull himself together. Nice bloke, Ferenzi, he said gruffly. But he don't know what he's talking about on this. The attempt's coming on fine. Hagrid, what are you up to? asked Harry seriously. Because you've got to be careful. Umbridge has already sacked Trelawney, and if you ask me, she's on a roll. If you're doing anything you shouldn't be, there's things more important than keeping a job, said Hagrid, though his hands shook slightly as he said this, and a basin full of gnarl droppings crashed to the floor. Don't worry about me, Harry. Just get along now. There's a good lad. Harry had no choice but to leave Hagrid mopping up the dung all over his floor, and he felt thoroughly dispirited as he trudged back up to the castle. Meanwhile, as the teachers and Hermione persisted in reminding them, the OWLs were drawing ever nearer. All the fifth years were suffering from stress to some degree, but Hannah Abbott became the first to receive a calming draft from Madame Pomfrey after she burst into tears during herbology and sobbed that she was too stupid to take exams and wanted to leave school now. If it had not been for the DA lessons, Harry thought he would have been extremely unhappy. He sometimes felt that he was living for the hours he spent in the room of requirement working hard but thoroughly enjoying himself at the same time, swelling with pride as he looked around at his fellow DA members and saw how far they had come. Indeed, Harry sometimes wondered how Umbridge was going to react when all the members of the DA received outstanding in their Defense Against the Dark Arts OWLs. They had finally started work on Patronuses, which everybody had been very keen to practice, though, as Harry kept reminding them, Producing a Patronus in the middle of a brightly lit classroom when they were not under threat was very different to producing it when confronted by something like a Dementor. Oh, don't be such a killjoy, said Cho brightly, watching her silvery swan-shaped Patronus soar around the room of requirement during their last lesson before Easter. They're so pretty. They're not supposed to be pretty, they're supposed to protect you, said Harry patiently. What we really need is a bog art or something. That's how I learned. I had to conjure a Patronus while the bog art was pretending to be a Dementor. But that would be really scary, said Lavender, who was shooting puffs of silver vapor out of the end of her wand. And I still can't do it, she added angrily. Neville was having trouble, too. His face was screwed up in concentration, but only feeble wisps of silver smoke issued from his wand tip. You've got to think of something happy, Harry reminded him. I'm trying, said Neville miserably, who was trying so hard, his round face was actually shining with sweat. Harry, I think I'm doing it, yelled Seamus, who had been brought along to his first ever DA meeting by Dean. Look, ah, it's gone. But it was definitely something hairy, Harry. Hermione's Patronus, a shining silver otter, was gambling around her. They are sort of nice, aren't they? She said, looking at it fondly. 
The door of the room of requirement opened and then closed again. Harry looked around to see who had entered, but there did not seem to be anybody there. It was a few moments before he realized that the people close to the door had fallen silent. Next thing he knew, something was tugging at his robe somewhere near the knee. He looked down and saw, to his very great astonishment, Dobby, the house-elf, peering up at him from beneath his usual eight hats. Hi, Dobby, he said. What are you— What's wrong? For the elf's eyes were wide with terror, and he was shaking. The members of the D.A. closest to Harry had fallen silent now. Everybody in the room was watching Dobby. The few Patronuses people had managed to conjure faded away into silver mist, leaving the room looking much darker than before. Harry Potter, sir, squeaked the elf, trembling from head to foot. Harry Potter, sir, Dobby has come to warn you. But the house elves have been warned not to tell. He ran headfirst at the wall. Harry, who had some experience of Dobby's habits of self-punishment, made to seize him, but Dobby merely bounced off the stone, cushioned by his eight hats. Hermione and a few of the other girls let out squeaks of fear and sympathy. What's happened, Dobby? Harry asked, grabbing the elf's tiny arm and holding him away from anything with which he might seek to hurt himself. Harry Potter, she, she... Dobby hit himself hard on the nose with his free fist. Harry seized that, too. Who's she, Dobby? But he thought he knew. Surely only one she could induce such fear in Dobby. The elf looked up at him, slightly cross-eyed and mouthed wordlessly. Umbridge? asked Harry, horrified. Dobby nodded, then tried to bang his head off Harry's knees. Harry held him at bay. What about her? Dobby, she hasn't found out about this, about us, about the D.A. He read the answer in the elf's stricken face. His hands held fast by Harry. The elf tried to kick himself and fell to the floor. Is she coming? Harry asked quietly. Dobby let out a howl and began beating his bare feet hard on the floor. Yes, Harry Potter, yes. Harry straightened up and looked around at the motionless, terrified people gazing at the thrashing elf. What are you waiting for? Harry bellowed. Run! They all pelted toward the exit at once, forming a scrum at the door. Then people burst through. Harry could hear them sprinting along the corridors and hoped that they had the sense not to try and make it all the way to their dormitories. It was only ten to nine. If they just took refuge in the library or the owlery, which were both nearer... Harry! Come on! shrieked Hermione from the center of the knot of people now fighting to get out. He scooped up Dobby, who was still attempting to do himself serious injury, and ran with the elf in his arms to join the back of the queue. Dobby, this is an order. Get back down to the kitchen with the other elves, and if she asks you whether you warned me, lie and say no, said Harry. And I forbid you to hurt yourself, he added, dropping the elf as he made it over the threshold at last and slamming the door behind him. Thank you, Harry Potter, squeaked Dobby, and he streaked off. Harry glanced left and right. The others were all moving so fast that he caught only glimpses of flying heels at either end of the corridor before they vanished. He started to run right. There was a boy's bathroom up ahead. He could pretend he'd been in there all the time. If he could just reach it— Ah! Something caught him around the ankles and he fell spectacularly, skidding along on his front for six feet before coming to a halt. Someone behind him was laughing. He rolled over onto his back and saw Malfoy concealed in a niche beneath an ugly dragon-shaped vase. Trip, Jinx Potter, 
he said. Hey, Professor! Professor! I've got one! Umbridge came bustling around the far corner, breathless but wearing a delighted smile. It's him, she said jubilantly at the sight of Harry on the floor. Excellent, Draco, excellent. Oh, very good. Fifty points to Slytherin. I'll take him from here. Stand up, Potter. Harry got to his feet, glaring at the pair of them. He had never seen Umbridge looking so happy. She seized his arm in a vice-like grip and turned, beaming broadly to Malfoy. You hop along and see if you can round up any more of them, Draco, she said. Tell the others to look in the library. Anybody out of breath? Check the bathrooms. Miss Parkinson can do the girls' ones. Off you go. And you, she added in her softest, most dangerous voice as Malfoy walked away. You can come with me to the headmaster's office, Potter. They were at the stone gargoyle within minutes. Harry wondered how many of the others had been caught. He thought of Ron. Mrs. Weasley would kill him and of how Hermione would feel if she was expelled before she could take her OWLs. And it had been Seamus's very first meeting, and Neville had been getting so good. Fizzing, Wisby, sang Umbridge, and the stone gargoyle jumped aside. The wall behind split open, and they ascended the moving stone staircase. They reached the polished door with a griffin knocker, but Umbridge did not bother to knock. She strode straight inside, still holding tight to Harry. The office was full of people. Dumbledore was sitting behind his desk, his expression serene, the tips of his long fingers together. Professor McGonagall stood rigidly beside him, her face extremely tense. Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic, was rocking backward and forward on his toes beside the fire, apparently immensely pleased with the situation. Kingsley Shacklebolt and a tough-looking wizard Harry did not recognize with very short, wiry hair, were positioned either side of the door like guards, and the freckled, bespectacled form of Percy Weasley hovered excitedly beside the wall, a quill and a heavy scroll of parchment in his hands, apparently poised to take notes. The portraits of old headmasters and mistresses were not shamming sleep tonight. All of them were watching what was happening below, alert and serious. As Harry entered, a few flitted into neighboring frames and whispered urgently into their neighbor's ears. Harry pulled himself free of Umbridge's grasp as the door swung shut behind them. Cornelius Fudge was glaring at him with a kind of vicious satisfaction upon his face. Well, he said, well, well, well. Harry replied with the dirtiest look he could muster. His heart drummed madly inside him, but his brain was oddly cool and clear. He was heading back to Gryffindor Tower, said Umbridge. There was an indecent excitement in her voice, the same callous pleasure Harry had heard as she watched Professor Trelawney dissolving with misery in the entrance hall. The Malfoy boy cornered him. Did he? Did he? said Fudge appreciatively. I must remember to tell Lucius. Well, Potter, I expect you know why you're here. Harry fully intended to respond with a defiant yes. His mouth had opened, and the word was half-formed, when he caught sight of Dumbledore's face. Dumbledore was not looking directly at Harry. His eyes were fixed upon a point just over his shoulder, but as Harry stared at him, he shook his head a fraction of an inch to each side. Harry changed direction mid-word. Yet no. I beg your pardon, said Fudge. No, said Harry firmly. You don't know why you're here? No, I don't, said Harry. 
Fudge looked incredulously from Harry to Professor Umbridge. Harry took advantage of his momentary inattention to steal another quick look at Dumbledore, who gave the carpet the tiniest of nods and the shadow of a wink. So you have no idea, said Fudge in a voice positively sagging with sarcasm, why Professor Umbridge has brought you to this office? You are not aware that you have broken any school rules? School rules? said Harry. No. Or ministry decrees? amended Fudge angrily. Not that I'm aware of, said Harry blandly. His heart was still hammering very fast. It was almost worth telling these lies to watch Fudge's blood pressure rising. But he could not see how on earth he would get away with them. If somebody had tipped off Umbridge about the DA, then he, the leader, might as well be packing his trunk right now. So it's news to you, is it? said Fudge, his voice now thick with anger. That an illegal student organization has been discovered within this school? Yes, it is, said Harry, hoisting an unconvincing look of innocent surprise onto his face. I think, Minister, said Umbridge silkily from beside him, we might make better progress if I fetch our informant. Yes, yes, do, said Fudge, nodding, and he glanced maliciously at Dumbledore as Umbridge left the room. There's nothing like a good witness, is there, Dumbledore? Nothing at all, Cornelius, said Dumbledore gravely, inclining his head. There was a wait of several minutes, in which nobody looked at each other. Then Harry heard the door open behind him. Umbridge moved past him into the room, gripping by the shoulder Cho's curly-haired friend Marietta, who was hiding her face in her hands. Don't be scared, dear. Don't be frightened, said Professor Umbridge softly, patting her on the back. It's quite all right now. You've done the right thing. The minister is very pleased with you. He'll be telling your mother what a good girl you've been. Marietta's mother, minister, she added, looking up at Fudge, is Madame Edgecombe from the Department of Magical Transportation Flu Network Office. She's been helping us police the Hogwarts fires, you know. Jolly good, jolly good, said Fudge heartily. Like mother, like daughter, eh? Well, come on now, dear. Look up. Don't be shy. Let's hear what you've got to... Galloping gargoyles! As Marietta raised her head, Fudge leapt backward in shock, nearly landing himself in the fire. He cursed and stamped on the hem of his cloak, which had started to smoke, and Marietta gave a wail and pulled the neck of her robes right up to her eyes, but not before the whole room had seen that her face was horribly disfigured by a series of close-set purple postules that had spread across her nose and cheeks to form the word sneak. Never mind the spots now, dear, said Umbridge impatiently. Just take your robes away from your mouth and tell the minister. But Marietta gave another muffled wail and shook her head frantically. Oh, very well, you silly girl. I'll tell him, snapped Umbridge. She hitched her sickly smile back onto her face and said, Well, minister, Miss Edgecombe here came to my office shortly after dinner this evening and told me that she had something she wanted to tell me. She said that if I proceeded to a secret room on the seventh floor, sometimes known as the room of requirement, I would find out something to my advantage. I questioned her a little further, and she admitted that there was to be some kind of meeting there. Unfortunately, at that point, this hex, she waved impatiently at Marietta's concealed face, came into operation, and upon catching sight of her face in my mirror, the girl became too distressed to tell me any more. Well, now 
said Fudge, fixing Marietta with what he evidently imagined was a kind and fatherly look. It is very brave of you, my dear, coming to tell Professor Umbridge. You did exactly the right thing. Now, will you tell me what happened at this meeting? What was its purpose? Who was there? But Marietta would not speak. She merely shook her head again, her eyes wide and fearful. Haven't we got a counter-jinx for this? Fudge asked Umbridge impatiently, gesturing at Marietta's face. So she can speak freely? I have not yet managed to find one, Umbridge admitted grudgingly, and Harry felt a surge of pride in Hermione's jinxing ability. But it doesn't matter if she won't speak. I can take up the story from here. You will remember, Minister, that I sent you a report back in October that Potter had met a number of fellow students in the Hogshead in Hogsmeade. And what is your evidence for that? Cut in, Professor McGonagall. I have testimony from Willie Widdershins, Minerva, who happened to be in the bar at the time. He was heavily bandaged, it is true, but his hearing was quite unimpaired, said Umbridge smugly. He heard every word Potter said and hastened straight to the school to report to me. Oh, so that's why he wasn't prosecuted for setting up all those regurgitating toilets, said Professor McGonagall, raising her eyebrows. What an interesting insight into our justice system. Blatant corruption, roared the portrait of the corpulent red-nosed wizard on the wall behind Dumbledore's desk. The Ministry did not cut deals with petty criminals in my day. No, sir, they did not. Thank you, Fortescue, that will do, said Dumbledore softly. The purpose of Potter's meeting with these students, continued Professor Umbridge, was to persuade them to join an illegal society, whose aim was to learn spells and curses the Ministry has decided are inappropriate for school age. I think you'll find you're wrong there, Dolores, said Dumbledore quietly, peering at her over the half-moon spectacles perched halfway down his crooked nose. Harry stared at him. He could not see how Dumbledore was going to talk him out of this one. If Willie Widdershins had indeed heard every word he said in the hogshead, there was simply no escaping it. Oh, ho, said Fudge, bouncing up and down on the balls of his feet again. Yes, do let's hear the latest cock and bull story designed to pull Potter out of trouble. Go on then, Dumbledore, go on. Willie Widdershins was lying, was he? Or was it Potter's identical twin in the hogshead that day? Or is there the usual simple explanation involving a reversal of time? A dead man coming back to life? And a couple of invisible Dementors? Percy Weasley let out a hearty laugh. Oh, very good, Minister, very good. Harry could have kicked him. Then he saw to his astonishment that Dumbledore was smiling gently too. Cornelius, I do not deny, and nor I am sure does Harry that he was in the hogshead that day, nor that he was trying to recruit students to a defense against the dark arts group. I am merely pointing out that Dolores is quite wrong to suggest that such a group was, at that time, illegal. If you remember, the ministry decree banishing all student societies was not put into effect until two days after Harry's Hogsmeade meeting. So, he was not breaking any rules in the hogshead at all. Percy looked as though he had been struck in the face by something very heavy. Fudge remained motionless in mid-bounce, his mouth hanging open. Umbridge recovered first.
That's all very fine, Headmaster, she said, smiling sweetly. But we are now nearly six months on from the introduction of Educational Decree Number 24. If the first meeting was not illegal, all those that have happened since most certainly are. Well, said Dumbledore, surveying her with polite interest over the top of his interlocking fingers, they certainly would be if they had continued after the decree came into effect. Do you have any evidence that these meetings continued? As Dumbledore spoke, Harry heard a rustle behind him and rather thought Kingsley whispered something. He could have sworn, too, that he felt something brush against his side, a gentle something like a draught or bird wings, but looking down, he saw nothing there. Evidence? repeated Umbridge, with that horribly wide toad-like smile. Have you not been listening, Dumbledore? Why do you think Miss Edgecombe is here? Oh, can she tell us about six months' worth of meetings? said Dumbledore, raising his eyebrows. I was under the impression that she was merely reporting a meeting tonight. Miss Edgecombe, said Umbridge at once, tell us how long these meetings have been going on, dear. You can simply nod or shake your head. I'm sure that won't make the spots worse. Have they been happening regularly over the last six months? Harry felt a horrible plummeting in his stomach. This was it. They had hit a dead end of solid evidence that not even Dumbledore would be able to shift aside. Just nod or shake your head, dear, Umbridge said coaxingly to Marietta. Come on now, that won't activate the jinx further. Everyone in the room was gazing at the top of Marietta's face. Only her eyes were visible between the pulled-up robes and her curly fringe. Perhaps it was a trick of the firelight, but her eyes looked oddly blank. And then, to Harry's utter amazement, Marietta shook her head. Umbridge looked quickly at Fudge, and then back at Marietta. I don't think you understood the question, did you, dear? I'm asking whether you've been going to these meetings for the past six months. You have, haven't you? Again, Marietta shook her head. What do you mean by shaking your head, dear? said Umbridge in a testy voice. I would have thought her meaning was quite clear, said Professor McGonagall harshly. There have been no secret meetings for the past six months. Is that correct, Miss Edgecombe? Marietta nodded. But there was a meeting tonight, said Umbridge furiously. There was a meeting, Miss Edgecombe. You told me about it in the Room of Requirement. And Potter was the leader, was he not? Potter organized it. Potter, why are you shaking your head, girl? Well, usually when a person shakes their head, said McGonagall coldly, they mean no. So unless Miss Edgecombe is using a form of sign language as yet unknown to humans. Professor Umbridge seized Marietta, pulled her around to face her, and began shaking her very hard. A split second later, Dumbledore was on his feet, his wand raised. Kingsley started forward. An umbridge leapt back from Marietta, waving her hands in the air as though they had been burned. I cannot allow you to manhandle my students, Dolores, said Dumbledore, and for the first time he looked angry. You want to calm yourself, Madam Umbridge, said Kingsley in his deep, slow voice. You don't want to get yourself into trouble now? No, said Umbridge breathlessly, glancing up at the towering figure of Kingsley. I mean, yes, you're right, Shacklebolt. I... I forgot myself. Marietta was standing exactly where Umbridge had released her. She seemed neither perturbed by Umbridge's sudden attack, 
nor relieved by her release. She was still clutching her robe up to her oddly blank eyes, staring straight ahead of her. A sudden suspicion connected to Kingsley's whisper and the thing he had felt shoot past him sprang into Harry's mind. Dolores, said Fudge, with the air of trying to settle something once and for all. The meeting tonight, the one we know definitely happened. Yes, said Umbridge, pulling herself together. Yes, Will. Miss Edgecombe tipped me off, and I proceeded at once to the seventh floor, accompanied by certain trustworthy students, so as to catch those in the meeting red-handed. It appears that they were forewarned of my arrival, however, because when we reached the seventh floor, they were running in every direction. It does not matter, however. I have all their names here. Miss Parkinson ran into the room of requirement for me to see if they had left anything behind. We needed evidence, and the room provided. And to Harry's horror, she withdrew from her pocket the list of names that had been pinned upon the room of requirements wall and handed it to Fudge. The moment I saw Potter's name on the list, I knew what we were dealing with, she said softly. Excellent, said Fudge, a smile spreading across his face. Excellent, Dolores, and by thunder! He looked up at Dumbledore, who was still standing beside Marietta, his wand held loosely in his hand. See what they've named themselves, said Fudge quietly. Dumbledore's army. Dumbledore reached out and took the piece of parchment from Fudge. He gazed at the heading scribbled by Hermione months before, and for a moment seemed unable to speak. Then he looked up, smiling. Well, the game is up. He said simply, Would you like a written confession from me, Cornelius, or will a statement before these witnesses suffice? Harry saw McGonagall and Kingsley look at each other. There was fear in both faces. He did not understand what was going on, and neither apparently did Fudge. Statement? said Fudge slowly. What? I don't. Dumbledore's army, Cornelius said Dumbledore, still smiling as he waved the list of names before Fudge's face. Not Potter's army. Dumbledore's army. But, but... Understanding blazed suddenly in Fudge's face. He took a horrified step backward, yelped, and jumped out of the fire again. You... he whispered, stamping again on his smoldering cloak. That's right, said Dumbledore pleasantly. You organized this. I did, said Dumbledore. You recruited these students for, for your army? Tonight was supposed to be the first meeting, said Dumbledore, nodding, merely to see whether they would be interested in joining me. I see now that it was a mistake to invite Miss Edgecombe, of course. Marietta nodded. Fudge looked from her to Dumbledore, his chest swelling. Then you have been plotting against me, he yelled. That's right, said Dumbledore cheerfully. No, shouted Harry. Kingsley flashed a look of warning at him. McGonagall widened her eyes threateningly, but it had suddenly dawned upon Harry what Dumbledore was about to do, and he could not let it happen. No, Professor Dumbledore, be quiet, Harry, or I am afraid you will have to leave my office, said Dumbledore calmly. Yes, shut up. Potter, barked Fudge, who was still ogling Dumbledore with a kind of horrified delight. Well, 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 I came here tonight expecting to expel Potter, and instead...
Instead, you get to arrest me, said Dumbledore, smiling. It's like losing a canut and finding a galleon, isn't it? Weasley, cried Fudge, now positively quivering with delight. Weasley, have you written it all down? Everything he said, his confession, have you got it? Yes, sir, I think so, sir, said Percy eagerly, whose nose was splattered with ink from the speed of his note-taking. The bit about how he's been trying to build up an army against the Ministry? How he's been working to destabilize me? Yes, sir, I've got it. Yes, said Percy, scanning his notes joyfully. Very well, then, said Fudge, now radiant with glee. Duplicate your notes, Weasley, and send a copy to the Daily Prophet at once. If we send a fast owl, we should make the morning edition. Percy dashed from the room, slamming the door behind him, and Fudge turned back to Dumbledore. You will now be escorted back to the Ministry, where you will be formally charged and then sent to Azkaban to await trial. Ah, said Dumbledore gently, yes. Yes, I thought we might hit that little snag. Snag? said Fudge, his voice still vibrating with joy. I see no snag, Dumbledore. Well, said Dumbledore apologetically, I'm afraid I do. Oh, really? Well, it's just that you seem to be laboring under the delusion that I am going to... What is the phrase? Come quietly. I am afraid I am not going to come quietly at all, Cornelius. I have absolutely no intention of being sent to Azkaban. I could break out, of course. But what a waste of time, and frankly, I can think of a whole host of things I would rather be doing. Umbridge's face was growing steadily redder. She looked as though she was being filled with boiling water. Fudge stared at Dumbledore with a very silly expression on his face, as though he had just been stunned by a sudden blow and could not quite believe it had happened. He made a small choking noise and then looked around at Kingsley and the man with short grey hair, who alone of everyone in the room had remained entirely silent so far. The latter gave Fudge a reassuring nod and moved forward a little, away from the wall. Harry saw his hand drift almost casually toward his pocket. Don't be silly, Dawlish, said Dumbledore kindly. I'm sure you are an excellent Auror. I seem to remember that you achieved outstanding in all your N.E.W.T.s, but if you attempt to, uh, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you. The man called Dawlish blinked, looking rather foolish. He looked toward Fudge again, but this time seemed to be hoping for a clue as to what to do next. So, sneered Fudge, recovering himself, you intend to take on Dawlish, Shacklebolt, Dolores, and myself single-handed, do you, Dumbledore? Merlin's beard, no, said Dumbledore, smiling. Not unless you were foolish enough to force me to. He will not be single-handed, said Professor McGonagall loudly, plunging her hand inside her robes. Oh, yes, he will, Minerva, said Dumbledore sharply. Hogwarts needs you. Enough of this rubbish, said Fudge, pulling out his own wand. Dawlish, Shacklebolt, take him! A streak of silver light flashed around the room. There was a bang like a gunshot, and the floor trembled. A hand grabbed the scruff of Harry's neck and forced him down on the floor as a second silver flash went off. Several of the portraits yelled, forks screeched, and a cloud of dust filled the air. 
Coughing in the dust, Harry saw a dark figure fall to the ground with a crash in front of him. There was a shriek and a thud, and somebody cried, No! Then the sound of breaking glass, frantically scuffling footsteps, a groan, and silence. Harry struggled around to see who was half-strangling him, and saw Professor McGonagall crouched beside him. She had forced both him and Marietta out of harm's way. Dust was still floating gently down through the air onto them. Panting slightly, Harry saw a very tall figure moving toward them. "'Are you all right?' said Dumbledore. "'Yes,' said Professor McGonagall, getting up and dragging Harry and Marietta with her. The dust was clearing. The wreckage of the office loomed into view. Dumbledore's desk had been overturned. All of the spindly tables had been knocked to the floor, their silver instruments in pieces. Fudge, Umbridge, Kingsley, and Dawlish lay motionless on the floor. Forks, the phoenix, soared in wide circles above them, singing softly. "'Unfortunately, I had to hex Kingsley, too, or it would have looked very suspicious,' said Dumbledore in a low voice. "'He was remarkably quick on the uptake, modifying Miss Edgecombe's memory like that while everyone was looking the other way. Thank him for me, won't you, Minerva?' Now, they will all awake very soon, and it will be best if they do not know that we had time to communicate. You must act as though no time has passed, as though they were merely knocked to the ground. They will not remember. Where will you go, Dumbledore? whispered Professor McGonagall. Grim old place. Oh, no, said Dumbledore with a grim smile. I'm not leaving to go into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodged me from Hogwarts, I promise you. Professor Dumbledore, Harry began. He did not know what to say first. How sorry he was that he had started the DA in the first place and caused all this trouble, or how terrible he felt that Dumbledore was leaving to save him from expulsion. But Dumbledore cut him off before he could say another word. Listen to me, Harry, he said urgently. You must study occlumency as hard as you can. Do you understand me? Do everything Professor Snape tells you and practice it, particularly every night before sleeping, so that you can close your mind to bad dreams. You will understand why soon enough, but you must promise me. The man called Dawlish was stirring. Dumbledore seized Harry's wrist. Remember, close your mind. But as Dumbledore's fingers closed over Harry's skin, a pain shot through the scar on his forehead, and he felt again that terrible snake-like longing to strike Dumbledore, to bite him, to hurt him. You will understand whispered Dumbledore. Fork circled the office and swooped low over him. Dumbledore released Harry, raised his hand, and grasped the phoenix's long golden tail. There was a flash of fire, and the pair of them had gone. "'Where is he?' yelled Fudge, pushing himself up from the ground. "'Where is he?' "'I don't know,' shouted Kingsley, also leaping to his feet. "'Well, he can't have disapparated,' cried Umbridge. "'You can't inside this school.' "'The stairs!' cried Dawlish, and he flung himself upon the door, wrenched it open, and disappeared, followed closely by Kingsley and Umbridge. Fudge hesitated, then got to his feet slowly, brushing dust from his front. There was a long and painful silence. "'Well, Minerva,' said Fudge nastily, straightening his torn shirt-sleeve, "'I'm afraid this is the end of your friend Dumbledore.' "'You think so, do you?' said Professor McGonagall scornfully. Fudge seemed not to hear her. 
He was looking around at the wrecked office. A few of the portraits hissed at him. One or two even made rude hand gestures. "'You'd better get those two off to bed,' said Fudge, looking back at Professor McGonagall with a dismissive nod toward Harry and Marietta. She said nothing, but marched Harry and Marietta to the door. As it swung closed behind them, Harry heard Phineas Nigellus's voice. "'You know, Minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, but you cannot deny he's got style.'" Chapter 28 Snape's Worst Memory By order of the Ministry of Magic, Dolores Jane Umbridge, High Inquisitor, has replaced Albus Dumbledore as head of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The above is in accordance with Educational Decree Number 28, signed Cornelius Oswald Fudge, Minister of Magic. The notices had gone up all over the school overnight, but they did not explain how every single person within the castle seemed to know that Dumbledore had overcome two aurors, the High Inquisitor, the Minister of Magic, and his junior assistant to escape. No matter where Harry went within the castle next day, the sole topic of conversation was Dumbledore's flight, and though some of the details might have gone awry in the retelling, Harry overheard one second-year girl assuring another that Fudge was now lying in St. Mungo's with a pumpkin for a head. It was surprising how accurate the rest of their information was. Everybody seemed aware, for instance, that Harry and Marietta were the only students to have witnessed the scene in Dumbledore's office. And as Marietta was now in the hospital wing, Harry found himself besieged with requests to give a first-hand account wherever he went. "'Dumbledore'll be back before long!' said Ernie Macmillan confidently, on the way back from Herbology after listening intently to Harry's story. They couldn't keep him away in our second year, and they won't be able to this time. The fat friar told me. He dropped his voice conspiratorially, so that Harry, Ron, and Hermione had to lean closer to him to hear that Umbridge tried to get back into his office last night after they'd searched the castle and grounds for him. Couldn't get past the gargoyle. The head's officer sealed itself against her. Ernie smirked. Apparently she had a right little tantrum. Oh, I expect she really fancied herself sitting up there in the head's office, said Hermione viciously as they walked up the stone steps into the entrance hall. Lording it over all the other teachers, the stupid puffed-up power-crazy old... Now, do you really want to finish that sentence, Granger? Draco Malfoy had slid out from behind the door, closely followed by Crabbe and Goyle. His pale, pointed face was alight with malice. "'Afraid I'm going to have to dock a few points from Gryffindor and Hufflepuff,' he drawled. "'It's only teachers that can dock points from houses, Malfoy,' said Ernie at once. "'Yeah, we're prefects too, remember?' snarled Ron. "'I know prefects can't dock points, Weasel King.' sneered Malfoy. Crabbe and Goyle sniggered. But members of the Inquisitorial Squad... The what? said Hermione sharply. The Inquisitorial Squad, Granger, said Malfoy, pointing toward a tiny silver eye upon his robes just beneath his prefect's badge. A select group of students who are supportive of the Ministry of Magic. Hand-picked by Professor Umbridge, anyway. Members of the Inquisitorial Squad do have the power to dock points, so, Granger, I'll have five from you for being rude about our new headmistress, 
Macmillan, five for contradicting me. Five because I don't like you, Potter. Weasley, your shirt's untucked, so I'll have another five for that. Oh, yeah, I forgot. You're a mudblood, Granger, so ten for that. Ron pulled out his wand, but Hermione pushed it away, whispering, Don't! Wise move, Granger, breathed Malfoy. New head, new times. Be good now, Potty, Weasel King. He strode away, laughing heartily with Crabbe and Goyle. He was bluffing, said Ernie, looking appalled. He can't be allowed to dock points. That would be ridiculous. It would completely undermine the prefect system. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione had turned automatically toward the giant hourglasses set in niches along the wall behind them, which recorded the house points. Gryffindor and Ravenclaw had been neck and neck in the lead that morning. Even as they watched, stones flew upward, reducing the amounts in the lower bulbs. In fact, the only glass that seemed unchanged was the emerald-filled one of Slytherin. "'Noticed, have you?' said Fred's voice. He and George had just come down the marble staircase and joined Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ernie in front of the hourglasses. "'Malfoy just docked us all about fifty points,' said Harry furiously, as they watched several more stones fly upward from the Gryffindor hourglass. "'Yeah, Montague tried to do us during break.' said George. What do you mean, tried? said Ron quickly. He never managed to get all the words out, said Fred, due to the fact that we forced him headfirst into that vanishing cabinet on the first floor. Hermione looked very shocked. But you'll get into terrible trouble. Not until Montague reappears, and that could take weeks. I don't know where we sent him, said Fred coolly. Anyway, we've decided we don't care about getting into trouble anymore. Have you ever? asked Hermione. Of course we have, said George. Never been expelled, have we? We've always known where to draw the line, said Fred. We might have put a toe across it occasionally, said George. But we always stop short of causing real mayhem, said Fred. But now, said Ron tentatively. Well, now, said George. What with Dumbledore gone, said Fred. We reckon a bit of mayhem, said George, is exactly what our dear new head deserves said Fred. You mustn't, whispered Hermione. You really mustn't. She'd love a reason to expel you. You don't get it, Hermione, do you? said Fred, smiling at her. We don't care about staying anymore. We'd walk out right now if we weren't determined to do our bit for Dumbledore first. So, anyway, he checked his watch. Phase one is about to begin. I'd get in the Great Hall for lunch if I were you. That way the teachers will see you can't have had anything to do with it. Anything to do with what? said Hermione anxiously. You'll see, said George. Run along now. Fred and George turned away and disappeared in the swelling crowd descending the stairs toward lunch. Looking highly disconcerted, Ernie muttered something about unfinished transfiguration homework and scurried away. I think we should get out of here, you know, said Hermione nervously, just in case. Yeah, all right, said Ron and the three of them moved toward the doors to the great hall. But Harry had barely glimpsed today's ceiling of scudding white clouds when somebody tapped him on the shoulder, and, turning, he found himself almost nose to nose with Filch, the caretaker. He took several hasty steps backward. Filch was best viewed at a distance. The headmistress would like to see you, Potter, he leered. I didn't do it, said Harry stupidly, thinking of whatever Fred and George were planning. 
Filch's jowls wobbled with silent laughter. Guilty conscience, hey? He wheezed. Follow me. Harry glanced back at Ron and Hermione, who were both looking worried. He shrugged and followed Filch back into the entrance hall against the tide of hungry students. Filch seemed to be in an extremely good mood. He hummed creakily under his breath as they climbed the marble staircase. As they reached the first landing, he said, Things are changing around here, Potter. I've noticed, said Harry coldly. Yes, I've been telling Dumbledore for years and years he's too soft with you all, said Filch, chuckling nastily. You filthy little beast would never have dropped stink pellets if you'd known I had it in my power to whip you raw, would you now? Nobody would have thought of throwing fanged frisbees down the corridors if I could have strung you up by the ankles in my office, would they? But when Educational Decree 29 comes in, Potter, I'll be allowed to do them things. And she's asked the minister to sign an order for the expulsion of Peeves. Oh, things are going to be very different around here with her in charge. Umbridge had obviously gone to some lengths to get Filch on her side, Harry thought and the worst of it was that he would probably prove an important weapon. His knowledge of the school's secret passageways and hiding places was probably second only to the Weasley twins. Here we are, he said, leering down at Harry as he rapped three times upon Professor Umbridge's door and pushed it open. The Potter boy to see you, ma'am. Umbridge's office, so very familiar to Harry from his many detentions, was the same as usual except for the large wooden block lying across the front of her desk on which golden letters spelled the word Headmistress. Also his Firebolt and Fred's and George's clean sweeps, which he saw with a pang, were now chained and padlocked to a stout iron peg in the wall behind the desk. Umbridge was sitting behind the desk, busily scribbling upon some of her pink parchment, but looked up and smiled widely at their entrance. Thank you, Argus, she said sweetly. Not at all, ma'am, not at all said Filch, bowing as low as his rheumatism would permit, and exiting backward. Sit, said Umbridge curtly, pointing toward a chair, and Harry sat. She continued to scribble for a few moments. He watched some of the foul kittens gambling around the plates over her head, wondering what fresh horror she had in store for him. Well now, she said finally, setting down her quill and surveying him complacently like a toad about to swallow a particularly juicy fly. What would you like to drink? What? said Harry, quite sure he had misheard her. To drink, Mr. Potter, she said, smiling still more widely. Tea? Coffee? Pumpkin juice? As she named each drink, she gave her short wand a wave, and a cup or glass of it appeared upon her desk. Nothing, thank you, said Harry. I wish you to have a drink with me, she said, her voice becoming more dangerously sweet. Choose one. Fine. Tea, then, said Harry, shrugging. She got up and made quite a performance of adding milk with her back to him. She then bustled around the desk with it, smiling in sinisterly sweet fashion. There, she said, handing it to him. Drink it before it gets cold, won't you? Well, now, Mr. Potter, I thought we ought to have a little chat after the distressing events of last night. He said nothing. She settled herself back into her seat and waited. When several long moments had passed in silence, she said gaily, You're not drinking up? He raised the cup to his lips and then just as suddenly lowered it. One of the horrible painted kittens behind Umbridge had great round blue eyes, just like Mad-Eye Moody's magical one, 
and it had just occurred to Harry what Mad-Eye would say if he ever heard that Harry had drunk anything offered by a known enemy. What's the matter? said Umbridge, who was still watching him closely. Do you want sugar? No, said Harry. He raised the cup to his lips again and pretended to take a sip, though keeping his mouth tightly closed. Umbridge's smile widened. Good, she whispered. Very good. Now then, she leaned forward a little. Where is Albus Dumbledore? No idea, said Harry promptly. Drink up, drink up, she said, still smiling. Now, Mr. Potter, let us not play childish games. I know that you know where he has gone. You and Dumbledore have been in this together from the beginning. Consider your position, Mr. Potter. I don't know where he is, Harry repeated. He pretended to drink again. She was watching him very closely. Very well, she said, though she looked displeased. In that case, you will kindly tell me the whereabouts of Sirius Black. Harry's stomach turned over, and his hand holding the teacup shook so that the cup rattled in its saucer. He tilted the cup to his mouth with his lips pressed together so that some of the hot liquid trickled down onto his robes. I don't know, he said a little too quickly. Mr. Potter, said Umbridge, let me remind you that it was I who almost caught the criminal black in the Gryffindor fire in October. I know perfectly well it was you he was meeting, and if I had had any proof, neither of you would be at large today. I promise you. I repeat, Mr. Potter, where is Sirius Black? No idea, said Harry loudly. Haven't got a clue. They stared at each other so long that Harry felt his eyes watering. Then she stood up. Very well, Potter. I will take your word for it this time. But be warned. The might of the Ministry stands behind me. All channels of communication in and out of this school are being monitored. A flu network regulator is keeping watch over every fire in Hogwarts, except my own, of course. My inquisitorial squad is opening and reading all owl posts entering and leaving the castle. And Mr. Filch is observing all secret passages in and out of the castle. If I find a shred of evidence... Boom! The very floor of the office shook. Umbridge slipped sideways, clutching her desk for support, looking shocked. What was... She was gazing toward the door. Harry took the opportunity to empty his almost full cup of tea into the nearest vase of dried flowers. He could hear people running and screaming several floors below. Back to lunch with you, Potter, cried Umbridge, raising her wand and dashing out of the office. Harry gave her a few seconds start, then hurried after her to see what the source of all the uproar was. It was not difficult to find. One floor down pandemonium reigned. Somebody, and Harry had a very shrewd idea who, had set off what seemed to be an enormous crate of enchanted fireworks. Dragons, comprised entirely of green and gold sparks, were soaring up and down the corridors, emitting loud fiery blasts and bangs as they went. Shocking pink Catherine wheels, five feet in diameter, were whizzing lethally through the air like so many flying saucers. Rockets, with long tails of brilliant silver stars, were ricocheting off the walls. Sparklers were writing swear words in midair of their own accord. Firecrackers were exploding like mines everywhere Harry looked. And, instead of burning themselves out, fading from sight or fizzling to a halt, these pyrotechnical miracles seemed to be gaining in energy and momentum the longer he watched. Filch and Umbridge were standing, apparently transfixed with horror, halfway down the stairs. 
As Harry watched, one of the larger Catherine wheels seemed to decide that what it needed was more room to maneuver. It whirled toward Umbridge and Filch with a sinister whee. Both adults yelled with fright and ducked, and it soared straight out of the window behind them and off across the grounds. Meanwhile, several of the dragons and a large purple bat that was smoking ominously took advantage of the open door at the end of the corridor to escape toward the second floor. Hurry, Filch, hurry! shrieked Umbridge. They'll be all over the school unless we do something. Stupefy! A jet of red light shot out of the end of her wand and hit one of the rockets. Instead of freezing in midair, it exploded with such force that it blasted a hole in a painting of a soppy-looking witch in the middle of a meadow. She ran for it just in time, reappearing seconds later squashed into the painting next door, where a couple of wizards playing cards stood up hastily to make room for her. Don't stun them, Filch! shouted Umbridge angrily, for all the world as though it had been his suggestion. Right you are, headmistress, wheezed Filch, who was a squib and could no more have stunned the fireworks than swallowed them. He dashed to a nearby cupboard, pulled out a broom, and began swatting at the fireworks in midair. Within seconds the head of the broom was ablaze. Harry had seen enough. Laughing, he ducked down low, ran to a door he knew was concealed behind a tapestry a little way along the corridor, and slipped through it to find Fred and George hiding just behind it, listening to Umbridge's and Filch's yells and quaking with suppressed mirth. Impressive, Harry said quietly, grinning. Very impressive. You'll put Dr. Filibuster out of business, no problem. Cheers, whispered George, wiping tears of laughter from his face. Oh, I hope she tries vanishing them next. They multiply by ten every time you try. The fireworks continued to burn and to spread all over the school that afternoon. Though they caused plenty of disruption, particularly the firecrackers, the other teachers did not seem to mind them very much. Dear, dear, said Professor McGonagall sardonically, as one of the dragons soared around her classroom, emitting loud bangs and exhaling flame. Miss Brown, would you mind running along to the headmistress and informing her that we have an escaped firework in our classroom? The upshot of it all was that Professor Umbridge spent her first afternoon as headmistress running all over the school, answering the summonses of the other teachers, none of whom seemed able to rid their rooms of the fireworks without her. When the final bell rang and the students were heading back to Gryffindor Tower with their bags, Harry saw, with immense satisfaction, a disheveled and soot-blackened Umbridge, tottering, sweaty-faced, from Professor Flitwick's classroom. Thank you so much, Professor said Professor Flitwick in his squeaky little voice. I could have got rid of the sparklers myself, of course, but I wasn't sure whether I had the authority. Beaming, he closed his classroom door in her snarling face. Fred and George were heroes that night in the Gryffindor common room. Even Hermione fought her way through the excited crowd around them to congratulate them. They were wonderful fireworks, she said admiringly. Thanks, said George, looking both surprised and pleased. Weasley's wildfire whizbangs. Only thing is, we use our whole stock. We're going to have to start again from scratch now. It was worth it, though, said Fred, who was taking orders from clamoring Gryffindors. If you want to add your name to the waiting list, Hermione, it's five galleons for your basic blaze books and twenty for the deflagration deluxe. Hermione returned to the table, where Harry and Ron were sitting, staring at their school bags as though hoping their homework might spring out of it and start doing itself. Oh, why don't we have a night off? 
said Hermione brightly, as a silver-tailed Weasley rocket zoomed past the window. After all, the Easter holidays start on Friday. We'll have plenty of time then. Are you feeling all right? Ron asked, staring at her in disbelief. Now you mention it, said Hermione happily. Do you know, I think I'm feeling a bit rebellious. Harry could still hear the distant bangs of escaped firecrackers when he and Ron went up to bed an hour later. And as he got undressed, a sparkler floated past the tower, still resolutely spelling out the word poo. He got into bed, yawning. With his glasses off, the occasional fireworks still passing the window became blurred, looking like sparkling clouds, beautiful and mysterious against the black sky. He turned onto his side, wondering how Umbridge was feeling about her first day in Dumbledore's job, and how Fudge would react when he heard that the school had spent most of the day in a state of advanced disruption. Smiling to himself, he closed his eyes. The whizzes and bangs of escaped fireworks in the grounds seemed to be growing more distant, or perhaps he, Harry, was simply speeding away from them. He had fallen right into the corridor leading to the Department of Mysteries. He was speeding toward the plain black door. Let it open! Let it open! It did. He was inside the circular room lined with doors. He crossed it, placed his hand upon an identical door, and it swung inward. Now he was in a long, rectangular room full of an odd mechanical clicking. There were dancing flecks of light on the walls, but he did not pause to investigate. He had to go on. There was a door at the far end. It, too, opened at his touch. And now he was in a dimly lit room as high and wide as a church, full of nothing but rows and rows of towering shelves, each laden with small, dusty, spun-glass spheres. Now Harry's heart was beating fast with excitement. He knew where to go. He ran forward, but his footsteps made no noise in the enormous deserted room. There was something in this room he wanted very, very much. Something he wanted, or somebody else wanted. His scar was hurting. Bang! Harry awoke instantly, confused and angry. The dark dormitory was full of the sound of laughter. Cool! said Seamus, who was silhouetted against the window. I think one of those Catherine wheels hit a rocket, and it's like they mated. Come and see. Harry heard Ron and Dean scramble out of bed for a better look. He lay quite still and silent while the pain in his scar subsided and disappointment washed over him. He felt as though a wonderful treat had been snatched from him at the very last moment. He had got so close that time. Glittering pink and silver winged piglets were now soaring past the windows of Gryffindor Tower. Harry lay and listened to the appreciative whoops of Gryffindors in the dormitories below them. His stomach gave a sickening jolt as he remembered that he had occlumency the following evening. Harry spent the whole of the next day dreading what Snape was going to say if he found out how much farther into the Department of Mysteries he had penetrated during his last dream. With a surge of guilt, he realized that he had not practiced occlumency once since their last lesson. There had been too much going on since Dumbledore had left. He was sure he would not have been able to empty his mind even if he had tried. He doubted, however, whether Snape would accept that excuse. He attempted a little last-minute practice during classes that day, but it was no good. Hermione kept asking him what was wrong whenever he felt silent trying to rid himself of all thought and emotion, and, after all, the best moment to empty his brain was not while teachers were firing review questions at the class. 
Resigned to the worst, he set off for Snape's office after dinner. Halfway across the entrance hall, however, Cho came hurrying up to him. Over here, said Harry, glad of a reason to postpone his meeting with Snape, and beckoning her across to the corner of the entrance hall where the giant hourglasses stood. Gryffindor's was now almost empty. Are you okay? Umbridge hasn't been asking you about the D.A., has she? Oh, no, said Cho hurriedly. No, it was only... Well, I just wanted to say, Harry, I never dreamed Marietta would tell. Yeah, well, said Harry moodily. He did feel Cho might have chosen her friends a bit more carefully. It was small consolation that the last he had heard, Marietta was still up in the hospital wing and Madame Pomfrey had not been able to make the slightest improvement to her pimples. "'She's a lovely person, really,' said Cho. "'She just made a mistake.' Harry looked at her incredulously. "'A lovely person who made a mistake? She sold us all out, including you.' "'Well, we all got away, didn't we?' said Cho pleadingly. "'You know, her mum works for the Ministry. It's really difficult for her.' Ron's dad works for the Ministry, too, Harry said furiously, and in case you hadn't noticed, he hasn't got sneak written across his face. That was a really horrible trick of Hermione Granger's, said Cho fiercely. She should have told us she jinxed that list. I think it was a brilliant idea, said Harry coldly. Cho flushed and her eyes grew brighter. Oh, yes, I forgot, of course. If it was darling Hermione's idea. Don't start crying again said Harry warningly. I wasn't going to, she shouted. Yeah, well, good, he said. I've got enough to cope with at the moment. Go and cope with it then, she said furiously, turning on her heel and stalking off. Fuming, Harry descended the stairs to Snape's dungeon and, though he knew from experience how much easier it would be for Snape to penetrate his mind if he arrived angry and resentful, he succeeded in nothing but thinking of a few more good things he should have said to Cho about Marietta before reaching the dungeon door. "'You're late, Potter,' said Snape coldly, as Harry closed the door behind him. Snape was standing with his back to Harry, removing as usual certain of his thoughts and placing them carefully in Dumbledore's pensive. He dropped the last silvery strand into the stone basin and turned to face Harry. "'So,' he said, have you been practicing? Yes, Harry lied, looking carefully at one of the legs of Snape's desk. Well, we'll soon find out, won't we? said Snape smoothly. Wand out, Potter. Harry moved into his usual position, facing Snape with the desk between them. His heart was pumping fast with anger at Cho and anxiety about how much Snape was about to extract from his mind. On the count of three, then, said Snape lazily. One, two. Snape's office door banged open and Draco Malfoy sped in. Professor Snape, sir, oh, sorry. Malfoy was looking at Snape and Harry in some surprise. It's all right, Draco, said Snape, lowering his wand. Potter is here for a little remedial potions. Harry had not seen Malfoy look so gleeful since Umbridge had turned up to inspect Hagrid. I didn't know, he said, leering at Harry, who knew his face was burning. He would have given a great deal to be able to shout the truth at Malfoy, or even better, to hit him with a good curse. Well, Draco, what is it? asked Snape. It's Professor Umbridge, sir. She needs your help, said Malfoy. 
They've found Montague, sir. He's turned up, jammed inside a toilet on the fourth floor. How did he get in there? demanded Snape. I don't know, sir. He's a bit confused. Very well, very well. Potter, said Snape, we shall resume this lesson tomorrow evening instead. He turned and swept from his office. Malfoy mouthed, remedial potions, at Harry behind Snape's back before following him. Seething, Harry replaced his wand inside his robes and made to leave the room. At least he had twenty-four more hours in which to practice. He knew he ought to feel grateful for the narrow escape, though it was hard that it came at the expense of Malfoy telling the whole school that he needed remedial potions. He was at the office door when he saw it, a patch of shivering light dancing on the doorframe. He stopped, looking at it, reminded of something. Then he remembered. It was a little like the lights he had seen in his dream last night, the lights in the second room he had walked through on his journey through the Department of Mysteries. He turned around. The light was coming from the pensive sitting on Snape's desk. The silver-white contents were ebbing and swirling within. Snape's thoughts. Things he did not want Harry to see if he broke through Snape's defences accidentally. Harry gazed at the pensive, curiosity welling inside him. What was it that Snape was so keen to hide from Harry? The silvery lights shivered on the wall. Harry took two steps toward the desk, thinking hard. Could it possibly be information about the Department of Mysteries that Snape was determined to keep from him? Harry looked over his shoulder, his heart now pumping harder and faster than ever. How long would it take Snape to release Montague from the toilet? Would he come straight back to his office afterward, or accompany Montague to the hospital wing? Surely the latter. Montague was captain of the Slithering Quidditch team. Snape would want to make sure he was all right. Harry walked the remaining few feet to the pensive and stood over it, gazing into its depths. He hesitated, listening, then pulled out his wand again. The office and the corridor beyond were completely silent. He gave the contents of the pensive a small prod with the end of his wand. The silvery stuff within began to swirl very fast. Harry leaned forward over it and saw that it had become transparent. He was once again looking down into a room as though through a circular window in the ceiling. In fact, unless he was much mistaken, he was looking down upon the great hall. His breath was actually fogging the surface of Snape's thoughts. His brain seemed to be in limbo. It would be insane to do the thing that he was so strongly tempted to do. He was trembling. Snape could be back at any moment. But Harry thought of Cho's anger, of Malfoy's jeering face, and a reckless daring seized him. He took a great gulp of breath and plunged his face into the surface of Snape's thoughts. At once the floor of the office lurched, tipping Harry head-first into the pensive. He was falling through cold blackness, spinning furiously as he went, and then he was standing in the middle of the great hall, but the four house tables were gone. Instead there were more than a hundred smaller tables, all facing the same way, at each of which sat a student, head bent low, scribbling on a roll of parchment. The only sound was the scratching of quills and the occasional rustle as somebody adjusted their parchment. It was clearly exam time. Sunshine was streaming through the high windows onto the bent heads, which shone chestnut and copper and gold in the bright light. Harry looked around carefully. Snape had to be here somewhere. This was his memory. And there he was, at a table right behind Harry. 
Harry stared. Snape, the teenager, had a stringy, pallid look about him, like a plant kept in the dark. His hair was lank and greasy and was flopping onto the table, his hooked nose barely half an inch from the surface of the parchment as he scribbled. Harry moved around behind Snape and read the heading of the examination paper. Defense Against the Dark Arts. Ordinary Wizarding Level. So, Snape had to be fifteen or sixteen, around Harry's own age? His hand was flying across the parchment. He had written at least a foot more than his closest neighbors, and yet his writing was minuscule and cramped. Five more minutes. The voice made Harry jump. Turning, he saw the top of Professor Flitwick's head moving between the desks a short distance away. Professor Flitwick was walking past a boy with untidy black hair. Very untidy black hair. Harry moved so quickly that had he been solid, he would have knocked desks flying. Instead, he seemed to slide dreamlike across two aisles and up a third. The back of the black-haired boy's head drew nearer and nearer. He was straightening up now, putting down his quill, pulling his roll of parchment toward him so as to reread what he had written. Harry stopped in front of the desk and gazed down at his fifteen-year-old father. Excitement exploded in the pit of his stomach. It was as though he was looking at himself, but with deliberate mistakes. James's eyes were hazel, his nose was slightly longer than Harry's, and there was no scar on his forehead. But they had the same thin face, same mouth, same eyebrows. James's hair stuck up at the back exactly as Harry's did. His hands could have been Harry's, and Harry could tell that when James stood up, they would be within an inch of each other's heights. James yawned hugely and rumpled up his hair, making it even messier than it had been. Then, with a glance toward Professor Flitwick, he turned in his seat and grinned at a boy sitting four seats behind him. With another shock of excitement, Harry saw Sirius give James the thumbs up. Sirius was lounging in his chair at his ease, tilting it back on two legs. He was very good-looking. His dark hair fell into his eyes with a sort of casual elegance neither James's nor Harry's could ever have achieved, and a girl sitting behind him was eyeing him hopefully, though he didn't seem to have noticed. And two seats along from this girl, Harry's stomach gave another pleasurable squirm, was Remus Lupin. He looked rather pale and peaky. Was the full moon approaching? And was absorbed in the exam. As he reread his answers, he scratched his chin with the end of his quill, frowning slightly. So that meant Wormtail had to be around here somewhere, too. And, sure enough, Harry spotted him within seconds, a small, mousy-haired boy with a pointed nose. Wormtail looked anxious. He was chewing his fingernails, staring down at his paper, scuffing the ground with his toes. Every now and then he glanced hopefully at his neighbor's paper. Harry stared at Wormtail for a moment then back at James, who was now doodling on a bit of scrap parchment. He had drawn a snitch and was now tracing the letters L-E. What did they stand for? Quills down, please, squeaked Professor Flitwick. That means you two step in. Please remain seated while I collect your parchment. Asio! More than a hundred rolls of parchment zoomed into the air and into Professor Flitwick's outstretched arms, knocking him backward off his feet. Several people laughed. A couple of students at the front desks got up, took hold of Professor Flitwick beneath the elbows, and lifted him onto his feet again. Thank you, thank you, panted Professor Flitwick. 
Very well, everybody. You're free to go. Harry looked down at his father, who had hastily crossed out the L.E. he had been embellishing, jumped to his feet, stuffed his quill and the exam question paper into his bag, which he slung over his back and stood waiting for Sirius to join him. Harry looked around and glimpsed Snape a short way away, moving between the tables toward the doors into the entrance hall, still absorbed in his own examination paper. Round-shouldered yet angular, he walked in a twitchy manner that recalled a spider, his oily hair swinging about his face. A gang of chattering girls separated Snape from James and Sirius, and by planting himself in the midst of this group, Harry managed to keep Snape in sight while straining his ears to catch the voices of James and his friends. Did you like question ten, Mooney? asked Sirius as they emerged into the entrance hall. Loved it, said Lupin briskly. Give five signs that identify the werewolf. Excellent question. Do you think you managed to get all the signs? said James in tones of mock concern. Think I did, said Lupin seriously, as they joined the crowd thronging around the front doors, eager to get out into the sunlit grounds. One, he's sitting on my chair. Two, he's wearing my clothes. Three, his name's Remus Lupin. Wormtail was the only one who didn't laugh. I got the snout shape, the pupils of the eyes, and the tufted tail, he said anxiously. But I couldn't think what else. How thick are you, Wormtail? said James impatiently. You run around with a werewolf once a month. Keep your voice down, implored Lupin. Harry looked anxiously behind him again. Snape remained close by, still buried in his examination questions. But this was Snape's memory, and Harry was sure that if Snape chose to wander off in a different direction once outside in the grounds, he, Harry, would not be able to follow James any farther. To his intense relief, however, when James and his three friends strode off down the lawn toward the lake, Snape followed, still poring over the paper and apparently with no fixed idea of where he was going. By jogging a little ahead of him, Harry managed to maintain a close watch on James and the others. Well, I thought that paper was a piece of cake, he heard Sirius say. I'll be surprised if I don't get outstanding on it at least. Me too, said James. He put his hand in his pocket and took out a struggling golden snitch. Where'd you get that? Nicked it, said James casually. He started playing with the snitch, allowing it to fly as much as a foot away and seizing it again. His reflexes were excellent. Wormtail watched him in awe. They stopped in the shade of the very same beech tree on the edge of the lake, where Harry, Ron, and Hermione had spent a Sunday finishing their homework and threw themselves down on the grass. Harry looked over his shoulder yet again and saw, to his delight, that Snape had settled himself on the grass in the dense shadows of a clump of bushes. He was as deeply immersed in the OWL paper as ever, which left Harry free to sit down on the grass between the beach and the bushes and watch the foursome under the tree. The sunlight was dazzling on the smooth surface of the lake, on the bank of which the group of laughing girls who had just left the great hall were sitting with shoes and socks off, cooling their feet in the water. Lupin had pulled out a book and was reading. Sirius stared around at the students milling over the grass, looking rather haughty and bored, but very handsomely so. James was still playing with the snitch, letting it zoom farther and farther away, almost escaping, but always grabbed at the last second. Wormtail was watching him with his mouth open. Every time James made a particularly difficult catch, Wormtail gasped and applauded. After five minutes of this, 
Harry wondered why James didn't tell Wormtail to get a grip on himself, but James seemed to be enjoying the attention. Harry noticed his father had a habit of rumpling up his hair, as though to make sure it did not get too tidy, and also that he kept looking over at the girls by the water's edge. "'Put that away, will you?' said Sirius finally, as James made a fine catch and Wormtail let out a cheer. "'Before Wormtail wets himself from excitement!' Wormtail turned slightly pink, but James grinned. "'If it bothers you,' he said, stuffing the snitch back in his pocket. Harry had the distinct impression that Sirius was the only one for whom James would have stopped showing off. "'I'm bored,' said Sirius. "'Wish it was full moon.' "'You might,' said Lupin darkly from behind his book. "'We've still got transfiguration. "'If you're bored, you could test me. "'Here.' He held out his book. Sirius snorted. I don't need to look at that rubbish. I know it all. This'll liven you up, Padfoot, said James quietly. Look who it is. Sirius's head turned. He had become very still like a dog that has scented a rabbit. Excellent, he said softly. Snivellous. Harry turned to see what Sirius was looking at. Snape was on his feet again and was stowing the OWL paper in his bag. As he emerged from the shadows of the bushes and set off across the grass, Sirius and James stood up. Lupin and Wormtail remained sitting. Lupin was still staring down at his book, though his eyes were not moving and a faint frown line had appeared between his eyebrows. Wormtail was looking from Sirius and James to Snape with a look of avid anticipation on his face. "'All right, Snivellus,' said James loudly. Snape reacted so fast it was as though he had been expecting an attack. Dropping his bag, he plunged his hand inside his robes, and his wand was halfway into the air when James shouted, Expelliarmus! Snape's wand flew twelve feet into the air and fell with a little thud in the grass behind him. Sirius let out a bark of laughter. Impedimenta! he said, pointing his wand at Snape, who was knocked off his feet halfway through a dive toward his own fallen wand. Students all around had turned to watch. Some of them had gotten to their feet and were edging nearer to watch. Some looked apprehensive, others entertained. Snape lay panting on the ground. James and Sirius advanced on him, wands up, James glancing over his shoulder at the girls at the water's edge as he went. Wormtail was on his feet now, watching hungrily, edging around Lupin to get a clearer view. "'How'd the exam go, Snivelly?' said James." I was watching him, his nose was touching the parchment, said Sirius viciously. There'll be great grease marks all over it. They won't be able to read a word. Several people watching laughed. Snape was clearly unpopular. Wormtail sniggered shrilly. Snape was trying to get up, but the jinx was still operating on him. He was struggling as though bound by invisible ropes. You wait! He panted, staring up at James with an expression of purest loathing. You wait. Wait for what? said Sirius coolly. What are you going to do, Snivelly? Wipe your nose on us? Snape let out a stream of mixed swear words and hexes, but his wand, being ten feet away, nothing happened. Wash out your mouth, said James coldly. Scourgeify! Pink soap bubbles streamed from Snape's mouth at once. The froth was covering his lips, making him gag, choking him. Leave him alone! James and Sirius looked around. James's free hand jumped to his hair again. It was one of the girls from the lake edge, 
She had thick, dark red hair that fell to her shoulders and startlingly green almond-shaped eyes. Harry's eyes. Harry's mother. All right, Evans, said James, and the tone of his voice was suddenly pleasant, deeper, more mature. Leave him alone, Lily repeated. She was looking at James with every sign of great dislike. What's he done to you? Well, said James, appearing to deliberate the point, it's more the fact that he exists, if you know what I mean. Many of the surrounding watchers laughed, Sirius and Wormtail included, but Lupin, still apparently intent on his book, didn't. And nor did Lily. You think you're funny, she said coldly, but you're just an arrogant, bullying toe-rag potter. Leave him alone. I will if you go out with me, Evans, said James quickly. Go on, go out with me, and I'll never lay a wand on old Snivelly again. Behind him, the impediment jinx was wearing off. Snape was beginning to inch toward his fallen wand, spitting out soap suds as he crawled. I wouldn't go out with you if it was a choice between you and the giant squid, said Lily. Bad luck, Prongs, said Sirius briskly, turning back to Snape. Oi! But too late, Snape had directed his wand straight at James. There was a flash of light, and a gash appeared on the side of James's face, spattering his robes with blood. James whirled about. A second flash of light later, Snape was hanging upside down in the air, his robes falling over his head to reveal skinny, pallid legs and a pair of greying underpants. Many people in the small crowd watching cheered. Sirius James and Wormtail roared with laughter. Lily, whose furious expression had twitched for an instant, as though she was going to smile, said, Let him down. Certainly, said James, and he jerked his wand upward. Snape fell into a crumpled heap on the ground. Disentangling himself from his robes, he got quickly to his feet, wand up, but Sirius said, Locomotor Mortis! And Snape keeled over again at once, rigid as a board. Leave him alone! Lily shouted. She had her own wand out now. James and Sirius eyed it warily. Ah, Evans, don't make me hex you, said James earnestly. Take the curse off him, then. James sighed deeply, then turned to Snape and muttered the counter-curse. "'There you go,' he said, as Snape struggled to his feet again. "'You're lucky Evans was here, Snivellus. "'I don't need help from filthy little mudbloods like her.' Lily blinked. "'Fine,' she said coolly. "'I won't bother in future, and I'd wash your pants if I were you, Snivellus. "'Apologize to Evans,' James roared at Snape, his wand pointed threateningly at him. I don't want you to make him apologize, Lily shouted, rounding on James. You're as bad as he is. What? yelped James. I'd never call you a you-know-what. Messing up your hair because you think it looks cool to look like you've just got off your broomstick. Showing off with that stupid snitch. Walking down corridors and hexing anyone who annoys you just because you can. I'm surprised your broomstick can get off the ground with that fat head on it. You make me sick. She turned on her heel and hurried away. Evans! James shouted after her. Hey, Evans! But she didn't look back. What is it with her? said James, trying and failing to look as though this was a throwaway question of no real importance to him. Reading between the lines, I'd say she thinks you're a bit conceited, mate, said Sirius. Right, said James, who looked furious now. Right. There was another flash of light 
and Snape was once again hanging upside down in the air. Who wants to see me take off Snivelly's pants? But whether James really did take off Snape's pants, Harry never found out. A hand had closed tight over his upper arm, closed with a pincer-like grip. Wincing, Harry looked around to see who had hold of him, and saw, with a thrill of horror, a fully-grown adult-sized Snape standing right beside him, white with rage. Having fun? Harry felt himself rising into the air. The summer's day evaporated around him. He was floating upward through icy blackness, Snape's hand still tight upon his upper arm. Then, with a swooping feeling as though he had turned head over heels in midair, his feet hit the stone floor of Snape's dungeon, and he was standing again beside the pensive on Snape's desk in the shadowy present-day Potions Master's study. So, said Snape, gripping Harry's arm so tightly Harry's hand was starting to feel numb. So, been enjoying yourself, Potter? Mm, no, said Harry, trying to free his arm. It was scary. Snape's lips were shaking, his face was white, his teeth were bared. Amusing man, your father, wasn't he? said Snape, shaking Harry so hard that his glasses slipped down his nose. I didn't... Snape threw Harry from him with all his might. Harry fell hard onto the dungeon floor. You will not repeat what you saw to anybody, Snape bellowed. No, said Harry, getting to his feet as far from Snape as he could. No, of course, I will— Get out! Get out! I don't want to see you in this office ever again! And as Harry hurtled toward the door, a jar of dead cockroaches exploded over his head. He wrenched the door open and flew away up the corridor, stopping only when he had put three floors between himself and Snape. There he leaned against the wall, panting and rubbing his bruised arm. He had no desire at all to return to Gryffindor Tower so early— nor to tell Ron and Hermione what he had just seen. What was making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers, knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him, and that, judging from what he had just seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him.